Test, 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 JD. Test, 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 Connor. JD, JD, JD. Connor, Connor, Connor. There we go. All right. I think we're in business here. Yeah. I, I think I, well, welcome to 12 Hour Day. Welcome to 12 Hour Day, episode 13. Is this episode 13? Yeah, because the last one was 12, right? Yeah. And this is the longest gap between episodes. It's the longest gap. Gap between episodes. episodes. It's the longest longest gap. gap. Between episodes. I actually don't know how that song goes, except for the very first part. What song? What we just made up? Or is that a reference to something? Did we do that before? I was sort of doing For the Longest Time. Oh, the uh, Billy Joel song? Yeah. Oh, it was a different melody than that. Exactly. That's what yeah. that's, in my It head, felt like an original to me. I didn't feel like we were spoofing anything. You know, I think that's a good way to create original stuff is to just... Bad memories of like... Yep. Like if, we, if, like if right now... We each mentioned songs we kind of knew. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, because the Billy Joel song goes, whoa, 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 for the longest, for the longest time. So it's a completely different structure to the sentence and everything. <laughs> but see, that's, I'm not a music guy. I'm not a musically driven person. Um, but yeah, so um, the first year that we did this podcast, we did six episodes. Yes. The second year, we did four episodes. Yep. The third year, we did two episodes. And this is... So this could be the only episode we do this year. This might year. be this By year. the pattern... And then uh, 2018, they'll not exist. Uh, no, maybe in, in 2018, we'll do 100 episodes. Oh, wait. Can I adjust something real quick? Of course. I'm sorry. This will take me a second. Will, will this part still be on the podcast? Probably. Yes. It'll remain. All right. Not this part, though. Might matter. No. You don't think so? We're, it's fine. We're back. We're back. What I was trying to figure out was, and on my other recorder, you can ch- choose the, the size of the file mm-hmm. so that if you keep recording, it'll break it into smaller chunks. Right. Because that saves us if we ever run out of battery or mess up, then we don't lose four hours, we only lose right. 15 minutes or whatever. Gotcha. But this doesn't... I don't think this does that. Um, anyways... But well, uh, but in terms of the content, what just happened was uh, JD took out a small instruction manual and just quietly read through it for a few minutes. You really just missed silence. Yeah. I guess I could have done that while we were recording, but I got too stressed out. No, I wanted your mind clear if it's a technical thing, you know? Because part of the joy of this podcast is that we do it and we can... Uh, for the first 20 minutes, I stress about whether it's working or not, but then yeah. after that, we just got to let it ride. Yeah. Um, but I think we should, I think I say this at the beginning of every podcast, but I think we should. Welcome, tr- people. Welcome. First timers. Welcome, first timers. I think maybe we should make this, this should be, this A episode. Reboot, reboot. Should be the official episode. You know how you season do. Season two. Yeah, you know how you do. We already announced the season two at one point. I think we probably did. Yeah. But you know how. People listen to podcasts and they're like, what's a good episode to start on? Right. This is the one. Let's make this the one. Yeah. Where your friends are always like, well, you can start at the beginning or start at episode 13. Right. So I'm JD. I'm Connor. I'm all about action. If you, th- if you want to think about what I look like, I'm, I'm buff. I'm handsome. Um, I got tattoos all over me. Tall drink of water. I'm a tall drink of water. Um, most of the things I just said aren't true. But um, but you'll never you'll never need to know which ones aren't. Yeah. Like you'll never need to know which ones aren't. Exactly. For the character that I'm playing now, I'm left-handed. The act 
actor JD is right. <laughs> Actually, I'm an actor playing a character right now is how I think of it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just being me. So, like... Don't uh, undercut me. <laughs> Don't, I, why'd you do that to me? It's not undercutting. It's, I'm saying, like... Fine, I'm just being me, too, then. I mean, you're being a character that just wants to be like that. No. No, uh, I, it's more like... Uh, JD plays a character when we do these podcasts. <laughs> this is the uh, most confusing beginning. <laughs> yeah, start with episode 13. Start with episode 13. <laughs> the first 20 minutes are a confusing walk down a path that leads nowhere. Um, well, here's one thing. Is that normally... For anyone who's ever listened to... That also could be the subtitle of our podcast. What? Here's one thing. Here's one thing. <laughs> um, the previous 12 episodes we've done. So for first-time listeners, know that like you can go back to the beginning at any point. Uh, because it could be... you know, JD and I, we're both uh, people who work in the entertainment industry and in show business. Um, and we, we both... We're, this wasn't true when we began the podcast. When, no. when we began the podcast, JD worked exclusively in show business, and I worked in a bookstore. Um, Which we say was such as in such a casual way now, but that was a main plot point of the first twelve episodes. Yes, or the first like eight episodes. Yeah, where does Connor work? Yeah, and now this lost like reveal is something that is tossed aside. In the first five minutes of episode yeah, it'd just 13. be like if if Lost came back and just the premise was like they're all dead and it's a magical <laughs> island. Um, <laughs> it's just a new show and you just spoilers, knew that. spoilers for Lost. Yeah, it's all right. Um, and then for a period of time, um, this so for a period of time, this is a podcast about two friends in New York, both involved in the comedy scene. I'm gonna dial this back. I would argue that it started as two friends, but more two people that intended to be friends. Yes. Because when we started, we didn't know each other that well. We liked each other. We liked each other, but we didn't, I think, ever really hang out that often. I think, I mean, we didn't just hang out. No. We always hung out with purpose, like, let's do a show. Let's go out after a show. Let's do a show. It was always show-based. But this, I think this podcast, we started knowing each other. Yeah. I'm not looking at anything. Oh, kind of, kind of looked over and with purpose, if, but no, I was just glancing to the side. Um, I, it started as two people who knew each other fairly well, but wanted to get to know each other better as friends. Yes, and I think by this point, we know all there is to know. Yeah, although uh, as this episode would indicate, at the moment we see each other less frequently than we have in the past. Yes, yes, just because it's busy. I mean, we we're usually in pretty good contact. We don't lose touch. But uh, things have gotten busy. So the arc of the episodes... This is a recap of the previous 12 episodes. <laughs> Welcome to the 12-hour day recap, recap show. So Every, this is no longer 12-hour day. This is actually... You're listening to episode one of the 12-hour day recap episode. This is a... Uh, episode. Every 13th episode... <laughs> Of 12-hour day, we recap the previous 12. Which happens every three years. Yeah. We never will recap the recap episode. No. Um, Everything that happens here is sort so of its, it's not going to fit neatly... Uh, going forward, it's not going to fit... Neat, you can't divide up the show by 12s going forward because episode 26 will be our next recap episode. Yes, and this is sort of like the TGIF Halloween episodes or like the What If comic book series. You can watch them and enjoy them, but they are not canon. Yeah, nothing that happens in this episode is canon. Steve Urkel wasn't, isn't actually dead. Right. The family members of Full House haven't turned into monsters. Yes. 
Um, also, the uh, the Simpsons uh, Treehouse of Horror. Yeah, it's like a Halloween episode. This is our Halloween this, episode. This is our uh, Halloween. We're filming it on April first, which is appropriate. This is April first, two thousand seventeen. Happy Halloween, everyone! Happy Halloween. Um, and trick or treat. Tweet us now. Let us know which you choose. At uh, tweet at one two three H-R. four. <laughs> no. Okay. Here's two tweets. First tweet at at one two three four. Five, six, seven, eight. Seven. And tweet, hey, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> tweet, hey, you got it. Or tweet, how'd you get this? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know. I hope at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight is not some horrible uh, uh, Twitter. Also, hashtag at TGIF Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> or. Or. <laughs> <laughs> or, I'm sorry. Or tweet at one two H R J D Connor with an O C O N N O R at one two H R J D C O N N O R and tweet trick or treat depending on which you choose. Yeah. Um, hashtag one two three four five six seven eight. Yes. Um. So the the show started out. The were podcast started you, were out. Were you saying that you hoped that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight wasn't like a like a racist, white, yeah, like some white supremacy Twitter? Well, or something. Why well, would they choose one, two, three, four, I'll five, tell you, six, I'll, seven, eight? I'll tell you why. But later in the podcast, I don't want to get into it yet. But I have a specific uh, thing about a hateful Twitter. But you're gonna have to. We're, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna deal that out to. Uh, our, uh, Casual listeners. Hour one, hour one listeners. Yeah, you can sort of think of yourself like um, you sort of unlock achievements like you would in a video game by listening deeper into the podcast. Yeah. And the rewards you get are more vulnerable content. Yeah. So you can think of this first 20 minutes as sort of a table of contents for the rest of the episode. Yeah. So it's a recap podcast table of contents mm-hmm. for a special Halloween episode of our podcast. So for the the early episodes were about two um, comedy friends who uh, didn't spend a lot of time around each other other than doing shows and then hanging out either pre or post show. Uh, then uh, the podcast evolved over time into a podcast about uh, a guy and his boss. <laughs> I uh, forgot about that period of time. Uh, we're now, and we're, that was because I was. Executive producer of the Chris Gethard show on Fusion, on Fusion, for which Connor was the, the warm-up, warm-up comic. comic. So JD hated that. That's what this podcast became. I found it. He hated that I described it this way. So I'm like, let's just say a podcast where uh, a boss and an employee hang out for twelve hours, <laughs> which sounds like the worst podcast of all time. <laughs> but I love that it evolved into that, um, and. But now, at now the it's moment, not it's not that. I don't work for you. It's two friends again. Um, I, I, I think we will probably work together in the future. And the weird thing is, I think there will be times when I work for you. Okay. And there will be times where we work together, where it doesn't feel like you're my yes. boss. There could be times when I work for you. I feel like that is the least likely of the three. But it's possible. It's possible, but a lot of things are possible in this world. Sure. Uh, if you were, if we were betting money on it, we know if we were like one of these three things won't happen, we know which one it would be. 
Maybe. Right? Uh, Unless you know for a fact you'd never hire me again. I could see you hire... Here's... Okay. Maybe you wouldn't. If you t- you'll tip your hand if you say, like, no, no. Some of those are likely. I'll be like, oh, JD is never going to hire me again. <laughs> I think there's a chance. Because the, the, there's a, a one area of status where you far exceed me, which is performance. Mm-hmm. There's a version of things yeah. where as, almost as something you're tossing to a friend, you hire me as a performer or something. Yes. In which you would be my boss. And the status would shift where I would follow your lead as to how best yeah. to perform something. Because um, we met as improvisers and performers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you've continued down that path and I sort of have it and I only dabble for fun. Yes. And you are now a working actor in many regards. A veteran, one of the top improvisers. At the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York City. I'm going to say period. But that's my... I don't mind the branding. Okay. It's sort of one of those things where it's like uh, Michelin approved. Like where there's... there's Other than maybe Second City, there's not another improv theater that has that same sort of like... Right. uh, Name cachet. Yeah, it's like a network. It's like being like, he's on a show. What's it on? Oh, it's on NBC. Oh, right. We know that. But like I could see you making something. And going, mm-hmm. hey, I need a small... Definitely. Do you want to play this thing? And in that case, I would be your boss, and I would have no... Well, we sort of had the, the closest to that dynamic with a show that uh, recently stopped existing. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, in which you did some of your finest work. Uh, my, my favorite work that you've done as an improviser in a show... We, we had a, a, a long-running show at UCB called The Terry Withers Mysteries, which was an improvised comedy uh, crime procedural. Yep, and then uh, Terry Withers, the star of that show, moved to Baltimore uh, for work to run the Baltimore Improv Group. At which point, uh, we did a holiday special spinning off one of the characters, and then uh, and then I got very excited because the first show went so well that I was like, we should do this for every holiday. And then quickly realized that the things that had gone, I'm still sort of baffled by it creatively because yeah. the things that went so well in the first one, because I think almost everything went well in that first one. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out a way to create a pleasing structure that worked for the remaining episodes. Now, a couple of things, because we did four shows, we did three shows total. And I, we yeah. did Terry with those mysteries together. Yes. But for the spinoff, you were, I sort of took a back seat. You were, because you were mostly busy, but also you uh, performed in, they were Frank the Snitch was a character in the Terry Withers mysteries. And we uh, Frasered him. We Frasered him. We overtly uh, just stole the structure from Frasier uh, and had a character move to Seattle and start a radio show and take care of his aging father. And uh, you were a performer in the show. And it was very, it was tr- the two mistakes I know I made, which were entirely my mistake, was um, being eager to take slots that in hindsight I was like, Shouldn't have grabbed that Friday night slot. It was a when it was a show that was designed to be like a midweek late night show with a certain kind of audience. It was something that you know because we had people that would follow episode to episode of the tour with his mystery. So this yeah. was sort of something that was both <laughs> a fun thing for them and maybe something that people could stumble on and be like, oh, what's this weird thing? Yeah, not something that should have been. Yeah, it was a hard show for prime time. Uh, for a Friday night audience that might have no idea what the show is, it was it was a uh, it became a show that was and might not have an idea what improv is. <laughs> yes, uh, it was a show, but it was, there was that, and it was also I 
liked all of the guest performers so much in the first show that I was like, let's bring everybody back. And probably would have been a better idea to mix it up more and have different people come in because that probably would have meant uh, less reliance on continuity. Yes. Uh, and more of a desire to like, it would be new to all the performers in the show in a way that would automatically translate to an audience being able to understand what was going on. And I think there's some aspect to it of um, it worked once with a certain cast, but then we just sort of repeated that. Yeah. And so the cast of improvisers decided to explore new territory, and that territory was like trying to hold water in a cracked glass. Yeah. It was like you can't hold it together, and it was finding areas that even though you wished and hoped it would not go there, of course it was going to go towards that weak point. And also, the first show was a, was a Christmas show. I have a feeling there was Christmas magic involved. Yes. And that didn't translate to the other things. But uh, it was an interesting experience because uh, I've had, generally in the time that I've been doing shows in New York City, most of them have gone pretty well. And even for these shows, even the ones that went badly... I would say 70 to 80% of the actual content of the show was still good. But when you have 20 to 30% not good, it feels like that's all I can remember. Yeah. Um, And I do want, for DCM, uh, you and Sebastian to still do... Sebastian Canale, a very funny performer who was the star of these shows, the two of you to do like a 10-minute show... Just like submit a bit show and do the radio thing because I think the segments... those submissions are over. No, no, not for the bit shows. They haven't even begun bit shows. Oh, really? Yeah. What was submitted was because uh, it's all different this year. What was submitted was if you are an improv team, like the Shucks submitted it right. or the house teams or whatever. So like the time to submit like Jump on Three or something like that would have passed, but the time to submit like Pie Babies or like ten minute. The Elkless Marathon, for people who don't know, is a yearly improv marathon where they do 10 stages, like three days nonstop, constant improv shows. Um, No, the bit shows and things like that are being submitted separately. And one of the things this year, it's all very complicated. I haven't submitted anything. Um, Sebastian will submit something and include you on it. (coughs) The thing with the bit shows is <coughs> you can only submit a bit show if you're already in another show that's in it. Oh, then I won't. No, no. You can't submit it, but Sebastian, uh, who's on the law oh, firm. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. It would just be that, like... Well, this is a weird process, huh? I think, yeah, it's a very complicated process this year, and my assumption with all things DCM is that the reason it's complicated is because it's a nightmare to organize, and so it's probably the kind of thing that is solving 20, un- 20 problems that... People who just yeah. perform in it have no idea that they're a nightmare for the people organizing it. But for the people who are like, wait, it's always been a certain way. <laughs> it's uh, it's like, well, why are you why aren't you doing it the same way? It's like, well, because we're going to get two thousand submissions for people who are like, I want to do this show. It's just like, no, yeah, um, yeah. I don't think I, I if I had to guess, I I would guess that I'm probably not doing DCM this year. Even if Sebastian submits you a, uh, I mean, I would do that. But I don't think I will partake in any of the other. Yeah. I just don't think DCM fits well on me anymore. Right. And also, you might be busy in the midst of busy stuff. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, episode 13. Episode 13. Here we are. Um, 
I let's talk a little bit about who we are. Let's talk about who we are. Actually, you know what? What? I'd prefer this. Let's talk about who each other are. Okay. So I, I I don't I don't feel comfortable talking about myself. All right. I'm gonna start with you. Okay. Here's the things I here I'm gonna we'll play this game. Here's the things I know about Connor. Oh, this is stressful. Really? Yeah. Go ahead. It's, it's you're gonna be really good at it. I'm gonna be like. Ugh. Are you kidding? It's <laughs> it stresses me out more to think about having to explain myself. Yeah. Do you ever have to do that? Maybe you don't have to do that so much where you have to, maybe you've done it with like agent meetings or things like that or industry stuff where people are like, so what, what do you want to do? Who are you? What's your, yeah. and trying to sum yourself up in like two sentences, especially mm-hmm. like creative aspirations. Right. I can't, I have things that I say, but I don't believe them. What's the thing you say that you don't believe? I feel real con- self-conscious saying it. This, oh, it's table of contents this for later. Okay. Can't, this is not for you first hour people. Yeah, this is for hour five. This is for like five or six. There's some vulnerability here. All right. The, re- people, the people who would judge me for those things, they'll be gone by then. I feel like because I'm a performer, I don't have to just explain myself a lot. I just need to look like whatever they're looking for. Right. You're like, well, it's what like, do you want to do? And you're like, well, I got this hair and this face, so yeah. this is sort of what I'm dealing with. Yeah. Um, Connor Ratliff. Connor Ratliff from Jefferson City, Missouri. I'm going to forget your town's name. That's okay. All right. You can't remember it? It's, uh, I always just bracket it to like Chicago. See, that's not fair. Well, I would always bracket you to St. Louis. You'd be like, no, I'm from Jefferson City. Uh, Evans? It's the town next to Evanston. What's next to Evanston? Uh, Brevenston? Won't. Won't town? Won't. Here's it. Won't Yankees. Won't Yankees. Flip oh. it. Will uh, Confederates. Nope. Baseball. Oh. Not war. Oh, Wil- Wilmets. Wilmet. Wilmington. Wilmetown. Wilmetto. Close. Wilmette. Well, just Wil- take the last part out. Wilmet. There we go. Wilmet by Moonlight, proud Titania. <laughs> <coughs> Why am I coughing? Because uh, you're getting over a cold. <coughs> yeah, but I'm like over it, over it. Um, uh, it's not over you. It's not over me. Um, from Wilmette. Wilmette. Wilmette, Illinois. How far is that from Chicago? 45 minutes north. Uh, it's it's a suburb. It's the outskirts of Chicago. No, so it's a suburb. North, if you say if I say that I'm from Chicago, people from Chicago would be furious. Well, I mean that's their problem. They just have to deal with it. Yeah, but I feel bad. Uh-huh. But Jefferson's a two-hour drive from St. Louis. I mean, it's definitely not. Sure, but I feel like when you're in the southern Midwest, two hours, that's that's a Midwestern two hours, which is like a city five minutes. Yeah, what else are you going to do? <laughs> you got nothing else to do except drive to St. Louis. <laughs> well, we ate at Shakespeare's Pizza. Time to drive to St. Louis and back. Well, Shakespeare's Pizza is a 45-minute drive from Jefferson City. Really? Where yeah. is it? It's in Columbia, Missouri. Well, that's what? Where, that's where I went to uh, This whole college. thing's a lie. What do you mean? This is, I've imagined Shakespeare as some local pizza joint. No. And now it the seems local... like some stupid lie that you've been perpetrating. No, because MU, uh, University of Missouri-Columbia is 45 minutes from Jeff City. Um, local Jefferson City pizza place would be Eris um, Pizza Palace, which is a local like Greek family But you don't like that. Thing. I love that. But they're they're not not as much as Shakespeare's Pizza. Uh, I did have an you have inter- enough love in your heart for two 
local pizza places. Honestly, one of which you don't really like that much. Honestly, even the chain pizza places in Jefferson City are better than a lot of New York City pizza places. You have a Little Caesars? Yeah, although... Pizza Pizza? Little Caesars Caesars just opened up in Woodside in my neighborhood. Of course course it did. um, Something about Woodside feels like it fits Little Caesars pizza. Why are you insulting my neighborhood? Why are you insulting Little Caesars by assuming it's an insult? Um, I haven't had Little Caesars pizza in decades. So I feel like, in a, in a way, it feels like it might as well be a different, it might as well be a place I've never had because I've come to believe that with chain restaurants, if you go more than 10 years, it's all different. It's a different, the way that everything's they, different. The places they order their ingredients from are different. You can say countries. <laughs> the countries they order uh, their ingredients from are different. Their methods have changed. Things have become streamlined. Some things may have improved. But recipes may have even changed in, in ways that you might not notice if you ate there constantly. But if you go 10 years, it's not the same chain. I think that's true. It's sort of like the, what's that thing? The, uh, oh man, Archimedes boat. Is it Archimedes? The thing where it's like, it's not Archimedes. I know it's not Archimedes. Maybe it is. It's like, oh, if you take the boat and you take the plank off, you send it down the river mm-hmm. and you replace it. Right. Which boat is his boat? Is it the one oh. that he started with or the one that's down the river if you built from scratch? Yeah, no one knows. It's a matter of how you view the world. So Little Caesars, is it still Little Caesars or pizza, is it a new pizza. place? Pizza, pizza. 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 I like thinking that what he's saying is that he has, is that he murdered his friend Peter. Pizza, pizza. He cooked him into it. He turned him into a pizza. Oh, pizza, pizza. He, his, he murdered his friend. That little Caesar guy, yeah. he betrayed. He murdered his friend Peter, cooked him into a pizza. And then he says, pizza, pizza. Pizza, pizza. So it's like what you're presupposing is that at the beginning of those commercials, it's like, what happened to Pete? Yeah. Pizza, pizza. No! <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but anyway... So that just listeners. A lot, of selection, a lot of selection of pizza places. Listeners, if you ever see a Little Caesars commercial coming up, if you know it's coming, just make sure to say right before it starts. What happened to Peter? What happened to Peter? Yeah. Pizza, pizza. Pizza, pizza. Um, I. But I think the last time I would have talked about Shakespeare's Pizza was uh, on this podcast was Shakespeare's Pizza is my favorite pizza place in the world. Didn't it burn down? No, it didn't burn down. They tore it down because um, they wanted to build these um, luxury apartments. They wanted to build, like, not high-rise apartments because it's a smallish college town, but they wanted to build, like, nice commercial space and apartment space. But it's they, they reconstructed... The temporary uh, Shakespeare's Pizza was in this uh, former uh, Mexican restaurant that was a block away. Okay. And they actually did a really good job of like keeping the character of the place in a new space. But they saved everything and rebuilt the Shakespeare Pizza as the bottom floor of this new building. Right. And I went there uh, over Christmas. Uh, and I was, it was pretty amazing what they did because it's bigger. They've ex- they basically used it as an opportunity to like keep it the same... But solve a lot of like, like their wish list of like, I wish the kitchen was a little bigger. You know, like things that they were right. 
They were like, we could actually be nice if we had more room to work or it'd be nice if we had like a bigger area for this. So it's like much bigger, but the core of it, it almost looks like a dream of Shakespeare's Pizza where it's like, right. it's so close, but it's, something's different about it. Right. Like the floor used to be crooked in a way that it isn't now. And there's nothing in terms of the character of it that there was nothing where I'm like, oh, they took away this thing, but it was great. So they didn't lose anything by my estimation, but it was kind of like amazing that they were able to put it back together and have it feel the same. I always tend to feel that when that happens, the food tastes different. Food didn't taste different, but that's because they're using the same ovens, the same... Still something about it is always different. And so far, my basic taste test of it is that it didn't affect the food in any okay. way. But that was also true when they moved their ovens over to the temporary space. And Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. So Connor's from Missouri. Yeah. Jefferson um, City. Yeah. Grew up, at one point, wanted to be a director. I don't know. Or I a writer. A writer. Maybe. Wanted to work in... Cartoonist was my... Cartoonist, yes. Cartoonist and animator was what I wanted as a kid. I quickly realized that both of those things, that I would never enjoy them as much as I liked. And it may be something that I've discovered about show business as well, is that like liking the thing and liking making the thing are different. That's something that I always talk about, especially with like film students or mm-hmm. things like that, is or when I think about film school, is the idea of making movies. Like when you're a kid. Yeah. When I was a kid, I thought when you made movies, you basically just got to live out those scenarios. That's right. why I wanted to be an actor, because I thought like, oh, you got to be a, you just got to be the main character of an adventure. Right. Um, luckily, I never got to act, so I imagine that was the case. And then someone was like, oh, if you're a director, you could decide what the adventure is. Mm-hmm. And that appealed to me, because then it was like, you just yeah. got to sort of, control the universe um but then at some point and then maybe you start making movies and you're still in control of things at some point that butts up against the reality of what work in this industry is uh-huh. and i think the people who are filmmakers for the most part or work in tv or whatever are people for whom both of those things are appealing or have a skill set that yeah. overlaps because there's a lot of people that are like oh this is what it is yeah and no thank you or there's people who are able to do that work and think that way, but yeah. aren't driven by the creative things that you were as a kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it requires these two halves, this, this handshake between this sort of like creative inspiration of that world and yeah. also the like actual just like hard work side of it. And not just hard work, the joy of the intricacy of building this thing, it's like a puzzle where it's like the act of it isn't necessarily fun, but the idea is like you get to the end and you've done it and then you move on to the next thing. Yeah. And I, I didn't articulate that well, but I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. You it, know what I'm saying. It was it like I, I loved drawing and I loved uh, cartoons and animation uh, when I was a kid and I wanted to work for Disney and I wanted to... Uh, and then there was a point where I realized like, Oh, like I wouldn't actually want to be an animator. Like I want, I would want to make cartoons somehow. I want to make animated right. cartoons, but I wouldn't want to sit and draw. I wouldn't want to have to do all. I just wouldn't like that. And then I was like, oh, maybe I want to 
do a comic strip. And then I was like, I don't want to draw, have to draw a comic strip every day. Yeah, I've had a similar realization with um, sports, namely like uh, professional track and field mm-hmm. athletes. Yeah. So that was a path in my mind that was a possibility at a certain point. Yeah. Not that I was going to be a professional, but that I would pursue that path as far mm-hmm. as it could take me. Yeah. But now I'm like, what I liked was racing. Mm-hmm. What I liked was that moment, that narrative. Yeah. What I didn't like was the months and all the time and the pain and the hurt and the just pure dedication it took to this thing that was uncomfortable. Yeah. And in order, like, that's the career. The career is hurting yourself every day to be a little bit faster. Yeah. And that payoff is the race. And I like the payoff, but in every industry, the payoff is fun and nice. Yeah, like, I would love, when I think of, like, a collected book of, like, Peanuts or Bloom County or Doonesbury or, or Calvin and Hobbes or any of these things, like, the idea of, like, if I had a book that was, like, this is the past five years of comic strips I did, like, I would like to have done it. Yeah. But it's almost in a weird way that's like, it's like one of those things where it's like you wish your life away, where it's like if you don't enjoy the journey of it, it's just about destinations, then it's kind of like, sometimes I feel bad when I like really look forward to something that's like a long way away. Yeah. That I'm like, wait, am I wishing for it to be 2018? Like, yeah. Am I just wishing this year away? Like sometimes it actually feels bad to like, God, like I can't wait for the next, you know, whatever Star Wars movie to come out and be like, wait, you're like wishing to be like a year closer to the end of your life. Right. Um, as opposed to just finding a way to enjoy the current day and the current moment you're in and not be so focused on like, well, when this is over, things will feel good. Do you find that you don't enjoy the day-to-day of being an actor, comedian? Uh, no, I mean, I enjoy my days a lot. Like I, I the, the um, but also like I just enjoy normal days. Uh, the day-to-day of being an actor-comedian is better than... I mean, it depends on the thing. Because like, you are now, undeniably, yeah. a professional character actor. Yeah. Been in film and televisions. Which, that's sort of cool. Yeah. And that's a shift from episode one of this podcast. Yeah, episode one of this Episode podcast. one of this podcast, you, I don't think you could say that you were a professional character actor. Well, I mean, I guess I'd done commercials... And I guess I would have done... You'd done commercials, and you had done... Broad City, maybe, when we started this? Mm. Or did I do Broad City after? I thought that was long enough ago that... I think maybe you'd filmed it, but it yeah. hadn't aired? I don't remember, timeline-wise. But it definitely felt like the kind of thing where it could have been like, maybe that's the only one. Right. But now it's like, oh no, you're often the guy in that thing. Mm-hmm. You're often a character... Like, and your roles are getting larger and larger. Um, or they're getting, if they're not larger, they're in things that are larger. Yeah. Um, Which is cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely, like one of the reasons that like, there would have been a period in my life where I was so into movies that the idea of being a filmmaker and having a body of work and stuff like that was a... Right. Um, a satisfying fantasy or an idea. But I definitely, like, don't like production. I definitely don't like the... Like, you, when you're on a set, and I right. granted, I've only ever seen you on, like, a TV type, like, a TV show type scenario. But, like, I know what you're like when you're in the mode of, like, I'm running a production of this. Right. 
and we did cop show together. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's the, the but I wasn't around that much for that. Like, I, yeah. but I've seen you enough in the scenario where like you're running a set um, that uh, you're very much in your element. Like you, um, you're not panicky, and you're um, you don't seem unhappy in that mode. Yes, I am energized by it. Yeah, and I'm excited to figure out what the next thing is we can do and. I, those moments are the moments where I feel most activated yeah. cerebrally, where I'm like, okay, here we go. Oh, yeah. What if we do this? What if we do this? You're jazzed about it. I'm jazzed. I'm fully jazzed. And I couldn't imagine, like, I, I, I don't find being on a set, I don't mind the moments when we're actually filming a thing, for the most part, when, like, it's, like, action and there's, yeah. it's happening. But generally, I find the atmosphere of a set and I like that to be um, uh, stressful. Like I wouldn't choose to be in that environment. Like even the things that are constructed to be nice. Right. Like a trailer or a, you know, like where it's like, Oh yeah, you go sit in your trailers like that. There's, um, it's not a, it's not an atmosphere that I'm like, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you have this realization of, um, if you're getting paid to do something that, like, I always think about, there's a scene in uh, an episode of uh, Mad Men where um, where Don Draper, where, uh, where Peggy, played by Elizabeth Moss, is, like, complaining that she's not being respected uh, to Don Draper or something, and he just says to her, like, that's what the money is for. And, and he says it in such, like, a, Horrible, and I think that it's a, it might be a different episode, right? But I think it's the same scene where he actually just like throws some money at her, right? And I always think of that in terms of like, um, there usually being a, 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 a very definite relationship to me between like, oh, I'm being paid well for this, I'm not supposed to enjoy it, like, that's why I'm being paid for it, and I'll definitely notice that in terms of like when I do like. Uh, UCB Turco or versus UCB like corporate like paid improv shows right. that like a Turco gig at a college does not generally pay as well as if you're doing a corporate gig and the reason for that is more often than not a college gig is kind of fun like you get an audience that shows up and it's like college kids who are into comedy and it's no pressure and it's kind of like a it's a goofy out and you're performing with your friends that you like and, and you're like, hey, you're paid a little for it. Right. But it mostly just feels like, oh, yeah, we flew to Pittsburgh and we did this show. It was kind of fun and we made a small amount of money. But then you'll do like, well, this one is for like this major corporation and it's like they're having their retreat and they want to do, and you have to do this. You're like, oh, this is a horrible show. And you're like, yeah, but that's what the money is for. Like you're paid more for this one because like it's right. not going to be a good show. They won't like it. They'll regret that they ever hired you and then and you won't get... You'll never perform for them again because this was clearly a mistake and they didn't right. know what they were doing. I remember reading a thing, I think it was Anthony Hopkins, they were talking about how um, he was talking about working as an actor and he says, uh, and he said, um, I act for free. They pay me to wait. Yeah. And, I, and at the time I remember thinking that was like a really clever way of thinking about it and I think about it all the time now because I'm like, oh yeah. That's one of the truest observations that is like, they pay you so that it's like your whole day belongs to us. You might 
be only used for a couple of minutes. But like, don't complain about it. You're paid to give us your day and to be. Who is that? There's a musician that has the same thing. Right, where it's like you're you're being paid for like I, the. I perform for free. I paid it. I get paid to travel. Yeah, and like waiting until it's like time for the show and like yeah. having it like schlep from town to town. Yeah. Yeah. Or I, I perform for free. I paid to tour or something like that. Yeah. Um, but you're the most jazzed well, when you are on stage. Yeah. It, it makes sense, like, the whole thing of, like, I just did a, a show at UCB last night, and it's like, never would even occur to me. And I'm like, oh, there's one of the, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but, like, one of the reasons that I don't get paid to do stepfather shows on Friday at UCB is because it never even occurred to me. Like, it's so much fun that it's right. like, uh, it's... Um, and it, and things like that also lead to other things that are like more prestigious, but maybe less enjoyable to actually do. Right. Very nice to have done them. Um, like it's very satisfying to have filmed a little thing in a movie. Right. Um, the there was a movie that just got released on Netflix yesterday that I filmed in Rhode Island a year ago uh, called The Discovery. And I was telling someone about it the other day, and it was um, this is a movie that is a net, this is my second Netflix original. There's basically been two movies that have come out since our last episode, both Netflix original movies. Couldn't be more different from one another as movies, but I do the same thing in both movies. Like really? my my function in the plot of both movies is identical. In the teen thriller Coin Heist, which you can find on Netflix, I play the head of the U.S. Mint. And I'm a character who uh, some teenagers come up with a plan to manufacture a run of coins that have a deliberate error in them because then they'll be worth a fortune. Right. In order to do this, one of them pretends to be a journalist, distracts me by interviewing me, uh, and while I'm distracted, they perpetuate this heist. Right. In The Discovery, I play a coroner, and Jesse Plemons... um, and, And Jesse Plemons distracts me while Jason Siegel and Rooney Mara steal a body from the morgue. Uh, right. And these were cast with no knowledge of the other's existence, but it clearly is like, oh, I clearly read as someone who could be in charge of something, but also uh, be distracted enough to completely let down the responsibility. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, one of, but totally, like, one of them... Uh, right now I'm robbing your apartment. I have a whole team of people robbing your apartment in Woodside. It'll, at least it'll be tidier, probably. <laughs> um, oh, oh, that reminds me. I have a weird thing to talk about in my apartment. We can bring it up later. Okay. Um, Table Coin, of contents. In Coin Heist, I play Brad Garcia, the head of the Mint. And, it's, and it stars like... Brad uh, Garcia? Brad Garcia. Huh. Uh, that was the name of the script. It was not changed. Did you uh, maybe marry into that last name? Or it could have been adopted into the last name. Okay. Or, you know, you never know. A lot of different ways we could have arrived at that. Um, But it's very much like it's a movie for teenagers, about teenagers. And uh, The Discovery is is a movie by... And and, um, uh, The Discovery is a movie uh, with Robert Redford that is a very dark, um, kind of moody, adult... Uh, movie. So you're saying you're an adult film? Not an adult film, but a film well, for 
Yeah, I'm adult. I I'm in an adult film called The Discovery. Okay. Um, with Robert Redford. Yeah, I don't have any scenes with Robert Redford in the adult film. Um, in the adult film, no. Um, the director of Coin Heist is actually um, this uh, young woman named Emily Higgins, who is, I think it's like her. She's made many feature films, even though she's. If she's not still a teenager, I mean, she's just so young. And she's right. like, had all her features have played at, like, South by Southwest. And it's just, That's like... That's so cool. And it was really amazing to watch her on the set because, like, she... To me, it's just like, oh, she's a kid. But she had the same sort of... That same sort of quality that you have of, like, yeah, she's, like, in charge of this. Like, right. she wrote the screenplay for this off of a, a, a book that this company owned the rights to. And, and she was just, like... And I was, like... Oh God! Like I'm, uh, I have no idea what's going on here, and she's just like, yeah, making another movie, and um, but then the discovery is directed by Charlie McDowell, who's the son of Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen. Oh, interesting! And he made that movie, The One I Love, which is on Netflix, which is right. really good. Um, but it's a weird thing to be in, like the the the. The Discovery, I was the last thing that they filmed in the movie. It was like the last day of shooting. They filmed in Rhode Island. And I took a train up there. It was like early on a Friday morning. And and then I just like waited around. And then at a certain point, they were like, you can go across to the hotel. We weren't, we're not going to get around to you for a while. Like, All right. I went over and hung around in this hotel. And they had to get my stuff done because like the shoot was wrapping in the morning. Right. So they had until like... Dawn basically, and I don't think they. I think they ended up having like second lunch and third lunch. Like they ended up getting to the point where they were like right. calling multiple extra meals. I don't think I filmed my stuff until like after one in the morning. Jeez. And it's like me and Jesse Plemons in an actual morgue, which was very weird. There was a room. There was like this room, and they're like, "That's where all the bodies are right now." I was like, "Oh, okay." And. uh and they were like, they had offered, they said, do you want to use the real bodies? And the, the production was like, absolutely not. Like, we don't need that. We have. Jesus. Uh, yeah, it was very weird. But it's a weird thing to, like, I did a lot of improv on the set of Coin Heist, whereas in the Discovery, it was, it was very, like, tight. Like, I did some improv. I don't think any of it made it into the movie. Right. Uh, it's, like, a very quick thing. Um. But there's new Netflix movies out every week, it feels like now. Yeah, which is a good thing, I think. There's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. It, doesn't it feel like we're drowning in culture at the moment? Like, I can't keep up with any of it. Well, there's I so much. think we are not meant to keep up with it. I think we are the, last gen- we are the first generation to have the internet and deal with that. Yeah. We are the last generation to believe that we should know all of culture right like kids growing up like for us if we hear of like a movie or a video game or a thing yeah and we're like oh i don't i haven't i haven't seen that i haven't played that oh i've got it like yeah it's shocking to us when there's something that we've heard that's great that we haven't heard of yeah i don't think kids feel that way i think it's like oh there's other stuff in the world this is the thing that i like yeah it's interesting i mean i like, stuff like, I didn't get around to seeing Silence, the Scorsese movie. Right. 
And there was a time in my life where the idea that even a bad Scorsese movie, I would have been like, I'm going to see it. I'm going to see it in the theater. I just didn't get around to it. It was just busy. I wonder if kids right now are like completionists the same way that we are. Like, so I always see these images online of like people that are like, I finally did it. I collected every N64 video game. Yeah. And it's like a shelf with like all the games packaged and everything. Yeah. Or it's like, you know, like Pokemon, got to catch them all, like that kind of vibe. Yeah. I wonder if kids these days, I don't think, I have a feeling the mentality isn't like, I got to have all of it. Yeah. I almost wonder if the, it's more like, this is my thing. This is, I, this is my slice of things. I don't care about everything else. I, I think that's less generational and more just like personality. Because I feel like there's people in our generation who are just like, yeah, I watched a little of that, and then I, I'll catch up with it later. You know, sort of like... Yeah. That I, but, like, I feel like, at least maybe when I was a kid, there were so many things that were created to be, like, make money off of completionist. Right. Magic cards, Beanie Babies, like, Pokemon. All this, it was always, like, get the whole set. Yeah. Whereas now I don't think that's how things are created anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a kid, so I can't tell, but, but it's like... Minecraft is the huge thing. There's no aspect of Minecraft which is like, get to the end, get all the things. It's yeah. just like, I don't know, do you. Well, yeah, and also there's some things that are like, there's so, things are so massive now that like, when I was a kid, it was possible to maybe try and get all the Star Wars toys. Right. Like if you were, it would be expensive. You'd have to be very privileged to do that. But like, there could be a kid who's like, yep, I got all the action figures. Right. Whereas, like, now I don't feel like they're designed in a way that that's a consideration where it's like, we're going to target this towards people who want to get them all. Because the the number of people who'd be even capable of doing that, even just, like, figuring out what, even just making a list of, like, not, not even having to acquire yeah. them. Just, like, write down all the Star Wars toys there are. Currently, you'd just be like, you can't. There's too many licenses. There's too many. It's yeah. just, like, it's impossible. No, it's true. That's also why I think, maybe I'm wrong, but there's always this thing of, oh, hold on to your toys, hold on to your this, because they're going to be valuable one day. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be the case, because there's going to be no desire, because people, it's, it's <laughs> not... Because there's going to be an, an environmental catastrophe. Well, yeah, and it's also not like, oh, like, oh, I need to get my hands on, like, the C-3PO toothbrush. It's like, people, yeah. no one's going to have a desire for a specific thing, because... There's so much garbage. Yeah. Well, and also... And our society is going to collapse out from under itself, and all the garbage we've created that feeds into that is going to be useless fucking molded crap that we've created that we realize as we drown in the fires of our own gluttony was a waste of our time and energy and was just futile attempts to grab at the world around us and give ourselves these slight dopamine kicks as we piled money... For use for nothing. Yeah, there's also that. There's also that aspect of it. I mean, the reason that all of our like parents' generations' toys became collectible was because collectively, an entire generation's mothers threw everything out because they were like, "These toys are useless. Toys are for children. You don't need them." My my son has grown up. He went to college. I'm going to throw away his toys, or I'm going to give them away. Other kids can play with them. And they came home and they're like, "Where'd they go?" And then it was like, my baseball card, my Mickey Mantle baseball card. Right. Who needs to draw my baseball card collection? Suddenly, Mickey Mantle baseball card, 
very valuable. Right. And, but at a certain point, like, I have things that I'm like, I know that um, with each generation, they become less of interest even, except to, like, they become very, uh, almost like, even like dumb things become like only certain scholars of culture will like even know what this is. Right. And, but then the, our generation was like, I, you know, you have people who are like, I keep all the number one issues in Mylar bags and I collect all these toys. And if it, as long as everyone holds on to them, all of the, they're not worth anything. It will, it will be when those people die and then other people throw away their stuff that suddenly someone will be like, hey, wait, I'm the only one who, had, who didn't throw away the things. Now they're all very valuable. Right. But by that point, I think you're right that the catastrophe will have struck and the only thing that will uh, be truly worth anything is food, water, weapons. Yeah, as you're pinned to the floor by wolves being torn apart limb from limb, the last image you see will be the C-3PO toothbrush lying on the floor and you'll realize at the end of the day it really meant nothing. I just got a text from Greg Doris. Oh, really? Which I haven't... I've never gotten a text from Greg Doris before. And he says, I can't wait to see the discovery, and I can't wait to see you, hopefully very soon. Hope you're well. It's just a very nice, friendly text from uh, someone we both know. Great. Well, let's figure out a text back to him. Let's text back. Um, like, Hi, Greg. JD and I are recording... 12-hour day. 12-hour day. And I just read your text aloud. So you are part of the episode. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. I'm just going to say some nice things. I should stress that my role in the discovery is uh, feels like it's less than two minutes. It's very goes by very quickly. Okay, no, no big. Deal. That's the plight of a character actor. Yeah. So what else, Connor? Episode thirteen. Here we are. Uh, JD from Wilmette, Illinois. You got the state right and the city right. All right. Um, JD and I met. Uh, you wanted to be an astronaut when you were a kid, right? No. You just admired them. Uh, you dressed up like an astronaut. You didn't want to be an that astronaut? That was for a school project. You want to be an astronaut? Do you want to know what's funny? What? Is actually... So, Connor's referencing... A video. Great video. There's a video of me in first grade, I think. Yeah. Dressed as Neil Armstrong, giving a presentation about Neil Armstrong. Uh-huh. And it's like, I'm Neil Armstrong, because I couldn't say ours. Ar- Armstrong. And... I was the first person to land on the moon. It was a presentation. I'm dressed as an astronaut, and I'm very proud that I made the helmet myself. Yeah. Um, I think I wanted to do that presentation on a movie director, mm-hmm. but I kept, or that might have been, I think that was probably third grade then. I don't know, second grade, maybe yeah. second grade. But I, I had done every project I had about movie directors. Yeah. So my parents were like, no. Also, you need something you can wear a costume for yeah 
so you can't do George Lucas or Steven Spielberg again. Mm -hmm. And so I settled to do Neil Armstrong. I always wanted to do someone exciting, and I did not understand. I did not understand the kids who always want to do like presidents or like politicians or inventors of boring stuff. I was like, this is like, it feels cheating. Like pick an astronaut, pick a spaceman or a movie director or like Jackie Chan. Yeah. It feels like a, a, a cheat to make what would should be a, a not fun school project turn it into like a secret thing of stuff you enjoy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if anybody I know, you'd be the person I would say would be most likely to be an astronaut. I've thought about that if I could do it. Um, I think the only thing that would... St- uh, I think I, there's two things. One, don't do well. I get motion sick really easily. Mm-hmm. I get car sick really you easily. You push past it, though. You're determined. Uh, maybe, but I'm I just... I'm not saying you enjoy every aspect of it. I just think the moment I see that spinning thing, I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> I, that's not for me. The other thing, now late in my life, I've started ha- you know, dealing with anxiety. Yeah. And I can push through it, but in a way that I feel like there's certain humans that just don't have anxiety, yeah. which I think those people are broken in certain ways, to be honest. Yeah. But I think astronauts are those type of people who are like... Oh, my uh, my oxygen's all gone, and yeah. uh, oh, I'm sick to my stomach. I'm gonna throw up in three seconds. Like for me, I like feel it. Oh, I feel it. I'm like, oh no, I don't feel well. Oh, oh no. <laughs> and even though if I can make decisions and be work through that stuff, yeah. I just think astronauts are meant to be people for whom the good and bad of the world bounces off them, and they can behave like robots, yeah. which is a something I look up to. I don't think early astronauts were like that. I think early astronauts were like Neil Armstrong who were like test pilots who were right. like no just like fear. Another, just but like another airplane. Yeah, it was just, I don't know, let's take this baby to the sky. I mm-hmm. think now they're like... No, let's take the spacecraft up into space. Yes, the spacecraft will go a million miles an hour and it may explode. And if it does, I'll have 0.3 seconds to... It's like... Yeah. Like that's like, I don't think my like Buzz. You know the whole thing with Buzz Aldrin, like punching what's his name in the face. Mm-hmm. That was Buzz Aldrin, right? That yeah. punch guy. Yeah. I don't think modern astronauts would punch people for saying shit. No. Um. What title do you most often go by if someone's like, "What do you do?" If someone says, "What do you do?" I say, "I make TV shows." Yeah. And then if I think that title, I'll be like. I direct and produce TV shows. Director, producer. Because if I say, if I say produce TV shows, people think I'm just a businessman. A businessman. If yeah. I say I direct TV shows, people in the industry are like, "Oh, directing TV is a different thing." You call the camera angles, right? And if I say executive produce, it sounds like I'm being arrogant. Yeah, I make TV shows is a friendly way to say something that also communicates the. Uh, uh, it, it it glues together the things that you don't want people to make distinctions about. Right. And if I say I'm a showrunner, for the longest time I thought the term showrunner meant you were like... A gopher. Yeah. It does sound like it. Like a showrunner is like, go get coffees for everyone who works on this show. Well, because a runner is a thing. Yeah. Um, what's the most hyperbolic thing you've said in answer to that question? 
hyperbolic, like yeah, what's the most arrogant thing? Like, <laughs> like if if you if there was someone who was like, maybe you got the sense that they were being a little bit of a dick or something like that. Yeah, and you wanted to say something. They're like, so what do you do? Uh, I think the most hyperbolic thing I've ever said is I will be like, I executive produce TV shows. I've done I've right. done a lot of them. Yeah, and direct. Yeah. I always... I, executive produce is like, yeah, executive produce, so... Yeah. Yeah. I, I Make TV Shows does such a nice, graceful way of communicating those things of like... the uh, if, you, if you get more specific, people start making... You start getting assumptions, like you were just saying about like... Directing a TV sounds like, oh, you're just like a workhorse. You come in and right. you say the camera points here, but you're not really calling the shots. Right. Executive producer sounds like you could be... Or it's be, not your idea is yeah. usually the implication. Yes. You, you do what they want you to do. If you say executive producer, sounds like, oh, you're a, business, you're a suit. Right. Um, Showrunner, yeah. There's something about the term that's uh, rife uh, with a, a potential for misunderstanding. Like, I make TV shows. And then, barring that, I direct and produce TV shows. Is like, oh, it's enough stuff. So it's like, oh, you're actually like... In it, you're actually in the yeah. mix creatively. I always like I say actor comedian, right? Um, I remember when the New York Times did like a that article a few years ago where they talked about the stepfathers and they said describe the stepfathers as being made up of veteran comedians. And we're thinking like, well, now I can say it, right? Even though I know that that the gray lady has signed off. Even though I know that that. At that point, it made it was more accurate in terms of the other people on the team than me. I was fairly new to the team at that point, right? Um, and that was in more in reference to people like Zach Woods or Gethard or people that were had been around longer in comedy. Um, but now, but I also like put it second because if I just say comedian, people just assume I'm a stand-up. Yeah. Um, but if I just say actor. Uh, People just assume I can't do anything except act. Yeah, people think you're trying to get your under five on a soap opera. Yeah, that like actor comedian is like uh, specifically more accurate to- towards what I do. And if it happens to be a not funny thing, it's just like, oh, I'll just do the same thing and won't be funny. It's easy. Right. Um, but it's an interesting thing in terms of like your label, in terms of what you what you do and how you describe yourself. So, listeners, right now. Take a breath. Think that's, about your label. That's the noise you heard, that it's time to take a breath. It's time to think about your label. Yeah. What do you tell people you are? What do you tell people you do? What is do you there keep a, from people? Is there a difference between what you are and what you do? Now, take your label. Write it take, down. Write it down. Put it in an envelope. Put it in an envelope. Bury it. And bury it. Bury it under dirt. Actual dirt, not a metaphor. Not a dirt metaphor. Yeah, put it under actual dirt and then stand on top of that spot for five minutes. No, leave, leave your telephone somewhere else. Yeah, don't, don't take your phone, whatever you do this. And put your arms out to the side of you like a T so that you look like a standing T. Yeah. You're standing on top of the spot where you've buried. And then I want you to slowly rotate. Not fast, not like you're playing, slowly. Imagine that you are some sort of um, art installation that slowly rotates. 
if anyone comes up to you, if anyone approaches you in the middle of this process, politely tell them that you're in the middle of something, you'll be with them in, and then calculate how much of the five minutes you have left. Exactly. Um, and if they respond to that with another question, um, you can s speak aloud an out-of-office reply. So, so for example, uh, you come up to me the first time. Yeah. Hey, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, I can't talk with you right now. I'm in the middle of something. I'll be done in approximately three minutes. Wait. wait. Out of office reply. I am on vacation. I will get back to you as soon as I can. If you have any questions, please contact Deborah Williams. All right. And then if the, if the person persists, uh, very right, you don't have your phone on you, so you can't call anyone for help. Yeah. If the person persists, um, mention this podcast. Mention this podcast. Say so. If, you, if they say a third thing, then you can go back. Then you can go back and say, "I'm sorry." You didn't even stop spinning at this point. And say, "Do your thing." In fact, for, stop spinning and get down on one knee. Yeah. Not as you're proposing, but more as more like an inspirational coach speech. Like, yeah, exactly. take a knee. Exactly. Say, uh, "I'm doing something that's part of this podcast I listen to uh, called 12 Hour Day with JD and Connor." Um, tell them where you can find it. Tell them where you found it. Maybe plug the Twitter. I'm not going to mention what the Twitter handle is now. We mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Right. And then ask them, uh, say, what's your name? Yeah. Once nice. you get the name, dig up uh, the envelope. Yep. Uh, write their name on the same piece of paper as you wrote uh, your description of what you do. And hand it to them. Yes. Hand the envelope to them. And, and then, tell them, this is what you do now. And then at that moment, close your eyes. Mm-hmm. Turn the opposite direction of them. Yes. And run full speed. Get out of there. But you have your eyes closed. Look where you're going, but keep your eyes closed. Look where you're going before you close your eyes. Yeah. Then close your eyes. Pick a path with not a lot of obstacles in it because you're going to be going full speed. You're going to go as fast as you can. Yeah. And you're just going to run. Get out of there. You're going to get out of there. Do not let this guy ask any more questions. Yes. He's, he's got his final answer. He's got his final answer. And to be honest, he pushed it a little further than either J.D. or I are comfortable with. Exactly. And um, the only time you can stop running is when you can stop hearing that person. Yeah. So if they pursue you and they're yelling, this is going to be rough. It's going to be rough. Because eventually you will run past the point where you were able to scope visually beforehand where you're running. And there's one what we'll call a death scenario yeah. in which they're faster than you. Yeah. Which means that you will have and have more stamina, which means that you will have to continue running and they will keep following you and speaking. Uh -huh. So you are not allowed to stop running. So you will then have to run yourself to exhaustion. Mm -hmm. Even when you're out of energy and human life mana, you'll have to continue to run and that will exhaust you to the point of zero resources and your body will shut down and that will be the end. Yeah. And that is, that is the end. When your body shuts down, the exercise is over. If you are not approached during the exercise, uh, then once you've completed your five-minute spin, uh, dig up the envelope, uh, mail it to a friend. Yep. Someone you trust. Someone you trust. And on the front of the envelope, write, do not open under any circumstances yeah. until this date. And then don't write a date. And don't write a date. Leave the date. They'll either assume that they mean the current date they have, that they, they received it, like this date. Yeah. Or 
they might reach out to you to say like you didn't write a date. Make sure but, to put a colon after you put this date. Put a colon and a blank so they don't assume it's the day. And if they do reach out to you, then you, then you've reconnected with a friend. But the first thing you have to say to them is, I'm so glad you called. You are my friend, and for that I am grateful. Please open the envelope and read it to me. Your friend will then most likely comply. If they don't, stop the interaction. They're not your friend anymore. They wouldn't do the simplest thing. You've lost a friend. But it was going to happen anyway, and it actually sped the process in a way that you're going to save valuable time in your life. If they do read it back to you, then think about what has happened. Listen to them as they read to you what you say is what you do or who you are. And as they try to say it, every time the word comes out of their mouth, the label that you've written down. Let's say you wrote, I'm a welder. You're going to say, no, no, please don't. Yes. So In a desperate, troubled way. Yeah. And your goal is to get them to stop saying it. Got to get them to stop. You have to get them to stop. They got to stop. They have to stop. They can't keep doing it. They can't. It's been too many times, too much, and you've had, you had enough. A human can only take so much. Enough is enough. That's the exercise. And that's it. Exercise one. Um, for the next exercise, skip ahead 41 minutes into the podcast. Yeah. Skip ahead 41 minutes and see if we remembered. <laughs> see if we remembered. If we didn't, call a friend. Wait, here, I'll set my watch. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, wait. All right. There we go. Skip ahead now. Well, they've already skipped ahead. We told them to skip ahead. Oh, okay. Well, okay, if you didn't, don't skip ahead. Stay here with us. Yeah, this is the secret. Yeah. This is welcome what we call, to, welcome to the secret 41. Secret 41 minutes. It's just for people who didn't follow instructions. <laughs> You're bad, bad people. Or maybe you have a bad interface for listening to podcasting, which is not easy to move around in a large file. Yeah, or maybe you did and you're wondering what you missed. You came back. Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> welcome back to the secret 41. I'm J.D. Amato, here with my co-host, Connor Ratliff. Hey, everybody. Um, I had jury duty last week. Oh, man. Did you have to go to Queens, Jamaica? Yeah. I did my jury duty at Queens. Okay. Yeah. Big question. Yeah. What movie did they make you watch? I hope to God it is the movie that they made we watch. What do you mean, movie? Okay, so it's the big room. Yeah, big room. Everybody sits. Yeah. And there's this guy. When I went, there was this guy who yeah. has like a, basically a comedy routine talking about the instructions. Yeah. Has a sort of Queensy accent. Yeah. And he's like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do this and this and this. Do not walk up to me if you have. And he has like a whole spiel. Yeah. And he said, now I'm going to put a movie on for you. Do not complain if you do not like the movie. These are movies that I brought from my home. I do not have to do this. I do this to give you something so that it's not boring. And he put on a movie for everyone. Did he not do that for you? No. You'll learn why when I tell you my story. What movie did you watch? We got no movie. Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> and there was a moment that was pretty beautiful where, you know, Queens is the most diverse place in the world. Yeah. Where it was 
all walks of life, all types of people, all different backgrounds, together laughing out loud in this giant jury room at Mrs. Doubtfire's boobs being on fire. And I was like, you know what? Comedy does cure all. Yeah. Um, when was yours? When did you do this jury duty? Oh, three years ago. Maybe it was four years ago. And then I got called to it this past year. Yeah. In a very inconvenient time. And luckily, my dial-in number never got, got called. Well, that's good. I delayed it. What I did is I had to delay it once yeah. by, by mail. Yeah. And then by doing that, I think I got a number that was pretty low. Yeah. And I didn't get called in ever. So it was right around Christmas, too, I think. Yeah. I, I've had um, federal and Queens. I've never been picked for a jury. Nor have um, I. And the first time I got called into a room, yeah. we had to hear about the case and then <clears throat> answer questions to determine whether we were going to be on the jury or not. I've had that happen once before. The first time, the one that was, I think I've had it like three times. This is my fourth time. There was one that was like in Manhattan where I just wasted a couple of days in the room, never got called from the room. Right. Then there was another time. No, this was my third. The, th- the other one was Federal, which was in Brooklyn, which was like a nightmare. It was like 90 minutes to get there. Yeah, I got called the federal. That's what this one was. Yeah. And that one... Mine uh, was in Long Island. Ooh. Yeah. I would have had to take a train. Uh, it was, all the instructions were by car. Yeah. It was crazy. Um, the federal one, I got called into a room, into the jury room, and the judge asked questions. And I remember feeling very... It bothered me having to answer... Even basic questions, like, bothered me the judge, like, the judge asked, like, what kind of TV shows or movies I liked. I remember thinking, like, you can't ask me to say this in front of all these people. Like, I remember being, like, offended by the idea that it's, like, I'm a performer, so I don't particularly mind talking in front of people. Right. But I was like, how dare you? Like, I didn't, I shouldn't have to tell you what I like. Right. Like, it felt very invasive, but I didn't get picked for that one. And... This time doing it was by far, but no comparison. Like the other ones were like, it's kind of like, oh, I felt like I wasted a couple of days and I lost work money and uh, things where it's like, but this time was so far and away the worst jury experience I've had. And largely because, well, I had a couple of deferred things last year. Right. Because it kept happening at times where I like, had work things. I'm like, this is going to absolutely ruin it. And, um, the, or it'd be like, I have a trip planned out of town. I already have the tickets tonight. Yeah. So like I went first, I deferred by mail. Then there was an next one that you can't defer by mail. So I actually went to the courthouse and got it deferred there. Right. Um, but the thing is like in both cases, it was like, I could do the week after. Right. But the deferment automatically knocks you like months later. Yeah. And I'm like, just let me defer in a week. I'll, you know, like, it's harder to predict. Because in in each case, like, there were things like, uh, I was going to go out to L.A. and do something on Adam Ruins Everything. Not so much for money, just because it would be like, oh, that would pay for the trip. Like, yeah. And 
I couldn't because I had this jury duty date that fell right in the place of like, I can't plan anything because what if I get put on a jury? You know, like, uh, I couldn't plan anything for March as far as like the window that I had. They should let you opt into jury duty. Like, you should either be forced to do it or you can like choose to go in at yeah. a specific time. You know what I mean? Yeah, you should be like, I want to do jury duty next month. Because like, there's months where I don't have work where I'm like, I'll knock it out here. Yeah. Um, well, the system has gotten very bad according to my, based on my current experience, which was I finally, so I do this one and I go to Jamaica and, uh, first I had like a bad experience going in because I, you you go through all the metal detectors and I really hate the taking off of the belt in those kind of things. It always feels like, uh, there's something about having to take your belt off that feels invasive. It feels like. Um, feel a weird loss of dignity. Yeah. And so I go around, go through the metal detector and get like, you know, I've got like chargers and watch and all this other stuff. And I'm, and I'm putting my belt on and the guy yells at me like, don't put your belt on here. Go in there. I was just like, there's no sign saying don't do it. And there was plenty of room. And the next area didn't particularly look like an area where you could or it wasn't right. like, well, it was just like chairs. There was something set up for it. So I was like, oh, okay. So I go through there, and then um, they start doing the process of, you know, filling out the questionnaire and right. stuff like that. And I realize my watch is gone, and I'm like, oh, it must have. I must have lost it in the process of yeah. all that. So I get up and I go over where I where I took put my belt back on. I don't see the watch anywhere. I'm like, I'm hoping no one just picked it up and took it. It's a cheap watch, but I. Then I go to where the security area was, and I ask the guy, like, I think I lost my watch. It might have been this area. He goes, like, no, no, they're in the watch. I said, look, it's not around here. And he's like, yeah, no, we got a watch. Wouldn't it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have been in here. I'm like, yeah, I just I took everything off here. So I'm like, this is the one area where it, I think yeah. it most likely would have been. And he kept pushing back really hard. At, like, there was no way that there was a watch there. There's no way that we lost the watch there. And then finally, the woman who was working with him goes, like, what kind of watch is it? I was like, it's a silver watch. She goes, oh yeah, we got that. And it was one of those things where it was like, the guy felt no embarrassment over the fact right. that he'd spent like several minutes telling me it wasn't even worth asking the question. Uh, so it was like, started off in an annoying way, which is just like, right. Uh, and then, they call a group in, and they say, this group's going to go to this courtroom. And then they call another group in. And the other group consisted of almost everyone in that room. It was like over a hundred people and we all got taken over to the courthouse and um, we go into this jury room, into the courtroom. Right. And they have 16 people sit in the jury box and everyone else just takes up the whole courtroom. Right. And the process, I was there for three full days sitting in the courtroom, listening to the judge and five attorneys, because it was a case with four defendants, each of them had their own lawyer. Right. Questioning jury selection after jury selection, repeating the same process over and over. And it was the most bored I've been in my adult life, especially by the third day, because you're just hearing the same questions get asked over and over. For eight hours straight. Yeah. And it's not even like, 
wait in the hallway or go wait in that other room or like we'll all watch a movie or you can like check your phone. Phone off, just sitting there. And what was really frustrating was... Could you even have like a book or something? Nope. Sit there. Because they were like, we want you to pay attention. I can understand going through the process once so you don't have to explain everything to the... But by day three, right? Um, by the third full day of just watching this, and it felt very much like the judge, to me, felt like, well, first of all, I love the show The Good Wife, but I would have told you before this experience that a cool thing The Good Wife does is they cast a lot of New York character actors as the various judges, and they'll have a recurring right. judges, and it'll be people like David Paymore, David Paymer or... Um, um, Anna Gasteyer or Jeffrey Tambor, they'll have these people, and each judge has this, like, quirk, like Kevin Pollack, you know, they'll have this, like, and I would have taken that as, like, oh, it's like a fun comedic device that they decided to make the judges all kind of, like, quirky. Right. And this judge was, like, a judge off The Good Wife. He was, like, a real New York City judge, you know, very, like, I got a little bit of an attitude, but what I realized was, like, oh, this is, like... This courtroom is kind of like he runs a show, and it's a boring show, but not to him. Like, he thinks this is a good show. Right. And not only a good show, like, an important show. Like, it's a noble show. It's a dig- It's like part of the... F- and so we start off at the beginning of it, and he says, all right, uh, before we begin, I uh, just want to... Uh, if there's anyone out there who has a reason... Uh, why they feel they cannot serve. And by this, I do not mean that you have uh, the sniffles or you don't feel like it or you don't want to or you're missing work because everybody's missing work. Uh, I'm looking for if you have extraordinary circumstances. He's like going through and then like one after another people stand up and one woman has like uh, plane tickets for that Friday and she's going away these were bought before me, and he's like, well, let me see, all right, look at this, all right, do I get consent from the various attorneys? And they're like, yes, consent, all right, you may go. Uh, but then, like, some people were getting up, and this happened through, it wasn't, the first process was the most intense part of it, but then throughout the week, there'd be various points where people would give an excuse why they felt like they couldn't serve. And on the first day, he got real intense about it. Like, this woman got up, and she started crying. And it was very weird, because... You know when you see someone and they're definitely trying to be dramatic? Right. But they're not an actor. That's not, they're not a natural skill. It's just yeah. a normal person. And it is like they maybe do feel sadness, but they're definitely trying to like play it. It's a very strange thing to see. Yeah. Um, it's almost like seeing someone sing like off-key or something. Like it's... Right. Well, it's this... They don't realize how they look. Yeah. And they keep going down this path. And everyone else, to everyone else, it's wildly apparent. Yeah. But to them, they're they think best. that they're hidden. Yeah, yeah. And that they can just keep going down this path. And it, it, that's what's uncomfortable about yeah. it. Yeah. This woman gets up and she's like, um, I, I'm having real trouble being in a courtroom right now because I, I, I don't... Uh, the last time that I was in a courtroom was when my ex-husband tried to take my children away from me and tried to take custody of my children. And so to... For me to be in a courtroom again, I'm feeling all of those feelings again, and it it's too much for me. I don't think I should have to be here. And, and 
and it was just like getting more and more intense. But you could tell it was just someone who was just like, I got to swing for the fences. I don't want to do this. I got to get out of here. And then she's like, uh, it's not hitting. Just go further. Just go further. Dot up, dot and, up, dot up. And this guy was like, all right. He goes, I am going to dismiss you because I feel like emotionally you can't handle this. But let me just say this. I don't want to hear another person say, I don't want to be here in this courtroom. Let me explain the way our society works. There's two things you have to do in this society. One is you pay your taxes. The other is when you're summoned for jury duty, you serve. And these two things, they pay for everything else. They pay for all the other wonderful things that you get to experience in this culture. And all you have to do is those two things. So I don't want to hear another person. Everybody, you know, everybody is sacrificing. Everybody here today. You think you're so special? You think you're so special that you shouldn't have to say And it's just like these long, long speeches that even like once he like nailed the point home, right. everybody gets it. He just wanted to like grandstand with these big speeches. And it did start to shut people up. After her, like it was like, oh, like nobody else felt like doing that. Yeah. And no one else wanted to get like the lecture from him. And so then they start the process of they call 16 names. 16 people get in the jury box. And the judge says, all right, to begin with, I'm going to ask some questions. Uh, I promise you, this is not, we're not trying to pry into your life. Uh, these are just to help the lawyers get a sense of who you are. So he starts the questioning. And this is an interesting thing. Like, well, they'll ask a lot of like, can you be fair? Like, they'll ask like, do you, are you any friends or family who are cops? And like, oh, but, but would that wouldn't affect the way you you to case it wouldn't affect the way if you saw cops testifying wouldn't uh, you could still be fair you think you can be fair and most people will just say like yes yeah like most people want to say i'm a fair person like it's designed to sort of pray into that thing that people have they naturally you publicly want to admit like i'm a good citizen i'm a good person I'm right fair. i can be fair i can be fair and and if you've been victims of a crime all right what crime you know and ask these things they'll ask what you do and all these all these various questions and then the assistant, assistant district attorney gets up. She gets 15 minutes. And then each of the four defense attorneys, they each get 15 minutes. So this process is like a couple of hours of questions, all told. Because the judge, judge's thing lasts a long time, and then each of these attorneys lasts a long time. And the, the defense attorneys... I mean, the thing that got me, about, especially by day three, was how how often they tried to be funny, including the judge. How often they tried to be funny. Right. And particularly once you've been through it several times, the charm just is, like, gone. It's just right. like everyone is just like, my week has been blown by this. And I also, like, I'm so relieved I didn't get put on this jury because given how long jury selection took, I guarantee you this trial will take longer than they said it was going to because I'm like, everything that happens has got to happen five times. And what they say, the trial. I mean, what it was type a burglary. It was a burglary, uh, like a home burglary by four adults, um, three guys and one woman. So I don't know if there was a lookout. If there was, there was a lot within the questioning where you could kind of glean what was happening. We knew that I, uh, there was going to be a child who testified, a nine-year-old child who was seven at the time who was a witness to something. Right. So there was a lot of like testifying about like. Could you listen to the testimony? Could you believe what a seven-year-old's, a nine-year-old's recollection of something two years ago? No. I think all the kids are liars. By day three? People were 
swinging. By day three, an interesting thing happened. Well, because people probably also learn the stuff that works and doesn't work. Yeah. Also, people started realizing, this thing is taking longer, and I'm going to lose weeks and weeks of my life. And there were people who were like, I run a restaurant. If I'm not there, I don't know what's going to happen to my restaurant. And the... I think I'm going to pitch, uh, I don't know if I'll get excited, I think I'm going to pitch a DCM bit show where I, I'm the judge, yeah. and, it's just a, and it's just like people trying to get out of jury duty. Right. Because the way this judge, it was really a cruel kind of tricky thing that he did, which was like, when he was asking the jury, he'd be like, so, like some guy would get up and he'd be like, well actually, I, I look after my, my father, I'm his caretaker, and he suffers from dementia, and I'm his sole caretaker. And so I'm very concerned, like, I won't be able to serve on this because, um, you know, I don't have anyone to take care of him. Well, who's, t- where is he now? Who's taking care of him now? Uh, a friend of mine is. Oh, well, so you've arranged for your friend to take care of him now. Is there a way that you could maybe arrange for this friend or a series of other friends or family members to, you know, do what you've done for these days, but just for the days in the jury? Um, I don't know, it'd be hard um, because, you know, work schedules and stuff like that. Yeah, but you probably could. Like, it might be difficult, but do you think you'd be able to? And it was just like, yeah. In a, in a normal human circumstance, if I was like, hey, JD, I can't do this thing because I'm taking care of my father and he suffers from dementia. Oh, yeah, of course. We'll that would be it the out. normal human thing. You wouldn't say, like, well, what, who's taking care of him now? And then, like, extend that to, like, well, maybe, like, what's happening now. Right. If this can happen, then presumably it's not impossible. Right. And, like, someone was like, I have an exam on Friday and I can't miss it. And they were like, he was like, um, well, do you want me to call your professor? And uh, I could explain to him that you've been commanded by the court, that you, you were ordered to be here and that you have no control over it. Uh, do you want me to make that call? Uh, well, um, I mean, the thing is, it would just be hard, hard because this is already uh, a makeup exam for, like, I've already missed it the first time. Oh, so it's already been rescheduled once. Okay, so... So, you know, you presumably there'd be no problem rescheduling a second time if they've already made it. So particularly, do you think you could just tell them? that? And, and he would get people to back down. Right. Just through, and it was just like, it was always, and, and if you ever got to a place where it was like, well, I'm just worried because like I'm going to, it's going to cost me money. Well, I mean, every, everyone here is sacrificing. Your story is no different than any other person in this room. We've all sacrificed to be here. And it really bothered me after, the, after a while that he would always talk in terms of we've all sacrificed to be here. Because I'm like, you wanted to be a judge. Like, there's no way that you, like, yeah. you're the one person in this room that you can speak toward the higher purpose of how important our justice system is. But quit saying we when you talk about how we've all sacrificed to be here. You, you like this. This is what you wanted. Yeah. Unless your life just didn't work out. Like, it's a little bit like... Uh, he's, he's like number one college quarterback turned <laughs> yeah. judge. He's like, well, I guess I didn't get drafted by the Broncos, so I will have to sacrifice. sacrifice. Or better yet, it's like jury duty for judges where it's like he was like, and the Broncos select like, Judge uh, Herman Gomberg. Yeah. And then he gets a letter that's like, you have been called to the court of oh. New York to be a judge for the next 30 years. Yeah, you have to give up my NFL paycheck for this, you know. But the Broncos. Listen, uh, we're all sacrificing. We're all sacrificing. I play for the Broncos. And I'm on a six-year layoff. And there's, let's be honest, the odds of them bringing me back after six years. My arm's nothing like what it was. <laughs> um, but I, I hated that he kept including himself in the sacrifice lecture. Right. So she's like, just use... A different, don't use, don't include yourself. Just say like, 
everyone who is in this jury pool is sacrificing. Or just say that, like, yeah, the... the part of jury duty is sacrifice. Courts of New York understand that sacrifice is a part of this. Unfortunately, uh, that's what it is. But then by day three, you know, because you always do that thing also of, like, people would say, like, well, I was robbed by this. Yeah. And it'd be like, but do you think you could be fair? And then they would be like, yeah, I think I could be fair. On day three, one person in the first jury selection of the day, he said, um, uh, and have you ever, um, uh, have you ever been a victim of the crime? He says, uh, yeah, uh, yes, I have. So I said, what was the crime? I was, uh, I was burglar, burgled, my house was burgled uh, a couple times. It's like, but do you think that would, uh, do you think you could be fair? Do you think that would affect uh, the way you would view this case? Uh, to be honest, no. I, you know, I'm still real mad about it. I still remember what it was like. Have my house robbed. Uh, got a lot of uh, bad feelings. Uh, it's always on my mind. I think I'd be thinking about it constantly. And uh, no, I don't think I'd be fair. And he's like, really? You couldn't look at this? He goes, nope, not at all. And so he's like, uh, can I ask consent of the lawyers to dismiss? And the lawyers, of course, are all like, yes, absolutely. Like, yeah. no, they don't yeah. want this guy. And once he did it, everybody, it was like really like, everybody I am smart at this whole, like, I can't be fair either. Yeah. And... People were like, um, I'm, I was a preschool teacher, so the idea you know, of a child testifying, it just would like, the idea that a child was involved in this really bothers me, and I don't think I could be fair. They found the crease. They found that. And once it became that, the fascinating thing was on day one, we sit through all this stuff, 16 people, one person impaneled on the jury. Yeah. And so I was like, this is going to take forever. We went through all that for one jury. Remember, we spent the whole day to get one juror. And I'm like, most of those people were fine. There was nobody. that. There were a couple of people uh, that you might have rejected. Yeah. But I'm like, I could have got eight jurors on either side of that. Yeah. And the second day, they impaneled three jurors. So I'm like, fuck. Like, at this rate, we got to get to 14. Right. we got to get 12 jurors and two alternates at, at this rate. By the, by the end of the third day... Almost everybody on the final jury impanelment got picked. And I was like, some of those are real honkers. Like, right. some of those are just real, like, not, not good. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, neither side wanted that person. And it was just fascinating how you could have had such a great jury out of, that, out of those first two that they did. But they're just rejecting people for the littlest thing. And then suddenly it was just, once people started, I can't be fair, they started realizing, like, shit, we're running out of jurors. Right. And... Like, there was one guy who, um, what was his excuse? There was one, oh, there's also the other thing that people started realizing was that, like, I saw a woman who, at a certain point, she goes, um, I'm having a, a trouble, uh, English is not so good, having trouble, um, understanding, and he goes, uh, and on the first two days, people tried this, and the judge would do this thing where he'd be like, and none of the people got picked, but it like kept them in the mix. Yeah. And he'd be like, you're having trouble understanding the things the lawyers are saying? Do you, under, do you have more trouble with, is there any particular lawyer? And they would answer all the questions. And be like, well, you seem to be doing fine now. Like, you, you're yeah. understanding all these questions, right? I think you'll be fine. You know, I mean, I'm, uh, we're not having trouble communicating. And he would kind of like talk yeah. about that. By the third day, I know, there was this woman who, she did the thing. She's like, just having tr- some trouble understanding. He goes, are you... Uh, are you able to understand when I ask you a question? She goes, um, it's hard. Um, and he's like, but you understand the question I'm saying. 
I have um, never. I just started like, yeah. and I was like, and I was looking at her. I was like, oh shit! I think this woman knows exactly what she's doing. And when she got dismissed, she got up and walked away. And I saw her look over at the people she was sitting with before, and she kind of went like, she kind of like grinned from ear to ear, like I did it. And I was just like, ah, oh, full respect to that woman yeah. for like she figured out a way. Because I'm like, the trick for these people is to get out of it, like the in other a new people, way. In a new way, but also, like, the people who got out of it, some of them had to make a choice. They had to sacrifice. Um, they had to get up and publicly say, like, I'm a bad person. Right. Um, they ha- or they had to, like, give, give up, like, fake emotion. They had to, like, sacrifice. Their sacrifice was, like, a little bit of their humanity. Yeah. A little bit of their dignity. They had to kind of admit to their fellow citizens, I don't want to be here, and I'm willing to take a dive. Yeah. Um, for justice. <laughs> Uh, and um, and she figured out a way of doing it where it was just like I just exaggerated a thing that was probably partly true. Right. I was. So what was yours going to be? Mine was going to be. I mean, mine was kind of part of it was honest, which is when they ask um, when they. I mean, part of it is. I mean, just from our style of conversing, you yeah. know that like when we, anytime we talk about like issues, I'm very much in that like. Well, this, but on the other hand, I'm very yeah. much that kind of like I'm a liberal, but I'm also a moderate. Like I can right. look at like the other side in a way that makes the thing that makes liberal, liberalism easy to defeat because you just get like a big honking guy who's just like I want to make America great, and it's like simple, boom. Yeah. Uh, uh, I hate this thing, you know. Whereas I'm like, well, immigration's complicated because when did we start deciding that this that the at what day in our history did the borders become suddenly right. absolute? Um, so I was fully prepared to, when they asked, are you a victim of crime that I've, uh, had an apartment burgled, I've had a house burgled, uh, and I've been mugged at knife point. And if I was going to be asked, um, cause one trick people would try to do is when they'd say like, um, yeah, I think so. The judge would always be like, see now I can't, I need a yes or a no from you. Let me tell you a little story. And he'd go off on right. his like, And his story was like, let's say you're boarding an airplane. This is the short version of his story. Let's say you're boarding an airplane. You see the pilot standing there. He's coming onto the plane. And you say like, uh, hey, Mr. Pilot, uh, you think you're going to be able to land the plane? And the pilot said, yeah, I think so. Anyone going to ride that plane? Uh, putting aside the fact that, that right. sounds like levity, um, the, he would want a yes or no. So he would try to be like, I think so. To kind of get out of it, to kind of like right. not, not seem- sell themselves out entirely. Yeah, and so, but I was just going to say these things about how like these things that had actually happened, and then when he asked, "Do you think you could be fair?" Um, I was just going to talk in some nuance about like um, I like to think that I could be fair, but uh, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, I mean something like that does change you. Like I was. I was messed up for a while after I got mucked. Like, it really screwed with me. Um, and I'd like to be able to sit here and say, yes, I'm a person who can, like, look at things objectively. Um, but I don't think people are ever 100% on these kinds of things. And I don't think, uh, I don't think I could honestly say that, you know, like, I'm not, a, I mean, nobody's perfect. But there are aspects to things like this where, uh, I said, and, and also to be honest, and I was prepared to say this because I actually felt like this, I said, there's a part of me that's like, um, 
by default, I look at a big system like this and then I look at people who are like under the gun from the system and there's a part that's just like, just let them go. Nobody got hurt. Just let them go. And because there's a part of me that like, I actually did kind of believe that. Uh, I actually did have a feeling from what I was looking at the case, I'm like, unless I find out that somebody got hurt in the process of this crime, my inclination is to be like, let them go. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, because, in part because I was like, they have to stay here all week. <laughs> like, right. it kind of felt like they've already had to go through a hassle. I don't, I think it's already been the process itself. But don't you think that would just be, I think you would have ended up on the jury. I don't think there's any way that that'd be Because the three defendants would be like, yep, go, yep, this is our guy. Nah. And then the public person would have been like, fuck it, sure. No, no, I hope not. But I like to think I would have gotten dismissed. I also like that whole speech and then like cut to you <laughs> on, on the, the jury. jury. Yeah. Um, My, when I did it, it was very funny because we got pulled into a smaller room to have that same discussion. And I, th- I think I've actually told this story on the podcast, but it was, we got pulled into a smaller room and the two lawyers come in and immediately they start doing like a, like a routine almost where they're like, all right, we're the lawyers of the case. Um, uh, I'm the correct lawyer and this is the idiot. And he's like, John, come on, no jokes here. Like, it was like, they start doing like, they clearly knew each other. And so the one was like, was like, uh, so I'm the correct one, and he's the incorrect one. And he was like, all right, don't listen to him. He's just being an asshole right now. Like they were doing wow. like weird bits. And then the one one lawyer left the room, and the other lawyer was like, this chair stinks. I'm gonna switch it, and he switched it. <laughs> and he's like, so like kept like sinking down, you know. <laughs> so then the other lawyer comes back in and is like, did he switch my chair? You can't do that. And it was like this bizarre, like, <laughs> like children fighting. <laughs> and then again, it was whatever the judge or whoever it was in the room. And it, it, our room felt it would look like a high school classroom. We were sitting in high school chairs. Yeah. And it was like, I think it was just a jury selection room. Yeah. I think it was a room only for this. It wasn't an actual courtroom. Yeah. And then they gave the whole speech, and they started going to the room asking those questions. And what was very funny is that like. The lawyers and the judge had to talk outside, and while they're out there, all of us in the room, everyone's like, "God, I don't want to be here. I want to get out of this. Like, God, I want to get out of this. Like, like, oh, yeah. this is like the worst. Like, and there's particularly like this this one woman who was like, "This is a waste of my time. I do not want to be here. Like, like, this is like so stupid, and I'm gonna get out of here. Like, this is a waste of my time. Like, yeah. I am not gonna be on this jury. No way, no how." She's like being very vocal. And I keep laughing as it's going on, and there's people talking about how you get out of it, and blah, blah, yeah. blah. They come back in, and they start the questioning. Um, I'm immediately like, oh, like, they go around, and that's when you're like, I have a plane ticket, or whatever. Yeah. Like, they do it like that, person by person. Yeah. And they go around, and one person's like, this is going to be a medical malpractice case. Um, have you ever had an experience at a hospital that has been negative or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I was like, yes, I have. Did it affect you? Yes, it did. Like, do you think you'd be fair? No, I don't. I hate doctors. But same stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, all right, dismiss, dismiss. Great. This person's gone. So it goes around and like, it's very clear. It's like, just say that you hate hospitals. Yeah. They give you the heebie-jeebies and then the one lawyer is going to dismiss you. Yeah. It gets to this woman who is the most vocal person and she's like arms folded, like not paying attention the entire time. Just like trying to just like broadcast the world how unhappy she is that she's here and she does not want any part of this and does not want to be on the jury. Yeah. And they also, 
And so they, uh, one of the questions they also do, and I don't know if they did this for you, is like, it's like, how were you raised? Were you raised to believe right or wrong? Were you raised to be, like, all this stuff that's like very personal. Yeah. Like, like, what did your parents impart in you? What, how do you feel about doctors? Do you think society are fixed by doctors or hurt? You know, all this yeah. stuff. So you get this woman, and it's like, of, these lawyers and this judge are being very clear where it's like, listen, we're going to serve it up. If you don't want to be here, just say no, and you can leave. There's no drama about it. Yeah. Gets this woman, and they're like, ma'am, have you ever had an experience with hospitals? Uh, that is negative. No, I haven't. Ma'am, do you have any negative opinions about doctors? No. Do you think doctors are positive? Yeah, I think they're fine. She's like saying this all with like yeah. sass. Like, were you raised to be fair? Like, when you look at a situation, do you look at the facts or do you make an opinion based on your past experience? Like, I look at the facts. Do you consider yourself an objective person? Yeah. Do you consider yourself a fair person? <laughs> yeah. Were you raised to believe that there is good and bad or are you raised to believe that every situation is unique? I don't know. Every situation is unique. I'll just make my judgment based on the evidence that I see. Like she is, she's like exactly what they want. Yes, and they go great, great. Go into this room. You're part of the jury. And she's like, what? And she's like flummoxed <laughs> at the idea. And it's like, did you not see what was happening? It was insane. It was hilarious. Well, because it's also interesting because, like, she took them all as like, I'm not going to give these people anything. Anything. And it was like, no, in fact, you've talked yourself onto this malpractice case that they told us was going to take three weeks. And also, in a weird way, it almost feels like the one thing that the lawyers don't realize is that, like, the thing that maybe they don't want about her is that, like, she, was, she wasn't able to figure out yeah, exactly. how to get out. Like, the one question is, like, are you trying to get out of this right now and you're trying your hardest and this is what, you know, like, if they knew that, I might be like, I don't know if I want her because there's something weird about the fact that she can't put together how to get off the jury. Well, that's what's so interesting that my mom always says, my grandfather would say, is that it's like the hard part about jury duty is like, and someone who a lawyer would say this too, is like a defense attorney. They're They're like, listen, like, juries need people like you. Right. Like they like the reason people go to jail for stupid stuff is because they get a bad jury. Is because people like you are smart enough to get out of jury. What we yeah. need is we need a way for smart people to be on juries because that's what ruins stuff. And if you look at it, it's like really jury duty is a test for like are you smart enough and able to intuit the room enough to make decisions on how best to get out of this situation. Yeah. And if you do not pass that test, you are now deciding the fate of another human. Yeah. And what's scary is like, oh, if something ever happened to you, the jury of people sitting in front of you are going to be people who, who could out. not figure out how to get out of jury duty. Yeah. And that's and, a and, scary, and, scary and it'll thought. Be a, and it'll be a mix of people who, are, who don't get out because jury duty was not so inconvenient to them that it was going to ruin their life. Yes. Because for a lot of people, it really is like you'd hear some people's circumstances and be like, this is actually going to ruin this. Like for me, it wasn't... It was boring, but it happened at a time when I was like, I can give up these days. But if I'd had to give up a, a fourth day, I would have missed a callback for a thing that I actually, uh, it's something that could actually lead to something that could lead to many other things. Well, the best jury then is like older people who don't have anything going on. They're like, yeah, I think this yeah. would be interesting. Yeah. Because to, to me, like when... I was thinking of that judge. I was thinking about like, every time you talk about sacrifice, I'm like, I wonder how many things he would feel this way about if it meant that like 
he he would lose his ability to be a judge for six months. Right. Because in many cases, like for me as someone who is like, if I have a callback for a thing that can't be rescheduled and that not doing it could mean like, oh, that means that I don't work on this project, which means those the, these dozen people aren't familiar with me, which could mean that like an even bigger project could be like, oh, let's bring in comfort. Right. Like you could be losing things that you, you just never know. Like you could be losing things that spider web out towards five other things that could mean somewhere down the line, like, oh, that was like five years of work in this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, the, I know you can unpack things like that lots of different ways, but, um, it's so fascinating to hear the my main problem with this was like, I wouldn't have minded one part of the process. I wouldn't even mind waiting all the time, but it's the fact that I kept having to, by the set, the second day when I realized they're going to keep us in the courtroom again and make us watch the same procedure repeated with a different panel of 16. And we can't have, and there's no escape from it. I was like, oh, this, and it starts to really, ladies and gentlemen, here we go again. All right, I'm going to ask questions. Of the judge. And you go, the judge asks each of the 16 people the same questions, pushes back on the same things. The uh, assistant district attorney gets up. She starts asking questions. She was fine. The one thing from a, like a casting point of view when you look at it is the, the, four dependent, the four defendants were all in their, I think, 20s. Right. Three black guys, one black woman. Their attorneys... Uh, were all, uh, this sounds like I'm stereotyping, but uh, all of their lawyers seem like white male New York Jewish attorneys that all seemed a little bit, um, like it wasn't like they got flashy attorneys. They all seemed like character actor attorneys. Like one of them specifically looked like, oh, you would cast the lawyer from The Wire who was like, they had their like, kind of heavy set Jewish lawyer who like looks after Avon Boxdale's right. like legitimate business right. cover or whatever. And like and he uh and the first guy um looked like you would cast the um the actor who plays the warden with the mustache on uh Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Looked like a guy who was like, welcome, I'm you know, I'm a uh, you know, is that thing of like could be in charge of something, but if he was, it would be kind of this haggard, like, uh, I'm always under a pile of paperwork. Right. He gets up at the beginning and he's like, hello, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I'm going to be asking these questions. And he, I just want to know if you can be fair. And he's like asking all the, and he had a thing where he wanted, like you kind of intuit aspects of the, from, of the case from the kinds of questions they were asking. We'd learn little bits and pieces. And he had this thing he was very proud of, which was, uh, he wanted to make the point that, like, it wasn't enough to prove, you know, a few parts of the case. They had to prove every aspect of it in order to be a uh, a guilty conviction. Right. And he said, um, let's say, I'm going to give you an example. Now, this is not an example from the real world. This is an example that uh, uh, is entirely made up, just to make a point. Uh, let's say that the state of New York, in all its wisdom, uh, decided to outlaw Walking down the street, carrying a hot cup of tea. Do, do we have any tea drinkers here? Anyone drink tea? All, all right, okay, a couple. All right, me too. All right. So uh, it's now illegal uh, in this example to walk down the street uh, carrying a hot cup of tea. Now, what are the three things? There are three things that you need in order to uh, convict someone for breaking this new law. What are the three things? 
uh, that you need. Yes, sir. Hey, do you know what, what, what's one of the three things you need? I guess uh, I, I have to be walking down the street. Uh, okay. I didn't, I actually didn't have that. All right. Yeah. You had one that I didn't have. Okay. So that's a, that's a fourth thing. All right. So that wasn't one of the, you know what? Never mind. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Uh, so there's three things. So he, he clearly had this. Right. Like, so that was like one of the few moments during the whole time where I actually laughed out loud just because I was like, I love that he set up this thing where it's like, guess the three things. And the instant he started trying to involve people, it fell apart. And it was also like a perfect, also it was a perfect example of like, not a great lawyer. Yeah. He's like, you have to prove three things. Well, walking down the street. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. We can get this guy off. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and it was also like such a complicated comparison to just make a very simple point. It actually was like very disorienting hearing him try to make yeah. this point. He's like, uh, no, I, I'm actually going to do it. So the three things you would need are uh, you'd have to uh, be carrying a cup. You'd have to have a cup. You would have to have a tea bag in it. And it'd have to be filled with hot water. Not lukewarm. Not cold water, hot water. Those are the three things you need. Now, let's say you have the cup, you have the tea bag, no hot water. Cannot convict. Cannot convict because you're not breaking every, it's not, it doesn't meet all of the requirements. I'm sitting there thinking like, why does the tea bag have to be in it? Like if the law is like, hot, can't walk down the street without a cup of tea. Why do you need the tea bag in it? Can't you just have a, a finished cup? <laughs> like, yeah. like this has been so poorly thought out. This lawyer clearly his argument is going to be like, listen, they took the they they took the TV, yeah, they did walk it out into the lobby of the apartment building, right? But then they were caught before it got out, right? It was not burglary because the TV did not leave the apartment. Yeah, we had the cup, we had the tea bag, but the water was not yet hot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, but he brought up. I was thinking like, oh, that was sloppy. He must have just thought of that. And right. he regrets it already because it's falling apart. He mentioned his tea bag, his, his his hot cup of tea analogy every day because he got up four times total. And every time you're like, you remember, you, you may remember my uh, uh, the hot cup of tea uh, analogy. And he kept bringing it up. And I was like, he's proud of this. He doesn't realize that this is just this convoluted. Yeah. Um, and he also did the thing because the first day they got 15 minutes, but then the second day they got another 15 minutes. And then by the time we sat through this whole thing for two whole days, they reduced them down to they had 10 minutes each. But each time they would do a thing, each lawyer would do a thing where they, they would say, once we'd seen the whole thing once, they got the second day and they're like, uh, I know, ladies and gentlemen, I know we've already been through this before, so I'm, I'm going to be brief. I'm not going to use my full time. Each time they would all use the full time to the point where everyone's session ended with the judge being like, you have one minute, counselor. Like, really? I, uh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to use my And they would use the last minute to like speculate on a new point. You tell like none of these people could communicate efficiently enough to make a point in one minute. They'd be like, right. all right, the question I want to ask is, all right, let's say uh, that you make an assumption about another person. Let's say you, you're walking down the street and you, you see three people and they're walking together. That's time, counselor. That, well, that was a fast minute. Okay. <laughs> they would, all right, boy, okay. Didn't feel like a minute to me. <laughs> Go sit down. And they were, and I did think, like I've always thought of lawyers. I haven't been around lawyers, but I've always imagined that like, 
Law school must be really hard. Passing the bar must be really hard. My idea of it is just like, oh, it's like medicine. It's just like, how do these people, like, I feel like the things I'm good at are things that are, uh, I don't know why I'm good at them. They feel mysterious to me. Um, and, uh, people who aren't good at those things and be like, oh, just bad luck, Chuck. Just sort right. of like, I don't know why. But when I look at like people who are become doctors or lawyers, I've always had this feeling of like, oh boy, like to be smart in that way where you can like read a medical book and like retain all the things you need to know. Right. Like when I just think of like today on the way here, I forgot the, the lav mic that I had in my apartment. And it's like a decision that cost me an hour because it was like the trains were weird and, and it was that type of thing. And I'm like, but it was just like a little bit of time on a day we're recording a podcast. Yeah. But I'm like, I make th- I do things like that all the time. Where like oh, I miscalculate which train I'm going to get on, or I don't budget my time well. I'm like, if I was a doctor, it would be a matter of time before one of those decisions would be like, and then he died on the table, all because like I forgot my scalpel. My scalpel. Where's my scalpel? Where's my scalpel? It's in my apartment. Um, <laughs> like an hour later, is he okay? He's dead, doctor. What? Oh God! I sh- Why did I ask a second doctor to? Uh, yeah. Um. But when I think of things like that, I've always thought of certain jobs just like, ugh, I could never go near being in that job. I don't have what it takes. After a week of doing this, lawyer, even though I clearly wouldn't like going to law school, there'd be so many things I hate about it, I feel like... You'd be a much better lawyer than most of the... I feel like I could team up with another lawyer to be like... You know like the way Aaron Sorkin wrote The West Wing where he had researchers... Yeah. Who would come up with the stuff and then he would write like the dialogue. He would write the teleplay for it. I feel like I could be a lawyer like that where I'd be like another guy. I'd be like, what's our argument? Like our argument is this. You don't, you don't want like law PR. Yeah. Where it's like, it's like you tell me the argument and I'll I'll sell it. I'll sell it. Because what I saw these lawyers, there was one, it was really funny. There was one of the four defense attorneys who was clearly not as good as the other three. And in part, he was also not as interesting as the other three, but he was just, objectively, I thought, like, not as good. And the judge right. seemed to get mad at him easier. Right. Um, and he would say things that would get objections, and he'd be like, what? You know, like, and I did have a feeling of the week of, like, I know that I could do this part. I would get up and go, like, because I'm like, they also were obsessed with TV lawyer shows in ways that I'm like, how long has this been true? Like, they were like, has everyone seen? We've all seen lawyer shows on TV, right? And, and... It also was like disturbing in that way about juries, that about like who ends up on the jury. That this guy was like trying to make a point about cross examinations aren't like how you see them on TV and in movies. Right. And he's like, how long would you say? A, we all know what a cross examination is. That's when a, someone is, gets a chance to talk to a, a witness after the other lawyer did it. You get to cross examine them. How long is a cross examination? Would you say uh, that you've seen on most TV shows? And it'd be like uh, like five minutes. Yeah, like maybe five minutes, maybe ten minutes. Not much longer than that, though, right? And do you think that's how long a cross-examination would be like in an actual trial? Or do you think it would be longer or shorter? Longer? Yes, longer. You know, they go through these things. and But I'm amazed that as obsessed as they were about how the differences were, I'm like, this is not that different. The main difference is that, like, you're not as good as Sam Waterston is at it. Right. Like... Like if you actually got someone, yeah. The di- the difference is they, the difference is they got a better lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I was like, I bet that I could get up, and 
bluff my way through these things. Not in a complicated case, but like certainly in this part of it. In a way that would also, I also wouldn't fucking take this long. Like, even someone like me, I would be like, you know what will go over well with this jury? A lawyer who talks for three minutes. Right. Because I also started hating the lawyers by the end of it. I'm like, you're getting, you're, the, you're getting the jury pool annoyed at you. Like, I was like, these defendants are going to be hurt by the fact that you've had to hear their case too much. How would we fix the system? Don't make people watch stuff they don't have to. I think, okay. That's one thing, but that doesn't even get us close to good. Okay, so. Maybe it's like this. Maybe you create like a, every five years, six years? Every six years, you have to have completed three weeks of jury duty. Yeah, it is a lot, maybe. Three weeks is a lot. It's almost a month. But, like, what I'm trying to think is, like, you can get it all out of the way. Yeah. And one foul swoop, or you can break it up into small things. Most feels like... Because I think the thing about jury... Here's the thing about jury duty I don't like. Yeah. The possibility that you could be put on a case that lasts forever. Like, my nightmare would be O.J. Simpson, right? Right. I think that lasts, like, whatever, however many years that lasted. Yeah. It was a huge, long case. Long time. Wouldn't want that. Yeah. Um, you also don't know, is this going to take me one day or is this going to take me three weeks on the more normal side of it? Yeah. They tell you when you can do it, which is not convenient. It's a surprise, a bad surprise. Yeah. I feel like if I could choose when to go and decide a general time frame of how much time I had to give, yeah. I wouldn't be that bothered by it. It's expectations. I would go in knowing... Knowing that I could dedicate yeah. a week to this or whatever. Yeah. I think they should do jury selection should be like... Well... Like almost like an individual interview process where you just like go into a room and talk with someone in general. Yeah. And then you get put... I guess this is sort of how it works... I heard a thing. Okay. And I didn't listen to the story, but um, somebody sent me a link to a story that was on WNYC that was talking about how there are ways, given the way that our data is collected now, that they could actually do a lot of jury selection without going through the process of bringing you in and asking you questions. Right. That there's people that could rule out pretty instantly that would be more accurate, and it wouldn't be, they're like, well, that's invasive. That's an invasion of privacy. But like, well, that part's already happened. They already have your information. And it's no more invasive than making you publicly answer a bunch of questions in front of a courtroom full of people. Ooh, this would be interesting. Okay. Here's what would make me do jury duty. Yeah. They have this data. You have this like dossier on yourself that they have. Yeah. And they call you in to be jury yeah. on a specific case that applies to the things about you. Yeah. So it's like... Oh, burglary case. All right, well, then we're going to get a bunch of people from that neighborhood. Right. Or whatnot. Yeah. Okay, because you live in this neighborhood, you don't have prior burglary situations in your life, and you have this level of education. We need you on this jury. Right. So they kind of headhunt a little bit. They sort of headhunt. Or it's like, it's like oh, there's this 
um, this bizarre thing like, about... Like, like there's a joke thief. There's a joke thief. <laughs> there's a, um, a case that has to do with like a creative issue where it's like a... And that would be a civil case more than a criminal case. Well, I guess there could be something where it's like you stole my... That's still more civil. I'm trying to think of a criminal thing where it would relate to something that we do where it's like... Yeah, it's like something where... And, and I guess that's complicated because they sometimes they don't want people that have a past right. history of whatever. But like, it would feel... I would be more inclined to do if they were like, we need you for this case. Right. You're, you're the... You're, we're going to have a bunch of people... You're a college-educated person who works in entertainment that we need for this. Yeah, and, but I think the thing they were talking about was like, they can gather information from like... Like, even just going through... Uh, it's like a computer went through my system and they were like, we have this case where someone is suing the MTA for uh, delays that caused them problems right. or something like that. The system would flag me. It's like, we can't bring him in because he's tweeted about the MTA. Because there's articles written about him losing his mind on the subway train. Yeah. Um, that it's like, oh yeah, someone, someone... Like, even if, it, even if it's like just a borderline thing where it's like somebody assaulted uh, an MTA worker... Uh, in the middle of a massive delay. Right. They would look at mine, and even though I don't, I could be reasonable in a case like that, I don't want people getting assaulted, but they'd be like, we don't want this guy. He hates the... Because you're the Bernie Getz of the MTA. Yeah. Um, but it's... Um, yeah, there has to be some system that doesn't involve... Um, where you can kind of improve the jury pool a little bit by also... Uh, Streamlining your methods in terms of like it not being just purely random because there's nothing random about once they get into jury selection. It's very calculated. Right. They're looking for very specific things. What if it's you and your friends? <laughs> the jury of you, you and your friends. You get made. You're, you're entitled. You're in, everyone is entitled to a jury of their friends. No, no. It's like uh, you get made a jury captain. Yeah. And you have to. Oh, it's like. Um, Organizing a kaleidoscope yeah, jam, exactly. an improv jam, where it's like, you're a captain, you're a jury captain. I'm like, hey, Connor, I'm a jury captain. Do you want to come do jury duty for the next week? I would be more likely to do a jury if uh, <laughs> this could be the key that breaks it wide open. But it's hard because like, some people are like, jury captains come in and is like, I don't have a lot of friends that couldn't get anybody. <laughs> but it does feel like you could probably, a lot of times it could be, it's like, oh my God, I'm a jury captain. I'm gonna get everybody. I'm gonna get Becca and Robin, and we're just, we'll all we'll make a week of it. My God, I put together the funniest jury team. Yeah, it's just like I also feel like. Um, oh my! My two other strategies for getting off it because I I was genuinely worried. I never got picked to go through the questioning. Right. Um, they finished and just let us all go at the end of the third day. But did they call you up chronologically? Or not Random, randomly. It was just random. Based not, on where you're sitting? No, it was just based on the car, stack of cards they had. Okay. And um, one method that I had that I felt would work and wouldn't require much was just answer all the questions like that, but I was just going to stare at the defendants a lot and, and shake my head no. Like, And <laughs> if I get questioned about it, because sometimes they'd be like, I noticed you do this, I would be like, I don't know. I guess I was unaware of it. It was probably subconscious. Just make yourself into a psychopath? I was going to be real twitchy. I was going to be like... <laughs> For those who can't see, Connor's first thing was he was shaking his head 
with a disapproving squinty eyes. And then the second version is Connor is, Connor is rocking back and forth. Um, and then, and or, then my... or here's, here's, here's a version of what you can do. All right. Ask me, ask me one of the jury questions. Um, are you friends with any, uh, police officers or members of law enforcement? Or like, uh, the ones that are about like, uh, if you're willing to be, wait, did I, are you willing to be wait, fair? Uh, oh, I think I just knocked my microphone. Test, Jay test, is test. putting his mic back in. Sorry, I kicked my microphone as I did this. Um, uh, yeah, but can, you be, can you be fair? Yes, I can. <laughs> and for those of you who can't see, for those of you who can't see uh, what we're doing, JD made a, a, showed as many teeth as he possibly could while he said it. But it's just like... A demonic grin. Not, don't betray yourself. Don't betray yeah. your morals. Oh, yeah. But say, yeah. say it in a way. Can I be fair? Everybody says I'm the most fair. <laughs> If I've ever to, do I have negative feelings about a cop? No. no. I think all cops are just doing their job. I wonder if you could So get... that if like you saw it written back, it'd be like, oh no, he answered that, uh, he answered that pretty, uh, pretty normal. I wonder if like, even just, it occurred to me like, I wonder if like, even just, this is a weird one. <laughs> and it might, might or might not work, but if, uh, if you just kept talking about like my friend Benji... <laughs> Like answered everything in terms of like just ask me any any of the questions. Uh, so uh, were you raised in a way to look at facts as opposed to look at your personal opinions of things? Uh, my friend Benji uh, always says that I'm like I am a guy who looks at the facts and I try to be fair. And Benji always says like Connor, you know when it comes to facts, Benji thinks you got it going on. Uh, okay. Um, have you ever had an experience in a hospital or that was positive or negative? Um, my friend Benji had, uh, his appendix <laughs> operated on and I went to the hospital, but he's just a pal, you know? So it was only family. And I remember talking to them and saying like, can you just let me know, is Benji okay? Like, is Benji going to be okay? Okay. Uh, you've mentioned your friend Benji, but we, we're going to keep it to, um, Do you know Benji? Of- <laughs> No, sir. So, oh, you you saying that I mentioned Benji? Yes, you've mentioned Benji a lot. Oh, I thought you were saying that you knew Benji too. I was like, oh no, is that going to get kicked off the jury because the judge knows Benji too? So back to back to the questions that we're asking right. here. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. What did you ask about Benji? When you make decisions, uh, can you do it objectively or do you do it subjectively? Do you do it based on your own uh, past experiences or do you do it based on the evidence? Uh, usually. I'll try to be objective, but often I'll ask Benji, I'll be like, what do you think? I like, because sometimes it's good to have like a second. But you said you'll be objective. Yeah. Uh, Benji says I'm not, but I disagree with him. I always say, Benji, don't say that about me. who is Benji? Benji's a friend of mine. Uh, We used to work together uh, and we live about a half a mile apart, Uh, but we hang out most days. I'm not seeing him today, obviously, because Benji didn't get called for jury duty. And do you imagine you're able to make decisions uh, on your own without the aid of your friend. Yeah. Oh man, Benji'd be so jealous. <laughs> I think they might <laughs> they might pick they might I, just... hate that, I would hate to go to so much trouble and have him be like, he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I do feel like that <laughs> the next day you're just very normal. <laughs> it's like that Benji guy hasn't mentioned Benji once. <laughs> his vo- his voice is different now. <laughs> um my nightmare would have been to commit to a character and at some point get tired of doing it and let it slip. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'd start off and be like, oh boy, jury duty. And by the end of it, I'd be like, 
Yeah, uh, I think I could be fair. Yeah. I, but my other, and I think this is probably the most effective of them, is just saying that I'm an actor and a comedian. I've heard that when you say, I've heard that if you say you write for television, you don't get picked. Oh, interesting. And I feel like actor-comedian could send up weird flares in terms of like... Yeah. Because people do have a weird thing about that. Like, they don't like the opinions of actors. Like, people are like, even when they agree with them, people are like, stick to acting. You know, like whenever uh, performers talk about stuff. Oh, I've got, I've got one. I've got an easy, yeah. I've got an easy one. Ask yeah. me. Ask um, me. Do you think that you could be fair? Uh, yeah, I think I could actually be fair. I actually, one of the things that I have that a lot of people don't have is I have um, powers of uh, telepathy and uh, I'm an empath. So I can read the minds of other people. So I'm actually very fair because I know what they're thinking at all times. Yeah. All right, you may go. <laughs> if you just yeah. if you just make a claim. Yeah. It's like, it's like yeah, I think it'd be fair. Yeah. I can read people's minds. I know what people are thinking at all times. Yeah. Like I wonder... I mean, there's some, it, feel, it does feel like um, there's a lot of fun ways that you could do it. It's just a matter of committing to it. Because, like, even just saying, like, well, I mean, the thing I would be most concerned about is I know that there are four defendants in this case, but no one's talking about how there's a secret defendant, <laughs> a fifth defendant, that um, isn't being addressed, even though he's right here. And... I think it's a little bit troubling to me that it's it's the one thing no one's talking about. Like, that lawyer's not talking about it, and none of the four lawyers, even his own lawyer, the fifth lawyer, the fifth defense attorney, is not speaking about it. <laughs> Just really commit to something. Just commit to there being an invisible fifth defendant and an invisible fifth lawyer. And it's like, he, how come he's not being allowed to ask questions? You know, like, we're sitting through it where you have the, uh, the prosecution gets 15 minutes, and then each... Of the first four defense attorneys get 15 minutes, and then you have one lawyer and one defendant remaining who are completely unaddressed by this court. Uh, uh, I think I could be fair. There's something that I think I should bring up. I don't think uh, you're not going to ask a question about it, so I think I just have to um, sort of broadcast this myself and sort of offer this up as something that I think could actually be a problem for this case is actually. Um, that defendant right there visited me in my dream last night um, in the dreamscape, and he told me that his client was guilty. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to let that influence anything, but he did come to me last night in a dream and tell me that his client was guilty. So I know that that's not real, and that was a dream, a figment of my imagination. Yeah. But if he continues to come to me in my dream and tell me yeah. that his client is guilty, then I'm, it's going to affect me. It's going to affect me. All right, you, you can go. No, I want to stay. No, I'd like to be on the you jury. Have to go. I'd, I'm actually going to. It's my right to be on this jury. Oh, how this works. <laughs> That's another. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to sit through this and get rejected. Just, even if you just made a big deal, like, if I have to sit through this and I'll get picked for the jury, I'll be so fucking pissed. I wonder if you could get out of it that way, too, of being like, here, here we, we go. go. <laughs> I'm going to make I a jury. I guarantee if you had two people do it at the same time, they'd both be dismissed. <laughs> if you just had two people who refused to. We're going to make the jury. Yeah, we're going to make the jury. Jury buddies. And just like, as they're talking, it's like, okay. Like, just speak aloud. It's like, it's like okay, we've learned something here. Yeah. If you say, if you say that you're, you, you, you don't think fairly, they're going to kick you out. They're going to kick you out. Everybody, no one take that. That's ours. That's ours. Uh, well, actually, I think you could probably just with this one thing, just like uh, turn to the person next to you, 
when you get seated in the box of the questions and, and just say to them, go along with me on this. Just go along with whatever I say. And then it's time to go like, I do have one thing I want to say, Your Honor, that um, I, I'm very happy. I want, to be, I want to get picked to be on the jury. <laughs> but me and my friend Mark here, um, we're pals, and it's a package deal. Like, it's both or none. <laughs> like, don't, like, reject one of us, and then, like, you gotta, you gotta seat us both. Or, here's, here's what you do. Just before you say anything, just go, I'm gonna say whatever will get me on this jury. Yeah. I'm just gonna say all the right things, and I'll say whatever I'll gets say what me on this jury. I'll say what you wanna hear. I'll say what you hear. I'll say things that are so balanced, so modular. I'm the perfect juror. I'm probably <laughs> the sweet spot. I'm going to take all this, and I'm going to be on this jury. And I'm yeah. going to tell you this. I will ride this out as long as it needs to go. And I'm going to be the juror. I'm going to, right now, I'm going to take all my own thoughts and put them yeah. to the side. And what you want to hear, you're going to hear. Yeah. I'm your guy. Um, I did actually have a thought during the... Um, because the, the, there were the four defendants uh, who had burgled. And uh, one of the four defendants was a woman... Uh, and she's a very attractive woman. And I did have the father, like, I bet I could get off the jury just by saying, like, Your Honor, I don't think I could be fair. I, uh, I've been sitting here for three days, and I have developed a crush on that. <laughs> no! That defendant. No! <laughs> and, and be like, it's not meaningful. Like, it's not, like... Um, I know it won't go anywhere. I know it's not going to go anywhere. Like, I'm not, I'm not... I don't say this to embarrass you. But, like, it, I've, it's a thought I had. It's just, like... I've... Fan- in this... To be honest, it's not something that normally happens to me. But you but sat me for three I, days with nothing to do. And, and, and I'm an animal. I'm an animal at the end of it. I'm an, Your Honor, I'm an animal. Your Honor, <laughs> I'm an animal, Your Honor. I've begun to fantasize. I have fantasies. Yeah. I'll say it. I've, had fan- I've sat here and had fantasies while you've asked questions. And, uh, and I apologize for this. I apologize to you. I don't, ma'am, I don't mean to embarrass you, but... Um, you know, I you know I hope you take this as a compliment. Like, just like take it for what it is. I'm not saying this to be. I don't want to be like a street harasser, but you know, you want us to be honest. That's the other thing is, on the first day, I couldn't believe people weren't saying the judge would like push back at the people who would try to do things to get out, and I was like, why is no one saying? Do you not want me to be honest? I thought you wanted me to be honest. Yeah, because I was like. The people on the first day, he would kind of try to push back, and he would be like, wait. Because like some of the attorneys would say a thing, and the judge would always go in and go like, wait, but you can be fair though, right? You can do it. And you're not saying this. And he would kind of like try to aggressively yeah. corral you back into being a possible juror. And like, why is no one going like, Your Honor, I thought you wanted me to be honest. Do you not want me to be? Just like turn it back and make the judge have to own it. And by the third day, people started realizing they could do that. Like they'd say things like, if I'm being honest and I want to be honest... Because the judge was like, I said that's the most important thing. There was also a guy, this made me laugh at one point, one of the defense attorneys, um, he kept doing things where he would be like, um, like he said something at one point where he was like, um, do you think, uh, if you're part of this jury, do you think that um, you could sit in judgment of... uh, people who have been convicted of a crime, and the judge immediately goes... They don't sit in judgment. They look at the evidence. I sit in judgment. They don't sit in judgment. I am the one who sits in judgment. They analyze the evidence and deliver a fair verdict. I am the one who sits And I was like, holy shit. I'm like, 
I think if someone did this in an improv scene, I'd be like, oh, hold on. Yeah, I'd be like, no judge would... Because it was like... That's also a way out. Yeah. I, I'm the judge. Said, <laughs> I'm the judge. I like to think of myself I as am... judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> yes, that'd be fair, because I am a judge. And I will be the judge in this situation. My nickname in school was Judge. So call me Judge, Judge. <laughs> um, the, uh, but there was another time where the guy said, where this attorney goes, um, uh, well, they had a big thing about asking the question about how, like, let's say, let's say, right now, if the defense presented no evidence, and uh, if the prosecution presented no evidence, and then we, the defense attorneys, we just sat there and did nothing. We instantly rest our case. Would you, not knowing anything about this case, would you find my client guilty, not guilty, or would you say, I don't have enough information to make a decision? And most people go like, oh, we don't have enough information. He goes, you're actually wrong. Because in our system, we have the presumption of innocence. So you would have no choice but to find my defendant not guilty in the absence of any case. So he loved that as far as like people go, oh, well. And, but then he was like, do you think uh, that you could say, um, knowing this, could, you could be fair, do you think that you would be able to say uh, that my client is uh, innocent? Could you say that? Would you be able to say that my client is innocent? And he was asking this as a question, and the prosecution was like, "Objection! You can't." And they're like, "Counsel, you can't ask the jury to say if they could say that the defendant is innocent." Because he was like trying to ask them, like, "Do you think you could say that my client is innocent? Like, do you think you'd be able to say that?" Yeah. And they were like, uh, "Yeah." And he was asking it hypothetically, but they were like, "What is the?" And the jury was like, "You can't just ask the jury to." Say that the client is, yeah. is innocent. At the beginning, he's like, "What did I, do? Your Honor? What did I do?" And it was just like, "What?" It was just, I was just like, oh, "That that that guy knew exactly." He was like trying to get away with like asking his question. Do you think that you could look at my client and say that my client? Do you think you'd be able to say my client is innocent? Do you think you'd be able to say that? And uh, it was just so. There were so many things like that where it was just kind of like, "Is this really what lawyers do?" Like it felt like, yeah, it felt like. They were not prepared in the ways that I would have... My idea of, like, got to get a lawyer... Yeah. ...is so that you could have a lawyer kind of, like, bluff and hoot and kind of preen their way through this process. But instead, it's just, like, these people who you're... Oh, I think that's also... I don't want to stereotype, but, like, I think that's also... The lawyer you can afford, necessarily. Yeah. But it's, like, these are people who pass the bar, like... I don't think the bar is so high. Oh boy, is that what it's from? Is that what that phrase is from, or is it something where there's a literal bar? Uh, I mean, I think it's just the. I always think of like high jump. Yeah, bar set too high. Yeah, but I was uh, very relieved to not be selected, and I got my life back, and now every day has felt good since then. Every day since I got released has felt better. Right? Well, it's a stress when you're, you have that, right? I just got a letter yesterday that I don't think I'm being audited, but my state tax return was uh, denied. Oh, and they're wow. like, which is my deductions, because I deduct a lot. Yeah. My federal was fine, but not my state. So I have to send in a thing, and they just like gave me the standard deduction. But I well, now they just I, rejected the deductions. Yeah, mm. which is not normal. But it's also I'm reaching a bracket where it's like I make enough money that 
there's this whole thing with commission and blah, blah, blah. It gets complicated. Yeah. So I have a feeling it'll get worked out. But it was the kind of thing where I was like, ugh, I have to think about taxes again. Yeah, I haven't done my taxes yet. Really? No. I've done my taxes and gotten my refunds already. I always do it in April. I'll do it this week. Really? I do it in, like, February. Not me. Because I, like I get money back. I don't know if I'm going to get money back or not. Right. Thirteenth episode, Connor. Here we are. Here we are. A lot about the legal system. Oh shoot! What did we do? We missed forty-one minutes. It didn't matter. No one did that. Okay. I mean, some people did, but hey, guess what? If you did it, here's the true minute forty-one. Uh, what were we talking about when we did that? I don't know. <laughs> um, I think it was instructions. Yeah. It's like choose your own adventure. Welcome to minute forty-one of the thirteenth episode. Now we're just gonna like gaslight our listeners. Yeah. You're, 41, you're currently 41 minutes into episode 13 of 12 Hour Day. Um, hey, a fun thing to do is do a fan edit of this episode where this truly is the 41st minute. Try uh, to make it seamless. Speed, or no, speed up, speed up the previous amount so that it only takes 41 minutes. Do you that's actually, that? That's what, the, that, that's what uh, us as the creators, we intended, the directors of this, mm. we, in, we intended that we did previous, intend whatever, two and a half hours <clears throat> to only take 41 minutes. So right now you're listening to sort of like the studio version. How many people do you think listen to this sped up? A lot. That bothers me. It's, me- hey, it's listen, not meant to be sped up. Don't do it. If you're listening to it fast, we will just talk slower. No, to punish the people who are... Oh, talk real fast. So they you can talk real fast. They can't hear you. So right now, this section is... super fast. This section of the podcast is It's the speed just, round of this is the speed round. It's, and this is all the speed round where we talk <laughs> over each other. Yeah. This is part of the podcast that we talk fast enough so that if you're listening to them fast forward, you actually can't hear what we're saying. But if yeah. you're listening to regular speed, you're getting it extra fast. I'm really bad at this. But uh, let me tell you a story about something that happened last week that made me a little bit nervous, which was I'm in my apartment. All of a sudden, there's a there's a ding-dong at the door. There's It's the type where it makes a little noise that it feels like, oh, no, they're not downstairs buzzing in. They're right at the door. They're standing in the hallway. So the guy opens it. Open the door up. This guy I don't know, and he says, "Hi, I'm your upstairs neighbor." I don't know who my upstairs neighbor is because I've never even been to that floor in my apartment building. So he says, "I'm your upstairs neighbor. I need to get in my apartment. I need your fire escape. I'm locked out of my apartment. I need to get to the airport in two hours." I've never seen this guy before. I don't know what to do because I'm like, "Is he my neighbor? Is this a scam? I don't know what it is. I don't like letting people in my apartment." But I panic. I'm like, "Ah, okay." So I let him in. I let him through the window, and he goes in the fire escape, and he runs to the fire escape, and he yells out, "Thanks, neighbor!" And then I hear him. Uh, I hear there's a, definitely a rolling suitcase. In the, on the floor up in the, in the floor above. He's definitely like walking around there. It sounds like the same footsteps I normally hear when people walk around that apartment. But I'm nervous because I'm like, what if he isn't? Did I just let a burglar in? But how would he have known? He was so confident. How would he have known he could get in? He didn't break a window. He let a window open. How did he know he got in through that window that way? And then I'm like, oh, he's seen my apartment. He knows that like, he, he knows what's in my apartment. Is this a thing where you just get into the building and you say like, hey neighbor, hey neighbor, and you're going through that? Is this a scam? Did I do something wrong? What a bad mistake. And if it was a scam, what if you robbed that apartment upstairs? The upstairs neighbor would never know that I let his burglar in through the fire escape through the window. I think that you did the right thing as a human. It felt weird, though. But I think... Here's what I would have done. Yeah. Not answer the door. Yeah. Uh, no, I would have answered I would have lied. And said what? Fuck, that's a tough one, huh? Once he, once I had the door open, there was, there was nothing I could feel I could do. I would just say, listen, I don't feel com- I, I don't feel comfortable doing this. I'm so sorry.
Do you not have a spare key? God, what an idiot. I don't know. That's a tough one. I I'm, think you did what you had to do. I'm scared about it. I still worry about it. I think you're fine. That is a tough one, though. Yeah. Um, there's also a new neighbor on my floor, relatively new, who isn't there a lot. Right. And he's like, gets a lot of packages. And when I'm, when he is there and I get a package and he sees it, he'll take the package in and leave me a note and say like, hey, your package neighbor. And he sort of asked me if I would do the same for him. But I'm like, I, I lied and said like, I'm not always around because that is true. I'm not always around. Like I... Right. Go away for Turco things and things like that. And I'm like, I'm not always around, so like my fear would be I would take a package in and then leave town, and then he would come to town and not get the package that way. Right. But at the moment, the packages are really piling up outside of his door. But I feel like we're at a good place in my apartment building at the moment on our floor where no one's losing packages. Right. Like the people on the floor are all good uh, there's what I judge it by is like if a package is that if the same package is there for a long time, then I'm like that means everybody on the floor has had a crack at they could have taken it right. Um, and I guess there's always the possibility of like people just get into the building and walk floor to floor. Yeah, you know it's tough. My building, I've been here for six years, mm-hmm. and. The people that used to live above me used to make swords, mm. and they're the Renaissance Fair people. Yeah. Then these people moved in, who I feel like it's like their first apartment, and they're like Trump supporters, and they have parties all the time. Yeah. And one of them plays guitar horribly, like electric guitar. Yeah. One of them always has sex with someone right above my bed. And that person always puts their phone on the floor, so I hear it buzz when they get text messages, and then I hear them stop having sex so that they can answer the text message. It's just a lot. Yeah. Um, and the people that live on the top floor are really great. There's recently been some building drama that I don't want to start discuss because there is legal stuff involved in it. But a thing that's happened is that basically my landlady, who has been on this podcast mm-hmm. in brief, her daughter, who lives in Alaska, now sort of taking over control of the building, which I was nervous about because Mm -hmm. I was like, ugh, am I going to get my rent hiked and kicked out? But instead, she's like, I want to make this apartment better for you guys. She, like, cares about it. Yeah. So, like, there's things that I just took for granted as, like, well, that's what stinks about this apartment. Yeah. Like, for example, like, I don't have control over the thermostat. Yeah. So, like, the heat just gets turned on randomly. And it's fully on. That... You have control of the air I have that. but not over but the heat. But we, we have heat, you know, in yeah. the building. And I, don't, I can't... And it's just that thing, right? That's the heat? No, it's all around. All around? It's on that wall. But it is that it's kind like, of device, yes, right? Yeah. It's just a, a just wall. sprays heat out at you. Yeah. And it's either fully on or off. Yeah. So that means when it's on, it gets so hot. And in the winter, it's yeah. a real pain because I get yeah, hot in my apartment. Open the windows. Yeah. Which feels like a waste. But if you see there above my writing desk, yeah. there is a thermostat. Yeah. Like a... Uh, I guess that's a thermostat. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't work. And she's like, oh, we can make that work. Someone just, they just have let it yeah. fall apart. So she's like, I'm going to get that fixed. She's like, I'm going to get laundry in the building for you guys. Oh, wow. Like, so there's all these things that I just assumed were like. 
Where do you do your laundry now? I have to take it to a place. So I don't know. It's like I'm happy. And yeah. things are things are looking up for me, but I don't like these neighbors right above me. Um, that sucks. Um, but it's all fine. My ladder's gone. How long was the full run of that? Uh, I think two years. Did you see the person take it? No, I just woke up one morning. It was gone. So it happened in the night, or in the morning, because I think it was when I was not working. So I would sleep in really late. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, episode 13, Connor, here we are. Episode 13. Let's look back and see what the date was of episode one. Shit. Oh boy, did you fall out? Did I break this? Test, 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 boys. We are the test boys. Boys for test. We are the test boys. Test, be, boy. Be, boy. testy boys. All you testy boys. Testies, testies. Boys. 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 12. Testy boys. Hour. Day. 12. Hey. Hey, if you search 12 hour day, we come up pretty quickly. Not a lot of other things with that name. Yeah, but 12 hour day feels like it's a thing. Yeah. Oh, the subreddit. Okay. Episode older posts. Episode one. Jeez, that was a long time ago. What was the date? What was the date for it? December 29th, 2013. Wow. So we're, are we heading toward a fourth anniversary? Yeah. I mean, it's December. So really, it's like 2014. We're like three years, three years in. Jeez. It's a particular, uh, the description of episode one is, it's a particularly rainy day and JD and Connor meet up for a 9.30 a.m. screening of The Wolf of Wall Street in Times Square and begin recording their 12 hour day as they leave the cinema. This episode features multiple locations, several guest voices and dozens of topics. Emotions range from friendly to happy to sad to nostalgic. J.D. and Connor are joined by Matthew Brian Cohen. I didn't remember that he was in the first episode. I didn't realize that either. Let's figure out what last episode was. The oh, last man. episode was with Flansburg. Yeah, but that, that's August 25th, 2016. Yeah. Special 12th episode treat. J.D. and Connor get lunch with a new friend. Connor, what are you quietly doing in the bathroom? What? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, this episode has conversations about art, unexpected surprises, and an audio archive of one of... So it's August 25th, 2016. Let me bring up my calendar. was so weird what just the like long slow amount of time you quietly went to the bathroom yeah because the whole point of when i go to the bathroom on this podcast i don't like people to know it until it's done <laughs> it was awkward for me to be like what is he doing yeah in we're there? in two different rooms am i gonna hear you am i gonna hear some for real bathroom noises and i don't think so this? very discreet okay 
<clears throat> so, August 25th. Is your birthday on the 26th? 27th. Oh. All right, let's see what happens since then. Well, there was an election. Oh, man. Do we even have to? That's what we need to talk about. Uh, oh, I did that sh sh CISO <coughs> show. Now, um, Chris did was that your first CISO experience? It was. Um, so, um, I... Uh, did the New York story already come out? No, it had not come out yet. But had we shot it? You had shot it, yeah, because I remember talking to you about it when I was in Washington, D.C. Oh, right. Um, yeah, you can see Colin Quinn's New York story on Netflix. Um, uh, yeah, those of you with uh, Netflix accounts, now there's... Uh, 12-hour-day content popping up here and there. If you want to explore things that we've talked about, you can talk about... Um, we've talked about uh, JD working on Colin Quinn's New York Story. We talked about the Discovery and Coin Heist. There's really something for every, every 12-head with a Netflix account. Um... It's fun seeing your credit pop up on things like that. What are you typing, JD? I'm trying. I'm typing a tweet out to the twelve heads. All right, great. What should I say? I don't want. I don't like questions. I don't want necessarily like questions. Mm -hmm. Questions are fine, but sometimes they become too bit oriented. Mm -hmm. Like, what's a better thing to ask? Like, what type? What would you like us? It's been a while. What kinds of things do you need from us, your podcast friends, in this episode? Um... This is the first time that I've done one an episode of this where I haven't really had a beard, right? Yeah, Connor's cleanly shaven. Fuck! Keep um, doing this. Stop hitting me, JD. Connor, don't, don't. Um. Oh no! Wait, was my lav off me this entire time? No. Lav, 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 lav. Um, I... episode thirteen. Still in the table of contents. Still the table of contents. What do you want from this podcast at this point, Connor? Me? I mean, for me, it's always just real simple. We're just going to spend the day together. But what do you get from it? It's exactly that. We get to spend the day together. That's but it? it's also... That's it? What else is there? I don't know. Um, for me, well, what I like about this one, since we haven't done one in a while, I like that we do a bottle episode. Um... I like that for this one we don't have anything ambitious planned. That like it's conceivable that we won't leave this room. I do think it's nice that I think in the past when we were doing this more frequently, mm -hmm. we would get 
oh, we need to elevate the concept. We need to keep pushing this. Mm -hmm. Go on adventures. Yeah. It's also rainy, uh, rainy, cold weather. That makes it harder to move around. And the adrenaline of doing the podcast isn't something that I think either of us are tickled by. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. But our per this is not the place where we derive joy from pushing the limits. What I like about it is that um, the format of the podcast forces us to do a thing that uh, we like, but it's not something that we would necessarily do by choice. Like, if we weren't going to do an episode of 12-Hour Day... Uh, if we were just going to meet up on another day of the week, we wouldn't, there'd be a point where like, if one of us had to go do something or, you know, I mean, that's happened in episodes anyway, just because we're busy. But like, I like that once, once I knew we're, once I know we're doing an episode of this, I don't think about, uh, like we've just like, we've cleared that time. And then it's, it's almost like how, you know, how you'll have like families will do that thing where it's like, like Obama was like, I have dinner with my wife and my daughters. Yeah. And just like makes a point of it. Right. And sometimes it's not necessarily even convenient to do that. But it's like, that's what we do. We like make a point to do that. Right. That there's an element of that to this podcast, which is just like, no, no, we make time. We do it 12 hour day. And uh, because if you don't, you know, and I'll be honest, this has happened with a lot of people that like you have people that you don't see. Yeah. Time goes by and you realize like, oh shit, like I haven't seen this person in a long time. And it's not because you're neglecting them. It's just because things get in the way. Things right. get busy. Um, even just like our schedules and the amount of time that has passed since the last episode is something that is like, oh, that's like cause for... And it's not that we have seen each other. It's just the right. the pace of it is different. Um, that it makes you check in in a, in a way that would be easy to let slide. Yeah, I think something I've come to learn is that friendship requires commitment and work mm -hmm. in a way that isn't always, oh, I definitely want to do this right now. Mm -hmm. Like last night, I was, I'm getting over this cold, mm -hmm. but I was feeling good. And then yesterday, I didn't eat all day. So I was feeling exhausted in the work. And I was like, oh, yeah. am I like maybe getting more sick? Because I thought I was over this. And I yeah. tested Connor and I was like, ah, I might be getting sick. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Yeah. And then they're sort of like, oh, it would be nice just to do nothing on Saturday right. all day. Uh, maybe not I don't talk all day. Yeah, exactly. Not talk all day. Talk all day. It isn't funny to think about. It. Like we talk all day. Like it's funny to think of a day where for twelve hours we talk. Yes, that's a funny thing, especially when you uh, uh, pan out towards like what is talking. Well, we're both animals, and we communicate by we're pushing both, air. We're both shooting air at each other's heads to making noise in order to what it means. describe ideas. Like if you saw two birds that communicated in a certain way that we didn't understand what they're doing with their car going like. Ah, ah. It's like they do, there's two birds that uh, record it and they, they capture the sounds they make and make other birds listen to it uh, for 12 hours. It is sort of insane.
Um, yeah, and then I got the text. Uh, I was I got the text when I was done with uh, stepfathers, and it said, uh, "I'm coming out with a cold. Uh, may I'll I'll text you later with, as to whether we're going to do this." Yeah, and I was instantly like, "I get it. You you run. You have busy weeks, and this is not a podcast that." would be fun to do if you're really fighting illness. Yeah. So I was like, not a problem. We'll do it. Can't do it next week, but I'll do it two weeks from now. Um, And then you text me back and said, I feel fine now. Yeah. I was glad. Um, I think there's a time capsule aspect to this podcast that I really like. Mm Mm-hmm. Even just the fact that we have a recording, even if we'd only done one episode of this. Yeah. The fact that we have a 12-hour, well, 13-hour recording from December 2013 of us talking is interesting to me. Yeah. And we have, what, like 130 hours? Yeah. Like, I'm listening to S-Town, the, the uh, new podcast. I just from... started reading an article about that. Yeah. It... I didn't listen to Serial. Serial was great. And actually, I think the first season of Serial was a phenomenon. The second season was about Bo Bergdahl. I think it's a very underrated season because I think because it was different than the first season, people got very up in arms because it wasn't about like a, a mystery that you can right. like, delve into in that way. I learned more about the whole Bo, Bo Bergdahl saga in the second season of Serial than I ever thought there was to learn about it. Right. And it's fascinating. And I think a lot of people missed out, even people who listened to it, but listened to it maybe with the wrong attitude. I think that second season is a real misunderstood gem of just like unpacking like a story that people heard about on the news in a ver- and you realize like even if you watched a lot of cable news, you heard little fragments here and there and like people shouting their opinions about it. But it actually delves into like what's going on with this guy? Right. What did he was he a deserter? Was he like was he lying about this? Oh, and I love the, the approach that they use of let's talk to everybody and try not to judge anybody too hard one way or the other. And let's be open to the possibility that that's what's actually great about S-Town. I won't, I'm not going to say anything about it. I think you'd really like it. They dropped all seven episodes of S-Town on Tuesday. Um, and uh, I was having Ira Glass as a guest on a show I was doing right. the following night. So I tried to listen to all seven. I didn't have time. I ran out on it, but I got close. I got through like four and a half episodes of it because um, I wanted to be able to talk about it. And then I immediately realized like I could have listened to two right. because the problem is the structure of the story is it's all spoilers. Right. Anything you say about it past the first episode, you're spoiling it for someone else. So I'm like, oh, I can't actually even talk about it uh, beyond the general aspect of it. But it did make me laugh when I realized that we were going to be recording something that was longer than that just on Saturday. And this is something that took years, like years go by over the course of this story. And so many things happen. It is just like a story that starts off. It starts off with a guy saying, uh, you should come investigate. There's a murder in this town and they're covering it up. And the story goes lots of other places from there. And it clearly was just one of those things where it's like, I'll check it out. And then it kind of opened up this world of right. like other characters and other situations 
and each episode kind of ends in a place of like, it, it would be the equivalent of if I was telling a story about a robbery at a local 7-Eleven at the end of the episode, um, we're not really focused on the robbery as much anymore, but then I drop something like, of course, that would be the last time anyone in this town would ever celebrate Christmas. More on that later. And then you just be like, wait, what? Right. And uh, there kept being, there keep being new things that are kind of just like, and another thing, that was the, that was the year the sun fell out of the sky. Right. And you're just like, oh, okay. Uh, but it's interesting, the amount of content that we create in a single episode. The, the thing that I'm always just gauging is that like most TV shows were now longer than a season of like most of like the, right. Like the barometer for how long this thing is and what it compares to. Well, that's what I think is so, I mean, we've talked about it before, but I think the length of this podcast is a funny thing that puts so much in context. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm working on a TV show. that's a half hour format. Just 21 minutes and 15 seconds. Yeah. So and much work goes into preparing for every... So much work. And we just, like, probably did a bit about envelopes that took 20 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, there's... That time is nothing to us. Yeah. And I made a joke to Ira Glass during the show, which was he told a story about... Um, because I, the show that I had Ira Glass on is this show that I'm doing called Way Past Your Bedtime. It's the reason I'm clean shaven now. It's another one of my talk shows where I play a character and interview real people. And in this, I'm playing a seven-year-old. Is George Lucas over? No, George Lucas still happens. I got to grow this beard back by next uh, Friday. That's so weird. Every month I, now, I shave my beard off to play a child, and I grow my beard back to play George Lucas. What are you, what are you doing, Connor? <laughs> um, and... So, as this, I, I, the show Way Past Your Bedtime, I play a seven-year-old kid named Logan Foster Wallace who hosts a talk show in his bedroom when he's supposed to be asleep. And there's lots of imaginary characters, and the guests come in through the second-story window, and whoever, the, get, the guests enter the world of imagination. So, like, the studio audience are all imaginary. Sebastian Canelli plays the monster in the closet who is the warm-up comic for the show. Right. He's the only imaginary character who knows he's imaginary. He's furious about it. Uh, the band is made up of toys that are action figures. And the guests, by coming in through the window, enter the world of imagination. So Ira Glass steps through, and um, I immediately started talking to him about S-Town, like, as if he was there to promote like his right. latest thing. And Ira's like, it's actually kind of intense for a seven-year-old. I was like, yeah. I was like, I don't... I mean, I understand most of it, but then there's like parts of it that are pretty intense. But I said, I like the part about clocks. Because one of the char- one of the people in the podcast is a guy who is like one of the best, like a, a, an expert at fixing like old clocks, like right. clocks that are hundreds of years old that are just like the gears and the mechanism. And Eric Lester's talking about how there's one amazing part in one of the shows where uh, it was discussing it was this guy discussing the aspect of what it means to be a, for a, a clock to exist for hundreds of years and what they are. And he tells this whole thing and he's like, he goes, I don't even think this made it into the podcast. Like this, he says, that's how good this podcast is that like that part was excellent and it, and it got cut out of the podcast. And I just said, but why would, why would you cut it out? Like it can be as long as you want it to be. Like, why would you cut it? And, and then he kind of didn't have an answer for it. Like, got off. and it was that thing of like, 
Um, I really have a long, interesting answer about the nature of when you're editing a story, how yeah. you just have to choose certain things. But it was just like, also to me, my thing of like, you know, you only did seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, your podcast is a short, to me that's a short, that's like a little series, seven hours long. Um, yeah. No, and there's so many things too that I, this has become a, a unit of time in my life, 12 right. hours. Yeah. Like, oh, an when episode you, of 12 Hour Day sort of flies by as we record it. When you have to do something longer, you're like, oh, it's longer than an episode. Yeah, exactly. Or if it's shorter, I'm like, no, oh, it's shorter than an episode of 12 Hour Day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the show you're working on now, its whole first season won't even make up half of one episode. No. Um, it's fascinating to think about it. Does change, I mean, our perception of time, even just like, it's weird pondering the fact that we're, at the end of this year, we will celebrate the fourth anniversary of 12-hour day. That's weird to think about, because it's like, time is going fast, and yet, uh, if you listen to this episode, it will take a long time to listen to. Yes. Sorry. I was texting. Um... Uh, yeah, so that, I mean, okay, four years-ish, I mean, three and a quarter. Yeah. I've changed a huge amount in that time, Mm -hmm. personally. Yeah. So, when people say they start listening to the podcast or tweet at us. Yeah. And they like it, I'm embarrassed, because the JD from three and a half years ago. Is gone. Is different person who I share experiences with but who we do not see eye to eye in a lot of things right and to think that he is just talking unfiltered to these people for 12 hours straight brings me some level of anxiety yeah you're embarrassing yourself JD I think I am also the Connor Ratliff of three and a half years ago I think is a different Connor Ratliff I don't notice it so much uh you don't think bookstore four hours of sleep, climbing up the improv well, ladder, kind of rat lift is a different kind of rat lift. I will say that. Yeah, I do. I noticed the difference. I did. I did a show the week that I got put on uh, a Herald team at UCB, which would have been 2011. Around that, that same like week, I did a show called Play by Play at the Creek, which is a venue in Long Island City, and, to, and it's an improv show where. Um, Kevin Hines and Will Hines, veteran improvisers, do color commentary while other people try to do an improv set. And it's basically like a, the gimmick is that you're basically getting noted, you're getting heckled slash noted while you try to do improv. And it's very hard to do, do good improv while it's happening, but it's a fun show to watch because you're basically watching a a game happen. Right. And I was in, I was new to performing at UCB I'd been doing improv for like a year and a half, two years. And I can remember what it felt like to be in that show. I can remember feeling like uh, I did it a couple times that year. I remember feeling like one time I remember doing a scene and thinking like, oh no, this is a bad scene and now they're, they're making fun of it and all the laughs are coming from how they're making fun of the bad scene that I'm in. And I did it again recently. I hadn't done it in years. And I could feel it. I was like, oh, I'm a different improviser. Right now than I was, and and improv is a thing where it is really telling you a lot about who you are while you're doing it. Like you're 
even just like where what my impulses are like what how do I react what's thoughts come into my head you know like makes you aware of your your impulses in certain ways and I was so much more um carefree um on stage than I remember being when I did it a few years ago I had no like the suggestion we got from the audience was turnbuckle I didn't know exactly what a turnbuckle was right so I kept using the suggestion as the name of other things right like I did a scene where I was approving a bank loan to, to a, a, a bank customer and I was asking them about their last name, Turnbuckle, because it, like, what's the, yeah. what's the origin of that? It's a beautiful name. And, and Kevin Hines was immediately like saying like, ah, obviously Connor on the back line thought Turnbuckle, that could be someone's last name. It was exactly right. It was exactly what it was. But then I was like, once I got called out, I was like, I'm going to keep doing this. So I kept doing scenes where like I did a scene where someone had, taped the that new TV series Turnbuckle on AMC. Right. And uh, there was a scene that was at a sporting event in a bathroom. People were all going to the bathroom. And I came in and I said, oh, what a game. Turnbuckles are down by three. And and then immediately initiated the next scene as like someone who just cooked up a fresh batch of Turnbuckles right. for everybody. And it was one of those things where I was like, there's no way that I would have done that in 2011. I just wouldn't have been... Uh, it's not that I wouldn't have done something close to that, but I'm like, the way it felt while I was doing it was just like, oh, I'm just having fun. Right. It's just fun. There's no stress to this. There's no... Not that I've ever been someone who's been particularly stressed by improv, but like, it's enough that like, I notice like, oh, I'm, I'm different in the way that I relate to this. Right. And that must mean I'm different in other ways too, because I don't think you just change in one aspect. Everything, everything shifts other things around as well. Right. So like, even, the as- even just the aspect of getting more sleep affects every other aspect of my personality. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge change. Yeah. A human that can sleep versus a human that cannot sleep. And also, eating healthy and all that stuff, it all yeah. changes your yeah. psychology and mentality. It's never, I've never had a sleep disorder. I just didn't have time to sleep. I've had a sleep disorder. Yes, you documented it. Yeah, uh, yeah I did. Very much so. JD used to uh, go online, basically, and be like, I can't sleep, and film it. I would broadcast myself sleeping or not sleeping every night. The idea was that when I fell asleep, you could tune in and influence my dreams by whispering stuff to me. Yeah. It was a fun time. And I gained a following that included a high school class in Prague, Czech Republic. And one of the students would log on a guy named Frontiek, and he would, his classmates would peer over his computer and watch me sleep, and he would come in, and then he would interact with my friends, and then there was a guy in Thailand who would um, inject heroin into his veins Mm -hmm. while I slept multiple times a Mm -hmm. night, and that was a guy that would keep coming back. It was not a great thing, and then that's when I lost the ability to sleep, and then that's when I was prescribed Ambien, and then that's when... A things I got a crazy for a weekend, but I think I've already told that story on the podcast. Check out our past episodes for stories <laughs> like that. Yeah, just go back to one of the past episodes. Yeah, uh, check out some of our past episodes if you want to, to unlock that reward. Exactly, JD. Because I asked this question before the podcast started, and you said save it for the save it for the cast. Uh, oh yeah, you have two shelves on your wall. There's a, we're in your we're in JD's apartment. I don't think we revealed that, did we? Oh, we did. Oh man, <laughs> we did so bad. So we're in my apartment. I think the beginning of hour three, uh, the beginning of the 
fourth hour is a good time to uh, yeah unlock that reward for so the. We started about eleven a.m. I yeah. think. Um, we're in JD's apartment. It's April first, two thousand seventeen. I think April you did Fool's mention Day. that. It's April Fool's Day. Neither... I only mentioned that when we were joking about how this is our Halloween episode. Exactly. Um, it's about forty-eight degrees outside. Is my guess. Cloudy, a little rainy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed in JD's apartment there were a few changes. Mostly, it's the same, but there's a few nice little changes here. I there. made some changes. One of the big ones that took a lot of stuff off my walls. Yeah. Because it was getting too busy. And that was stressing me out. So I've taken a lot of stuff off my walls. But the walls are pretty full. Uh, yeah. Here there used to be a ton of stuff. Yeah. Above my, compu- my work computer. And now... What I've JD- actually added different stuff on different walls. JD now has... I'm going to take a picture of it okay. uh, for Boko. Okay. Uh, not of you, just of the... Just the shelves. I want to make sure there's nothing. Wait. No, no I'm not getting... I'm not even framing it for that. I'm, okay, I just want to make sure there's nothing. I'll show you the picture... Um, as edited, I'm even going to edit it more. That's the picture, and I'm going to even... I mean, you've got to take it front on. No, no. No, you can... T- All right, fine. Uh, I'll agree to your demands, but not to your notes. Um, Wait, don't crop out. Don't crop out everything. No, no, no. I just want that. Keep the coloring. No. I want... I you want, want just that? I want those things on the sides. <laughs> now, those are just for us. No, but that... I want the color... Fucking directing my photo. All right, back to the original format. Yes. God damn it! Don't, don't god damn it me. This oh. is my property. <laughs> don't stand your ground with me. This is my photograph. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot you. Um. This is the most complicated stand your ground. <laughs> you took a photo. <laughs> he didn't include my paint swatches. Um, the um. Anyway, so. I would describe, say, two shelves on the wall. Yes. And, and describe it because I think what it, it, you're going to say it reminds you of is what I was inspired by. Or perhaps oh, not. Maybe not. Okay. To me, well, because mine's very general. I don't have a specific oh, okay. thing. To me, it feels like um, more gallery like in the sense of like a. Like, in a very nice video rental store, um, a section where it would be like, here's what our staff recommends. Um, but, a pl- like, it, it feels curated um, in a nice way. Like the Connor's not yet said what it is also. It's two shelves. Two shelves on the wall. Two white shelves. Two white shelves that are um, tiny. Like, like, they don't go deep. They're just yeah, enough. Just tiny little about- ledges. Five inches, four inches, yeah. But they're long. They're several yeah. feet long. And on them are uh, five... It's a mix of Blu-ray, mostly Blu-rays, but DVDs and Blu-rays, right? Yeah. How many of those are Blu-rays? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven of the ten. And, but I was like... Explain what these are, J.D., and J.D. was like, let's save it for when we're recording. So. Some of these are your favorite movies. What I wanted to do was create something that was a middle point between a blockbuster shelf and mm-hmm. a gallery to present my top ten films. Yes. It's and my- how fluid How fluid would you say? Because some of these are not fluid. Some of these are 
like you come back here 50 years from now and they'll be there. Yes, this is my top 10. As I, th- I think it's the same list. I think I've said this list yes. aloud on the podcast. It is this list. And having it here makes it nice because I can swap it out and have it change as I do in a very physical way. What's the one on this list? Do you want to oh, read there's out the a news? new one. There is a new one. There's a new one. Well, I made a swap. You've spoken about... There's one swap that's been made here. I don't think you... I, I think you'll notice it. I don't remember Dreams being on your top ten. It is now. That's new? Yeah. I picked out... Um, I had a Kubrick slot that I couldn't decide which of his films. Yeah. Because of that, I kicked it out and put Kurosawa's Dreams. See, that's interesting because I liked Kurosawa's Dreams, but that wouldn't even be in my top five Kurosawa's. It's true. I like that it's in your. I like that it's in your top ten because I feel like that's a very interesting film. Well, and I really love it. And there's a lot of personal stuff for me in that. It's also inspiring because I was just having a conversation about the nature of um, uh, when filmmakers get older and they lose yes. their ability to make interesting yeah. work. They, they start losing the things that make them good. And that's a... That's, was that his last? Uh, yes, I believe so. And, and it is like... Or maybe he did one other thing. I feel like that might be his last. I think it was. Um, Scorsese has a little cameo in that as uh, Van Gogh. Yeah. I remember there's a dog in that movie that frightens the shit out of me. Yes, that is. So it's a Kurosawa's Dreams, a series of short films, the premise of which being it's a it's a, a series of short films altogether. It's one piece though. Yeah. And the idea is that these are all dreams that he had from childhood through adulthood. Yes. Um, and so each of them represent another aspect of his an ambitious film not like any other film he ever made yeah he had after dreams he had rhapsody in august and maradayo right i knew about rhapsody in august i didn't realize it was after dreams yeah and then there's stuff that he wrote and he was he was in his 80s at that point right yes yeah he was that was 1990, and he was born in 1910. He died at age 88 in have 1998. You, have you ever seen, we're going to talk about your whole list, but uh, have you ever seen High and Low? Yes. I love that movie. It's, well, I mean, almost everything that he's created also. That, and, and you know that movie is based on a novel by Ed McBain. I didn't know that. Um, it was such a, obviously he made it change the context of everything like that, but the skip ahead five minutes, if you don't want to be spoiled for the beginning of the concept of high and low, I might, I might find a way to talk about it without spoiling, but the initial, the second hour of that, I like less than the first hour of it because it kind of changes what it is, but the initial like, um, setup and the execution of like, when the thing happens and then it shifts. Right. Blew my mind when I saw it as a movie. I was just like, oh my God. Like, because it, it is such a great thing of like, here's what's happening. Here's how I react to it. Oh, it's something different? Oh, well now, what kind of a person am I? Like, how do I react to yeah. it? It was like, such a fascinating thing. It's also like, it's interesting because he, I like, 
he's so great at... Have you ever seen um, um, Redbeard? No. Ooh, I'm jealous of you because you will love Redbeard. I don't even know what it is. Redbeard is a Kurosawa movie. It might be the last one he did with uh, Mifune. Okay. And it is... Uh, Mifune is a doctor. Um, it's a long Kurosawa movie, but it definitely has the vibe that it feels like one of his like older... Like it comes from the era right. of... Um, it's black and white. I love the music from it. I remember watching it. It's on, it's on Criterion. And I've only seen it the one time, but I loved it so much. Should see it again. That's one I would see if they showed it in a theater at some point. But I remember really, really loving it. And then at one point reading an interview where like Bill Murray dropped it. He like named yeah. dropped it as like a movie he liked. I remember thinking like, oh man. Like it was another thing where it was like, Bill Murray's cool. It was just kind yeah. of like, uh, and it's, um, But it's interesting uh, the way that the interesting thing about High and Low to Me is like that it's a contemporary film. Right. It's set in like at the time current day Japan, as opposed to like so many of his that are set in like a an yeah, older time period. Yeah. It was just interesting that it's like the business was like a shoe business. Yeah, I think it's also cool to see certain directors like that that you consider them as like, oh, they make old movies, things, like that. and then you see him do something modern that takes place in yeah, a modern. Yeah, it almost setting, felt like, oh, weirdly right. like science fiction to see him right making something that felt futuristic. No, it's supposed to be like swords and and uh, right and like wheat. Um, so let's go through the rest of your top ten here. Let's do it. Playtime, we've talked about before. Playtime, that's my number one. That one's never going anywhere. Never going anywhere. Like, there's no chance that... Unless I find out that, like, Jacques Tati... Stole it from an earlier film. There's an, earlier, did, like, there's an earlier movie that was not released that is almost identical to it, that he he actually ruined that filmmaker's life. Yeah, or... Stole everything. Woody Allen, Bill Cosby style, he does something horrible where I can't... Yeah. ...see Monsieur Hulot the same way ever again. Right. Um, my neighbor Totoro. Yep, that's Totoro is my number two, I think. Pretty locked in there. Locked in the Muppet movie. I think that's the one that we. That's the only one that you and I share in our top echelon. Red shoes. Red shoes. I think is maybe my three. Um, uh, for, for all mankind. I think yeah, for all mankind. I think Dark Day Afternoon is probably my four, but Dark for all mankind is on there. The doc by Al Reinert about the Apollo missions. Uh huh. Um, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Diva by Jean-Jacques Beignet. Uh-huh. It's another film that I just think is a really great, beautiful, well-made film. Hands, Hands on a Hard body, body, the documentary about the radio station contest, contest to win a truck. And then Monocomena, which was a 2012, 2013 film. Uh-huh. A documentary that I think is one of the greatest documentaries ever made. Is that the one about the um, yes, ski it's, lift thing? It's a bit, yeah, it's about the like, uh, you recommended ski that lift gondola that takes you from the bottom of a mountain to the top where there's a temple. So that's changed. I've taken stuff off my walls. Connor's now looking at my... At your shelves? My shelves, which were only designed because he insulted me in an episode several years ago. When did I insult you? My shelves were organized very ordinarily and you were like this is not befitting of your taste 
And so now my oh, show. I think because you had things on them that it was just it was just all my DVDs were together, all my things. So it was like, you know, playtime would be next to like the National Treasure DVD if someone left at my apartment. Yeah, decades. So maybe ago. they're a little bit thematic now. But now it's very organized. You see, I just got, I just bought this, the complete Jacques Tati, uh-huh. which is really cool. Yeah, Criterion has a whole bundle. Uh, my VHS of The Wizard in Sweden Time. Um, Are there any items here that you have any questions about, Connor? Is this a second copy of the Muppet movie? It's a Blu-ray. A different format? And that's a DVD? That's a DVD. Why did you not want the Blu-ray over there? I hate the cover. You hate the cover because it's it says... Disneyfied. The original classic. It says Disney. Um, it's got like a weird metal thing around it. The Muppets are all like not pictures of the Muppets. It's clearly like photoshops of the Muppets. Yeah. It's just a really ugly... Now, this cover's not great. It's also Disney. Yes, but it at least feels... It is closer. Closer. Look at this. Yeah. This doesn't feel like the Muppet movie to me. You know, I really... It is a pet peeve of mine. I like... I like, I, I like the cover that's on the, al- the album. and is, The I original think, poster. The original poster. Just the one that has the, the white one with the rainbow and a little bit of the Gone with the Wind, like yes. the romance theme. Yes. Um, I there's two things that I like uh, about uh, covers for things for for uh, home media of movies or TV. Yes. And one of them is, you know, what does the original poster look like? And the other one is. Like what Criterion does now, and what like a lot of record labels do now is, which is like we're not going to show you the original cover, but we are going to get something very artistically satisfying. Okay. Like uh, I think was the trend started by Wes Anderson on Criterion of new covers of new covers. No, Criterion would always not always because old they cr- would they'd be black and white. What do you mean? Criterion would have their own. Like, if you look back at, like... spoke covers, but they were black and white. They're usually... Criterion used to be... It was always a black and white image with yeah. a, whatever, a black bar and white text. Like, when I think of, like, um, old, old Criterions, like, when I had, like, um, Silence of the Lambs on Criterion. But this is something that Criterion did. Yeah. Which I love. This is actually... The original. Oh, yeah. And then on the flip side, they had the one that was done by whatever, Jeff Anderson. What's his brother's name? Oh, um, I can't remember his name. Uh, but his brother. And so you can flip it around and have a different cover. And so I'm, right. also, I haven't said, right now I'm holding the... The Life Aquatic. Life Jesus. Aquatic. Which there's the version that is the image of them all inside the uh, submarine. And then there's... And that's the like image pulled from the post, the like movie. Yeah. And then there's the hand drawn one by Wes Anderson's brother, that I think is much more colorful. And that's the one that I have. Yeah. Wow. I guess what I'm I wondering is like, again, like Criterion would have. I just wonder if the if the Wes Anderson thing. It feels like there. It triggered a a shift towards um, more. Uh, um, like the, the when Rushmore came out on Criterion, it was the hand drawn 
um, cover instead of the poster. And, and this is despite the fact that like the original poster for uh, Rushmore was fine, and the original poster for uh, there's my book. Um, the original poster for most of his movies had been like fun posters, but then when they do the Criterion one, there'd be these hand drawn things that felt more like right. this isn't what the movie poster looked like, but this is like the most personal version of it. And yes, well, Criterion had what's his name that one poster designer. I feel like the past five years of Criterion, they've gotten bolder about like yeah. it's not just that it's a new design like. The the design for when I had like Silence of the Lambs or like Robocop, it would be different, but it wouldn't be like this could never have been the poster. Yeah. And I feel like when you look at that, the playtime, uh, who did the design for this? I mean, that, I think that's just the, the, ti- that's the title treatment from Jacques Tati here. Yeah. Do you want to see that? Go away, Anthony Romero. Um. That's Jacques Tati holding up right. that. that. Um, what's the original poster for Playtime look like? I think it's pretty Just that? close to that. Um, oh, yeah. There's just this one, which is a drawn Hulot. Yeah. And then... So, like, combining elements... Yeah, I remember this one is the Criterion one. That's the one that just was a standalone? Yeah. Um, this was... Yeah, I think this was the poster for the most part. And JD, you did the thing recently of the that thing that was going around Facebook of the favorite movie from every year? I didn't. You didn't do it. Were you tempted? Uh, no. I mean, you're, you got other things going on. Choosing favorites is very tough for me. You know the thing I thought about? What? That you can help me with? Yeah. And I never did was the three characters thing. Oh, which three characters you are? You know how they think like three characters and you yeah. have to find yourself? Yeah. I thought about it for so long, could not for life of me. I did mine real quick. Which were? I can't which? remember what they were, but I think it was like, it was like Albert Brooks in one movie... Somebody else and something else, and then uh, Molly died. <laughs> just like three. Yeah. I did it pretty quickly. The thing with the pick a, pick a, and I was tempted, someone else did the variation of favorite movie from every year before you were born. Um, and it went right funny. back to like, uh, I mean, everyone starts getting the same movies once you get back to uh, 18, silent era. 1891. Um, the, you'd be better at that one. You'd be, you would be. Yeah. You would you would really rule whenever I've got it got some real to those opinions, yeah. early years. Um, the thing that was fun and frustrating but interesting about the producing the list of your favorite film from every year one is that you realize that for a lot of it, it's not necessarily your favorite film from the year that you experienced it, right? Because obviously, like my favorite film when I was less than one didn't exist. I didn't watch any movies that year. I'm going to be. And JD announcing it. Very bold. Very bold. Well, I put my mic down. Yeah. Um, But Jaws would become like my favorite film of 1975, but but not until like the late 80s. You know, I wouldn't have seen it for a long time. Um... 
so it's an interesting thing to go through when you finally link up to like 1979. There was no question that the Muppet movie was going to be my favorite film of that year. And that probably was also my favorite film for the year that it came out, you know? Um, but then there'd be a num- for most years up till like, uh, adolescence, there's not necessarily, uh, a, a lot of them are retroactively my favorite film of that year. Um, that, you know, Tootsie wasn't my favorite film of when I was eight, right? but I would see it as a teenager and that would be better than anything that I actually saw that year. It'd be funny to do your favorite movies each year of like... It'd be hard to remember. That was the thing. Mine was would like be like Labyrinth for like 12 yeah. of them. Yeah. Oh yeah. If they just, oh, what wins? Right. Or it's like, what is your current favorite movie? Um, but the interesting thing was noticing how some years really were truly better than others. Right. In terms of like, some years it was so hard to pick a favorite. And then there'd be some years where I'd be like, I can't believe I'm going to have to choose, but I have to. Like, I have to pick uh, this movie, and I have to, and I wish these other films come out a year later, I could have choose between them more easily. Right. Because there were films. Like, what's, like, the best film that probably gets passed over? Like, All the President's Men, I had to pass over, because it was the same year as, um, what was it? Let me look at, if I can see what my list even was. Um... There was a year where it was just like insane. The number of um, the we number of good of things that came out. A lot of what thoughts from people. Um, a lot of thoughts. Um, Oh, uh, all the presidents men I had to pass over for Taxi Driver, and it crushed me because I love all the presidents men. I watch right. it, I keep watching it. I never get tired of it. But I was like, I gotta go with Taxi Driver. It just was. It meant more to me too much, too much of many other periods right. of time. Um, but then there's some years where it was almost a relief that I could even find one movie that, that didn't look embarrassingly out of place next to other things. And then there's, there's also periods where you're like, oh, I don't think movies matter to me as much during this era. When um, do you think ma- movies matter to you most in your life? Um, probably the 90s for me. I mean, what determines that? I just know that like, when I look at the years where like, Shortcuts, Barton Fink, Ed Wood, Heat... You know, Rushmore, Memento. Like, there's a period from, like, the early 90s to 2000 where... But I'm saying, why do you think that... I mean... That's a period... Why do you think that was a period of time when movies were important? I think part of it was the quality of the movies that were coming out. The quality of movies that I was seeing as new movies. Um, that you get older and, first of all, a lot of things become familiar... It becomes harder to surprise you. Right. Things that are surprising don't necessarily fire in the same way in your brain. Like, you, you get to a point, I think, where you start to get a surprise is sometimes unwelcome in a way that it might have been welcome earlier. Right. So I think there's, like, a period, like, 
movies that I saw in my 20s where I was like old enough to both uh, know what I was looking at and appreciate what was good or bad about them in a ways that like, I think there's movies that I liked as a teenager that when I would get to be a little bit older, I would be like, uh, not like that movie as much. Like it wouldn't affect me in the same way. Right. Just because it was like, I, I know what that is. Like a movie like Straw Dogs, which I think is like a powerful piece of shocking cinema. A movie like that won't affect me in the same way now as it did when I was like 13 and seeing this movie and be like, oh my God. Right. Now like, I might see it and be a little bit like, ah, it's a little nihilistic. It's a little like... Well, it's like Requiem for a Dream. I remember when I saw that, I was yeah. like... Blew me away. What? I couldn't believe how devastating it was. And now I might be a little bit like, ah, you just put him through the ringer. I don't know if I... Yeah. I don't know if I care. Um, or one of the movies that I loved, which is over there, and still do love because of this, yeah. was the movie Dummy with Adrian Brody. Mm-hmm. Probably not a movie if I watched it now, I'd be like, I love this. But back then I was like, it can just be this small, you can make a movie that is just like this small thing about this goofy person. and Yeah. Um, yeah, like I can remember going to see movies in college and being like, Larry Clark's Kids came out. Being like, I didn't like it in the sense of like, I didn't enjoy it. But I remember having the feeling that it was like important though, right? Like, it was an important piece of art, right? Because it made me feel terrible. Here's a question that's come up. Yeah. What kind of art are you into aside from film and TV? Um, I will also say based on what everyone's responses were, people do not want us to talk about film and television. Really? About the TV. All the questions were very much about not movies and TV stuff in a way. But no one's saying actually, like, please stop talking about film and TV. Well... What, what are you into aside from film and TV is a pretty, to me it's a pretty, uh... oh, maybe you, they might want a different podcast. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to talk about recipes or, or paintings. That's <laughs> the only options. It's films, TV, recipes, or paintings. Welcome to the top of our day. Oh, oh, we aren't recipes, TV, or recipes or paintings. What other questions do people have? What are you into aside from film and TV? Nothing. You don't, that's not comics. true. You love comics. Well, uh, some Do you comics. have paintings that you like? Um, or art? I don't dislike paintings, but I do find that when I'm in a museum, um, I'll get bored very quickly. And I think part of that is coming from, um, there's something about a painting that requires, um, I mean, we live in an in an era when there's a lot of stimulation. Sure, stories are told with so many different forms and yeah. mediums, and we have an actual art form where it's literally like the paintings come to life and act out things for you. <laughs> and, and sometimes they actually talk to you. They'll sing a song. Sometimes some of the paintings tell you like some of the paintings like have sex with each other. Yeah. And you get to watch. <laughs> um, when I'm in a museum. Uh, I'll often feel like, oh, I'm going too fast. Right. But I'm like, what am I going to do? Stare, stare at this? It's good. And I'll look at the paintings and I'll be like, man, how do they do that? Like, you get up close to it and you look at it and be like, oh, God, like, how would it occur to this person to, like, dab it just that way? It looks like a chair. It doesn't really. It's 
That's good. Like, he just needed to go, like, dab, 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 dab. They got it. It's a chair. Good job. Ooh, he made the, he painted a mirror, and the mirror's got, ah, wow, that's good stuff. Did a good job. All right, I gotta get out of here. And, but I can imagine an era in which, like, having a painting, you'd be like, I have a painting, I look at it every day, it tells me different things. I'd be like, this guy hasn't been poisoned by the fact that it's like, hey, you watch The Shining? What's that? It's about a guy who goes to a hotel and goes crazy. What? what? What's, a hotel? <laughs> What's a hotel? We got a lot to talk about, man. But like, if you if you take this guy who like spends his days contemplating like this painting, it's a still life of uh, apples and pears. It's, it's beautiful. It's break your heart. Look at it every day. You're like, hey man, you watch The Shining? <laughs> What's that? Let me put it on. Whoa, what's this we're looking at? What's this canvas? Oh, it's a TV, man. It's, it's HD. What's that mean? Hey, you want to watch uh, the Wachowski Speed Racer? I do need to watch that. You haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. I still haven't seen it. Jesus, I have it. You can have it. Can I borrow it? I'll it's watch right it. right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I should. You've talked about it enough that I should watch it. I'm curious. Yeah, you have to watch it with your monitor like, really close to your face. You'd like it. Yeah, you borrow it. The monitor close to my face? Should I watch it on my phone? No. That's the watch closest it big. one. I'm just saying try to watch it big. You said close to your face. I thought the closest one I get is my phone. All right. Yeah, watch um, on your phone, up to your face. How, yeah, actually, you know, you know what? Yes, watch it like that. Please. You know what? I will say this. I know there's that hilarious video where they made the fake iPhone video out of David Lynch saying like... Yeah. And I love that edit. I do think that there are things that I've watched on my phone just like lying in my bed with headphones in that I'm like, this is actually... I'm actually appreciating the detail of this more than I do when I watch it on a big screen. Yeah. That sometimes a big screen is a little bit... The detail gets like dissipated. Right. And when I'm watching something just on my phone and it's right there, I'm like, I can see everything. Sure. It is an interesting thing. I, I don't think like some it. of my favorite experiences when watching movies on my laptop. I, I don't like it for everything, but for some things I'm like, this is a fun way to watch a thing. You're you're just it it makes it personal in a way that you're like you're just there and it's just you and the thing. Yeah. Um paintings, how do you relate to paintings? They're um I, there's two levels. The first level is the craft of some things. Yeah. Like, sculpture blows my mind. Because there's some sculptors where it's like, how the fuck did you do this? Yeah. Like, there's that, what's his name, the guy that do all the stuff with uh, fabric and, like, veils and things like that. Like, sculpting Crystal? out of rock, people wearing veils on their, and stuff like that. Where you're just yeah. like, how would you even begin to contemplate that? How to do this? Um, but then there's the other side of things like stuff that just captures me. And like, that's why I like guys like Ellsworth Kelly and people like that. <coughs> it's like the stereotype of like Ellsworth Kelly did a lot of stuff with color that's like, some of it's very simple, some of it's very complex, but it's a lot of just like, oh, squares and rectangles and a canvas that's one color next to another canvas. Yeah. But that stuff makes me feel a certain way that feels good. And I'm like, why is that? And so that's the stuff that I get excited by yeah I'm not the person that's like the the history in the Mona Lisa yeah that stuff's interesting but for me it's more like I like seeing art where something about it stirs something in you that feels relatable you know like I went to like the National Portrait Gallery in DC this was near the theater where we were performing so just like went in there and 
like wandered around and looked at stuff and it was interesting but uh yeah i don't know i don't i don't get very excited by paintings um it's if there's an aspect of appreciating them that feels i feel like there's so many different things in culture that i'm like i don't have time in this lifetime to fully be a thing where I get into this. I feel like I'm like that with like classical music or jazz music where I'm like, I can dip my toe in it, but like I'll never get to the point where I fully appreciate like a lot of it is me just trusting like, like I like listening to like these jazz records or these. Right. And like just trusting that this is the good stuff because like I don't have time to figure out what's All good on it, my yeah. own. Are you like performance art? Let's define that. I like... Um, There's an aspect of the sentence, I really like performance art, that I feel like bundles in a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't like. Yes. I, mean, I guess we're assuming you like good performance art. Well, okay. Yeah. Because it's a weird thing with performance art that my brain immediately goes to, yes, that makes sense, because a lot of things that you do fall into sub or side categories that would be like, this is also performance art. Like, I know people in that world may not think as highly, but, like, a lot of the Marina Abramovich stuff, like, a lot of stuff like that where it is, like, these simple things distilled to this human endeavor. Uh-huh. I find that very interesting. Yeah. I think sometimes when we think of performance art, it's almost like uh, when you bring up... Um, when you bring up improv and the first thing people think of is like whose line is it anyway or something. Yeah. That there's an aspect of when you think of performance art, it's been a punchline so many times that when you think of performance art, you think of people who don't know what they're doing, uh, doing a bunch of bullshit yes. and it's annoying. And they're like, it's annoying because I'm telling you, I'm making right. a statement. Um, what's, the, what's your favorite example of performance art? Or one of them that comes to mind? Um... Okay, there's this one thing at the MoMA once, and I don't remember his name, but at first it was really funny, uh-huh. but then I thought it was really... So it's this guy that's inside of a... There's a piano on wheels. Uh-huh. He is in a hole that's cut in the middle of it, Yeah, reaching over the top, playing the piano, uh-huh. and walking around like through the crowd. Uh-huh. And so it's just this guy trying to do this thing walking and people are just like sort of getting out of his way and wherever people go he like goes towards them so you're just sort of trying to avoid this guy that is this walking self-playing piano Uh so at first it was like just this absurd image that it's just like this is insane Uh it's like very funny and bizarre but then when you're watching it it became this and this is just my personal experience with it but it became this thing where it was like oh i'm really intrigued by this but i don't want to have to engage with this person. So I'm going to try to stay in the periphery and, uh-oh, this guy's coming over yeah. to me. Which for me was like, oh, that feels like an analog to so many things in my life of like, oh, there's this thing that I'm interested in that I want to know about, but like, I'm going to stay far enough away from it so that like, it doesn't come to me. And then likewise, that feeling of being the like, self-playing piano trying to go around uh-huh. doing this thing for people but having people just like step out of the way so that it's not yeah. really, it's like, that felt so relatable in this way that I was like, 
sort of blown away by, and it all came from this like image that in itself was also extremely goofy. I'm gonna try to figure out who he was. Uh... Oh, here it is. It was called. Stop, prepare, prepare. Variations on Ode to Joy for a prepared piano. The duo of remarkable talent for playing playful and political at the same time, and their work that often juxtaposes two contradicting elements. Artists cut a hole in the middle of a grand piano and hired professional pianists to stand in it and play Beethoven's Ode to Joy upside down in reverse while walking the piano around the exhibition space. The result is a marvelous performance piece that is first startling, then hilarious, and lastly thought provoking. Uh, buh, 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 buh. Uh, let's see. Stop. Repair. Repair. Very fun-looking image. Was it on wheels? Yeah. Okay. Here, I'm going to try to find a video of it. I was picturing a smaller piano, almost like a miniaturized piano. That's huge. It's funny how awkward. But it also just felt like this bizarre thing that also reflected what it's like to like try to be an artist in mm -hmm. some way where you're doing this insane thing that takes a lot of skill and talent. Yeah. But at the end of the day, people just like sort of want to be peripherally aware of it. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of, th but I like stuff like that where it's, and it's the same way that I like movies in my TV and yeah. I, the way that I like making stuff is I like things that are an absurd image justified, right? Like that's like my favorite movies are these things where like in the end something happens and you feel these emotions for, it only makes sense because of the previous hour and a half of right. the movie that you watched. Yeah. And I think that's what, there's some really interesting performance art that can tap into that. Yeah. And I think that's what, the best art can be is it's adding context. You know, it's like all we're doing is mixing and matching images and mm -hmm. thoughts and things that exist. Well. So I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I tend to... Also, do you want lunch? At some point, maybe. Why? What do you want? Uh, I can order something. Sure. Let me see what's on. Let me see what Siemens has to offer. Um. 
Let me look. Um, What's that? Um, I. Let me see what some of these. Any of these other questions that are coming up here? Um, There's this place, Sanford's, that's nearby. That's pretty good. Sanford's? Yeah. Like Sanford and Son? Yeah, it's his restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to look at the menu for that and see what happens. All right. Lunch is on me, so just pick something. to choose from what's panko I don't know I just forget what panko is look up what panko is I think it's just a Bread, bread crumb kind of thing, right? Da, 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 da. I will have the panko chicken fingers. Where is that? Oh. Is it there? Yeah. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Getting it ordered. Um, now, let me look. What have people asked? Lower profile museums uh, in New York City. Can I feel this one, JD? Lower profile museums? Yeah, what lower? This is from uh, Hi, it's Clayton. What lower profile museums should visit in when in New York City? Um, trying to think if I know any. Sure. So, I mean, the new museum. I don't know if it's low profile, but I think it's often overlooked. It's a great museum. That's over on whatever, like Bowery and. Whatever it is, Bowery and Prince ish. Um, that's a good one. The Museum of the Moving Image. Ooh. The best museum of all time. Mm-hmm. Not in New York. The Museum of Holograms. Let me see if it still exists in Chicago. The Holography Museum. Museum of Holography. Mm-hmm. It is... 
a very small <laughs> museum that was like across the street from the uh, old uh, Harpo Studios uh-huh. where Oprah used to shoot. Yeah. It is tiny. It was run by this old woman who had a cat. And I think it was also just like her home on the top floor as well. Yeah. And it's a bunch of just like, you know, the kind of holograms that would be on like a pog or a yeah. baseball card or something. It was yeah, just, or like, a, or like a, an ATM card. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's those. <laughs> but like back when those were new. Yeah. Um, but it's ones that are made specifically so it's like, oh, it's just like a, you know, a shaded glass square that's like eight inches by eight inches. And it's like, oh, it's a rose, a couple eight angles of a rose. There's one of Michael Jordan doing a dunk, and it's very bizarre. And there's like this, like sort of like humming noise throughout the whole. It's like you just walk through, and it feels like you're in some bizarre Lynchian universe. Yeah, but I love that. You ever been to the Museum of Jurassic Technology in no. uh, Los Angeles? Just Lane and I went years ago, and it's like. Uh, it's a fictional museum. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, it's not. What does that mean? It's not fictional. It's a museum where you go and you're not sure what's real and what's not. Oh, okay. And it's sort of this like wandering, confusing thing to figure out exactly what is what. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's the kind of thing where everyone who goes, and I, I, I echo it, and I saying that it's fictional is wrong. But it's like you just have to go and experience it because you just feel like you're sort of in a dream. Because there's yeah. like bizarre parts of it and bizarre things that you're just not sh- quite sure what you're looking at, or if it's the conclusions they're drawing from the stuff in front of you is correct. Yeah, um, it's very interesting. I realize that, like I don't. I feel very uncultured when with this question because I feel like I've. I either forget every museum I've ever been to or, like, I forget what they're called or what I saw there. Like, I'm just not very adventurous in that sense. Sure. Mm. I like a good museum. Mm. Um, okay, what else? What other cues we got? Um, what else do I have? Um, Whoa, what is this? What is what? Someone's tweeting about our podcast in French. Oh, boy. What are you even saying? Put it in the translate. I'm trying to. Oh, it's about Beautiful Anonymous, Don't Get Me Started, and our podcast. Oh, someone, Annette recommended it to a friend in French. And the friend said, yes, they heard the excerpt on... This American Life, probably referring to Beautiful Anonymous. Then they said, finally, 12-hour day. I keep it for my old age because I'm already behind on those. I guess for later then. I have trouble when podcasts exceed one hour and 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, you barely cracked the table of contents in this one. Yeah, you really didn't. Um... Interesting. Well, Annette, thank you for spreading this to another. Oh, did Gether tell you that? What? He when he was in Edinburgh doing his oh, show. Oh yeah. Yes. 
A 12 head came up to him wearing the shirt. <laughs> yeah. 12 heads, thank you. Thanks. It's always... Um, I was at... Where was I at recently? Oh, when I was in Baltimore last weekend, I went down there to do a couple of workshops for Terry Withers. Right. And we did a show together. That's why I tweeted that day, just in case there was anybody in Baltimore who wanted to see a $5 improv show with me and Terry Withers. And they came to the show and came up afterwards and like identified themselves as a listener of the podcast. And I was like, it's always a very interesting and nice um, experience. But it is also... It is a strange experience because, you know, as we may have said before, and as increasingly, you know, it only grows truer with each new episode we make, that, like, you meet someone who has listened to this podcast, you're essentially meeting someone who, uh, oh no, not me, not me, not me, JD. No, not you, not anyone, we're fine. All right, I thought it looked like we were, I thought JD was panicking. You know, that look on his face like maybe something had gone wrong with the recording. Well, your level just seemed low. Mm. But I think no. it's just because you're talking softer. Um, and when we, if we meet someone who's listened to the podcast, particularly someone who's listened to all of the podcasts, that we're meeting someone who's now spent over 100 hours with, with us. Yeah. In our, essentially in our company. But we have not spent... A, the same amount of time, most likely, in their company. No. And it's not the same as someone coming up to you and saying, like, I've been stalking you for years, because that's a very different thing, because we, we are the ones who put this podcast out into the world. Right. We can't have any judgment on them for having... Yeah. If someone came up and was like, I've been watching you, you know, I mean, don't say it like that, but the... Even if it was someone who's like, I've seen all your shows, that's a different thing to... to um, there's a level of uh, fly-on-the-wall yeah. aspect of listening to this podcast. Um, but it's always a, it's almost always been someone very nice when we meet them. I've never had a negative experience to talk yeah. about. I'm trying to think if I've ever had anything close. I didn't like when I accidentally left my phone number in and people kept texting me. Yeah. And that was like episode two or whatever. But I think the moment I expressed that I didn't like that, they were immediately... Yeah. You know it was cool? Wow. Oh, man, we should have said this earlier. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, we have like the sort of unwritten 12, 12-hour day agreement, which is like, oh, we're going to say... We're going to let our guard down in this podcast in certain ways. Yeah. And so... Just don't share anything from inside the podcast or link to specific parts. That, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And what was I going? Oh, I just recently read that whole thread on Facebook about parentheses again. Mm-hmm. And there's at one point where someone's like, oh, everything I know about it is from 12-hour day. And someone's like, oh, can you link me to where they talk about it? And I jumped in ahead to be like, well, they're probably not responding to you. Because no, that person hadn't responded. Yeah. I was like, they're probably not responding because there's this sort of unwritten promise where we did it at that person didn't do it and like even though I think we had talked about parentheses in this podcast pretty in depth mm-hmm. they wouldn't share it yeah um, because it was like this like oh the promise of the podcast yeah um, and parentheses for those of you who don't know was a 
a very intense improv class taught by Chris Gethard in 2011 that um, JD and I, that was our, some of our first interactions were in that class. Yeah, and there's a lot of legends about it and what happened. In there were 27 there. people in the class. And... Which is a lot. Most classes are 16 people, and that's a big class. And on the official Chris Gethard Show Facebook, Facebook fan page, someone started trying to collect stories and figure out anything they could, and yeah. some stuff was hinted at, but no one really knew what was what. Yeah. So um, interesting. And then I just liked that someone was like, oh, it's on Twelve Hour Day. Can't tell you where. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's uh, not too long. I think after that thread was posted, uh, Gethard and I were talking about it. And we were just talking about how uh, how interesting it is to think back on that class. And I mean, it's similar to what we were talking about earlier, just the way that you can kind of mark it in your brain in terms of like, not just how you're different, but how like everybody's different. Uh and on the one hand, that's a long time ago. On the other hand, it's not so long ago. Yeah. You know, like in a, in a bigger picture sense, it's like, feels like a lot longer than it is when you think of how different a lot of people are. Yeah. Um, in a big way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've enjoyed 12 Heads being a part of my life, though. Mm-hmm. I've done this thing recently. So I, I don't know about you, but every like three weeks, I'm like, we should take down all of 12 hour day. I never thought about it. I've thought about it. I get stressed out and I'm like, I need to protect myself. And I'm like, we should delete all of it. Could happen. I'm not going to do it ever, I don't think. But it could happen. But I think about it. And the fact that you th- anything you think about every three weeks could happen. I think about it like once a month. I mean, it's a, I added another week on there. Yeah. Um, 12 so, times a year. Yeah, exactly. Um, Once a year for every hour of an episode. It's how it works. So I I delete all my tweets. You do this. Because I never want to be held accountable for things that I've said in the past Mm -hmm. on Twitter. And I like it being impermanent. I've deleted all my Facebook posts. Back to when Facebook began. I had to use software to do that. All right, 12 heads. Don't. Here's your mission. You got to track down all those deleted. They're out there, man. They're ones and zeros. They're in the. They're in the you gotta fucking find cloud. Those, find anytime you find an old JD tweet, you posted it. Posted it to our Twitter account. I don't want that. You know, hey sh- JD, remember this? I'm sure there's a way to do it. Um, I asked that my website be taken off the Internet Archives. Oh, you can do that. Yeah. Well, they do it, they comply? Yeah. I mean, I think they probably still archive it, but they don't let it be public- publicly. Um, Interesting. I made my Instagram private. Mm-hmm. I still f- allow anyone that follows. I just don't want a thing where without me knowing it, someone can get a hold of a thing and suddenly it's everywhere all over the world. You know what I mean? I yeah. think I'm thinking about making my Twitter private. Again, uh, not to keep anyone out, but just so that... To keep everyone in. Exactly. Um, I mean... Because also I'm working on a TV show right now. Can we announce it? Because... It'll be announced on Monday. But wouldn't it be fun for us to 
chronologically, the very first announcement, even though we're not going to release this till after it's public announcement, we're going to say it right here before. Isn't that an event? If we announce it on this podcast, we, we can, have it first. I pref- weirdly prefer for it to be a blind item. Yeah. Not because of scooping it or not, but because of topically. Yeah. It makes me more comfortable to talk about this as a blind item. Yeah. Than to label out. So I'm working on a show. It's that, a TV show. We can say it's that. It's a TV show that I think will be fun. And I'm doing it as an interim project between things because I'm excited about it and I want to help out. Yeah. But it could also. There could be some people that it. People might be upset. You might be, be upset. People or might buy it or might want to attack this. Show. It's the kind of thing that could easily attack. That will it will attack troll. It will attract trolls. Yes. It's not. I want to rule this out because some people are already excited, thinking that JD is working on a TV adaptation of the DreamWorks feature film Trolls. No, it's not that. Um, such a thing, as far as I know, doesn't even exist, but it clearly could. Nor am I working on the TV adaptation of, um, or just a new series of History Channel's Do Trolls Exist? Yes. Because that could attract trolls. So we can announce several things that this TV show is not. Yes. But it is a show that will attract internet trolls. Yes. And the internet trolls might like to attach themselves aggressively to anyone and everything connected to the show. Yeah, and I'm not, I don't think I'm front and center anyway on this no. show. But but an ambitious troll looking to cast a wide net. You never know who picks up you on what and turns who. into, you know what I mean? Yep. And that scares me. I think it's frightening. So I was like, I don't need so much of my life out there publicly, which is funny because... I do all that, but then I also have this podcast that is the opposite of that. Yeah. And also, JD, I mean, you work in show business. You got to show your business. Is that... That's what it means. And that's coming from you, Connor. You're you're someone that's famous for showing their business. You got to show your business. I think the amount of people that have been in your apartment, you can count on one hand. That's right. And um, although Gethard and Hallie were at my apartment uh, not too long ago. Um, it was just through necessity. Um, she was, uh, Hallie was, had the test pressing of the hiccup record. Right. And they want, and her, their record player, uh, was broken and they wanted to play it. So that's fun. So the first, um, playback on record of yeah. the hiccup album was on your record player. Yeah. It's fun. Um, but anyway, so you're thinking about privacy versus Publicity. Yes, in a lot of ways. and It's a smart thing to think about. In my dark hours at night, I can get myself stressed about anything. Mm -hmm. And for me, a big issue in my life is things that I'm not in control of bring me stress. When I was a kid, I was terrified of storms. Like, not even storms, just clouds. Anything, the idea of storms, because I couldn't control it. Uh, petrified with fear. As an adult, there's other aspects of my life that I can't control, that I get fixated on that cause me stress. Yeah. This is one of them. Mm-hmm. Sickness is another one. Oof. I can convince myself that I'm sick when I'm not sick mm-hmm. because I can't control that and that bothers me. You can only control certain things. Yeah. And even those, you can only control them to a limited extent. 
Exactly, and I'm not good with that. I wonder. I mean, a lot of stuff is frightening because you think about like, you think about the way people, the way information, even just on a on minor levels, the way like a little bit of information can spiral out of control. You know, also, you know, uh, working in comedy, you know, I see a lot of examples lately on both sides of, I mean, of people make a joke and other people don't like that joke. And if they don't, and if the thing at the heart of the joke is problematic in some way, that you can find yourself in real trouble either from people just being mad at you or from people like I've always been I've always been the type that like when someone I don't like like a public figure that I don't like that I think is like a horrible person or something and they make a bad joke and it's like an offensive joke or something like that and then people are like they should cancel their show right I always have this feeling of like I, I react against it I'm always like I think part of it is that it's like, even if like, like Bill O'Reilly's in trouble this week because he made a really mean-spirited joke uh, about Maxine Waters. And all the articles are talking about like Bill O'Reilly makes this racist joke. And the joke was that um, he uh, he's on like Fox and Friends or something. Right. And they bring up Maxine Waters and he starts, and Bill O'Reilly should be said, I think he's a bad man. Yeah. Uh, I think he's, and I think he's someone who thinks he's really funny. Every time I've ever seen him on a talk show, like Stephen Colbert or when he was Letterman, you can tell he thinks he's, or, or like with John Stewart, you tell O'Reilly thinks he's like keeping up. Like he thinks right. he's being every bit as funny and he thinks he, his jokes are, like I'm getting my jokes in. Like, hey Stewart, you know, and he'll make like jokes about how like your show isn't that good or you know, yeah. my show's and they're all pretty lame. They're all right. pretty bad. It's stuff like, you know, ratings-wise, our shows, we're, to, you know, we're different networks, but we're not too far off. We're a very similar show. You know, it's like stuff like that. Yeah. Where you're like, shut up. And you're not funny. He's not funny. And, and uh, also a big news story today that uh, apparently Fox News has, has uh, given out $13 million in settlements for sexual harassment suits in the last... Uh, 10 or 15 years for Bill O'Reilly. Oh, cool, cool, cool. revealed, so. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so he makes this joke. And he's, he was trying to be like, um, he was trying to be, he was saying like, I love Maxine Waters. I think she, I think she should have her own sitcom. And so like, okay, you're trying to be like. Uh, this is a setup to some fucking. Setup for a punchline. And it's like pretty lame kind of burns. And then toward the end, and then he's, and then the joke that he made, the guy of troll was like, he said that her hair looked like one of James Brown's wigs. And then they're like, you can't say that. They started like pushing back at him. He was like, what, what? It's the same hair. And he's like, and you're like, pretty dumb joke. Right. And, uh, and then he was like, you know, no, I'll say this. I'll say this. Maxine Waters, uh, She's a she's a genuine person. She's not a phony. Like I don't agree with her, but like the thing she says, uh, she means it. You know. So she's like, 
you know, I think the things she's saying are crazy, but I think, you know, he's like, and then trying to like do that thing that he does, which I think is actually a very dangerous, the people who are kind of the most dangerous are the ones that can know how to mitigate. They know how to be reasonable or to sound reasonable to balance out other things that are horrible that they say. So it's like, look, I'm just look, I'm just trying to be fair. I'm trying to talk straight or whatever. And so anyway, so all the headlines from the articles were all like, Bill O'Reilly tells a racist joke on TV. So immediately there's like an uproar online and there's people who are like, you know, they should fire him, they should cancel his show, cancel and it's just like I'm like, I think he's horrible. I think the joke is bad. But I also think like the people who want his show canceled are not the people who watch his show. They're the people who are like, uh, would never watch a show in many years. They hate right. him. And I'm kind of like, the thing I don't like about it when it happens is I'm like, whatever the thing is that you like, the people that you don't like would also work hard to try to take away your things that you like. Because right. they'd be like, we don't like this you know, left-wing comedy show that you watch. Take it off the air. The second they say anything that you think could be like a problem for them in some way. And it's so easy for me to imagine being involved in something where all of a sudden it'd be like, people who don't watch my show are trying to get it canceled because they don't like me in the first place. Right. And there's just something about it that I automatically knee-jerk. I would love it if Bill O'Reilly wasn't on television. But I also feel like the second you cancel his show, some other O'Reilly pops up. And actually, like, the bigger reasons are like $13 million in sexual harassment settlements. Like, yeah, he probably shouldn't have a job. Yeah. Uh, the fact that they're willing to pay that big of money. You can't find some other asshole to host a TV show? Right. They're out there. You can find one. Um, but there is always that thing of, like, when the people who don't like the thing anyway are the ones who are, like, saying, like, cancel this show, I'm always like, that can be so easily reversed to, uh, hey, we don't like this show, and we weren't going to watch it anyway, but, like, hey, advertisers, you know, go away from this. Yeah. It always seems like I would rather, I would rather win in a in a different fight than that. I would rather make the shows that are that I think are good so much better that those other shows don't need to exist. You know, like even then, it's like there's always going to be some awful person on TV spouting horrible things that I think are terrible. Yes, uh, I agree with that. And I also think I would rather the people who are just like. When your movement is just like to stop some other person's endeavor from happening, it always seems less interesting to me than like, why don't you like help make something that is a, a, a response to that thing that is better than it? You know? Yeah, but also... That's hard too. You're also talking about creators. Most people can't make anything. Yeah. I mean, I can barely make anything. Um, One of my biggest pet peeves though is I mean, I'm not even going to use blunt, like, I hate when comedians criticize other comedy stuff. Uh-huh. Unless they're willing to put that same magnifying glass on their own work. I'm always astounded when people have a criticism of comedy, like, when comedy people have a criticism of comedy, unless it's something super serious, like, like Cosby or something like right. that, where it's like... You don't need a joke about this. You can just say the horrible thing and it stands on its own. But specifically when it's like you have a beef with someone else's comedy and what it does, to me, the response to that should be like, make the comedy that you think 
should exist in opposition to that. Like, if you think, I don't like this comedy, I think it's really, like, cynical. Right. Um, for me, it's like, I'm not interested in reading your... Like, there's been a couple of things lately where there have been, like, controversies online about comedy things. And when I read the people who are like, this is why I think this is like this, I'm like, just reading this, like, this could be a boring Facebook opinion about anything. I have no idea that you're a comedy person from this. I'm like, try being funny while you talk about this thing about what comedy should be. Well, also, that's the other thing is a lot of those people, I'm like, I've never seen you be funny. Yeah. Uh, and you, you speaking on behalf of comedians, I've nev- you've never made me laugh. I think we talked about the Reagan movie that didn't happen, the Will Ferrell Reagan movie. Right. And how angry I was that we're letting the Alzheimer's foundations yeah. dictate what comedy is now. Yeah. That it's like we would never let the comedians dictate Alzheimer's research. No matter how well-intentioned, we'd be like, you're not qualified. Like Will Ferrell shouldn't be deciding where the funding goes for Alzheimer's. Except now we've entered a, la- a landscape where maybe that is more... Yes, now the funding's just gone. Uh, well, it's like now we're letting reality. reality TV stars determine everything. Yeah, but I think it's bearing out very quickly that that's not a good system. Ah, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Make America great again. Um, but the most recent one is there's the um, the Rough Night trailer. Um, uh, Anna Lucia, who directs for Broad City. Uh-huh. Uh, written and directed this movie. Kate McKinnon's in it and uh, um, Alana Glazer. It's a cast of... And it's the premise of it is... I don't know about this controversy, though. You know what the movie is, though. It's yeah. like a bunch of women, night out, bachelorette type thing, yeah. and then a male stripper accidentally is killed by them. Okay. And then it becomes... It escalates to a... It's basically a, a reverse-gendered version of that Very Bad Things movie from the 90s where a bunch of guys kill a hooker. Okay. And... You know, that's like a trope, like, you know, like, guys in Vegas and then there's a dead hooker. That's like a very dark sort of cynical comedy trope. Right. Uh, so this is like, we're, you know, what if these, like, women having a wild night out accidentally kill the stripper then they have to deal with it? Trailer came out for it and uh, sex workers immediately started protesting the movie saying violence against sex workers is very real and this movie makes light of it. And... Same as with the Reagan uh, biopic that got scuttled. I'm getting really exhausted by people getting outraged, not by the thing itself, but by the pre-thing, where it is kind of like you don't know what this thing is you're protesting yet. You know that it's been announced. You think you have an idea of what it is from the... uh, like, imagine if people were, I mean, they wouldn't have enough information right now, but, like, the show you work on now has a pre-announcement campaign that's cryptic. Nobody knows what it is yet. But that's already happening, yeah. Are people already protesting it? Yeah. Ridiculous. But, it, yeah, and to your point, it's also, I mean... It's just not smart. Like, this, even if you think, like, oh, I don't get a good feeling about this, like, maybe get ready. Maybe have your ducks in a row so that if it is what you fear... Then right. you can actually do it, but the idea that like if if something came out, um, and I thought I don't mean I don't know what it would what it would have what would offend me. No, I don't. here's what it would be. Here's what it would be. Here's, yeah. here's an analog to it. Yeah. You sit down in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. You order a hamburger. Before the hamburger comes out, you're like, 
never like this restaurant should be shut down. Right. This hamburger is going to be undercooked and I'm going to get sick from this hamburger. Yeah. I know it. Shut it down. Yeah. Uh, it is exactly that. And I, especially considering that like a lot of the people who were like, I don't know whether Rough Night will be a great movie or a not great movie or, you know, I have no right. idea from the trailer. I know that the people involved in it have a track record that I like. And a lot of the people who are most upset about this are like, I know I like all these people and I like all the work they've had before, but you cannot make a joke about this. And I'm like, it's so exhausting when it reminds me of like, do you remember when Anne Rice protested uh, the casting of Tom Cruise for interview with a vampire? No. She made a huge fucking deal about how he was all wrong for it. And then she saw the movie and thought he was great. But she'd already done all this damage to the movie right. by, and uh, the worst one is like Marlon Brando, when the movie the, when he made The Freshman. Do you remember that movie? No, I mean I know it exists, but I don't know anything it's, about it's that. It's the it's him and Matthew Broderick, and he basically play it's a comedy where he basically reprises his role as Vito Corleone in a comedy, and it's a good movie, and he's great in it, and uh, before it was released, Brando got it into his head that somehow this movie was not going to be good and he released a public statement saying this is the last movie he's ever going to make it wasn't right. um, but that it was terrible it was going to be a terrible movie and he it makes him not want to make movies anymore and he regrets that he that he has to end his movie career on such a stinker and the makers of the movie were like what did we do like where is this coming from and then he saw the movie. Movie got great reviews, and then Brando came out and said, "Oh, I saw it. It's actually great." And it's like, well, it's too late now. You've already like damaged it. Yeah. It's just so exhausting to me, uh, the way people, the ways that people get outraged about comedy things, where it's like you get a, a peek at something, and then you just make up your mind that I'm like, oh, this obviously means this. Well, it comes from a place of it comes from a place of people feeling vulnerable, right? Of people feeling like they and knee jerk assuming the worst. Yes, and a feeling that they don't have control over where the lens of criticism and making fun will go. Yeah. And so it's this, this thing of like, I'm trying to encapsulate it in some way that makes more sense to me, but what, people don't feel control over comedy. I think it's this thing that feels like it has this power that is, mm -hmm outside of understanding because the point of comedy is that like we see A and B but we feel D mm -hmm. we feel a different thing yeah um, and people that don't understand that math or don't have any context for it have no idea how that can play out and that's part of the beauty of comedy is that it, you know a lot of times it feels unexpected you don't know what's coming next mm -hmm. but because of that I think it causes a lot of anxiety in people and there's also a lot of uh, um, 
both. There's a lot of like miss. I mean, there's a lot of comedy is based on misunderstandings, but in the actual execution of comedy, uh, we live in a time where there's so much comedy everywhere, and it's gaining such kind of like significance in so many ways. Um, Hello. Uh, JD's gonna take a phone call, so I'm gonna. Oh, great. I wish he hadn't taken his mic with him. I could just talk quiet. Um, or did he take his mic? Did he take his mic off? Anyway, I am. How are here. you? Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. Oh no, JD's giving me food. It looked like he was getting a phone call. He was actually just getting our food. Um, hey, our food's here. Um, uh, here's another aspect of what I think it is. Yeah. Um. Ah, oh, fuck, I just lost it. But I, it has to do with the idea that people want to feel understood. Yeah. And to them, they don't see that comedy can come with understanding. Mm-hmm. That there's empathy built into it. Yeah. Well, also, a lot of people... You'll see people do things where they're like... Um, there's a lot of adults who will see shocking humor... And things, and they will decide, oh, I get it. You say a shocking thing. Right. It's funny because it's shocking. And because and I'm not PC. You know, they'll, be, they'll, they'll have all these sort of like justifications for... A lot of people will just do, mean, do or see mean things right. now under the eyes of like, oh, I'm just joking. You can take a joke. Right. There's so many different varying levels of aggression under it. Um... And there's also an aspect of, like, how, uh... That soup is mine. People have a better sense of whether they can sing or not than they do of whether or not they're funny. Yes. Because, like, most people know if they're like, ugh, I can't carry a tune. But those same people will tell a joke and will be like, ah, here comes J.D., JD, you're lazy. Our lazy boy's here, you know, or something like that. And it'll be like, ah, I'm making fun of JD because he's such a hard worker. But that might genuinely just be, like, annoying to you. If there's a guy who every day was like, here comes lazy JD. Right. You're going to work today or you're going to be lazy? Well, I think it's because it's this unknown math that they can't understand. Yeah. So it's, you know what it's most equivalent to is, like, a language that you don't speak. Yeah. And someone tells you this is how you say hello and this is how you say goodbye and this is how you say whatever. Yeah. You just repeat that and then... I mean, we're on the holiday where mo- the, maybe some of the most uh, aggressive drink, amateur Connor. comedy happens. What? What do you want to drink? What do you have? I got ginger ale. I got a cream soda. Cream soda would be great. Oh, great. I love cream soda. Um, like, April Fool's Day is notoriously a holiday where some of the most aggressive uh, failed attempts at comedy happen. Yes. Where people will, they know that it's like, if I say a thing that's not true, that can be funny. If I can say a mean, yes. a mean thing, it'll be funny. Or I can make you think a bad thing's going to happen. Maybe it's like, funny to make you feel something. Yeah, maybe scare the shit out of you. You know? Exactly. And sometimes those can be great. And then other times those can be like, it actually made me feel bad, you know? Yeah, or it's like when I try to play an instrument. It's like, uh, I don't really know what the right notes are. Right. And it's like, or like when I'm sitting on a piano, I can press keys that sound like a, they seem like a song. Yeah. But I don't actually know 
what a song is or how it's supposed to be structured. You know what I mean? Like, it's facsimile of comedy, which yes. is this dangerous thing because comedy is this thing that's supposed to affect how you feel. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I'm, I, I... Yeah. Yeah, and I also think, like, I sometimes feel like that in terms of, like, when I see any kind of work of art that I don't like as a yeah. creator. You need utensils of any sort? No, I'm good. Maybe a napkin if you have a napkin. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll often find it inspiring. More inspiring, maybe, than things that I really like. Like, when I see a movie like, like Get Out. Um, did you see Get Out? I did. I loved it. When I see a movie like that... I like it so much that it doesn't necessarily... Uh, there's not necessarily anything I can do with it. Yeah. Like, it's just... It just is good. And the inspiration is like, oh, it'd be nice to make something good. Right. But when I see a movie that's, like, not quite right, it'll often give me a whole idea for, like, oh, you know what would be a good movie? You know, like, I'll see a movie and I'll be like... Right. That movie wasn't great. But you know what would be great is if they made a movie like that, but instead of it being set like this, it'd be set like this, and it'd be this kind of movie. One of the most... I'm going to, I know we try not to say bad stuff about things, but I will say, because there is a compliment buried within this, you didn't happen to see Split, did you? No. Do you know what the twist is in Split? I don't know what Split is. The new M. Night movie? Oh, no, I didn't. You haven't heard anything about it? No. I'm inclined to not say anything about it. Um, Can I guess? Yeah. Yeah, first it's like a twist. There is a twist, it's... It's unlike anything I've ever seen in a movie. The twist on its own... The, th- the frustrating thing is I did not like Split. Okay. And I mean, I, I didn't like it at all. Um, the twist... Is it a twist that you don't see coming? I absolutely didn't see it coming. To the point where when I noticed the first detail that was indicating the twist, right. which was just seconds before the, the reveal of the twist, I got mad at it for a different reason. Like, it still didn't dawn on me what the twist was. I thought I noticed something that was just like a technicality thing of like, oh no, you can't do that. And then I was like, oh no, is that what, is this me what I think it means? And then I was like, the twist was such a good idea in theory right? that it actually broke my heart that it wasn't attached to a movie that I liked. Because now it, it you can't be, you can't do it. Like no, like it's, no one could ever do this twist again. It's just, it's the kind of thing that it's like, it's burned. You got to tell me now. I mean, we're gonna see it. All right. Spoilers for twist coming up. Yeah, go forty-one minutes from now. I said spoilers for twist. Split. Well, twist spoilers for... for twist is also coming. Up. Yeah, this will twist. Um, okay, so split. You know the premise of it. He's uh, split personalities. It's like these people that go... He's holding women hostage. Right. Women are held hostage, and he's split person. And uh, a lot of the movie's best potential moments were already just coincidentally kind of burned by uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was one of my most enjoyable movies of last year. Right. Because all the things that it was kind of trying to do, a lot of them had already been done so much better by that movie. Right. Um, but... It starts to get crazy. Now, 
he starts talking about how one of his personalities is called the Beast. And he... Oh, I think... They were called something like the Collective, or like, I can't even remember right. the word, but there was... Um, a name for all of them together. Yeah, let me look at what it is, because it will drive people nuts if they've... I don't like that feeling. People got really mad in the last episode when we couldn't think of something for a while and people right. were crying out. Um, the Horde, I think it was. Um, isn't it interesting when you start typing to look up something and you think of it as you're typing yeah. another word? Yeah, the Horde. So anyway, um, James McAvoy starts actively, physically transforming at one point into this beast. Right. And the movie basically resolves itself, but he isn't captured. He gets away. Right. And the movie's taken some crazy turns to get to the point where he's not just a guy with split personality. He actually becomes like this monster. And I notice a music cue as the movie is ending. And I'm like, and this was an event where this the screening where I went to, it was, it was a post stepfather's thing. So it was, me and Sylvia and Shannon and Alex Dixon were all watching this movie. And this and it's been clear for a long time that we're not we're laughing at the things that are bad and right. we're not enjoying the movie as a as a movie. This music comes in and I get pissed off instantly because I'm like, you can't do that. You can't I can't fucking believe that M. Night is borrowing a music cue from his best movie. And repurposing it. It's identifiable. It's, it would be like if you were watching a bad Spielberg movie, and at the end they started playing the Raiders of the Lost Ark music. And you're just like, you can't. You can't do this. Wait, what's his best movie? <clears throat> Unbreakable. Oh. Then, the movie ends, and it's full-on playing. It's not just like, it's not just right. quoting it. It's full-on playing the theme from Unbreakable. And then, split, the title comes up at the end, and then immediately cuts to a shot of a diner and there's a news report about how this uh, person who killed these women and calling itself the, calling himself the horde things like that and people ha- haven't seen people in Philadelphia uh, haven't seen something like this since uh, the series of attacks by a similarly uh, flamboyantly named individual uh, it was like saying something like that you see someone in the diner go like yeah there was another one that was weird like this years ago what did he call himself? And then the camera, the camera's panning and it reveals Bruce Willis sitting there and he goes, Mr. Glass. And end of the movie. Right. Now, if that had been a really good movie and it had ended with tying it into the Unbreakable universe, it would have blown my mind in a way where, like if I had just enjoyed the whole movie and then at the end found out that this was actually a supervillain origin story right. for Unbreakable. It would have been like if you went to see a movie... But wait, McAvoy, none of that is in Unbreakable, though. No. I'm just saying there's another supervillain in that It would world. be like if you watched a movie and you didn't realize that you were watching the origin story of the Joker and then you realize it's Batman. Right. Mm. Structurally... But the... <clears throat> Such the only a, thing is just that, like, here's another bad guy that could be in this universe. Well, There's nothing else that ties it to that. No. But I've never seen a movie like that where 
the twist was actually this is a sequel and you didn't realize you were watching it. Right. And it That's cool. And the thing is, there could be and there might be, because Split actually did really well, I think, at the box office. Um now they make a movie where it is about Right, Bruce like Bruce Willis's character catching this character. Uh, but you didn't like Split. No. Um And I didn't like it to the point where it actually made me feel bad. I've always wanted him to make another movie, another Unbreakable movie. Right, well, this this has happened before, though. This is the history of most sequels. Uh-huh. Is they make one, and then you're like, this isn't the sequel that I wanted. Yeah. But it's such a good idea for a reveal. It's actually... Yeah. The best actual twist that he's had. Like, it would be rad if they... Okay, what could you do? Like, the best version of that right now would be, like, a dope sci-fi movie comes out, and at the very end, it's, like, Star this Wars. This Star Wars. A Star Wars story. Yeah, and you didn't know, but then it also makes sense. Right. Uh, and what I like... What I like about this is that... It's... Well, like, now, I, I don't even want... What's great is the movie didn't rely on the twist to be a movie. Like, it didn't need to be a sequel to be a Like, it just... If the movie had been good, you're watching a movie, and then this twist is just an extra right. kick. But it doesn't even have the thing that most sequels have, which is, like, you know you're watching a sequel. Right. Um, but now I'm like, well, I didn't even like that movie. I don't... Now when I imagine him making an Unbreakable movie, I'm like, well, if it's going to be bad like that, I don't even want to see it, you know? Right. But I still do respect, like, it was such a cool thing to do to surprise people. Into making it in that universe. Yeah. Um, What's a movie that you'd want a surprise sequel into the universe of? Especially, let's keep it to movies that only have one, because there's only one Unbreakable. Mm-hmm. Um... I think it would be cool if um, if there was a. I mean, some of it's just like. Here's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Um, what's the title of this movie? Um, the Dude Cohen Brothers. Mm-hmm. Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. That would be a right for one. Yeah. Well, they're apparently John Turturro's making a movie about his character. Right. But imagine if there was a movie that you're watching, it was like sort of goofy, bizarre characters. All and this it stuff linked in it at the very end. Right. Mm. I think it would be a fun surprise if. I guess it might, <clears throat> you might need the world to be more interesting. Something where it's like, oh, knowing that this takes place in that world changes mm-hmm. it slightly. Like if there had never been a two and a three for Back to the Future. Yes. It might have been interesting to have a movie set in like the early 1970s or something. And then, the, and then you meet uh, uh, George McFly or something and you realize like. 
oh, this exists. In which timeline would this have existed? Is this the change timeline or, right. you know? Right. Hmm. How about... Here's a good one. Something... Uh. I could imagine a mo- uh, Wes Anderson making a movie where at some point in the movie you realize that another minor character, for, like that you realize that Max Fisher is in this universe as an adult. Right. Um, and that it like impacts in some weird, like in some ways, like doing a thing like, I used to like in Kurt Vonnegut novels, the way that Kilgore Trout was sprinkled throughout them. And in some movies they would just refer, I think in like, in the book Hocus Pocus, someone just referred to like a science fiction book that someone was reading and he never mentioned Kilgore Trout's name, but right. it was clearly a, a book by Kilgore Trout. Right. Because it just matched everything that you'd ever learned about the kind of books that that guy wrote. And it made it feel... Like, Tarantino does that kind of thing, where he, like, has yeah. references that make... Some of his movies are in the movie world of his movies, and some of his movies are the real world of his universe. Kevin Smith? We're going through all of them now. Same thing. Uh I mean, there's some that it would just be weird. Like, as much if I think of like Star Trek, I think it would be interesting. They've done that. There's mm -hmm. the one thing with the like company name in Star Trek. Yeah, that brings it into the the uh, Tommy Westfall. Tommy Westfall verse, and that's almost entirely through the John Larroquette show. Right. Um, the John Larroquette show made a reference to that company from the future that makes every show that connects to that part of Star right. Trek. It, there's some movies, like, no matter how much I love a movie like Hannah and Her Sisters, a reveal that something takes place in the same world as Hannah and Her Sisters would be so bizarre that it would be annoying to meaningless. Now I'm looking at my movies to try to figure out. Hmm. Well, like, one for real, one that's not spoken, but it's assumed is that the movie Enemy of the State is a sequel to The Conversation. Really? I didn't know that. You ever seen that movie? I've seen Enemy of the State. I don't think I've seen The Conversation. You haven't seen The Conversation. You'd love it. It's uh, Coppola, and it's uh, the same year did, uh, I think, Godfather 2. Yeah, I haven't seen it. <clears throat> They're so different as movies. Right. Um, I mean, the conversation is a smaller scale movie in some ways, but it is like from that era of like paranoid conspiracy thrillers. Right. One of the best ones. And the character that Gene Hackman plays in Enemy of the State, when you see his ID card, it's his photo from the conversation. Um, it is really funny because it would be like making. Uh, taking a movie like uh, All the President's Men and then saying that Dave was the sequel to it. Right. Uh, it's... But it's really satisfying to me because it's just like... Yeah, Enemy of the State doesn't want to be like the conversation, but it... Yeah. I have a good one. What's a good one? <clears throat> Matrix. Ooh. If you made a modern movie 
at the very end was revealed as part of the Matrix like, universe. Like the intern. Right. Or something else. That could be really amazing. I... Or it's like a movie where like, stuff keeps happening and you're not totally sure why. Have you seen The Good Place? No. Do you think you ever will? I don't even know what it is. It's a sitcom that... Um, Kristen Bell is on. Darcy is on it. Probably won't watch, unfortunately. Love Darcy. Um, she's great on it. Um, I'm about to spoil it. Anyone who wants to watch The Good Place and has to see it, seriously. Scroll turn off to 41 minutes. Or turn off this podcast now. Delete the file. <laughs> <laughs> um, download, re-download it after you've watched it, because I'm going to really spoil a big thing. So the premise of the show is that Kristen Bell is kind of an asshole in real life. She dies, and she goes to this heaven, this place called The Good Place. Right. And there's clearly been a mix-up between her... Her name... Somehow there's someone else by her name who was lived a great life. Was just like a saint, did all these good works. And... Um, She realizes it's a mistake, but no one else does. And so she confesses, she meets her soulmate who she rooms with, confesses it all to him, and she's like, you have to help me, like, I can't be sent to the bad place. If you go to the bad place, you get tortured for eternity and everything, and there's there's no middle ground. Um, Ted Danson is the architect of this particular neighborhood of the good place. Okay. And it's the first time he's ever been allowed to design his own neighborhood. And it starts malfunctioning immediately. And it's clearly Kristen Bell, there's whatever bug in the system malfunction with her, it's causing just the reality of this nice neighborhood to like there's like sinkholes start appearing and right. things that she dreams about start like manifesting themselves. And so very quickly, like she starts confiding in people and they're like more and more people are knowing about it. And, and there's a point where Ted Danson's character is going to be retired because of the, this problem. So she confesses that, you know, I, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Uh, I'm not supposed to be here. And, then they find out that the real her is in the bad place, and they try to arrange this swap. Right. But then they're like, we, we want to... Uh, there's got to be a way to keep her here. She has good intentions. Is there any way of doing it? And it keeps getting more and more... Every time, just keeps getting more and more difficult in terms of what the consequences are going to be of this. Right. So I'm watching the first season. It's all very funny. But there are a couple of things that are kind of bothering me about the show, which... Uh, I'm just chalking up to like, well, I just know show's perfect. It's hard to like think through a perfect version of this kind of show. But I'm like, some of their examples of who like the people who are supposed to be in the good place don't seem like they're fully well thought out as like, that's what a good person is. Like, it seems like these guys, and I'm like, I don't know if that's just that Kristen Bell's character is revealing aspects of their personality that are less than good. But something felt like they hadn't fully thought through the idea of what a good person was. Right. 
and she also didn't seem like the worst person in the world. So it sort of felt like I'm, I was like chalking up to like Sit it's a network be, show. Yeah. They've had to. This has probably got noted to the point where they had to like make certain things clear, and they get to the uh, the last episode of the season. There's this reveal that they're not in the good place. This is the bad place. And it was Ted Danson's idea to design the bad place to seem like you were in heaven and then gradually have all these things go apart, that it would be worse than torturing you to have... And he revealed that all these people who thought they were in a good place were actually like, no, you're not good either. And that it was designed as a psychological torture that they were never going to be able to be comfortable. They would always be panicking about being found out. There was always going to be a new problem. And that he actually was like, it, it was so funny, it was so devastating because Ted Dance's character is uh, such a nice guy through the whole season. And you reveal right. at the end that he's this monster. And it kind of was like the death of a character in a way because he played a whole season where you're like, oh my God, he's so endearing, he's so sweet. And all the things that I thought were mistakes, all the things that I thought were things were actually like clues in plain sight that this was, a, this was all uh, a fake right. thing. And then the season ends with him erasing all their minds to start it over again. And she like left one clue, but he's like, the mistake we made was like, you figured it out because you were all like, you got too close and you pieced right. it together. And so there, the next season is one of those things where it's like, I have no idea what the next season is going to be because presumably now we're going into it. It's like where we know something that the main characters right. don't know, but presumably that it's just like, I was so impressed to be able to be like, actually fooled by a thing. Right. Because I feel like that gets less and less over time. That's two things this year that I've been fooled by, one of which was terrible and I hated. Right. But I still respect the twist. Another thing which I... It almost preyed on my own sense of superiority that it was like, I know better than this You're show. Like, I'm way. ahead of this. That it's like, oh, I like this show, but I would do a few things different. And now at the end of it, I'm like, oh, no, I wouldn't do anything different. Excuse me, I actually was outsmarted by you pretending to be, like, right. a not-perfect show, kind of. See, I might watch The Good Place now. Knowing that? Yeah. Because I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, this is going to be so boring, and so, uh, what's it like in heaven? And I'm like, oh, now this all makes sense. It actually reminded me, when it got to the end, of a couple of different ideas that you've expressed to me. Mm. Like, you pitched a couple of things, like, there's that one that would be a show that the guy is trapped inside a commercial and he's realizing that he's trapped inside the commercial. Do you remember that? Yeah. And there was the other one that was a, a very long idea that had an idea that had a similar flavor in my, in my memory. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of what that was. I have a project right now that I'm working on that I'm very excited about. Give me the blind item. Um, blind it up as much as you want. Here, I'll type it to you. Every now and then on the show, we'll type things to each other. That you can't hear. But this is something that I'm writing right now that's different than all of that, but mm -hmm. 
Also, also you're the first person I'm telling about this idea, but I'm very excited about. What uh, format do you imagine this story being told in? Television. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I wish you guys, I hope at least one listener was able to tell from uh, the, keystrokes. the keystrokes what JD typed. And actually encourage you to uh, try to analyze those keystrokes, figure it out, because I think it'll be worth your while. I think that could be good. I do too. Um, but it's like, everybody agrees. There's no, yeah, it's not a drama of this singular person having this idea Yeah, and other people being like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. It's like from pretty early on, it becomes this. Is there anyone who doubts it? Probably. But I don't think that's that's not the main drama yeah. at all. I like the idea of of as people are realizing this, like the first conversations about yeah realizing it. Because the thing that I'm sick of, which I was even hoping they're going to subvert this and don't th- uh, don't think get out. <laughs> um, yeah, was like, I, don't you hate it when like someone goes to the police or goes to whatever? Yeah, and they're like, all right. Sure, sure, sure. You're telling me killer clowns are attacking everybody? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it's so frustrating. It feels so much better. for In movies where they do it, I love it when it's like they believe them and they start to help immediately. And there's other challenges. Yeah. I like it in movies. I'm trying to think of good examples of that. I like it in movies where the skepticism is plausible and the proof that is provided is acceptable. Yeah. That, like... It bugs me when uh, the the person who's being skeptical, even whether it's supernatural, even when it's just like Die Hard or something, where it's right. like, why do you keep pushing back against this? Like, it's clear something is going on, you know? 
Yeah, or it's like Silence of the Lambs. Like if they were like, okay, Clarice. Yeah. Sure. It's like, no, they try their best effort. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the things that go wrong in Silence of the Lambs are not because uh, no people aren't trying their best or people are being... I mean, they're not listening to Clarice, which is, that's the thing that's interesting about that movie, is that yeah. she's a little bit... Um, but it's not that they're, like, there's no problem here. Yeah. There's no murder. It's all in your head. Mur- people die. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I guess there, there is some aspect of that a little bit in that movie, but... Um, what's great in Silence of the Lambs is, once you notice the way that movie portrays the way that men look at yeah. Clarice... And in every scene, how many scenes there are where it's just like men, like that movie is really about the fact that I think Hannibal Lecter being like, he's creepy and staring at her, but he's also the only one who's really paying attention to her. Yeah. Like this monstrous man is the only one that's actually like respecting her. Right. And every, everyone else in the movie sees her as like somehow not enough for this or, or not trusting her. Yeah. It is quite interesting. Um, um okay. I need to stand up for a minute. Okay. Cuz my cool. legs are getting tired. Um blind item. Okay. There was a uh interesting internet experience recently. Okay. I observed and was partially a participant in. And was I involved in it? No. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't involve myself in much in the internet. We're having a standing conversation yes, now. Yes. We're both standing up. Because it looked good what you were doing, standing. Um, someone we're both friends with. Okay. Um, that uh, we perform comedy with. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, who we both like, and uh-huh. who is um, this doesn't need to be a blind item, but I think it's better. I don't because yeah. I don't have the permission to u- tell this story. Um, he uh, can be like aggressive with his opinions online. Yes, and often in a very funny way, but like in a way that I think is natural generationally, as far as like people get like I I do it. We all have done it at some point. I try to avoid doing it if I can, or I do it in ways that I'm like. I always try to be like... In I hour seven of this podcast. Yeah, like, I I don't mind being aggressive about, like, Trump or something like that online because, like, he's the king of the assholes. So it's like, right. like there's nothing you can... Very little you can say about him that you'd be like, hey, you're out of line. Don't say yeah. it about him, you know? Um, but generally, I try to be like, well, you know, maybe this or maybe that. So he, had, this guy, our friend, had done something funny online. Can I do a side note? Yeah. I've started doing a thing where I post things online and I say, I do not want to talk about this online. I saw that you did that. I like it. I do that a lot where I'll say... That you'll have the conversation in person. Or I just say, I don't want to have this conversation online. Yeah. I say, here's an opinion. I don't want to have this conversation. What is that? What is what? Garbage bag. Um, um, where I'll go like, I just saw this movie. I loved it. I want to talk to people about it. I do not want to have this discussion online. Thank you. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, our friend did something funny online, and uh, it was very funny. Yeah. And it was, but it was the kind of thing that you could take and then repeat as your own thing without right. giving credit. You could. And oh yes, 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 yes. You know yes, about yes, this? Yes, yes, yes. 
I wonder if you even know my side of it. No, I texted that person. Yeah? I was like, damn. Um, and then they were like, uh-oh, and I know I'm trying to fix this. Um, so, the... Yeah. Yeah. So, a famous person retweeted their thing and didn't credit them. And I knew about this because I saw our friend retweet this. I never saw the original thing. It was just that image. I've never I didn't see it. It was oh. gone by the time. Oh, it was a very funny thing. Okay. Um, anyway, this famous person, uh, who I am an admirer of, um, as am I, yeah, um, retweeted it and didn't credit our friend with it, which is theft. That's stealing. Yeah. But, uh, then I saw our friend, uh, quote this tweet and say like, uh, kind of a sarcastic thing about like, uh, isn't it great when you do something funny and then that thing that you did gets like stolen and yeah. uh, gets and then the bootleg version of it gets way more likes and retweets. So I direct messaged our friend and I was like, I was wanting to know because I was like, if this was actually a, a, a like a a bad thing, like if this was this person who uh, we know and admire their work, yeah. if it was them being a jerk. I was like, do you want me to like do anything? It, it, like, have you reached out to this person? Right. Do you, I wanted to know more because if I thought this was someone being an asshole to a friend, I would have been happy to like tweet something at the person and be like, Hey, you know, like, right. because one of the things that I think is useful about, uh, having a verified Twitter is like, he'll see it. Right. More likely he'll see it, you know? And I was like, Oh, if I can help to clear this up. But I was like, I reached out to our friend. I was like, what's the deal with this? Uh, um, do you think he knew or do you, because I was also like, some people just don't like understand, understand the etiquette. Like I feel like I don't understand it some of the time. I also and, had a funny impulse when I saw the interactions. I was like to our friend, the tenor that he was using, I was like, do you know who that is? <laughs> yes. And it, cause I was like, and he didn't. Right. And I was like, do you, I said, that's this guy from this, this, and this. And I said, I don't know him. Maybe he's an asshole, but like, uh, it's also possible that like you should reach out to him because I was like, it's also possible that he may just not, not have known what he was doing. He's an or, older person, also, yeah. and someone that like, based on their body of work, like, is pretty down. Yeah, and like, is not the type of person that would willfully it seems yeah it didn't do something make, shitty to another person. you never know because you do hear stuff about big famous people doing shitty stuff we've seen examples of it all the time where right. it's like oh this person you like and suddenly they're just being a complete dick yeah so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that a person you respect their work and they're an asshole on social media or something yeah um but anyway so start can you oh, damn it can you uh yeah where are we <laughs> fuck <laughs> it's so hard to tell a story. It's so hard to tell a blind item. And this is such a long, detailed blind item. <laughs> so bad. Okay, we're about... You will, uh, I'm sorry, JD. I also just hate making work for you in this. Um, fuck. <laughs> so we've, JD has now bleeped the name of our friend. God, it's so embarrassing. I just also know that, like... That's the kind of thing that if I'm ever in a situation where it's like, you have to wear a wire, you have to go in there, I'm like, I'm going to get myself killed. Uh, <laughs> like, this is not high stakes, but I, that feeling that I have, you know, like when you're playing like hide and go seek and you really get into it? Yeah. And then you have those moments that it almost is like, 
if it was life and death, you'd lo- you know you would yeah. lose. Like if you're being chased by a bear instead of your friend, right? Uh, or hunted by a killer instead of just playing this game. <laughs> so there's a reveal that Connor re- Connor plays hide and go seek regularly still. <laughs> I mean, I miss it. Hide and go seek was one of the most fun things you as a kid. You can't play it as an adult though. You can't play there's it as an adult. There's nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. Wait, I'm gonna propose something. What? I will close my eyes and count to thirty. <laughs> no. Okay, here we go. <laughs> We're gonna play hide and go oh, seek no. now. No, no. One, two, wait, wait, you're gonna cover your ears. Five. I'm covering my ears. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. I know my apartment too, and there's almost nowhere Connor can hide. Hiding outside. I'm outside. Uh, I left the building. If I'm just very quiet. Oh, I... I think I know what Connor's done here. I believe he's left my apartment, so I'm going to rule that out first. Alright, here's what I'm going to do. That would have been the top spot. Perhaps a red herring? Did he open the door to make me think that he left my apartment when in fact... When in fact... No... He did a... He did a very good job at this. Where did you go? Did you come? I sat in the driveway. <laughs> the <laughs> I I what did you where did you look? You looked everywhere? I looked at that well because I saw the door was slightly ajar. Yeah. And then I was like, did he go upstairs to like my, <laughs> yeah. the other apartments and just like stand there? And I was like, Connor would be very nervous, I think. 
you know, I sat in front of the car in the driveway. So even if you can't side, I'd still have some options. But then I thought, I was like, wait, Connor's pulled a genius move and leave the door open. So I thought he left. When I considered fact, was, that. I lost significant time when I realized how full that closet was. Yeah, I, I thought that was going to be your move. And then I was like, oh, you're going to be in some trouble. Where would you have hid in here? Um, and there's not a lot of options. There's under there, maybe. I maybe would have under there. I maybe would have done like a a pull out. Because I think there's some space that I could. But I'm again, I'm six feet tall. Yeah. Could have done that. I might have done the give you a red herring, open the door, and then try to hide in like the dark. Yeah. But there's not that many options. There's not a lot of options. That's why. My survival instinct kicked in. The second I realized that wasn't an option, I was like, this whole place is burnt. <laughs> I, just, I also just was laughing I was just, so hard because I knew the visual was you right yeah. around, looking desperately for somewhere to hide. Yeah. Um, I was just laughing. I was, I was literally, for a lot of it, just sitting in the, in the driveway laughing. I wonder. Well, that was the other thing is I was going to come back in, and I was like, I, it'd be very funny. I could just put on the headphones and at least... Get a sense of your ambiance. Oh, that didn't even occur to me that you could have Buffalo Bill style just been like listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyways, yeah. that was JD and Connor play hide and go Not, seek. The the in my ideal world, if if logistics weren't an issue, uh, my two wishes would be like if to I wish I could pull these off. They're not yeah. possible. My ideal would be lying crossways in that that top cabinet. Kind of this. Oh, right. It's possible. It's not. It's possible. It's not. Easy. It would take a long time to. to <laughs> it would to take it. a long time, and you'd be stuck there forever. Um, the other would be to be somehow in that outfit hanging on the wall. <laughs> that's also a cartoon solution. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's why I said logistics don't count in terms yes. of considering that. Um, so anyway. Um, okay. So. So our friend, so our friend, uh, he didn't know who this other person was. Yes, really. And when I saw our friend's tweet, yeah, they had a tenor and an anger that I was like, if this person knew who this was, they wouldn't be like, yeah. fuck this person. Yeah. And unless, unless it was something, unless there has been more we, back and yeah, forth. Yeah, we don't yeah. know what the whole story is. But that's it. Was the kind of thing where me, I was like. This is a weird tone to take with this person. Yeah. So I was curious to be like, do you need, do you need a, any assistance with this, yeah. or, uh, you know, what what is this exactly? And then I was like, or did you do the same thing that I did though? Because I reached out to him, and the way I reached out was sort of like, letting like, him know. Well, it was like was like, man, you're really uh, going at so and so, and I was like, and then I was like. I've referenced a bunch of the things they did of like, I'm a huge fan of blankety blank, blank, blank to be like, yeah. Do you know who this is? What I reached out was I, I reached out and said, um, do you, cause I think I must've reached out to him first. Right. Because his responses were like, wait, what? Like when I was saying, cause I was like, man, I can't believe that such and such happened. Do you need, do you want me to like retweet it at him and tag you in it so that he can see it? I said, or have you reached out to him? I said, I don't know. This person might be a jerk. It might be an asshole on social media, or it's also possible that they just didn't, that this is, there's an yeah. innocent misunderstanding in this. And I was like, did you ever watch uh such and such that was released by yeah. 
such and such. And he's like, uh, I think I know what it was, but it was like, and he was also in this, this, and this. And he's like, wait, are you serious? Oh, uh, I may have messed up. Uh, and then he was like, I was like, you should reach out to him. I said, I said, uh, and he's like, oh, wait. He goes, I, I thought it was that uh, maybe he was innocent, but then I saw that he had followed, uh, uh, that he had liked the original tweet. So, and he was like, oh, shit, he followed me too. I was like, oh, you can, that's good. You can direct message him. Yeah. And he's like, oh, shit, I, what did I do? And then I was like, this is all easy. I said, this is, I think this could still be cleared up. You should direct message him and just like, be like, hey, man, uh, you know, this is what happened or whatever. And I said, I bet you guys end up being pals. I said, this will, be, this will work out yeah. great. And he, then he was like, oh, no. And then he looked up and he was like, Connor, he has, and then the, the, did you not know? No. Like what you get from a. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, you have to bleep that, even as, as little as I whispered. <laughs> yeah. Um, he apparently has had that for a while. Right. And has been, like, struggling with it in a severe way. Right. And our friend was just, like, every new piece of information he was learning was, like, making this worse. Right. And he's like, oh, I don't need this stress in my life. He's like, he's, he's this. And, um, and then in, during that same while we were kind of going back and forth, he got a message from the person, and, and it was basically like all cleared up. Then. Yeah, and it was just like, this was like, I'm sorry if I, uh, you know, I really didn't mean to do anything, and you know, I would be the same way if someone had done this something I did, and you were a real gentleman about it. So it was like, yeah, and I really liked what I liked about that whole experience that as a thing is I like it anytime people have a get through a messy thing like that on social media and that the end result of it is being more like, like regardless of who messed up or who reacted a certain way, if you can get to that point where it is just like the way it would be more likely to go down with like two regular nice people in real life right. where it'd be like, even if there's a mess up, you're like, Hey, sorry, I was you know doing this and I didn't realize but like, Hey, it's no, you know, like yeah. the way that you actually are more like a human interaction. Yeah. Cause I feel like that's always the, um, that's always the thing that goes wrong, or not always, but a lot of times that's the thing that goes wrong in social media. Right, as you remove the human element, it's just like you feel empowered. Countries sh- throwing bombs at each other as opposed to people sitting down at a table. Yeah, uh, you feel empowered by the uh, remove of it. Yeah, and it turns you into a version of yourself that isn't really necessarily what you want to be. Agreed. And and it's and as a, it just like it it emphasizes certain aspects of your nature, that. In a in a different circumstance, you'd be more inclined to not yes. harness. No, exactly. I, but that's so funny because I the moment I saw that too, I texted that person. Was like, I didn't want I didn't want to be like rude and be like, you know who that is, right? Right. Because it is a strange person. Mm-hmm. And but I was also like, it doesn't feel like you do. Also, like the, I don't know whether you're doing it deliberately, but I like how you've been inserting various words that are almost like clues to it. Yes. Very skillfully done. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I let me think. What else? If 
I wrote a couple of key things. Uh, I think we're deep enough into the... How deep are we? We are five? about five hours and 20 minutes in. Um, did I talk to you about my uh, weird Twitter hostilities with at Han Solo? Yes. Yeah. What did I say about it? Well, basically that, didn't they start tweeting some weird, like, they were mad at your, like, political stuff? Uh, I think there was a thing where... Tell the story, Connor. Here, throw your garbage in this garbage. All right. Um, I'll put it in a bigger garbage. Yeah, I mean, the larger point of it is, and I'll just say this, and please don't, please don't go interacting with this person online because I think it just gives them oxygen. Although, um, and I think this is a person that I mean with generally speaking with like internet trolls like attention paid to them is often empowering right in weird ways and which is why I'm a big fan of blocking people that are um, hostile strangers even if they're not hostile towards me when I see someone that's hostile towards a friend of mine or someone that I like I just instantly block them because I'm just like it's as if I don't exist it's sort of like a pre-ghosting of, of yourself right uh, and, but Han Solo, Han Solo on Twitter is a Twitter that belongs to this kind of alt-right asshole who thinks he's very funny. His, but he's, it's also like, he labels it as a parody account. The name is Ham Solo, but the actual Twitter address is Han Solo. Right. His... Twitter bio takes you to the Wikipedia entry for satire. Um, and How clever. Very clever. And my hope is that I think Disney certainly must have enough lawyers that before the Young Han Solo movie comes out that this can be wrested away from this guy. Yeah. Um, because he's got like 17,000 or more followers. And I, it's not because he's got such a great Twitter right. presence. It's because... He's got a lot of people who just go to follow Han Solo. You'll see lots of people will link to Han Solo, assuming that is the Dis- Disney Star Wars right. official account. But I think I had interact. I had made a comment. There was a thing where like this this realtor in Illinois um, was trolling Patton Oswalt on Twitter, and Patton Oswalt like like responded back with like an insulting joke to him. Right. But it hadn't really gotten personal or anything. And then this. It's a good example of like people who think that comedy is just say a mean thing. Right. Um, this realtor in, in like Peoria, Illinois, or somewhere, of resp- responded by making a joke about uh, Pat Oswald's recently deceased wife. Right. And pissed me off just because it was like, I mean, it pissed me off. Uh, I mean, it's one thing if it's like you know I'm aware of it because Pat Oswald's famous comedian. This is this sad thing that happened that was, you know, widely reported on. But, like, I'd be mad about that for anybody. It was just like, it's just you don't need to do that. Like, why are you doing that? And I tweeted at this guy, apologize. Like, you should just apologize for this thing that you said. It was horrible. Yeah. And this guy, Han Solo, started tweeting at me saying, like, um, that I was wrong to be asking someone to apologize for it. And that, and this guy, like, 
I later found out he was like pretending to be reasonable with me because I, when I went to his feed, it was all like Pepe the Frog and calling people cucks and everything like that. But right. with me, he was like trying to put forward like a, and he was like, why are you asking him to apologize if uh, pre- presumably a forced apology isn't even sincere? So what's the point? Like he was, right. And I was like, I was like, to be honest, I said, I think he should apologize, but I also uh, think it's the smart play. I think it's actually, I'm actually doing this guy a favor by saying, you should apologize now. Just save yourself some trouble. Because I said, this guy is going to cause himself huge consequences just for being an idiot. And for saying, and, and I was like, honestly, that's the best. And it was true. This guy lost his job. Right. He, he was fired by his realtor company because they were like, we don't, we don't pay you to be this kind of like public monster. Right. And, uh, this is like another example of like someone who's not a comedian, like thinking like I'll get into an insult match with a professional comedian, right? And their only move is to like go. It reminds me of like there's an episode of Larry Sanders show where there's a new band leader that Hank Kingsley is jealous of, and the band leader is like good at making jokes, and Hank Kingsley's instantly like threatened, and his default joke is to make a joke about how the band leader has been accused of uh, uh, molesting minors, right? And, it, and it's immediately just like a, a disastrous situation because it's just like, oh, Hank Kingsley doesn't know how to make jokes. He just right. knows, like, I don't have a joke, so I'll just say the, the meanest lie, the right. most damaging thing I can say. So this guy makes this joke and then loses his job the next day. Meanwhile, I've had this, like, kind of annoying Twitter argument with this guy who's pushing back at the idea of it. And I'm saying, like, I'm telling this guy, this other realtor guy, that apologizing is not only the right thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do because he's going to cause himself all these problems. And the argument got boring um, really fast to me. And then uh, I looked at this guy's profile and I instantly hated it. Right. And I saw so I was just like mean and aggressive and all this stuff. So I was just like, um, oh, and I, I said something about, uh, I think in the course of the argument, he was like, well, what do you... He said something that was kind of questioning um, something about the nature of comedy or making a joke. Oh, I think your lob died. Yeah. Shoot. Is it that one? No, it's this one. Or is it both of them? No, it's just this one. Uh, oh, man, I wonder when that happened. Uh-oh. There we go. batteries? Yeah, I got batteries. I hate that because I don't know how far back it... Uh, Got ruined. Well, you can back up and worst case scenario do private time over that part of it. Also, who knows? Maybe maybe your mic was picking up and you just boost the levels. Yeah, or maybe your mic was like, ah, we don't want to engage this person online. Yeah, that's right. Oh wait, it wasn't that one. That was fine, wasn't it? No, this had no signal left. It. Or, I mean, oh, it was, great! It was like about to go. On no battery. Oh, because that one is off, off. So I'm still not on yet. Yeah, you're not on yet. Um, okay. Changing Connor's batteries. And we'll be back rolling soon enough. Back in business, baby. We may have to go get batteries at some point. You didn't pick any up any chance, right? No. No, I, I took me so long to get back that I didn't stop by the store. Yeah, no worries. Um, 
Guys, this is just part of 12 hour day. Even episode 13, we don't have a better system than this. Okay, let's see now. Try talking now, Connor. Uh, talking, talking, talking. Give it to Same me stuff. one more time. Give it to me one more time. This is JD talking. This is Connor talking. There we go. Okay. Right. So, Connor, I'm just going to recap where you were in your story. Yeah. There was a Twitter account that harassed Patton Oswalt. Uh-huh. It was very horrible. And then... And then you responded saying, oh, for your own good and because it's the right thing to do, apologize. And yeah. then you were met by a, 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 a non-involved Twitter account that said... They're called, called Han Solo. Oh, that's... Yeah. You, you really want this out there, that that's who it is. I just want people to contact Disney and say, like, they should try to get the Twitter handle back from this guy. Um, he should have his own separate Twitter that isn't uh, tarnishing a, a beloved character. The, the renegade, renegade uh, he smuggler? Thinks, he likes identifying as, like, I'm a scoundrel, just like Han Solo, but uh, Han Solo was funny. Right. Um, okay, so where we are in the story is... I remember... You basically... Uh, you have gone back and forth with this guy, and this guy was basically like, who are you to tell someone to apologize if it's not, if it's not a legitimate apology? Yeah. You said it's not only the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do, and then that and, leads to and, you saying... And Well, this guy, I just remember, this guy was saying, Han Solo was arguing that uh, comedians should never have to apologize for jokes. So that goes right. against the spirit of comedy. And I was saying, well... I make my money doing comedy I, I professionally. So, uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with apologizing, particularly when the joke's not good enough. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't think that there's, that's not censorship. That's just like, you can, if I do something that's not funny and it also like bothers a lot of people, I have no problem saying like, yeah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That was dumb. Like, I just think that's just part right. of being a person that the, comedy, uh, you know, comedy fails sometimes. Sometimes you fail and you don't owe anybody an apology. You were just trying something. And sometimes you know that you're like, yeah, what I did was shitty. I don't feel, I don't feel like there's anything wrong. I mean, it's down to the person. Maybe there's some comedians who never feel the need to apologize. But I don't think there's anything that's like I'm betraying some code of comedy if I... No, you try stuff and you can be like, man, that didn't work. That wasn't funny. That stunk. Yeah. You don't regret going for it. You don't... Uh... I don't think you apologize for trying, but you apologize for whatever damage it causes. And if you don't feel like you need to apologize, you know, yeah, maybe exactly. you don't. But like, I don't. I think there are people who think that it's like if you ever apologize for a joke, you've somehow betrayed all of comedy. Right. Um, so I was having this back and forth, and then he was, and then uh, he said something, and then I made some comment about how like um, he's like, "Well, I love comedy," and I said, "Well, uh, don't bother coming to any of my comedy shows. You won't like them then." Uh, Oh, he says, well, I thought it was really funny. I thought the original was really funny. I was like, well, then don't bother coming to any of my comedy shows. You won't like him. And he's like, why not? I'm like, just, I, based on the uh, absurdly small sample size of you liking that joke, I just have a hunch. And he was like, kept getting back and forth. And then I, I clicked on his, he followed me, and then I clicked on his profile and saw there was a lot of like calling people cucks and right. a lot of being horrible to people. And I was like, ugh, I don't want to be... I don't want this guy in my social media neighborhood, so I blocked him. Right. And uh, then, out of curiosity, I checked a little bit later and saw that, first of all, he had responded with a joke again at me and then also responded 
saying something about how he was a fan of the Gethard show. Um, and the, and then he saw that I had blocked him and he tweeted about me saying that, uh, about me being like a coward who blocks people and, uh, this, and that my, because I was afraid of the arguments he was making or something. I was just like, no, I was like blocked him because I basically went into his profile and saw that he was being horrible to people. I was like, ah, he's just a bully. I don't need this. I don't need this. Right. Um, the funny, this is where it gets interesting, is the following night, I saw Patton Oswald retweet. Now, the, the initial Patton Oswald and Realtor thing was completely separate right. from me and this Han Solo guy. The following night, I see a tweet from Patton Oswald that is retweeting a thing that, where it says, this tweet is unavailable. And I was like, I clicked on it to see why is it unavailable? What is it? You Oftentimes, that's that, the, the tweet gets yeah. deleted or something. When I clicked on it, it was... It was unavailable because it was Han Solo and I was blocked. Right. Patton Oswalt was retweeting uh, something that Han Solo... And it was Patton Oswalt saying, this is hilarious, I can't believe this. And Han Solo had gotten into a Twitter fight with someone and uh, was losing. But more interestingly, it was revealed that the person he had picked this Twitter fight with turned out to be like a 13-year-old girl in a wheelchair. And he had already said a bunch of stuff that was like sexually very inappropriate. Like he'd already called her a bunch of names that uh, come across very differently when it's revealed that the person you're fighting with right. is uh, a young teenage girl right. in a wheelchair. Right. And also she was way funnier than him. That's the reason Pat Oswalt was retweeting this was like he was getting owned by this girl. And, right. she was, and there were also people trying to chime in and fight her as well, saying like, you're getting help with these. And she was like, yeah, I'm here with my dad. I never denied that. And she had like a picture of her with her dad. It's like, he's helping me kick your ass. And it was just like, and it was this long thing where uh, Han Solo was getting humiliated by this child and then Patton Oswalt had drawn attention to it, which brought all these other people in who were like uh, also enjoying it. And I just really, for me, what I really enjoyed was that this was less than 24 hours after we'd had an argument about how I was like, he was saying, like, all jokes are perfect. It was great. Right. And then less than a day later, he's trying to, like, dig himself out of this hole that he's gotten himself into. That I'm like, if you listen to anything that I was saying the night before, you it was, like, such instant justice right. for someone that was just like, you didn't listen and you got in trouble within less than a right. day just for, like, being that way. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's interesting. I, it brings me so much stress, though. Yeah. I can't engage with people like that online. Even when, here's things that drive me nuts. When I tweet something that's like a joke, which yeah. I don't, I don't do really anymore. But and when, when I you did, do, you delete it. Right. But if someone responds with like, a follow-up oh, here's joke? a, here's a different version of that joke. Or it's mm. like, I did one recently. Oh, that, that was a bunch of us went and saw Empire of the Sun. Yeah. Were you there with us? Yeah. I, I caused that. Yeah. You're the one that caused that. I mean, I didn't cause Empire of the Sun, but I caused that. You caused that. Us to going happen. to see that. Yes. Um, that was your screening of Empire of the Sun. My screening. But so I, I tweeted the thing that the joke I'd made when we come out where it's like, oh, I, I love the, um, the Empire Cinematic Universe. And it was like, uh, like. Empire Strikes Back. Empire, it was, uh. Empire of the Sun. Like Age of Empire, I forget what it was. Empire of the Sun, it might have been like. Inland Empire, Empire of the Sun, Empire Strikes Back, yeah. 
Um, I don't know. So I was, yeah, yeah. just a bunch of things. It was a empire. good tweet. Yeah, but it's a dumb throwaway joke that that was funny. Of like, yeah. Oh, here's all these titles that have empire in it, and you could make them into this thing. Yeah. People cut so tweeting me like, you left off anything else that has empire in it. Yeah. What about what about empire? Shouldn't shouldn't this one go? And it was just like, no, it's all fake. It's a fake dumb joke I made up. Yeah. And no, I didn't include that because I didn't include that in my dumb fake joke. Like, what are you yeah. talking about? This isn't a fucking SAT thing. Yeah. There's a writer, like, you know what you're really trying to do is say, like, hey, I also think this is funny and I can add to it. But, like, that's not how you're engaging with it. Yeah. So it just annoys me. And I immediately deleted it because I was like, I don't want to hear anyone else's empire fucking suggestions. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. I saw, there was a thing going around a while ago. I can't remember which comedian did it, but it made me laugh a lot. There was a thing where a comedian had drawn one of the what do you call those charts where it's like you have decisions that you make and you can go this way or that way yeah like a decision tree yeah a decision tree on if you see something funny if you see someone make a funny joke uh on social media what you should do in response to it and almost everything was just like click the like button and they're like there were very few things well, that actually, have a funny response click uh, the like click button. the like button uh and it was, it was, I'm, I'm botching my memory of it, but it was like the exact like systematic where it's almost everything was just like, if you like the joke, don't make your own follow-up joke to it. I, um, I started stealing, I don't know if he took it from someone, but Gethard started doing this thing where if anyone responds to any sort of criticism or anything like that, he just responds okay back uh-huh. to them. Yeah. Just like a very disarming thing because it's both like affirming that they exist. Yeah. It's not shutting them down. Mm-hmm. But it's also something culture that we understand to mean like, don't continue talking to me. Yeah. So it's just like whenever people are like, beautiful anonymous is fine, but I wish the calls were from funnier. Like I wish the host was like whatever. He'll just be like, yeah. okay. And it just like always shuts it down. So whenever anyone does, I for a moment like on that one tweet again, it was just a stupid tweet, but I was just like, okay, yeah. like great, great suggestion. <laughs> And the amount of times when people do that stuff, and I write these things that are like, oh, good, thanks for pitching an alternate, like, I, I, I never respond to all that because I want to. It's hard because, like, a lot of times it's very well-intentioned, and I'm That's sure... That's the thing, is it comes from people who I'm sure I like and that I know, and that I know like my stuff in a way that is healthy and good and great, and I consider them someone that I'm and glad it, that they... It's a very specific kind of thing, though, because it's not all responses. It's a certain kind of response, like, I remember there was some joke that I made that was like... Um, where I'd, I had formulated in the joke the math of what I thought was funny about it, where it was like, um, I think it was a Trump thing probably, but it was it was a thing where it was like, um, meanwhile, he'll, he'll be doing this uh, within 36 hours. He'll be back to doing this within 36 hours. And then the responses were all like, more like five minutes from now, or like, are you kidding me? He won't make it through the night. And... It was one of those things where, like, I looked at my original one, and I was like, I know that that was, like, crafted in a way that, like, I thought about what's a funny amount. Or, like, it's funnier if it's a reasonable amount. Right. Um, and it's almost, like, similar to, like, when I've been coaching improv, I see a lot of groups that they're doing the scenes too fast. Right. That it's, uh, they're in such a hurry to, like, get their ideas out that I'm like, they're adding too many ideas, and they're also moving way faster than any scene needs to go. And it's just like, slow down, it'll be fine. Right. And sometimes it's like, people think like, no, your joke will be funnier if it's like, 
even less time or even more, you know, or even a bigger uh, difference between this and this. And it, it ends up reading like, even if it's meant to just be like a, a hello, like I think a lot of times it's intended as I want you to notice that I'm liking it or I want you to notice I'm saying hello. Right. So I have a thing too. That's what it is. And that's, here's the other thing is that like, I also have my own things that I've been getting over, but it's like anyone that like craves or wants attention or like, wants me to like them or whatever but like can't just they have to try to get it in some sideways way yeah that always will sort of bother me yeah and that's what it feels like a lot of times it's like because you don't want to be you don't want to be like the part of you that's tempted to maybe be like you don't need to make a joke you can just say hi or something like you know like yes like there's there's yeah, exactly. There are people that... There's no situation in which someone's going to tweet at me a bunch of funny things. I'm like, this dude's freaking funny. Hey, what's this? Man, I'm going to... Like, this is my new dude. Let's be friends. But if someone just, like, tweets at me, like, hey, really like your... Th- really like this. Like, was wondering this. Or, hey, just want to say this. Would love to... I've engaged with people, and there's people that, like, now... Yeah. I consider part of my network of people who I keep in mind for things. Not that that's what everyone's goal is, but, like... Got to get in that network. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like people that are, they occupy parts of my brain space just because they were normal in themselves. And we're yeah. like, hey, I'd like to, I'm letting you know that I like this thing and I'd, I'd like to engage with you in some way. Yeah. It's sometimes the, the follow-up joke, you know who I think would do follow-up jokes? Uh, if there's a way to communicate this. I feel like uh, David Brent on The Office or... Um, Oh, what was t- I'm all, I've already forgotten. Uh, or um, Michael Scott on the yeah. American Office. I feel like both of those characters, if you were dealing with what their, if you had to replicate what their right. Twitter, Facebook presence, it's a lot of like. David Brent probably does very few original jokes on Twitter. That right. character, but he probably does at responses to every professional comedian, to kind of respond with a joke, and it is that thing of like. I feel like there are a lot of times when I've seen something funny, I'll just be like, I'll like it, or, or even go as far as to say, like, this is great, or right. like, this is a perfect joke. And there's something about just like, you know, uh, you like this little thing, that it is enough to say that you like it, and not be like weirdly, because it comes across as like a weirdly competitive thing, or like a note, or like a... Well, I think what they intend is like... I think it's intended mostly as like... Buddy, tr- buddy. Yeah. Let's be buddies over this thing, and share this bit together but it has a weird energy to it it does and especially here's what's weird to me and i would never name names i don't think it's someone who would listen to this podcast but like when you have there's like a few people who do it all the time and it's never something that i respond to or like and i think if you do it more than 10 times and you've never gotten a like or a response that that should be enough of a message that it would almost be like like, because I've responded, there are people that I've responded to when they've not been joking. Yeah. But I've never given any validation to the follow-up jokes. Right. And they happen at such a, uh, such an extended, over such an extended period of time, they'd be like, are you just doing this on so many people's things that you can't even take notice of? Yeah. Of the fact that you're, no one's responding? But if someone engages me, I try to engage with them. If they're engaging in a real way. Yeah. I will always try to respond. But not if it's just, if it's only jokes. Yeah, I can't deal with that. Because also, like, even my 
professional comedian friends who do that. People who I think are very funny. Mm -hmm. If they just keep doing bits, I'm like, all right, all right. done. Thank you. Yeah. I actually feel, feel pretty lucky in the sense that like most comedy people I know are not people who are on all the time. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Like I actually had that. Well, that's why I had to get off Facebook because I was starting to dislike people yeah. that I didn't see. Friends of mine who are considered good friends, but their Facebook stuff would just bother me. Uh-huh. Because I'd be like, stop. Just be a human. Stop trying to get these likes and these th- Like, just be normal. Yeah. And then I was like, why am I... I haven't yeah. seen this person in a month, and I have this negative opinion of them. This is not fair to them. I need to remove myself from this. I had a bigger problem with um, when I was around actors more... Like, when it was just actors, that I found it more common for actors to always be trying to be funny and do bits all the time. And... Another part of the problem is that the quality of the bits would be less. Right. Whereas, like, in the green room, green room at UCB, my main experience in that green room is not people trying to be funny. Do you have people... There's people like this for me that I respect and think are very funny, mm-hmm. and I have a very time, hard time doing bits with them because I think that... I, I believe they're so much funnier than me, so my brain, like, doesn't believe it can be on the same wavelength. And these are people that are like people that I look up to. Mm -hmm. And Um, not that I try to do bits and I fail, but like I just don't do as many bits or jump onto the bits because I'm like, man, I think this person's funny. And I almost feel like more of a spectator than someone that's willing to. I think once I get, once I'm comfortable around a person, then I don't have that. But. I'll have a general shyness around people that I'm not yet comfortable enough. Yes, I, that's true too. Because all those people that I'm talking about too, once I'm comfortable with them. Yeah, I've never seen you around anyone where I felt like, man, JD's really holding back. Yeah, I, I also no- don't do a ton of bits. I don't think I do either. No. Um, I think we're both people that can. But I don't have a tremendous amount of affection for for it as a when I think about it as a thing. I'm like, oh man. It's not the way that I like to communicate. Gotta do those bits. For me, it's like bits happen. But it's, it's sort of, to me, like, when, when a bit is happening, it's almost just like you're playing with a toy for a little bit. But I will try to get a laugh in a situation. Mm-hmm. I do that a lot. And sometimes I'm like, all right, stop. Or I'll just try to say something to make everybody laugh. Yeah. Um, but rarely is it an extended bit. Um, it's interesting, the thing, because... Uh, Despite the fact that I I had two encounters with trolls this year, and I think they'll be my only encounters with trolls. Because was one of them in theaters? On no, February 15th? neither of them was in theaters February 15th. Um, the other one was a guy that I went to high school with that I have no memory of. Um, I think I saw this take place. And uh, he started trying to engage in political fights. And... Normally, my approach is to try to shut someone down like that by just appealing to them as a person. Right. And he started saying stuff, and then immediately, some of my well-meaning liberal friends on Facebook started joining in the argument. That was actually I think the, I worst, saw that. the yeah. worst part of it. Was like I was like they started like calling him names, and I was like, "Okay, guys, like no need for this. Like he hasn't said anything personal. He just has politics that are different than mine, different right. than yours. But like he wasn't insulting anybody. But then it didn't take long before like." 
he's a, he was this big Trump guy, and he was like, um, he wasn't responding to the main points. Like he right. was just like saying whatever he wanted and wasn't engaging in any actual conversation. And I was like, okay, there's no reason to like keep talking about this. Um, we don't agree. That's fine. But like, I'm sure you mean well. And uh, we just don't need to talk about this. And then he kept engaging in various ways. And then he was being insulting to people. And I was like, knock it off. And then he made some crack about, he made like a thing about our, our, about Obama being Kenyan. And at that point I was just like, okay, we're done. I was like, uh, I'm going to unfriend you in about five minutes. I'm going to block you on Facebook because uh, you've been aggressive. Like, I don't remember you. I don't remember you from high school. We never interacted personally. Right. So we're not friends. Uh, I have people on Facebook that I'm friends with and I actually know who they are. And there are people that I don't know, but they're not aggressively causing fights and being right. mean. And, and I said, and, and also you're a bigot. And, you know, you look at your Facebook wall and I see it. You're a bigot. And I don't, and I think you're mean. And I think, uh, I feel sorry for you, but I don't think you're going to change. And I just don't, I don't want to be right. interacting with you anymore. So, you know, I'll let you read this message and then that'll be it. And it really is just one of those things where it's just like, this guy is just kind of like, uh, you know, I don't need that energy in my life. I don't need to, I don't know him. So it's like, why would I, why am I accepting messages from this person I don't know who clearly only wants to fight? Well, so that's something that I did is I'm not back on, but I had to take a major break and it changed my interactions in a big way. Yeah. After the election, we don't, I don't want to talk too much about the politics stuff. So that's more of a context for this thing yeah. than a topic that I really want to dive into. Because yeah. I think you and I will just, we're not the people. I think we, I think my guess is that there's almost nothing we could say even in 12 hours of this that's going to be like, finally, oh, a new perspective on what happened. Exactly. But so I was having trouble writing. Yeah. I had scripts that were due and I couldn't write because all I could think about was political stuff yeah. and especially the internet discourse was so bothersome to me because it was this just like yeah. everyone I knew was attacking all these other people and these strangers were attacking my friends and strangers were attacking strangers and strangers were, it was like this thing and to the point where I ended up having to block Donald Trump on Twitter which sounds crazy and it wasn't this like act of defiance it was like it's just leading me down this bad place because yeah. what would happen is that so one of my friends would retweet one of his tweets. Mm-hmm. I'd click on his tweet, and then you know Twitter highlights the, the big, big talking points, yeah. and it would be someone saying something. Maybe it's someone insulting him, and then a bunch of people going like, saying the most awful things in the world back to this person. Yeah, and then I would be like, you get mad about it. I would go, who's responding to Donald Trump? Like, who thinks responding to Donald Trump on Twitter is going to do anything? And I'd click on the thing, and I'd see people responding to that response, I'd be like who are these people responding to this response? Then click on that. Yeah. And then it'd be like, oh, it's some like school teacher in Kentucky. And their whole thing is them posting these like really awful things, racist, whatever things. Yeah. Then I'd see they'd all have nothing on them except one of the racist things would have one like. And I'd be like, who's liking this? And I'd click on that. And I'd click on the like. It would take me to some... Yeah, this is a rabbit hole. Yeah, it would be some some car dealership owner in fucking Nebraska. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm on his page, and it's all about car dealerships, 
and then one tweet that's like some fucking awful thing. Yeah. And I'd be like, what is this guy's life? And then I'd be so annoyed by it. And I'd see him tweeting at celebrities. And I'd be like, this guy's, why is this guy? And then suddenly I was doing that so much and I would never engage. It was just this observational thing. Yeah. But like to, I, the thing that made me realize how insane it was, was number one, I was letting this complete stranger affect my entire mood yeah. and have this impact on my life. And I was like, pre-internet, what it would take for me to have this experience would oh. have been, I'd have to have gotten in my car and driven to Omaha to this person's door and like knocked on it and been like, hey, I'm a stranger. What's the deepest, darkest thing that you have in your head that you want people to know, but that you don't want to say in person? Yeah. And it's like, I would never do that. I have no interest. Like, I would never try to call this person on the phone. Yeah. I don't care about what this person thinks or says. Why now am I here on the internet in front of their home asking them to shout more stuff at me? Yeah. So what I did is I took Twitter and Facebook off my... I mean, Facebook had been off my phone for years. Yeah. Because I just... That seemed so gross to me. Yeah. Took Twitter off my phone. Then I put up a thing on my computer that not only did I take Facebook and Twitter off my whatever favorites and whatnot, but I did a thing that blocked my computer from it so that if I even typed it in, it would... It would what it would do is redirect me to... Uh, there's a Variety car article about like the 10 hotshot young directors knows all people at like my age uh-huh. that whenever I see that article, like <coughs> I start to vibrate with like jealousy and anxiety and like yeah. motivation. So anytime I type that in, it would just send me this website. That's like, here's these hot young directors making their f- first features. So I couldn't go to those websites. Yeah. It felt so good. And then for the past year or so, I have been not posting any real personal opinions on Facebook. Haven't been commenting yeah. as best I uh, best I can on anything. Yeah. It's been great. I've weaned my dopamine connection in my brain yeah. off of I need to get a response. I need to go onto Facebook and see what of the things I've said have picked up yeah. likes and faves and comments. Yeah. And it's changed my brain chemistry back to a place where I'm comfortable. Yeah. Because it is. I don't need these I don't need strangers affecting how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. I also don't need friends saying things that again are not Oftentimes, really what they believe or what they want to communicate, but these fucking baked-in psychological mechanisms to get themselves likes, comments, things like this on the... Yeah. Because that's what happens, is that you become obsessed with that. Not in a conscious way, it's just like you want that kick of that little red thing that says that you have responses to this thing that you said. Yeah. So whether you like it or not, you start saying stuff and crafting statements in a way where you know it'll get more traction there yeah then suddenly i have friends who i really like who are saying things that don't feel like them and it's bothering me and i'm starting to dislike them but i haven't talked to this person in a month and that's not healthy either yeah so it's just like i have to be done with all of it i just can't do it so i will tweet like once every week two weeks i'll delete it after a day i don't engage with people commenting back and forth oftentimes i'll be like here's a tweet at the end of the tweet, I'll say, do not want to discuss online. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like, the... But I feel better about it. I feel good now. I mean, it is an interesting thing how people's relationship to social media is such a personal thing. Because you'll have people who are like, 
um, different ones stress people out in different ways. I, I had the one experience on Twitter with Han Solo and then the one experience on Facebook with the guy that I went to high school with. And in both cases, it was like one and done. It was like, well, any, from now on, anyone that I have an unpleasant experience with, anyone who's like reaching out in a way that I feel is aggressive on Twitter yeah. and we're done. It's, it's really like if I don't know you and the thing that comes out is I'm not going to get caught up in like, let's debate it because I'd rather just be like, nope, we're, we're out, we're done. And on Facebook, it is like, uh, if I don't know you and your initial, and like, because that's the thing of like, oh, I went to high school with this person, it's a friend request. Okay, I don't really remember you, but like, yeah, that's fine. But then the second it starts being like, they're taking issue with the thing that I posted, then I'm like, we're out, we're done. I don't like, if I don't know, it would be one thing like, if you came at me on social media and it was something where it was like, Connor, I don't like this or something, uh, it wouldn't be like, well, JD, we're, you're blocked. Yeah. It would be like, well, I know you, so it's not, we're friends. So, uh, I mean, you wouldn't do that. You'd be more likely to reach out and we'd talk privately. Right. But like if it was someone that I knew, yeah. or like someone that I hadn't seen in a while, but they came out and they're like, I don't like that you put, I mean, I'm trying to think what it would be, but like, I don't like that you post these jokes that are like this. In most cases, it would be like, well, I'm sorry you don't like it, but like, like there was a thing recently where like, Will Hines posted something on Facebook and they got a lot of bad response. And then he realized immediately and he deleted the comment, but it also meant it, it deleted everyone's comments from it. Right. So then we posted things like, I deleted this. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. And then people started commenting on that new thing saying like, why'd you delete the other one? My comment's gone now. You had no right to do that. And, and I was like, Will was talking to me about it. And I was like, I, I get why people would be annoyed. Like, Oh, my comments are gone. But I was like, I consider like social media is like it's like it's like a little neighborhood or big neighborhood, big virtual neighborhood. But your stuff, that if you have control over it, whether it's like deleting it or posting it or hiding it or blocking <laughs> it, it's like it's your little bungalow and your little front yard and you yeah. have this little fence. And as long as it's not affecting anybody else, you can do what you like. You uh, you can hang your clothes up. You can keep them in a pile. It, right. You know, it's what, but it's your choice. So, so it's like. He was like, I shouldn't have deleted that thing. And I was like, it's your thing. Like, well, also, I think that's a very revealing thing. Because I saw that when people were um, like, all oh, these comments are like, you know, like this discourse is all gone now. Yeah. It's like, ah, I think that's more revealing than these people thought. Yeah. Because what it's saying is that what important to you wasn't communicating your message. What was important to you is that you went fishing for discourse. You wanted this comment to be a thing that you could check on and see if people were responding it and have people see it and like yeah. it or disagree with it or chime in. You wanted the trappings of the things you were saying and not the thing you were saying. Because ostensibly, Will read what you said. Yeah. Isn't that the point? No, the point for you is you wanted the likes, the responses. You wanted this thing you could check up on. You wanted your day to be able to be filled with checking up on this thing and seeing what the new discourse was. And, and the, th the idea and of I like, think that's gross, personally. And I think the idea of that your comments on someone else's post on Facebook, that there's some understood right to it being there for posterity, um, is, uh, is such a ridiculous notion. Right. That it's like... I thought we really built something here, a lasting legacy in the comments to this 
Facebook post. Like, I could see someone being like, oh, JD, you delete all your tweets, you delete all your Facebook posts. But they're your things. They're yours. Well, that's, and, what's, that's what's interesting is that there's, the only times where it's, I'm like, oh, is when people are like, oh, I don't like that you deleted that because I, that, that I really like that tweet or that thing that you said meant mm-hmm. a lot. And I don't like that it's gone because it was something I like checking back on. Yeah. But I am like, well, it exists and it's gone. That's the only time when I feel guilty about it. Yeah. If anyone ever has a pro, but if anyone it, ever has a problem for any other reason, I think it's but dumb. It also, but it also has to do with, on some level, like the, you know, it's the ephemeral nature of everything. That like, there's so many things that we do. It's a natural thing as humans. We do things to try to um, to try to uh, convince ourselves, on some level. That something, that everything will last. Yeah. That, you know, the reason why I can't get rid of my DVD collection, the reason I can't get rid of it, uh, is at least on some level that my DVD collection tells me that I have been here. Yeah. And I will remain here. Right. For a long time. Like, the, the fact of my DVD collection is I look at it and I'm like, well, I've seen all that. Now I can see it all again if I want. Right. Whereas if, if reality, let's say reality knew how much time I have left. It's an objectification, like a concretization of your past. Yeah. And but the also, person you are. It's, but, it's proof that your path but I could have has a, existed. But it's also, more than that, it's a, a, a monument towards I will rewatch these things. Right. Because I could have a plaque that had a list of all the movies I've seen and that would be an acknowledgement of my past. But it's also like, the reason I own them is because I may want to watch them again. Right. And I have time to watch all these movies again. But if reality took over and started Back to the Future, like in the photo of Back to the Future, the way as things start changing, things start disappearing from the photo. Yeah. If my, imagine if your collection of things started disappearing based on the amount of time you had left to watch them. Right. That if you came in one day and suddenly a shelf was gone, it was because like, you can't possibly watch all of these. Uh, yeah, or what if, I mean, this is like counterintuitive because it's like self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's like, what if the things you would watch or read again were yeah. the only things that were there? Yes. And the things you wouldn't disappeared. Yeah. Because there'd be so many things like... Ooh, that's, listen, that's a good sci-fi premise. Yeah. You go into a bookstore, and it's a bookstore where the only books available are books that you will read. That you actually will read. And it's like you walk by and all the shelves are empty, but then there's a self-help section it, about it knows like you. addiction. And you're like, wait, why am I going to read these? Yeah. The books that... Is it me? Is it someone else? Uh, the books that you will never read, uh, they're there as objects, but it's just blank. Like you take the book out, it's blank. You can't see it. Like you can't see the title. You can't see the print on the pages. It's just a blank book to you. Right. And by the you pull out of this other one, you're like, oh, uh, I guess I read this one. Uh, um, That's really interesting. Because I, like, uh, I went to see Eyes Wide Shut. Did I tell you about this? No. Um, I love Eyes Wide Shut. A lot of people don't. Well, here's an, inter- here's an interesting experience I had. I've never quite had this experience before. When's the last time you saw it? I'm curious. A year ago. A year ago. Yeah. Um, I've seen it twice. Okay. First time was on original release. And actually, 
I, of the two of us, I may be the only one who's really seen it. Because uh, I was in England when it came out. So you saw the one that has those CGI shadows that block all the uh, orgy. No. Yeah. So I saw... You see it in America? Really? Yeah. Hmm. Sucks to be you. Uh, damn! Damn! I could have been seeing nudie all this time? Well, I had never seen the American release that has the digital shadow figures in the way. Was that from the get-go they did that? Yeah. I didn't know um, that. I was in England. Everywhere else in the world got the original cut of it. America only ever got... Uh, the version with the CGI cloaked figures standing in front of things kind of Austin Powers style where it's like just blocking enough that you don't see right um, the offending parts. Sorry. So I saw it when it first came out and I liked it but it definitely wasn't among my favorite Kubrick movies. Like I, But I definitely was like, oh no, it's good. I liked it. I went and saw it uh, a couple months ago and I was very excited to see it again because uh, it might have been like first week of January or something. Um, I was just like, oh, it's been, you know, it's closing in on two One decades, week. you know? Yeah. And I did not like it this time. Interesting. Like to the point, to a point where I do have this thing, I was talking about movies where now there's like movies that I've seen so long ago now that I question my opinion of them because... Like you were saying about how you're a different person than you were the first week. Yeah. The first time we did this podcast. Like, a movie that I saw in 1990 that I have a firm opinion of, I can't trust that opinion anymore. Yes. Because I was 15 when I saw that movie. Right. And I'm like, I know a lot more. I've seen a lot more things. Even just to the point of like, in a smaller scale, like when I saw Die Hard with a Vengeance, I liked it okay. But the best part of it was the part I thought was really clever when he was calling the payphones and making them run from phone to phone. A few years later, I see the original Dirty Harry and I realize, oh, they just stole that. They just right. straight up lifted that. At which point, my opinion of Die Hard with a Vengeance dropped significantly because I'm like, well, the coolest thing in the movie is no longer that movie's thing. Right. Um, so, like, opinions can change just because of stuff like that. This time when I saw Eyes Wide Shut, what I really felt is, like, visually... I, it looks great. It looks like... Uh, I love the texture of the movie. But it was the first time watching a Kubrick movie where I really felt like from scene to scene and even, sometimes even within scenes that his method of doing 90 takes of a scene uh, evolved into scenes where the behavior of the characters really doesn't match the previous scene at all. Where like he'll witness something that means that like maybe his friend is dead and then the next scene will be this like whimsical comedic scene where he doesn't seem bothered at all. Right. Or like he'll, uh, just like the thing that really stood out to me was like the opening of the movie where they're at the party, you really get the feeling of that Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, you almost get the feeling like, are they swingers? Are they, are they at this party? Like they seem aware of each other's like sexy behavior with other people. And they go home to this party and you're like, wait, are they, do they like act this way, but then they go home and like tell each other about it or something like that? Then she tells the story about the dream where it's like the sailor and he's having right. sex with her and she feels like she could leave her husband and it drives him insane with jealousy. And as I'm watching it now, I'm like, I don't buy that that guy who's at that party 
that had is this so energy. bothered by that. Yeah, that he's so bothered by. It. Like it felt, and I was like, it's it was hard for me to buy into right. the remainder of the movie uh, because of that. Right. I see the thing that I think is different. Yeah. Is I watch Kubrick movies differently. Yeah. I don't watch them as a narrative plot. Gotcha. To me, they are just sort of like these juxtapositions of images and ideas that together form an idea. Yeah. Ideas that form an idea. I'm a very articulate person here. Um, so it's like, when I watch Eyes Wide Shut, I'm not following the plot of what's happening necessarily. It's the vibe of it. It's the vibe of it. And it's like, oh, it's this interesting thing of the ideas of powerlessness and a higher power and these things that are running, that are more powerful than you want to be involved in, yeah. have these analogs to love and jealousy. Yeah. And the idea of seeking adventure, even though you know you shouldn't because it's greater than you and has the power to destroy you, has these analogs to love and lust yeah. that seem irreconcilable. Like, that's what is, to me, interesting about it. Like, I never watched that movie, and I'm like, I almost don't think of Tom Cruise as a character in that movie. Yeah. It's almost more just like... A, <laughs> to me, his movies almost feel like comic book panels of, like, modernist comic book artists where it's like, oh, you have these panels juxtaposed that you put together what this stuff means yeah. as opposed to a narrative plot. Like, I feel the same way about The Shining, even though there is a plot for The Shining. I'm, I'm more looking at the images. Clockwork yeah. Orange in a major way. Yeah. I don't give a fuck about the plot of that. To me, it's more like, what are these concepts that are on display? And I yeah. think that's me granting a lot to Kubrick. Yes. Um... You're giving him some mulligans. I'm giving him some mulligans, but I almost watch those movies differently. And there's other other filmmakers that are the same, where it's like, my eyes, my eyes are more perceptive when I'm watching those movies to the detriment of being objective about the story of it. Yeah. Which is not to say, like, you're right, but for me, I'm like, oh, I, I, I never even noticed the plot in a lot of his movies. Or, yeah. I mean, like, I noticed them, but they, it almost feels like... I think the weird thing for me... The plot of a poem as opposed to the, the plot of a story. Yeah. The weird thing for me is, like, I definitely do the same thing for The Shining. Right. In the sense that, like, I love The Shining, although I, I do have that wish for The Shining, which is that I just wish that... Kubrick had let Nicholson... They used the takes of Nicholson acting normal in the early scenes. Right. Or even just a little more normal. So that the movie was about a um, guy who goes to this hotel and the spirits drive him crazy because it was part of his destiny. As opposed to an insane guy who gets a job at a hotel and the ghosts drive him crazy. Yes. Um, Just because there's a part of me that's like... If you just had that opening interview scene, just don't use the takes where he's like... Oh no, I'm sure she'll find it fascinating. She loves ghost stories. That I know right. there were better takes of that scene where he's just like, Oh no, no, it's fine. Like my wife actually likes ghost stories, so she'll she'll find it fascinating. Yeah. As opposed to the version where it's like, We can't hire this guy. He's yeah. I think he's gonna kill his wife anyway. Right. Um but 
for Eyes Wide Shut, the thing that I felt was, like, I've seen After Hours fairly recently in the past few years. And I think of After Hours and Eyes Wide Shut as similar movies in terms of, like, they're these, like, nightmare uh, guy trapped, a guy finds himself sucked into this weird underworld and he can't get out of it. Um, yes. And, I, and the thing that doesn't hold up with After Hours is purely a, uh, um, the thing that just dates it, which is that you can't make a movie now about how the plot of the movie is that, um, what if you got stuck uh, in Soho? Right. How would you get home? Right. And it literally, like, I remember moving to New York, watching After Hours again and realizing that at the end of the movie, he escapes and gets back up to, like, uh, like 59th Street. And I'm like, he could have just walked for an hour and he'd be home. Like, at any point in the movie, it's just like, he's trying to get a cab home. And I'm like, he could have, like, I've walked it. It's easy. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, like, everything in that movie, like, holds up together in a way that I was surprised watching Eyes Wide Shut that I was like, oh, I, before, like, a day before, if you'd asked me, like, should I see Eyes Wide Shut, I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's great. And now my current feeling of it is, and this is actually the initial point I was going to make is it was very strange as I was watching it to be like, oh, I'm watching Eyes Wide Shut for the last time in my life. Right. That I, like, coming, that thing of, like, the things disappearing for you was like, when you start realizing that, like, you know, I'm 41 years old, it's hard for me to, like, the context in which I would imagine watching it again are so specific. Like, maybe if it was, like, you asked me, it's like, uh, I'm hosting a show where we're going to watch a movie and do commentary yeah. over it, and I want someone who's got a differing opinion on it. Right. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll do that, and we'll do this. I could imagine being in a, like, the other circumstances are things where it's like, someone, I, someone that I don't really know that, like, I really admire is like, we're all going to watch Eyes Wide Shut. Right. You know, that would be like, uh, okay, sure. Uh yeah, but I know what you mean. Like, there's a couple of things watching where I'll find myself being like, oh, I want this to be over. But I'm like, no, I'm going to sit this through. But you also realize, like, me and this are done. Well, like, Empire of the Sun's a good yeah. example of that, where I'm like, I actually really enjoyed Empire of the Sun. And there's but, a lot of things that stuck with me about it, but I'm like, gonna it's going it to be again. really hard for me to sit down and watch the whole thing again, ever. Yeah. It's a long movie. It's a long movie. It's not... and. Like, I was glad to revisit that as an adult because the first time I would have seen it, I would have been, like, 11 or 12. Right. So, like, I liked being able to watch that and have an adult opinion of it because my memory of it was, I like this. And my adult opinion of it was, I like most of it. Uh, there's a few things that don't hold up yeah. as well. But overall, I was like, it's, imp it's an impressive Spielberg film that doesn't get shown a lot. And I would, if someone else was like... Um, there's also films that I like a lot that I also imagine, like, how many more times will I watch that in my life? Even ones I like, like Jaws. I know I'll probably watch it again at some point, but twice? I don't know. I might not watch Jaws again. I can imagine watching Jaws again. Sugarland Express? I've seen it once. I remember it being very good. I find it hard to imagine not watching it again because my memory of it is faded. Right. And it's the kind of like obscure good Spielberg like a, it's a good it's one of the few 
good Spielberg movies that almost no one seems to have seen. Right. It's like his second film, his first theatrical one, I think. Um, I'm definitely going to see 1941 again at some point. Not because it's good, but because it's fascinating and because... Did you do any of the... Did you do a movie in this Griffin and David Spielberg run? No. They're doing a Spielberg thing, right? Are now. they? Yeah. I wonder who picked 1941. They just did it with... Oh, no. It, I'm sorry. They didn't at all. It's Miramax... Not Miramax. Um, his... Uh, not DreamWorks. What's his studio that he made? Amblin? No, he DreamWorks? made... DreamWorks? Maybe it is DreamWorks. Yeah. They're is just it, looking at DreamWorks movies? What's the one... God, am I crazy? Amblin Entertainment, DreamWorks. Um, he did stuff for Universal. Is it DreamWorks? Am I insane? DreamWorks was the one that's him and the two other guys, Geffen and... Um, uh, what's his name? I mean, that's definitely the studio imprint that in the 90s they started. Yeah, then it's DreamWorks. Sorry. For some reason... They're just like, like, are they just looking at DreamWorks movies? Yes. Just the ones that he did with... I'm sorry. I'm going to look this up. Um, Intellectually, it's making sense to me, but for whatever reason, I'm saying it out loud. You know when sometimes you, like, yeah. you say something out loud and you're like... You lose the word. Why does this sound weird to me as I'm saying this? Yeah. Or do you want to go to the yachting category of Steven Spielberg's personal life on his Wikipedia? Never. Uh, um, but you know what I mean? Like, the, there's... Yeah. Um, I definitely... The reason I'll definitely watch 1941 is because I'm realizing I have big opinions about it, but I don't really remember it very well. And if yeah, they were DreamWorks. Show- I'm sorry. I don't know why I was being an idiot. If they were showing it in a movie theater, I'd be fascinated to see it with an audience in front of a big screen because it's one of those movies that has a lot of funny people in it. I don't remember it having a lot of funny parts, but I remember it being like... like you know how like, I was fascinated by how an Empire of the Sun is like one of the last times that you would ever do most of that practically? Yeah. 1941 is one of those things like how the Blues Brothers, how they actually crash 100 cop cars. Yeah. There's the parts where it's like the tank crashing through the paint factory and it's just like red and orange paint flying everywhere that is just like, they just made a big mess. Right. Because it was like, comedy in the late 70s was like, let's break a bunch of, it was like anti-establishment, like, yeah. we have a million dollars, let's break a million dollars worth of stuff because it'll be funny. Right. And there's something about, I want to see that movie now as an adult comedy person with other comedians to be like, here's one of the most successful filmmakers of all time and he's making a movie and the formula for it is like let's get some of the funniest people in the, you know, let's get Belushi let's get Acro let's get all these like right. hot comedy people and make this big comedy statement and for it to be such a disaster while not being like an unwatchable movie like there's some good jokes in it have you ever seen it? no I think you'd be fascinated by that movie because there's so much wrong with it Spielberg would never make another movie like it again. It's not right. like any other... Because, like, think, what are, what are the other Spielberg comedies where you can just say, like, it's a comedy? He's never done a straight comedy aside from 1941. And, but even as a straight comedy, it's like a straight comedy that is, like, the scope of a Saving Private Ryan. It's like a... There's planes and explosions and... How close was that to Strange Love? Um, Before, after? Oh, a decade after at least. Because to me, that seems like that's what that was. But it's... Well, yeah, Slim Pickens is in both. 
um, he was overtly like, I'm going to make a comedy about World War II that is like, it was like a year or two after Animal House, so it's got the biggest, you know, like, uh, uh, bad boys of comedy. Right. And, it, and it's trying to be subversive in the same way that Dr. Strangelove is, but like, the energy of Dr. Strangelove is like quietly confident, and the energy of 1941 is like, I'm the biggest boy on my block. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like, um, such a fascinating failure because what he learned from it was like, I'm not doing that again. Um, it's also interesting. It's also fascinating for a guy who Spielberg's relationship to World War II cinematically starts off with like the animal house version of World War II. And then that doesn't work. And then he's like, what if Nazis tried to get magic? And he makes two two movies. Wait, what's that? What are those? Indiana Jones. Oh, right. Um, but it's still like World he War... does have a big World War II obsession. But if you look at it, like the first one was just like completely, um, completely uh, irreverent. Like World War II is the set for my new Bafo comedy. Right. And then the ne- and then that doesn't work. And the next one is what if Nazis tried to get a magical uh, power? Uh, but there's a big adventurer who stops them. Is, and is that how Spielberg talks? Yeah. What um, if? What if? Okay, a little boy finds an alien, and that alien loves Reese's Pieces. <laughs> um, but then, like, there's two movies where, like, the Nazis are trying to get stuff, and an archaeology professor stops them because they're trying to get magic. And then Schindler's List. So, like, Schindler's List is from the director of 1941 and the Indiana Jones right. punch and Nazi movies. Uh, and then you have Saving Private Ryan, and suddenly the guy who made three movies about World War II, where it was kind of like he was just like a kid in a candy store playing around, right? To then like, no, these are like we are paying respect to the people, the many who died because of this. It's an interesting and pretty abrupt turn in the sense that like there's not that much distance between Last Crusade and Schindler's List, and then Monster House comes out. Which one? Monster House. He produced that, right? Yeah. Does that have a World War II connection? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, all right. Is there another World War II movie after Saving Private Ryan from Spielberg? Or is that it? Yeah, Bridge of Spies. Is that World War II? Isn't World War II? Oh, wait, no, it's not. I thought that might be Cold War. Is that not Cold War? No, it is Cold War. No, wait. Because it's the Berlin Wall. Right? What's it set? Uh, 1960, Cold War. You're right. But it has that same vibe to it. Yeah. It wouldn't feel out of place in a trilogy, weirdly, even though it's not World War II. Let me look at all of his films. Let me look at all of his films. These are the films that he made. Okay. We'll go through and we'll figure out all of the World War II ones. Amblin. No. I've never seen that. That's his like first short or whatever. Yeah. Duel. No. No. Sugarland Express. No. No. Jaws. No. no. Closing Hunt of the Third Kind. No. no. I want to hold your hand. No. no. That was the first. Uh, that was the first Robert Zemeckis movie. Okay. Are these I, just executive producer ones or all things? It's all things. Okay. These he directed these though. He didn't direct. I want to hold your hand. No, he didn't. That was other executive Zemeckis. producer. Yeah. Nineteen forty-one. Yes. He's an actor in the Blues Brothers. No. 
who's an executive producer on used car and tunnel divide. No. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. yes. ETX uh, Terrestrial. No. no. Poltergeist. No. no. Twilight Zone the movie. No. I don't remember. Is there anyone? I don't think so. Gremlins. No. no. Wait, no. Um, the guy, the next door neighbor. Oh yeah. Uh, who had who was prejudiced against uh, the Japanese because of World War Two. So there's a mild connection because he's convinced that the gremlins are getting in things and messing things up. Gremlins. Right. Gremlins were. Mentioned a lot in World War II propaganda that, that those were the, the little demons that ma- made mistakes in the machinery. Yeah. Temple of Doom. Nah. When does Temple of Doom take? It's before place? Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's in the 30s. Okay, Fandango, Back to the Future, Color nah. Purple. Nah. No. Goonies. Now. No, no, no. I mean, the executive produced a lot of things, but I won't listen. Batteries not included. No. An American Tale. No. Empire of the Sun. Yes. yes. I forgot that one. I didn't even mention that one. That's before Last Crusade. And that was what triggered this. Yes. Uh, Poltergeist 3. Yeah. He didn't do Poltergeist 2? No, he did. I just didn't oh. mention it. Um, always. No. What is Always? Uh, John Goodman, Robert, uh, Richard Dreyfus, Holly Hunter... Richard Dreyfus dies, and then his ghost doesn't want to let Holly Hunter break up with him. Oh, okay. Um, and she meets a new guy. Last Crusade. Yes. yes. At that point, Spielberg made a big announcement that Last Crusade was going to be his last like, popcorn movie. He was done with thrillers and was just going to make um, serious adult dramas. And then the next thing that came out was... Tummy Trouble that he executive produced. <laughs> Which was a serious adult drama starring Roger Rabbit. Um, but the next thing he directed was... Um. Hook. <laughs> Did he direct that? Yes. I guess so. Uh, there's no World War II connection to Hook. Uh, what? No, there isn't. Jurassic Park. No. no. Schindler's List. Yes. Last World Jurassic Park. No. no. Amistad. No. no. What's Amistad about? I don't... Oh, yeah. Slave Ship. Saving Private Ryan. Yes. AI Artificial Intelligence. No. no. Minority Report. No. Catch Me If You Can. No. The Terminal. No. no. War of the Worlds. No. no. Munich. No. no. 72 Olympics. Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. No. When does that take place? Cold War. You're right. Tintin. Mm, what year does Tintin take place? I don't think so. 1955. No. I like that movie, Tintin. That's it. War Horse. Mm, I don't think so. No. That would, that's World War One. Yeah. Prequel. It's a prequel. Uh, Lincoln. No. no. Bridge of Spies. No. no. The BFG. No. The Post. 
What's the post? Is that the thing he's making right now? Yeah, about Nixon Watergate. Who's in it? I have no idea. It doesn't link to it links to the real life event now. Oh. He's directing Ready Player One? Yes. Huh. Uh, Indiana Jones five. <sighs> Probably not. The kidnapping of Edgardo Montora. No. It's what I do. Uh Robopocalypse. No. Chalky. What do you mean chalky? I don't know. I'm just naming things that claim. Chalky like chocolate or chocolate like chalkboard? C-H-O-C-K-Y. Oh. You've been listening to Spielberg. World War II or no? Segment of the show where we list every film that Spielberg ever made and identify whether or not is related to World War II. If you think we missed one, please write to DreamWorks in Hollywood, um, California. All right, here's some other questions people are asking. Uh huh. Um, I'm going to go from newest. I guess that's not fair. It's not fair. That's a little thing that people here in our uh, six of... 12 hour day yeah are going to learn which is that not everything is fair on this podcast and we have a little song about that life life fair life fair life fair life fair Life ain't fair, right, far, sick. Life ain't fair, life ain't fair, life. That's the song. That's the song. Um, Fisher Price says, go to a museum and talk about interesting exhibits and what they mean to you. All right. We don't take orders, and we're not leaving this building. AJ Brasson Light says, I'm going to be... Oh, my God. Are you okay? Is he all right? I'm going to be moving to a new place next year. Any advice on getting out of my comfort zone? Well, that's Connor's expertise. If there's ever anyone that I know that's good about getting out of their comfort zone, Why are you it's being Connor for Hatlip. When did we introduce sarcasm into this podcast? <laughs> I thought sincerity was our bag. It was. I don't know why. I'm, I think I hit a lull of talking, and now my body's like, we need to spice things up. Um, you don't think I get out of my comfort zone? No. Why not? I just don't think you do. No, why don't I? Why don't you get out of your comfort zone? Yeah. 
Oh. It's real obvious. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna dive into this. It'll go too deep. It's comfortable there. Why would I want to leave my comfort zone? <laughs> like the whole concept of like get out of your comfort zone. The very fact that I have a comfort zone means I want to make use of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> but you can expand your comfort zone. Sure, I have no problem with expanding it. You have to get out of it to expand it. No, I expand it from within. <laughs> no, you don't. I do. It happens. That happens very slowly. Then I don't mind. The thing is, if I didn't What's have the a- last time you've willfully expanded your comfort zone, not been forced into a situation or had to. What's the last time where you've been like, I'm going to expand my comfort zone? I, mean, I do it in improv scenes all the time. Oh, that's not. But in my actual life, um. I don't know. Um, part of being in the comfort zone is never look back. <laughs> My comfort zone just goes forward. So your comfort um, zone like a beanbag chair on a motorcycle? It's like a beanbag chair on a four-wheeler. <laughs> because a two-wheeler is not in my comfort zone. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm on an ATV. A beanbag chair on an ATV. That's <laughs> just going forward. Um, I feel like... Uh, when's the last time you got out of your comfort zone? Constantly. Oh. I joined a track team recently. Uh-huh. Um, I've started working in the magic world. I have... What else? I joined something else recently. Some sort of club. What is it? I feel bad that you... Culture club? Me. Yeah, I joined the culture club. I'm the new synth player for culture club. <laughs> Uh, people found out that it really was just a club that you could join and yeah. up to now people were just we're not a band we're a club but no one yeah you could just join anyone could have joined Man, what did I oh shoot I joined some sort of club but I would say part of your comfort zone is getting out of your comfort zone no way you like it I need to do it or else I implode I have anxiety unless I keep myself Going. Yeah, my pr- comfort zone. No, you're proving my point. You're proving my point. I would much prefer to stay inside and do nothing. That's not your comfort zone. I start feeling sick. Yeah. It's not your comfort zone if you feel sick in it. No, it's my comfort zone, no. but I have to be uncomfortable to appreciate it. The, I would argue that your comfort zone, like you're describing it as if it's like... Here's, uh, here's what it is. Yeah. I'll explain it to you. I am most comfortable when it's raining outside. Mm-hmm. That is also an analogy for my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I am most comfortable when I have other things going on yeah. outside of my safe, rainy apartment, my safe, non-rainy apartment. Yeah. So it's like I need to make sure it's raining outside so that I can have something to escape to. Mm-hmm. So it's like... But my comfort zone is not a place where I'm like, if I stay there too long, I get sick. <laughs> Mine is. If I, stay my, if I stay in my comfort zone too long... I start thinking I'm dying and I lose weight and I have anxiety and I start hallucinating. Here's, here's what I... Here's what I here's, none of those things I just said are an exaggeration. I know. Here's the thing. I think it's like... <laughs> which, which is not a good thing. Here's what I think. Um, I'm a human being and you're a fish. Or you can switch it where I'm a fish and you're a human being. And we're hanging out and the fish is always going like, you need to go in the ocean more often. <laughs> and it's like... It's like, uh, 
like your definition, like my definition of when I'm in my comfort zone, I'm actually comfortable. I actually feel good. My life is good. And, uh, you, I'm like Keiko the whale. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, Oh, I could be outside here. This is nice. Oh no. You're like, you're like pour water on me. Yeah. You're like this beached whale. Help me. Like beach Push whale. me back. <laughs> you're like, I get out of my comfort zone. Cause when I stay here in my comfort zone too long, uh, I uh, I start to feel like I'm dying, so I go back. <laughs> I go back no, in the ocean. No, I am probably most similar to a whale in that way, where it's like I need and am, and am most comfortable when I'm getting air because I need air, <laughs> and when I don't have it, I am dying, and it stresses me out because I'm like I need air. Yeah, but I live in the water. Yeah, and I cannot spend my entire time breathing air. Yeah. Um, how did we get on talking about comfort zone? Oh, that was the question. Oh yeah, get oh yeah. So, well, your response to the question was, "Why leave?" It's it's called the comfort zone for a reason. It's meant to make you comfortable. Stay there. Yeah. And my advice is, I don't have any advice on getting a comfort zone. Just get out of your comfort zone. Um, Push, the, jump, the dive your way. Comfort is. Uh, Adventurous people often think of the comfort zone as, as um, this placid, lazy place. Yes. But for an adventurous person, person, their comfort zone is the land of adventure. Sure. An adventurous person will tend to feel bored or um, anxious in what other people might associate with as like comfortable. Sure. And there's an element of like, I don't know, it's interesting to think about in terms of like. My comfort zone is placed tempor- temporally after an adventure. Yes. I'm most comfortable when I'm at home having just finished an adventure, achieved something. Yeah. That's when I am most at ease. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because. You think of me as someone who doesn't venture outside of my comfort zone. You, you no, think... I think of you as someone that does, but you don't like it and are not willing to accept that it's something worth doing, but you mm. will do it. Yeah, I don't know. But here's the thing. Like, the things that I find comfortable are things that typically, if you believe surveys, um, like... You said this as if surveys are not meant to be believed. You believe the surveys. Um, I don't. Well, I don't believe when people say their number one fear is public speaking. I don't believe yes. it. I don't. I just, it doesn't make sense to me. I think that people get anxious about it. Most people don't like to do it. But I don't believe it's anyone. I don't think it's the number one fear. The way people. No, it's maybe the fear that they have to come face to face with. Yeah, the they most have to. Often. Yeah, but like uh, most people would make a speech before they would actually encounter a crocodile. Right. Or it's like people are like, oh, I'm. The thing I'm most afraid of is spiders. It's like, no, you just probably have to interact with spiders a lot and you don't like it. Yeah. So it's the thing you are most often afraid of. Yes. You're most often afraid of public speaking. You're most often afraid of spiders. The thing uh, you're most scared of is probably like a fucking... Yeah, everyone you know dying. Mega bear. Gonna happen. The 100-foot bear. <laughs> mega bear, the 100-foot bear, that just don't care. That just don't care. <laughs> um, that's, that's a, can we be clear? Trademark. Yeah. <laughs> can we be clear? Yeah. When you say your number one fear is public speaking, it is not. Your number one fear, just like every other human, is, is mega, mega bear. bear. The 100-foot bear, bear that just don't care. care. Trademark. 
12 hour day. That's the, that's one of the, one of the menagerie of characters that you might never encounter in the 12 hour verse, but they are the intellectual property of this podcast. Yes. Along with King Bad Boy. And Mega Bear, the 100 foot bear that just don't care. People probably know, uh, they don't realize that that was a, an actual serious horror movie first that was then later turned into a Saturday morning cartoon. People are probably most familiar with the Saturday morning cartoon version of Mega Bear, the 100 foot bear that just don't care. Uh, we would encourage people to submit, to tweet fan art at 12 hour day of their drawings of Mega Bear, the 100 foot bear that just don't care. One interesting. The cartoon version. The cartoon the, version. The horror movie version, it's like. That movie was from like the seventies, yeah. And if at the can... time, it was at the time it was scary, yeah. but in retrospect, it's goofy. But the Saturday morning cartoon had a lot of legs. Uh, and y- you can find some of you might be able to find screenshots from the movie. It's very hard. Yes. Because um, uh, some of them are so terrifying that uh, Google Images can't uh, process them. Right. And they're so terrifying that Google Images can't process them, and also they're um, the. Director, who was an Italian director, was extremely litigious. Yeah. And there's some contracts that there's... actually don't translate well to English, and yeah. so have never been fully figured out. Yeah. The the bots are actually the the bots that actually track the photos are scared of uh, yes, Mega Bear. Exactly. And what you probably can find is the um, video of this the theme song uh, of the theme song to the Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. But the audio, since it gets tracked, but we'll put the audio in right now. Connor, can you just remind everyone what that the theme song was to the Saturday morning cartoon version? Mega Bear! 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 Mega now that that noise was not Mega Bear, though. No, that was the that was the noise of the young boy that he terrified. That's the that's the sound of a young boy makes me terrified, and the young boy actually drives around in a talking car. Yeah. Um, a love buggy. I. No, but what I was going to say about my comfort zone, is, like. Things, like you're. I said before, like you're comfortable in the thick of it. On running a set, sure. Even though there's stress, like you're, you're like a pig in shit in that environment. You're very okay. Well, why don't we you're like, like a, fucking any other animal that likes something? What do you mean? Oh, you're like an ostrich in shit. <laughs> no. <laughs> no uh, how about uh, a flamingo amongst a pond of fresh shrimp? Yeah, you're like a flamingo amongst a pond of fresh shrimp. In shit. In shit. <laughs> um. The, and I tend to be at my most comfortable in various performance settings where, what's well, like, it's funny, the other night, so I'm doing this show, this Way Past Your Bedtime show, and it went really well. And uh, the only regret I have about the show is that I wish I could have been like 20 or 30 minutes longer because... And Ira Glass, Tammy Sager, and Neil Casey. Right. And one thing I learned is like, uh, I got greedy. I should have. I, I wouldn't. I have no regrets about it. But I'm like, I really only have time for two guests. I was gonna say three guests seems like a lot of guests. Three guests is a lot. And and what what it ended up having to do, which was just like, I had to at a certain point be like, I got to bring out my next guest. When it was just me and Ira. And then 
And I was like, I could talk to Ira for another half an hour. Right. Easy. And then I bring out Tammy, and Tammy's fascinating. And then at a certain point, I was like, got to bring out Neil. I got Neil backstage. I got to bring out Neil. And then at a certain point, then I'm like, ah, I got to wrap up the show because there's a, a a mod team has a tech rehearsal at midnight. So, like, I can't run long right. bigger than I'm already running. And confident through the whole show. Like, just like, I couldn't feel more confident. I'm surrounded by... Uh, you know, I've got Alex Song and Sebastian and Casey Jost and Andy Basilis and uh, uh, Becky Chicoin. So all these people on stage, I'm like, any one of these people could just hold the stage for an hour yeah. with no problem. But got to end the show. The second the show is over, I go to sleep at the end. I fall asleep at the end of the show. I sing a little song, right. I fall asleep, and then the audience leaves. The, the the band toy band plays, and then they stop playing and they lose their right. life and uh, they don't die, but they just yeah. Hobbesian. Calvin and Hobbesian. Yeah. Um, and then the audience leaves while the feedback from the instruments is playing. So I, I try not to break the pose until everyone's gone from the audience. Um, but then the second it's time to like clean up the stage, there's so much stuff to clean yeah. up. I instantly feel as if it's as if I've made a mess. Like I instantly go into a mode of like, I'll clean it up. Like I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I instantly, even though like I just did a show that like went well. And I should, the feeling I should have, and I do have the feeling of like pride in the show, but my immediate thing is like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, eh, it'll be gone in a second. And yeah. it really, it is as if, uh, as if I've done something disgusting. Right. And it's like, I'll, I'll give it away. I'll be good. And it is just like such an interesting thing to be, to realize like a few seconds ago, I was like with some of the most funny and interesting people. Right. No nerves at all. No, just absolute confidence of like, this is good. Everybody here who paid has right. got more than their money's worth. It's no problem. And then immediately it snaps back to like, I'm just like somebody who made a mess who's like trying to, it's as if I just spilled a bunch of shit uh, on the subway train. No, I, I know that exact feeling. Cause, and that's something that I've had to deal with personally is that like my onstage persona is very... Aggressively confident. Aggressive, confident, and like care no mind. I will cause any problem or mayhem and not worry about it. Yeah. But then the real me is not that. Yeah. And so there'll be people that think that that's who I am and will engage with me like that or will chastise me off stage as if that's who I am. Yeah. Like, you know, we did. I mean, I, we, I don't need to talk about that show too much. I think we've already discussed something. But that one show with that Joe show that at the UCB, oh, yeah, yeah. That, which was like a bad, sh- not a bad show. It was. It was more like a more of a social experiment it was a, than a show. It was a social experiment gone horribly awry that I love that it exists and that like the bullet <laughs> points of what happened on the show are like insane. But I it hurts me to relive that. Yeah. But there's people that are still mad about that show. And I think like Really? You know, I mean people that I'm not worried about. But <laughs> people I know? Probably. <laughs> um But it's like and I think have animosity towards me for it. Yeah. But they have animosity towards a version of me that they think is still that character. Yeah. It's, like, it's being, like it's like being mad at Captain Crunch. Right. Where it's like <laughs> it's just one of those things. Where it's, it's like, like no, I would never do those things. Yeah. I did those in sort of as this character in this mindset that is. Yeah. And even in that show, I took that off and tried to make it right by the end. Yeah. To some degree, you know, like, but that was still this weird thing where it's like people weren't able to draw the line between. Yeah. That I mean, onstage version. Version. Oh, 
Freudian. Uh oh. <laughs> um, uh, what I wait? I, I've had sex. Yeah, I've had sex before. I've seen it. It's true. I've done it with. I've done it. No. Um, JD, let's talk about what just happened. Um, it's interesting because when I think of that show, it's funny because I. Uh, it's an interesting thing to be so separate from it because I don't consider like you and me in that show to be you and me in that show. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's like the versions of me and you who are in that show, like hate each other. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it but is, I, there's no element of me that's like, Oh yeah. It's completely, it's like an out of body experience. Exactly. It feels like it's, it's no dream. different than if I'm in a, if I'm in a show with Shannon O'Neill and I'm being an annoying asshole and she's like, fuck you, bro. There's no part of me that thinks like is Shannon mad at me. Yeah, you know it is. But to people watching that show, it was real, uh, and, and there were elements and to some that were people real in that show. Yeah, and there real. were elements in the show that were real. I mean, I really punched Matt Denny hard in the back yeah. multiple times because he fucking attacked me. Uh, <laughs> but that's and, like that's like you're not gonna see Denny on the street and be like fucking punch him again. Like you know, no, what I, mean? <laughs> I hope I never punch Matt Denny again. But I hit, I hit him so hard because that's what happens when you fucking try to handcuff me. Yeah, is I, but that's the show. The that's, same part of me that playing hide and go seek fled the building. <laughs> that's, I, but I, so that's the thing that I've had to deal with is that there's an onstage version of myself that acts a certain way, and then there's some people that so, I think he said it again. Version? I think I just it just sounded so that word virgin virgin the onstage version of myself onstage version of myself when I'm on stage the character I'm playing has never had sex yeah that is a fact fact fun fact. Fun fact. Watch JD on stage and see if you can tell <laughs> your friends. Um, uh, and there's people in the outside world, and there's something that I've had to deal with that, like, either yeah. romantically or friend-wise or creatively are attracted or compelled by that version of me. And then I think there's a dissonance yeah. when they realize or I realize yeah. that they don't, actually know that the real version of me which yeah. is like more anxiety prone yeah and a lot more like the version of me that's on stage yeah you're living out of fuels fantasy. by is you're living out of fun fantasy right and creates chaos and is in control of all stuff version of me in my day-to-day life is just a tall drink of water it's very ocd tendencies and <laughs> likes things very organized in very specific ways yeah I don't know. So I, I I know what you're saying where it's like, because I have the same thing, like after a show like that, right, where it's like I'll be on stage. Like, and that show, it's a great example. I don't want to harp on that show because it's just a small thing, but it's like, yeah. oh, there's a thing where Ryan Simmons, there's a whole table of props you guys had on stage. Yeah. He walked up to me and he's like, boss, should I? And I was like, do it. And he like flipped over the table, right? Yeah. The moment that show ended, I was like on my hands and knees, like scrubbing the floor and like, yeah. uh, let me get this. Hey, is this broken? Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. are you okay? Like so yeah. nervous and anxious and trying to make sure that we were off the stage that we didn't cause any damage that everyone was okay and it's like during the show my I didn't my, I didn't care at all and no matter what you know it's like it's all for the chaos well, of it I've, I may have talked about this before the DCM last summer when I did the OJ Simpson talk show with Sean Diston and I was playing Fred Goldman right and the guy came up on stage and I started screaming at him this is like a big strong guy yeah. who we later found out was on drugs he, was, he got mad because someone stole his heroin uh, but the version of me on in real life, I would I would walk the other way instantly. I would right. not want any confrontation with this guy. But I screamed at him more 
ferociously than I've ever screamed at anybody in my life. Like, yeah. I was like, I am the king of this stage, and you will get the fuck off of it. There's a DCM, like, two or three years ago where I feel like you and I had, like, three late-night shows in a row where it was just you and I yeah. improvising some, some insanity while basically just, like, making fun of the audience and all the performers. Yeah. And then last year... Uh, well, last last year, year I didn't. Last know. year you didn't show it, and it made a big difference, and it ruined the um, big sloppy naturals. Really? Because um, it was the only, last year was probably my most triumphant DCM in terms of the number of shows I did that went really well. Right. To the point where it started feeling like I may never be able to top this one in terms of. That's what I had. Uh, whatever, like three years ago. Yeah, it, it's a. It has me feeling weird about this year's DCM because last year it felt like the type of one that was like I felt ever present and I feel like I was it was the first year that I got invited up into some of the bigger league shows and I did okay in those yeah. but on the there's always like a handful of shows where things just go really click in enough ways that you become a show that people are like talking about there was right. a Sabonis show I think two years ago that people just talked about like that's the show of the of the marathon or like one of the shows of the marathon that people were like buzzing about but the one that went badly last year was Big Sloppy Naturals and the reason it went badly was because when you and I are there, we commanded the whole stage. And yeah. when it was just me there, the same show that we'd done two years in a row of you and I being these like mad carnival barkers riling up the audience, yeah. suddenly the show was always like there's a backline of people who are huffing nitrous. While you a and spoiler I, alert for what Big Sloppy Naturals is. Yeah, it's based on a true event uh, in, which, in which JD and I do not huff nitrous. And uh, we would just like play the audience like a like an orchestra sort right. of. And with you gone last year, the people on the back line were suddenly like, "Why is Connor doing?" It? They sort of noticed that it was like the equivalent of like before we had like a guard at each yeah. entrance, and now there's like a security guard gone. So like, there's only one guy guarding the bank. Well, we it's can- like the lion taming thing where it's like. When I'm bowing to the audience, you're making sure the lines are down. Yes. When you're at the audience, it's I'm exactly making sure the lines that. are down. And so they started trying to take over, and they cut short a thing that was working. Right. Because the audience liked what I was doing. Yeah. But then they started interfering and started to make it like one of those things that sometimes happens. It happens sometimes at ASCAT where it's sort of like a player starts getting like picked on in a way. And sometimes it really yeah. works. Like Jack McBrayer used to have it when they would do the match game yeah. at DCM, and he's like the... But that's not what Big Sloppy Naturals was. Yeah. So it became this thing where the audience quickly lost interest in it. And then we couldn't get it back to the fun place. And then uh, then Griffin Newman hit me in the face with one of those shaving cream pies. Right. After I'd made it clear that I did not want to be... The reason I hadn't done pie babies is I did not want to be hit in the face with a shaving cream pie. Right. Griffin felt really bad about it afterwards. Um, but it was the one moment in the thing where it was just like, oh, we had a fun thing and then we kind of it just broke. Yeah. And the people who broke it were huffing nitrous, so they didn't have the best sense of... There's a reason why... Which anyone that Connor's name probably was not huffing nitrous. The what? Connor's, oh, yeah. Connor yeah. will not, will I won't not name, publicly disclose I won't name any who people was. who would be huffing nitrous. And the uh, people who you think would be probably weren't. And the and people maybe, who you think weren't be probably were. And if you think they were, they weren't. What we're saying is all of your assumptions about who was doing what are probably incorrect. Um... What's the next question? Oh, Jeff Falzone. This is the 
the foul zone. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Never met you, but I feel like you're an old buddy. Can't believe you never met him. I'm interested. Did, he, did I meet him once? I think I met him once. Yeah. You must have. I must have. I'm interested if JD believes in free will or thinks it is a silly thing to think about. No, why would I think it's a silly thing to think about? I think f- free will exists. I never think about it. I feel like it exists, and I feel like if, if it doesn't, then I'm, I don't know how I'll ever be aware of it. If I told you I've started writing my own religion. Did you really? Yeah. What is it? Um, Do you want other people to join it, or is it just for you? It's just for me. I might share it at some point. Do you want to read one of the... Uh, it's only a page. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what you're going to say, but yeah, I want to read so it. So what I'm trying to do is... So I'm not a religious person. Yeah. I was raised Catholic. Me too. It was not something that I enjoyed in retrospect. I didn't like it. And other religions are interesting to me, but my take on religion is that it is a... Uh, it's a way to ascribe narrative to the great unknown. Um, it's a way to make peace with the things that we don't know about our world. Uh-huh. Whether they're true or untrue, I can't be the one to tell. I tend to think that they're probably not true, yeah. but that they are important and th- things that I, I respect that people do yeah. because I think that they grant you a, uh, an understanding, a calm, a sense of self yeah. in a world that has no answers. Yeah. So then I was like, well, instead of trying to search for someone else's thing that is supposed to make me feel good. Why don't I just write something that appeals to me? Mm-hmm. So I've started doing this. I don't want you to read it. I don't want you to read it aloud. I won't read it aloud, but I want you to talk to listeners and viewers while... It's very short. I read it. JD uh, is going through the files on his computer. I have a folder. I have a, this is my writing folder. One of them is called Connor Ratliff. Really? Yeah, I wonder what that is. Oh my god, if it's everything I've ever said and and this is where I find out? No, I don't think it is. You tried opening me and it didn't work. Sure. It's a (laughs) script in Final Draft called Connor Ratliff by J.D. Amato. He doesn't remember it. We open on a a baby being born. It might be an idea that I've... We open on a baby being born. It's 1975. Wah. Oh yeah, there's a thing. We've already mentioned this. I don't want to talk about it though. Yes. That's it. Um, where is it? I guess I'll do it by date modified, huh? Brought to you by Squarespace. If you want to design a website, Squarespace is the thing to do it with. Brought to you. Ooh. Here. Okay. Connor now has my... Okay. That's that's all it is so far. Great. So while Connor reads that, I will walk and talk. Um, I recently had some people come to investigate my apartment for mold because I've had 
multiple leaks that have not been fixed. I mean, the leaks have been fixed, but there's been holes in my ceiling. And so my landlord, my landlady, her daughter came and uh, set up this, like, like I was saying before about all of the, um, like the furnace and what else was it? The laundry that they're going to try to tear out parts of my apartment where they think might be mold. They came and did their test and they didn't find anything that concerned them, but I like the idea that uh, that will be solved. Right now I am uh, watering my plants. So Keith Hassel gave me this plant that I looked after for a while. And then I had to go to L.A. and I was dealing with some anxiety stuff. And I let it die. But then I was able to take the last living branch of this plant, which was very small, and I buried it in a new pot, and it came back to life and is now thriving quite well. And that, I'm very proud of that. So I'm trying to nurse it back to health. It's pretty big now. Um, I like it. That's my... Uh, so that's my current religion. When did you, when did you decide to write that? Hmm, what I was don't know. the this winter at some point? What was the spark of it? I think you know I don't do well in the winters, uh-huh. and so I think I was trying to find something. I think I was thinking about religion as like all of those ideas that I was just talking about, uh-huh. and I was like, well, what would mine be? And then I just started writing it. Why do you ask? I was just curious because it feels like the kind of thing that either like pops into your head or. Sometimes those things are like sparked by something. I think it was just sparked by anxiety and trying to understand bigger picture things. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, I like the idea of like religion that's sort of based almost on like a fable or a tall tale. Yeah. So that's what I think sort of most Bibles and religious texts are. Yeah. So I was trying to create one that like tapped into what I thought yeah. would be interesting about the world or like the things that, because I wanted something where it means like, because here's the things that I don't like about, like, I don't like the idea of heaven and hell, like, oh, do good things and you'll be rewarded and do bad things. It's going to be bad forever. Yeah. Like, I think as long as you are trying your best to learn things. Yeah. And the good and the bad are equally val- valuable because they teach you different things. Yeah. So that's what I was trying to create. Yeah. Um... Do you listen to a lot of podcasts, J.D.? Uh, I listen to a lot. Yeah, why? I think you... I mean, I've fallen so far behind in the podcasts I like over the last year. Um, I think you will like S-Town. I recommend it. Because um, it's, it's, it's an easy listen. Okay. But the thing I think you'll like about it... You made me think of it then just talking about the idea of... There's people in, the, in this story... It's just in this small little town, but there's people in the story that like you listen to an episode and there'll be like a person who'll be talking. The main main guy who's like going around talking right. to people. Um, he'll be talking to someone and getting their point of view on stuff. And you'll be like, oh shit, man, this guy's getting like a raw deal. Why are these people messing with him? And then you'll talk to some of those people and you'll hear their, their perspective on it. Right. And then you'll be like, oh, wait, is he the problem? And maybe right. they're doing... And, and I like that in terms of like 
you're, and in some ways it's frustrating because I don't know by the end of it whether or not there are aspects of it that you'll get the objective 100% truth of it, but it it's interesting hearing someone even-handedly talk to people and hear everybody out. Right. Um, and And I think the act of, even though it doesn't necessarily solve the problems for the people involved, I think anytime you hear that kind of thing demonstrated, it does affect people in the way they then approach their own life, their own lives when they're confronted with those kind of situations where you have a person that you're like, why is this person behaving this way? And then realizing like, Oh, maybe they're, maybe they're seeing it this way or, you know, that's just an interesting, an interesting thing. Um, Yeah, I I never really It's interesting when I think, you know, when I was in um jury selection, jury duty, I was thinking like being stuck in a room having to listen to something that was so boring and having no escape for it. I was like I really rarely have to do that anymore. And it's like such a specific feeling to like the worst parts of school. Right. Where like you're like, why am I here? My whole day is being wasted. I hate this. Yeah. And in adulthood, you get that in like jobs you don't want to do. Generally speaking, I mean, part of the reason I was able to stay in the job at Barnes and Noble for so long was precisely because even when I was exhausted, I never felt like I was at the bookstore. I'm like, oh, I'm just trapped in tedium. Right. Like my mind was free to roam and be creative all day long while I was shelving books and I was either learning stuff from the books or about the books or I was thinking about other things. I was like writing comedy stuff and thinking about, but I never had that feeling of just being stuck in a place where like when you're like a data processing job or something where you're right. Where not only are you stuck there, but you have to, you're requires just enough of your mental capacity that, that you're shut down. You can't tune out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is an interesting thing in terms of um, thinking about that in terms of religion as well, which is that like the time as a kid where I was like in church and like not liking this and not believing in the things that they're saying. Like, I don't think this is the real thing. And then you get to a point where you don't have to do that anymore. And you're like, oh, I don't have to go to church anymore. Like, I just bought myself right. an hour a week. And then you think, oh, I don't have to believe in that anymore. I've just bought myself... This I you both bought yourself. You freed up. You like you had a big app that was taking up a lot of space. You're like, I'm going to delete the Catholicism app. Yeah, freed up all the space. But then you're like, well, but I do have to. In its place, I have this other app, which is like not knowing what the universe is. Right. Or it's like when you delete Twitter and like you're on the train and then you go to your phone and then you go to press where the Twitter thing was and you're like, oh, there's nothing there. What do Um, I do on the train now? Yeah. Um, cause like when I think about, um, what was it? Somebody said something recently. Oh, I know it was, I was, I was, I don't know what the circumstance was. It was either at ASCAT or, um, yeah, it might've been an ASCAT. There was a, a thing about people were talking about like why they couldn't be completely an atheist or something. Right. And Tammy Sager said something about how for her it was math. 
like math to her was the thing that made her feel like there's something. Right. It was just like it made too much sense uh, in a weird way that uh, it felt like there's got to be something to this. Right. Um, I, I don't, when I think about like sometimes I think about um, the notion of an afterlife and it's a thing that people hold on to as far as like hope like this won't just be it you'll meet everybody again in a new life that's great and uh, sometimes that thought is so exhausting to me like that that almost feels like in some ways weirdly like the nightmare version of it which was like right. you'd make it all the way through this life and then your reward for it would be like welcome to the new place and you're like what? And you're like now this is where everyone has to run fast or else you know and then you're like wait 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 what are these new things? Uh, well that's what doesn't I, similar but different that's what doesn't appeal to me about reincarnation yeah it's like back here you were a thing again it's like when you finish a video game yeah and it's like now would you like to play again except this time you know what I mean like yeah. it's like no I played it and I equally don't want to start a new different game right away yeah but I also don't want to play this same game again Here's another thing that I've been thinking about recently that I think is funny is, and this is like nihilistic and it may go against a lot of people's religious beliefs, so just take it with Hold the on grain of salt. Hold on your people. Well, take it with the grain of salt that like, I'm just an idiot saying stupid stuff right yeah. now. But, and this is nothing that is not untread territory also, but yeah. everyone's like, well, I just have to believe there's something more going on. It, it, seem, it seems so, there's no way that it could just end when you yeah. die. Which, it's like, it's like, I just have such a hard time imagining the world without me in it. And it's like, well, okay. Yeah. Last night at 3 a.m., what did it feel like? Oh, you don't know because you were asleep. And you just oh, yeah. woke up and it was the morning. <laughs> How about 1966? What was 1966 like, Connor? Not. Oh, right. You didn't, didn't exist matter. then. Most of the time that we, like, we, said, we, we are so familiar with what it's like to not exist. Yeah. And then the other side of things is people are like, yeah, I choose to believe that there's like, this energy that maybe it isn't our soul or our consciousness, but it moves and it adds to yeah. the collective thing and it's a part of this larger... And it's like, yeah, that literally happens. We know what that is. Yeah. It doesn't have your memories. Right. Like, yes, you're right. You're right. Because when other people die, their bodies decompose and plants grow from that and it creates fuel and it's like, yeah. you are a part of this ecosystem, this thing, and your, your energy, literally your energy does transfer these other things. Yeah. But for us, that's not good enough because, yeah, it's like we, well, we know that all happens. Yeah, because it's like the thing that you're finding comfort from. If you actually demonstrate, you're like, hey, good news, the person you love uh, has been turned into compost and plants are growing out of it. Right. And you'd be like, what? It's great. Yeah, that's what you like, right? Energy. Yeah, you want your energy to turn into something beautiful and give life to something else, right? Yeah, but it'd be like. Yeah, but I want it to be sort of like. More I want like, to be more like a glowing Twinkerbell uh, beam. Yeah, it's like, around. well, really what I want to be is I want to be the exact same as I am now, except, like, maybe slightly better because I can't be punched. Yeah, I want to be, <laughs> it's like, like, I want to be, like, a sentient flash of beaming energy that just, like, zips around and does what he wants. Yeah, I want to, like, I want, I want to become one of the things in the sky that we know are actually really far away planets, but I just want to become one of those, Yeah. But also be able to have conversations with other one of those, and comment on and try to affect the life of small town bankers around Christmas time. Um, it's a wonderful life. That's what we're going for. Yeah. I 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because the things that we we believe that are actually this, these crazy wishes, like I've been on airplanes before where I've looked around and I've seen that there are little kids on the plane and I've used that to convince myself this plane can't crash because it's got too many kids on it. That would be horrible. Right. Uh, and I somehow convinced myself that that makes the plane safe because I'm like, look at all these families. Right. They wouldn't come on a crashing plane. And I know it makes no sense. Um, it's just interesting how much we need the comfort of it. Um, but like when someone says, look, I believe that there just has to be a, I, I just know it. I just know there's a, life after this and then I'm going to, you know, I felt it. I know that there's a thing like that. If you took that same opinion and made it something that was weirdly specific where you're like, here's the thing that I know for sure, which is I know that, like how many seasons did MASH run for? Did it run for 12 seasons or yeah. let's say 13? I know that there are more seasons in the next life of MASH. I know that they're, they're probably making them now, but I know that when I die, that we'll be able, we'll all be able to see like the fifteenth season and the sixteenth, and you know some of the seasons will probably take place before the like they'll be flashing back to like before the first season. Like if you started saying like you believe those things, most people would say that even though the idea of heaven is so broad and and right. so vast that that is certainly within the realm of possibility for a heaven. Right that you'd be able to see additional seasons of MASH. Right. If you started really expounding on that, like, I know that it's going to happen. Even a lot of people of deep faith who believe in heaven, I think they'd start pushing back on it if you were like, I know that's one thing that's definitely going to happen. I think there'd be people, even though that's something that we can make happen now. Right. A a bunch of writers and some CGI, you can make new seasons of MASH, easy. Um, But the idea that definitely that's going to be part of heaven because I, you know, because someone would wish it to happen or something it immediately starts to make it like, well, wait, see, how's that possible? Like, and, be, and you know what? They're actually the best seasons. Like, they're funnier. Well, I also find so many religions, especially um, like the, I'm trying to be careful. I find a lot of religions, especially religions that are of like, I mean, I'll just say, I, I think it's true of all religions. Most religions are very boring or not creative. Yeah. It's very uninspired visions of what the world is about and what's to come after it. I choose to believe that if there is something going on, it's something we cannot fathom or understand. And the thing that I always bring up, and I think I've probably said on this podcast, is like, I have this like ant metaphor, right? Yeah. Where it's like, if I'm outside and I see an ant and I step on it, in that ant's mind, number one, it might not have a concept of life or death like we do. Yeah. Which the analog for us is like, there might be something greater than what we consider life or death yeah. that we can't even fathom. Yeah. Okay. Now let's go back to the ant. If the ant doesn't understand death, what's happening to this ant right now is suddenly this giant thing is coming down and stepping on it. A, a Nike shoe is yeah. stepping on it. This ant has no way to understand what a human is, mm-hmm. what, why it has shoes on, yeah. why that shoes are Nike, 
And if it didn't understand like what basketball is, yeah. why you need traction for basketball, uh-huh. why you need specific shoes for that, yeah. and why that would be something that's where it is, and why that stepping on it would cause it to die, like all these things, yeah. it can't even begin to understand. A lot that. of backstory. A lot of backstory. So for us to think that the solution to any of our world of what's going on is yeah. something that it's like, well, there's just a bigger human, and that bigger human created all this stuff in the same way that we create things. And when we die, here's our creative idea. It's the same thing again, except it's the things that we like more. So there you have it. We've yeah. done it. You know what I mean? Like it seems, it seems like such an uninspired view of like what, why things exist. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so there's this being that created everything that has a son. Mm, okay. So, okay. That there's already some problems there with, <laughs> for me with that idea. But then it's also like, and it decided this being decided to send down a human that looks and behaves exactly like the rest of us to do and say things that were relevant to the exact time period that was sent down. Yeah. And then it goes around and then has some of its friends write a book about it. And that is to be the thing that determines the rest of humanity. It's like, really? Because if it created everything, why is it so, like, why is it so yeah. focused on it? Like, is there a lizard Jesus? Is like, like what, what it would was... would be great if there was one for every species. But you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just, it's so, it's not, it, it doesn't think outside the box at all in terms of why things exist. It's just like, well, there's another bigger monkey in the sky who yeah. decides the big things. And then when we die... We do this again, but we're with other happy things, and the bad things are punished because how we know it, good things are good and bad things are bad. It just seems so insane to me that they would be like, well, that's the answer. Yeah. I think I would also have... It's like, and that's also the funny thing to me is like, well, that's the answer. So what about flowers? They're there as decoration. <laughs> like that's sort of like the answer in a lot of religion yeah. is like flowers are nice and beautiful. The reminder that God loves us. And it's like, that's... <laughs> Why flow? That's why photosynthesis was created. That's what that this is was. Complicated. <laughs> that's a that's a long way to go to make something that's just a fucking. Yeah. And again, I am I am reducing so much religion, and I'm sure people who what? study those religions they have rebuttals for everything that I said, and I sound like an idiot. I don't know if they do though. I mean, like, but that's so, just how so, I but like feel from my limited knowledge. I kind of I think I would have. It's sort of like a lot of times it's like the, the the pretense of things. Like if if a lot of religions were just referred to as like, well, we're we're sort of a wish factory, but also a guilt machine. Like yeah. we're kind of those two things. I think I would be like, oh, I get it. Yeah, it's like this building you come into, you can make wishes and you can get guilt. Um, yeah, and that's what we do, and it's useful because feeling like you can make wishes gives you hope. Right, it's a subs- honestly what and, it is. It's a subscription service for wishes and guilt. Yeah, and it's like, but guilt is also useful because it like keeps you from doing bad stuff. Yeah. Um, so come in. It's also funny to me when you think about how much culturally we haven't updated our idea of what heaven is, because from a from a practical perspective, it looks boring as hell. Like it really yeah. is just like uh, clouds and angels and harps and all these things, and it's like we haven't updated it from a long time ago and it doesn't include anything that looks very fun. Yeah. And 
But there's also like the idea of like in some ways the things that heaven seems to describe, like you'll just feel great forever, seem to me like um, as if you're going to be drugged. Well, that's the funny thing too is it's like, oh, we've created things that can make you feel good forever and people kill themselves and die over them and it's yeah. fucking heroin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Uh, that the, uh, it's, yeah, it's just an interesting thing that like, in a way we don't dare update them because it's like, well, everyone likes different stuff and like, if you like to party all the time, you'll have to be in a different part of heaven from the people who like it pretty calm. Well, that's what I think is also interesting is that it's like, well, you'll be up in heaven with everyone. It's like, everyone? Well, there's people here I don't like. <laughs> no, no, no. It's only the good people. Yeah. There's good people here that annoy me. I always thought... If I, I thought... spend too much time with... If I spend too much time with Connor, <laughs> he starts getting on my nerves sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but what if Connor's idea of heaven is that he spends all of his time with me? <laughs> then do I have to do that? Yeah, well, that's what... And I then think... it's like, well, there's two heavens. One is a... And then yeah. it's like, wait, so then is there a... Like, am I talking to... The if real I'm one? up there, does that kind of know the things? Like, yeah, you're all just in virtual reality pods. <laughs> That's what it turns into. As, as a, well, as a kid, I remember thinking, like, what if there was a really nice lady, but her son was, like, a violent killer? Right. And she goes up to heaven, and she's like, where's my son? I love him. I'm like, oh, he went to hell. What? No. And it's just like, no, no, no. Uh, here's your son. He's nice now. Oh, thank God. And they're like, well, we had to lie to that lady. We created a fake version of her son. Her real son's bad. He's in hell. He's being tortured, but... <laughs> We had to. I mean, we just had to. We had to. We had to. Create, or what? If, what? Yeah, if, I created a fake. You created a fake. Well, you're lying now. Well, yeah, I know. I know I'm lying. But we have to. Like it's heaven. <laughs> like okay, all right, I get it. But I thought the whole point was like this is. Like, we have people who are up here specifically for lying, who aren't here specifically because they lied all the time, and now we're lying. We're lying for the right reasons. Like she'd be devastated about her son. Can't you just make her forget her son existed? Well, you want to drug her? What, how do we just take the part of her brain out? So but she loves that memory. That's it. and then it's like, all right, okay, uh, create a fake memory that's just as good. Case two billion five thousand forty-five. Yeah, and then it's like, oh well, uh, um, okay. So here's the it's like the heaven conundrum court. Yeah, it's like okay, so there's a woman. Yes, who has a son. Yes, he's a killer. No, there's a different one. Oh no, woman has a son. Yes, son is loves his mom. Right, I see this case now. Right, yes. mom. Love son. Great. They get along great. They get along fantastic. They're each other's best friends. They're both heaven bound. Both heaven bound. Great. Their neighbor. Yes. Rick. Rick. Great friends with the mom. Loves the mom. Yes. Son does not like Rick. Oh. Rick does not like son. Do not get along. All right. We're they're both, sure cold. They they're both cordial to each other, but they cannot stand any second that they are together. And it actually well. bothers them to just even know that the other one is there. Well, we can't let them know that the other's in heaven. But Rick and the mom want to spend all their time together in heaven. Shit. All right. Well, we can either create the simulations uh, or we start removing parts of the brain. Who do you create a simulation of? We'll create three simulations. <laughs> That's a th- Block them off. We wall them off. Each of them goes to their own version. Uh, son goes to a place where it's just with mom. Rick goes to a place where son doesn't exist. Mom goes to a place with a simulation of both Rick and son. They each have their individual customized heaven experience. It's either that or we start taking out brain parts. I'm just so fucking tired of taking out parts of people's brains. It changes them. <laughs> Look, this, I get it. Project Heaven is, I mean, this is harder than anything that I've ever done. This was a bad idea. We should not have done this. I mean, but it's done. It's done. And now we're like running it. We're like, I barely have time to, oh shit. Have you seen what happened on Earth? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like... It's like, oh my God. God damn it. Oh my God, there's a terrorist Fuck. attack. We're getting 300,000 people. I don't have... Okay. Extra today. All right. Who likes who among the victims? Who doesn't like who? Let's see okay, the so there's this thing called Stranger Things. A lot of people like it. A lot of people hate it. Oh God, are we going to have to start dividing up by who... <laughs> Uh, all but right. the people who hate it actually really? like talking about how much they hate it. All right, so we can't have them around the... All right. But there's people who like it who don't like talking about it. All right. We're going to have to create seven different <laughs> versions of heaven just because of this fucking show. Which, by the way, I watched and I liked it. I get it. It's flawed. I get it. Everything's flawed. But it's like, imagine, but liked it. imagine trying to get heaven to work at all. Yeah, it wouldn't work. You either got to change people fundamentally or you got to have simulations. And then if you found out as a simulation... It wouldn't be heaven anymore. It wouldn't be heaven. Um, I mean, maybe it would be easier if I turned everybody into fucking beams of energy. People seem to like that idea, but I tried it, and nobody liked it. Okay, here's an idea. Yeah. Here's right. an idea. When people die... Yes. We let them turn back into usable energy... Great. ...that we invest Let's, into the soil of heaven. All right. That's a bit can, abstract. Do they have their memories? Nope. No memories, because right. we've found that causes a lot of problems. I mean, but that's the whole thing of who people are. The other people can retain their memories of those people Ugh. until they die. Right. And then when they die, you can, you can bring flowers, any of that Great. stuff. All right. Oh, for decoration. Great. Yeah, for decoration. <laughs> Make more decorations. Okay. All right. So that's human heaven. All right. Let's talk about flower heaven, because uh, that's been... We, got, you know, yeah. we have a separate heaven for all the creatures of the earth. Yeah. It's a flower heaven. All right. Infinite sunshine. Yeah. No but... Be- Bees? No bees. We need bees. <laughs> they need to pollinate. I know, but that's just on Earth. They have to... Just, can't bees finally get a break? Well, bees need to get to work to make the flowers, because that's how flowers uh, work. I never should have made pollination. Humans love flowers. We need flowers in human heaven. For decoration. Humans hate bees, though. Yeah. Bees can't sting. They love honey, though. They do. Humans love honey. But also, you know who else loves honey? Mega bear. Mega <laughs> bear. <laughs> <laughs> just don't just care. Don't care. <laughs> we can't have him in heaven. He's got to have his own heaven. He's got, no, I mean, he's bad. <laughs> he's never getting into heaven. We sent him but to hell. We sent him to hell and he, 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 fucking, he fucking didn't care. It wasn't <laughs> hell for him because he fucking just didn't care. He destroyed everything and he didn't I care. Get a, I get a call every day from Lucifer. He doesn't know how to make, make it mad. He can't make it hell for him because Mega Bear, nothing, just don't care. nothing you do to him, nothing phases him. And not, another big problem, another big problem. All of the cells in hell. Too small. Too small. Mega bear. 100 foot. It's a 100 foot bear. I mean, build a 200 foot cell. But then that's a great cell. Mm. If you're building 200 foot cells, that's a huge cell. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I brought some things for commentary, potentially. We may never get around to them, but do you want to hear what some of them are? Well, here, first on a religion talk, I'd like to... Yeah. Play one thing. Oh, yeah. Let's play this. This is a special deep cut for a... Never before heard on uh, public airwaves. Yeah, um, and this is from the early 1990s. This is Branson, Missouri. And this... And this. And this. From a small southwestern Missouri community, Branson has grown to become the nation's second most popular vacation destination and the number one tour bus destination. 
Branson has a lot to offer. The blend of nature, music shows, entertainment, crafts, theme parks and campsites found here brings as many as 6 million people annually to an area just over 40 miles long. But this is also Branson. Many bring their families to Branson looking for new opportunities, but instead find no place to live and very few resources. And this is Branson. Thousands of people come to the area looking for entertainment each week. However, many of them do not know the source of true joy through Jesus Christ. How can one small area reach out to so many different people? Mountain Country Ministries has been formed by the Tri-County Baptist Association to creatively reach out to tourists and workers alike. Connor, let's discuss this. Yeah? This was Connor doing voiceover mm -hmm. for a... Local production company. Local production company. In mid-Missouri. In mid-Missouri. For a... It's small, not Christian. Small amount of money. For a small amount of money, it's a voiceover gig for a what? for uh, a Christian ministry Christian camp? ministry. But it's not vanilla Christianity. There's some doesn't it mention. I don't know. Uh, Whatever. It's a Christian ministry ministry camp that p performs shows. I'm not quite sure exactly. I mean, it sort of seems like they're like street buskers. Well, it looks like they do clown workshops, puppets shows. Um, it sounds like they, they target kids, it sounds like. Now, it's interesting because it's 11 minutes long. We yeah. have to watch the whole 11 minutes. But there's some very funny parts. But I will say it's really poorly edited. Now I can give some notes. So it says... First, a shot of a half moon. But then it cuts to a shot of the morning. Yeah. Why do we need that half moon shot? We establish that it's night and then immediately establish that it's not night anymore and that it's the morning. Because he created all of these things, both the moon and the sun. That's not been established yet. This is Branson, Missouri. And it says this is Branson, Missouri, and then immediately cuts <laughs> to a blurry and shot of water. Yeah. <laughs> well, all of his majesty. Look at all the wonderful things. All and, of then, and then it cuts to a shot of a fishing boat speeding by and it says, and this is Branson. And then it cuts to a new shot of, I think, the same boat, but now standing still. Mm -hmm. And the next line that follows up is, and this. And this. <laughs> so it's two shots of a same speedboat. And so, they're both Branson, Missouri. And they're both Branson, Missouri. <laughs> believe it or not. Can you believe that this boat going by is, a, is also this? And then it says, <laughs> and, and this, it zooms out to show the same shot, the same shot <laughs> but with more trees. <laughs> it says, and this. You know, From a small southwestern Missouri 
The funny thing is, none of those thoughts ever occurred to me that, that how ridiculous it is because we weren't looking at any images when we were. But there's some more. Yeah. It gets it gets worse. So it says. <laughs> Okay, so it says it's the number one vacation destination. And as it says that, it's showing a shot of a, of a man on a unicycle juggling. And then the next line is, and the number one tour, tour bus destination. Yeah, and the shot for a tour bus. <coughs> what would you assume that shot would be? It would be somewhere where a tour bus is going to. It, or it would be a shot of, of a, a tour, tour bus. bus, yeah. Instead, it says, and the number one tour bus, <laughs> and, it and it's a close-up zoo. It's a Barry Sonnenfeld uh, um, like tracking, uh, like, uh, uh, tracking shot. Push in, in. Push in. To two door handles shaped like musical notes. Yeah. The number one tour bus destination. It, and the door is opened, and we don't really go inside, nor do we see who opens it. Okay, the next part is this. Okay. One tour bus destination. Okay, door. Door handle. Branson has a lot to offer. Branson has a lot to offer. Music change, smash cut into a close-up of someone doing a guitar solo. Yeah. Lights changing in the background. Piano. Now we are cutting to a person playing guitar and piano. Mm-hmm. Set to music that now for the first time has both guitar and piano. Yeah. But it is not these people playing. Yeah. So it's off. It's slightly off. Yeah, you're not seeing the same. Now it's a shot of the back of a woman's head as she sings. She's moving her lips, but we cannot hear her, even though we keep cutting back to the piano when the piano of the song cuts in. The blend of nature. Okay. The blend of nature. Then it says, the blend of nature... And we are still on this band playing. Music shows. Music shows. shows. Here we are. This is a music show. Yeah. But we said nature. We probably should have seen that first. Music show. (laughs) Entertainment. Okay. Same shot. Same shot. Still sort of applies, but feels like if we're building a list here, we should be seeing those things. We've done a lot of cuts away from things not cut on this part. Yes. Crafts. Crafts. Slow slow fade. Crafts. It's a slow fade to what look like streetlights. But again, it's not, not, not one of the crafts that's being lifted, listed. Theme parks and campsites found here. Theme parks and campsites. Found Still here. the slow fade onto the nighttime traffic. traffic. <laughs> yep. There we that go. Six million annually. Bring safe we see them coming Field of Dreams style to Branson yes. by night. Just over 40 miles long and we're seeing close-ups of uh, flashing, signs. Flashing, flashing. light. This part's fine. These should be shots of Branson just being Branson. And instead we're seeing only marquees <laughs> of music shows. Yeah. We have Roy Clark, Celebrity Theater, <laughs> Kick Up Your Heels with Jim. Fade to black. Fade to black, all fades away. Yeah. Party's over. We've just seen all of Branson, which is this one music show and that one fishing boat. <laughs> from fishing boats to music store, from fishing boats to music shows to musical note-shaped doorknobs. But this is also Branson. Many bring their families to Branson looking for new opportunities. And now it's showing it's oppression, no poverty, and very few 
a child. And now they're taking a shot of a child, which I guarantee you they have not released. No. Of a child, like, playing in, in a dirt. gravel dirt path. And it's made to seem sad. But this kid seems fine. Yeah. They shoot it like... I think the reason I like this shot is because it felt evocative of, like... War-torn. War-torn Africa shots. But it's yeah. like a girl... And just playing in oversized the... Oversized cowboy boots with, like, a drawing in her hand. Yeah. Maybe walking from her... But if you play sad music under anything, you're like, oh, I guess something bad has happened to that child. And this is Branson. And, and, this, is says, and this is Branson. And now we're seeing a shot of some hotels, some cars driving by hotels. And specifically, the dynamic is that you're in one, you're shooting from one car shooting the going faster than the all the cars in the next lane and i'd also like to point out that based on this shot we are in the median right now driving there's no, it a, could be multi lane i think it's multi lane it's a single yellow line with lighter it's like that's a median middle lane oh. that we are legally driving down and you have uh, the first special effect of the of it really right with oh wait the, you might be right i think it might be a two lane it might be a two lane but also the, can you describe the effects? Yes, yeah, so much? right now, as we're saying, now this is also Branson. We're seeing cars drive by hotels. And we are seeing, man, how would I describe it? Pictures? You should know the exact technical term for this because you make TV shows, J.D. What happens if you're working on a show and you're the executive producer and director and the person coming in is wants, the, what they wants want. this effect. Why don't you be the client that describes right, what they right. want? Right. And I'll put it in technical terms. All right. Here's what I want. And you, the, you what's the effect called where uh, you're watching... You just tell me what you want. I want to see uh, like square raindrops of license plates... Big, thick ones. But just the license plate. Just the license plates. <laughs> you sure? Just the license, just the license plate itself. Static shots of the license plate, but I want the, 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 the square container to be falling. But just the license plate? You just want the license plate? No. I want a little, like the framing of the license plate as if it's on the car. I want to know that it's on a car. You know? Like just a little bit on the edge? or <laughs> No, like a thick frame. Like a thick frame. <laughs> like maybe. Like I want it to look like an Etch-A-Sketch. Like a like, fucking Etch-A-Sketch. <laughs> Drop it down, but you're looking at it, and then you realize, holy shit, that's not a Metro sketch. So let's say there's a rectangle. Like, yeah. Of the of the area of the rectangle, you want maybe only half of it to be an actual license plate, and the rest of it to just be. I want it to be uh, like uh, two fifths, two fifths of the screen across, and a th- maybe a third of the screen top to bottom. That's okay. how big I want it. Okay. And I want it to be. Hard left at the edge of the frame, okay. dropping down. Just going straight down. Straight down. But the shot I want going side of diagonally side to side yeah. of the moving traffic. And I want to keep the middle block, I think, clear. And have left drop license plate. Then right drop license plate. But I want the, the right drop license plate. Uh, I want to see the other one appear in the screen before the other one disappears fully. Okay. And these What's, are, these are going to be license plates that... Various places. I want to show the people who come from all over. But these are like brands. vanity license plates or fake no, regular, license plates? Regular. Oh, they're just regular license regular plates. Just whatever. Hotshot. I hire you to make my Hollywood TV show. What's the effect called? Is it moving drop down picture and picture side to side? What is it? It's called, we call it picture rain. Picture rain? 
What is that? Is that picture in picture but moving? I think that's what they. I think that's what it is. I mean, this is an outdated effect. No one ever use it. Right? Like, would you even be able to do that effect now? Yeah, I mean, you would. Uh, well, you'd have to customize some other thing, I mean, right? You'd animate it, but it's just like, to what end are you doing this? But this used to be automated. Like, clearly, there was a time when there was a button that would just do this, right? Yes. This is comes a part of. A, <coughs> is this part of a graphics package? I have a feeling that this is part of an automated graphics package. A thing that is meant for having photos cascade down. Cascade. Right. That's the know-how. So I think it's like a photo gallery that's supposed to cascade down. Yeah, I want a cascading photo gallery. And what they've done is they've shrunk them down to be as small as they could be so that they don't take up too much of the screen. Yeah. So I think this is supposed to be like, oh, you have a background image of a beach, and then you have photos of people having a blast at your resort. You know what yeah. I mean? So the, would you say that the way that they're using this is um, innovative? It's sort of a hack, it a seems hack? like. It's definitely not a, not a sensation that I find pleasing to watch. No. It's also unclear why we're seeing any of this. Other than While the fact I'm, that it's just saying there's people that come to Branson that don't know Jesus. Yeah. It's also, I'll tell you this, my experience when I was recording this. Because I think the first time, this is just a, this local production company guy reached out to me <laughs> and was like, um, knew that I was, I did acting in plays and that I was in the theater and was like, I need some people to do voiceover stuff every now and then. And it'll be like a couple hundred bucks. Right. And I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll do it. And right. I think I went in and did one that was like for a prototype of some like dental thing where it was like a, it was supposed to be like an interactive thing that you would go to the dentist's office and it right. would be like you'd ask questions and it would answer your questions and you'd hear them back. Um, and that I think never got made. And I went in for this one and I remember just reading the copy as they were recording it, just reading right. it cold and was recording it cold. And I remember not realizing the Jesus Christ thing until I was actually, re- like that take is me actually discovering as I'm reading it like, because I was reading both parts. There was no right. woman there. So I was like, this is Branson, and this, and this, and this. But this is also Branson. And I was reading that, and I was like, did not discover the true, jo- the true joy of Jesus Christ. And I remember thinking it was funny at that point. I was like, oh, this is a religious thing. Right. And I'm being paid to read this. And I think you can sort of hear a little twinge of something in the way I say Jesus Christ. Yes, I think you can. Um, I wasn't doing that deliberately, but when I would play this for my friends back at the time, they all said I sounded slightly sarcastic. And this is Branson. Thousands of people come to the area looking for entertainment each week. However, many of them do not know the source of true joy through Jesus Christ. Yes, you do have your sort of like... Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Um... Yeah, and then you, then I didn't hear this for decades, and then I gave you this VHS a few years ago, and you recently digitized it. The, the part that I, I find funniest in this is the shot that they end on. Do you remember the shot that they end on? No. I mean, these interviews are bad. Right here. No, that's, that's the shot. 
It's that girl again. But their choice to pause at that point plays like a Tim and Eric choice. Yes. Like, even within the two seconds that you saw of that child there, that's like the one frame you wouldn't choose. She like turns and is like half blinking. Right. And they're playing like triumphant music over it. Mm. Do you think it's still the Tri-County Baptist Association? Mm-hmm. The phone number? Are you going to try to call? Yeah. Go ahead. Put on speaker. Uh, it, might not, it might not be legal. Jenny's calling the Tri-County Baptist. That number didn't work. I'll try the other number. I would love if they worked, right? Yeah. Ask about Mountain Ministries. Yeah. Ooh. It doesn't seem like it worked out well for them. Uh, when I Googled them, they still exist as an organization. The The... I can't eat Baptist, whatever. If they picked up, I was going to tell them that I saw their commercial. I saw your video. What video? I just saw your video. The uh, Missouri Mountain Ministries. One with the clowns and the little girl. Oh, Who is yeah. that girl? How old is she now? She's the mayor. That girl probably is... That was, what, 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. She's 27 now? Yeah, I guess so. Huh. Um, yeah, she probably has a kid. She probably has a kid that's part of that. Gotcha. Part of that. Do you want to say something that I can't play? I don't want to betray this person's... Uh... Oh. Yes, I want to see that. Have you given this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised she hasn't put it online. I know. I think she has a lot of stuff going on. Why is it not loading? Boop, boop, boop. Boop, 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 boop. boop. <laughs> There's one better one. That is amazing. Oh, listener slash viewer, we're never going to reveal what it is we're watching, 
But just know that for a lot of you, if you could see the thing we're looking at now, yes. a lot of you would be delighted by it. Yes. I hope someday you're able to see it. Because we're never going to reveal what it is. Um, I don't think. We might someday. Keep listening. Keep subscribing. Write reviews. Rate and review on iTunes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but. All right. I mean, the funny thing about that is, is that can you send me these? I won't do anything with them, but just so I can watch them with the sound later. Yeah. Um, the funny thing about these is that no business like show business. Yeah. The funny thing about these is that, uh, like, most of that lineup, it's like when you when you look at that image of like yeah. who's sitting there, um, it's not unlike, like, like those are all people that could be on a TV appearance now together. Yes. Like you could easily imagine a scenario, especially with two of them, where you'd be like. There'll be a show and they'll both be on it again and then there'll be this footage from years earlier where it's like, look at them doing this. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not at all outside the realm of possibility to imagine a scenario in which any two of those, uh, any one of those people is on a show with her. Yes. Um, I also did this when I, uh, this is what really prompted the whole thing. Uh, <coughs> What, you mean the VHS transfers? Yeah. I love that a big portion of this episode was you doing an unexpectedly uh, hilarious to me point-by-point takedown of the editing of the because it never would have occurred. I just looked at it and I was like, this is bad. Yeah. And I never gave it a second thought that none of those shots make sense. And I love that your brain went to the place of that there's no reason for it to open with a shot of the moon. That it makes no sense to open with a shot of the moon. And then immediately cut to morning and then water and then a speedboat and then the same boat. And then have a voiceover that's making it as if you're seeing four different things. Well, that's the thing is that like, if you're actually editing it, that's the thing is like, that's why it's so hard to do a to make purposely bad things uh-huh. is because you can only subvert logic to a certain extent. Yeah. Because people like people that are actually bad at what they do, they don't see things the same way you do. Yeah. So for us, it's like, oh, our joke would be like, we'd cut the things that are funny versions of those things. Yes. It's like, you would never think to just have four images of the same speedboat. And go, this is Branson. And, and this. this is also Branson. It's like, <laughs> yes, you've said that before. Yeah. We saw that in the previous shot. This... It's my childhood. Oh, wait. Have you seen any of these? No. These are all... Um... Oh, yes, I have. You showed me some of these. I've seen... I've definitely seen cheesy movies present. You've seen Louisiana Jones? Yeah. 
Um, are these on a private YouTube channel? Yeah. They're um, all unlisted, so you can't actually search them or find them. Yeah. I also have a private YouTube channel, as we know. Yeah. I'm trying to think. This was, we shot a movie. Well, in I've case, seen this one. I was uh, kind of thinking about killing things. So I put in a lot of debt and doom into it. This is for when DVDs first came out. You're doing commentary? We're doing commentary and deleted scenes. So we shot every scene, then we shot every scene, a version where every character dies at the end of it. It's very dumb. That's funny, though. I'm ready. I do hate cleaning. <laughs> so that's how we spent our time. <laughs> These are the days, huh? Those were the days. Those were the days. Those were the days. Let's see, what other questions do you got? Connor brought stuff for us to watch. Let me see what else. I'll go chronologically here. Anna Maria says, how have both your recent travels altered your perspective, if at all, about where you want to live and what life elsewhere in the country is like? Um, so I just, Anna Maria, who works at CISO, is probably referring to my time that I spent in West Virginia. Um, and I spent it at, uh, in Huntington, West Virginia, shooting my brother, my brother, and me. And after shooting that show there, I came to the realization that I don't think I want to spend my entire life living in New York or L.A. I think I would like to live somewhere that's a little more calm and comfortable. Uh, I just felt myself without a lot of anxiety um, in general. I should call Justin. Justin listens to the podcast. Um... I think this is going to be the first episode in a long time where neither of us have, like, shows or things that we have to go do. Yeah. It's, uh, we're working for the weekend. Working for the weekend. Da, 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 um, da, da, da. Yeah. I, and, and I think I've mentioned to you that, like, for the first time, I am thinking about moving to L.A. Wait, what? Can I tell you this? No. I mean, I guess we have to have this real-life discussion here on the podcast. What do you mean? You got mad. That's a little interesting glimpse. Listen to how mad J.D. got at the fact that I would withhold anything and, and say it for real during the podcast. No, it's just that's something that... You got mad at how real it, it just got. You said, what? Well, I guess we'll just have this real-life real life conversation right here on the podcast. Well, it just feels like something you would have brought up in person before now. Um, and you said that as if, oh, I've told you this, right? I thought we oh, talked no. about it. I thought we talked One about of it. my closest friends is choosing to move across I thought the we country. talked about it in the same conversation where you were saying about how being in West Virginia has made you think differently about uh, having to be in New York. 
I don't think you mentioned that. I think I did. I don't think you did. Or if you did, it was not in the terms of what you expressed now, which was that you are... Moving to LA. You are. No. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, damn. No. I mean... That would bum me out. Probably not. But it's the first time that I've had a, the thought in terms of like it even being a possibility. And... Uh, it's the first time that it's actually been on the table in terms of like, I've always just been an absolute no on moving to LA. Like, Is there like career-wise a, a thing that's pulling you out there or just the idea no, of No, and actually, uh, it's just something that I've been mulling over since January in terms of, I've always been a hard no on it. I'm just like, I have no interest. I don't like show business enough to right. move to a show business town. Um, and... But there was a part of me that was thinking in terms of like um, whether or not uh, it's something that I should think about and uh, and if I'm going to do it, I feel like it would have to happen and it would make most sense for it to happen in the next few years yeah. as opposed to 10 years from now. Right. Although who knows? I mean, these things, are, yeah, that may just be an arbitrary thing in my brain. No, but I know what you mean. That... Uh, part of it is thinking in terms of like, would I be okay if, and maybe I would be, would I be okay if like a few years from now, I'm basically living in New York, a version of the same exact existence that I'm living now. Right. Maybe a little bit better or roughly the same. Um, and, uh, or would it... Because I find it hard to imagine waiting a long time and then doing it. Um, Have you, how, what's the longest time you've spent out in L.A.? Um, not, a long, not long. I mean, I hadn't been to L.A. in over like 15 years, I think, at the point where I went out uh, last summer to do the um, uh, UCB show thing for CISO. Oh, no, no, I'd been out, I was out for Veep. For a few days, a couple of years ago, when I did the Veep thing, and that was the first time I'd been out there since like 2002. Have you spent more than like a month there ever? No. Um, and so I did the UCB show, which was just like a couple of days in um, last August, and then this January I went out there, and primarily I went out because I wanted to go out and visit Jeff Falzone. It had been years since I'd been back to Ashland, Oregon. It's hard to get to Ashland, Oregon from New York. Like, there's no easy flight right. way of doing it. And I realized that if I was going to go out and fly all the way out there for that, I might as well just make it uh, a few days in L.A. and then fly up. That would make it would split up the trip in a way that would be fun. Right. Because then I could do a couple shows in L.A., see Will Hines, see a bunch of friends who were, you know, an increasing number of friends who lived there. Right. And... And then when I was in L.A., I was sort of, I mean, you're in L.A., everyone's telling you, like, you got to move, you got to move here. And so I was sort of trying to look at it through that lens and see, like, what would this be like? One thing I think I did wrong in terms of if I had been planning it for that purpose was uh, I think I would need to have a car and uh, see, like, do I like this? Yeah. Do I like driving around? Do I like finding parking all the time? Yeah. I don't know that I do. Um yeah, you, uh, 
I would imagine you wouldn't like L.A. just based on the things that you like and dislike. What do you mean? <clears throat> well, driving around and being in traffic. I have never minded traffic as much as I mind being stuck on a train in a weird way. Because in driving in a car, uh, I can like sing along to music. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess... I don't know. Something about the... I feel like L.A. can be isolating. I feel like it can be a lot of the same thing over and over and over again. Sounds good. Both these things sound good. Get to be by myself. Get to do the same stuff I like to do over and over. I also don't feel like there's... the sort of romantic trappings of New York that I feel like is something you appreciate. I appreciate it, but I don't know that I need it. Interesting. Like, I like all the stuff about New York, but um, I don't require much in terms of, like, if I have access to my entertainment. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and uh, also... Uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not even going to say the obvious one. What? What's the obvious one? If you're going to a place that is... Oh, the weather? Team Neverwinter. Yeah. But I can drive to places that are colder. Interesting. Yeah, I think more of this is, I, it, I don't like L.A. It's easier for me to think about getting, if I have a car in L.A., it's easier to imagine me just going someplace out of L.A. than it is for me to think about getting a train from New York to someplace else. Right. Um, like, I would, I would be more likely to drive all day to g- drive up to... Uh, Oregon or something. Right. Then I would be to get on a train that leaves in the morning and gets to the equivalent distance from New York. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The Also, when... Like, I had a good experience that week in terms of, like... Um, the George Lucas talk show that I did that week may be one of the best shows I think I've ever done at any of the theaters. And um, it's interesting. I've done that show now in all four UCB venues. I've done it at mostly UCB East, where it works well. Yeah. Done it at UCB Chelsea, done it at UCB Franklin, and UCB Sunset. The order of venues from most effective to least effective for that show. Uh, worst is Chelsea, which is weird because normally Chelsea's my favorite right. venue, but it doesn't work that well for the, that show. Right. Um, uh, then it would be Franklin. Second place would be The Beast. By far the best venue for it is UCB Sunset, which is a venue that I've heard people talk about it not working that well right. for improv, not being ideal for sketch. But for a character talk show like that, you had room for like big couches. There's like a big screen that you don't have to like duck down and get off stage to right. be in front of you. Just like there was moments where I would just be like, let's see this. And we're just there. Yeah. And everyone can see it and we can, and it feels like, oh, this is like, I mean, it feels like the closest venue to if you were actually going to film a talk show. Right. You'd be like, let's use this one. It's got a big, spacious, it's like the same setup for like Ellen or, you know, any of those like daytime yeah. talk shows. Also that week, uh, the fact that it's also was such a positive thing because I had 
Adam Conover, who I've been friends with since early classes, and we were in our first improv group together, now is the host of Adam Ruins Everything. Uh, ben Schwartz, who I've gotten to know through him doing ASCAT a few times, and Amy Mann, who um, was someone that I had interacted with on Twitter, and then I think we've basically become pals uh, just through, like, she started, like, favoriting things, and... And I asked her if she would do the show. Right. And she was like, at first I just thought like, oh, this is probably going to be a no. There's no reason for a normal person, for a sane person right. to agree to do the show and they don't know me. It could be a disaster. Right. Sound, it sounds to me on its face like the show could be dumb yeah. and real bad. And she agreed to do it. And my goal always is just like, if I have people on the show and they're doing this thing for free that they shouldn't be doing... I just want it to be fun for them. And it was, and she's always someone who's been involved, even though her thing is music, she's always been involved in like cool comedy right. scene, like from back in the days of like Largo in the 90s when it was all like right. David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and Patton Oswalt and all these people were like uh, coming up. So it meant probably more to me than like her having a good time on the show and thinking it was fun and funny was like one of those moments where it was like, oh, this is like, validating in a way that right. that I can't even fully process that uh like I've never been someone who like in high school I never had a thing about like uh who the cool kids are like who's cool right. to me it was always just like oh, I got my friends and this is that and it's nice when you get to a point where the people that you think are cool in the world that you get to interact right. with them and they actually are nice people yeah is sorry I'm getting warm uh you're having a and you're modulating the heat with using the window as you spoke of before. Exactly. So I think the fact of like having that show also colored my my memory of the week in terms of like oh I can have a show in this town that is sure. Um, but who knows? Maybe that would that could just be a thing. That, at least I'm aware that like this may be tinting my view of the possibility of it. Well, I think that's the thing that I learned was. I end up going to LA a lot. Yeah. For work stuff and it's always stuff that's exciting because like the bar for me to travel on a 6-hour plane plane flight to get to LA and spend time there means like oh I I would only go if it's something that's fun. Yeah. So anytime that I go it's a thing that I'm like oh this is going to be cool. You're looking forward to it. Yeah. Or it's like a cool adventure. So I've always really enjoyed my time in LA and I stay with friends and I hang out with friends. But whatever the three years ago where I spent however many months there, yeah, it was the moments between that stuff that I was like, man, I don't like this city. What was it about the city? It just feels disconnected. Yeah. I felt lonely. And it was nice and it was calm and it was pleasant. But I felt lonely and lost and like there was no place to really go to connect with the world. Because it didn't feel like New York where you can go to the park or walk down the street or go to the this or go to the that. It just sort of felt like, yeah. well, you're in your apartment and it's nice. You can walk outside and there probably is a park somewhere, but it just felt different. It felt yeah, felt like it wasn't a community, a place where people gathered and you're a part of things. Yeah. Which, and it felt like it was all on the, it almost felt like being in like a college dorm. Yeah. Where it's like, there's classes, 
which in this instance is like the film and television industry, mm-hmm. which that's all the exciting stuff. Yeah. But then aside from that, and it's like a shitty college. Where other than that, like you're at your dorm, you can yeah. go to the dining hall. You can walk around the quad if you want, but there's nothing really going on. Yeah. And then you're back in your th- in your dorm, just waiting for the next yeah class. Yeah, I mean, I when I think about it, and I sort of made up my mind that I was like, I'm going to think about it for a while and see where my mind comes out on it. But there is a part of me that thinks in terms of like, it may be that when I on the other side of it, what I come, what I because like there's one huge thing which is. I hate moving. The idea of packing up my apartment and moving is such a huge deterrent to anything. Right. That uh, it's almost insurmountable. Like, that might alone be enough to be, to keep me right. in New York. It's just like, I like where I live. I don't want to move. And the thought of having to find a new apartment is, is although I'll say this, if something suddenly popped up and I had to find a new apartment in New York, that might trigger me moving to L.A. Interesting. Because I had such a hard time getting an apartment uh, because the requirements to, to getting an apartment seemed to be, like, absurdly, like, even for my last apartment, I was still having to have, like, my dad co-signing, and they're still like, it's out of state, so it's got to be four times that much. Right. I'm like, Really? Like, my dad's the vice president of the Missouri Bankers Association, and that's not enough to get this little apartment? Yeah. Like, how does anyone live here? What? Do you mind if I ask what your rent is? Um, uh, at the time, it was... Okay. That was starting out. That's pretty good. Um, how long have you been there, though? I've been there since... That was 2007. Um, and now it is it is creeped up to not bad not bad i mean it's that's i mean you're not going to find for one person yeah, yeah and it's not a de- it's a pretty decent sized apartment yeah i i wouldn't imagine i would need much more room like if i moved the thing is if i moved to la i would probably be paying the same amount but i would get a little bit more maybe space wise i think you'd probably be paying more but getting a lot more yes i don't think like i would be i don't think i wouldn't be able to get anything cheaper yes but what I would get would be a little bit more space-wise. Yes. Um, but they don't have anything that's particularly cheaper than that. But they also don't have super small places. Exactly. Um, but the but it was bafflingly hard, even after after having lived in New York in two previous apartments, when I was like trying to get an apartment on my own. Right. The places were just like, you got to show that you're a millionaire. I'm like, really? For this thing? Like, what's the worst that could happen? I can't afford this rent for a few months and you kick me out or something. You right. know, like, how is it... Who are you finding that's renting these places? Because if I had that much money, I wouldn't fucking live in this apartment. Right. I'd live somewhere else. So how, how is this so difficult? And so there's a part of me that's like, the building saying you can't live here anymore would be a thing where I would suddenly be like, maybe I should, if I'm going to move, I might as well... I'm going to pack everything up. I don't want to move three blocks away. <laughs> right. I don't want to just move to a different part of New York. I'm going to move. Right. Um, but I don't anticipate that happening. But when I th- it's a part of me that it, it actually, in some ways, goes back to the comfort zone idea in the sense that, like, like, I'm pretty happy with my setup in New York at the moment in terms of I don't have a regular job. Right. Um, 
but I stuff comes up enough every month that uh, without even planning for it, like two days ago, I had an email that was like, "Can you go to D.C. as part? Can you be an alternate for this workshop in D.C.?" It's like an hour's work, but then like driving both ways. I'm like, oh, that pays for my week. And uh, and it's just like things pop up to the point where it's like, can you do this? I'm like, oh, that'll that'll pay for my week. Yeah. And and it's never it's not ever stuff that I'm like, ugh, I got to do this. It's all stuff that's pretty much like, oh, that'll be good. Or like, can you film this thing for this show? And it'll be like one day. I'm right. Like, yeah, I'll do that. But there's a part of me that's like, how will I feel three years from now if I'm still, will that feel like I'm just like, ooh, I've been grinding it out for a while? Yeah. Um, will I feel like I've been treading water? Will it feel weird if I'm like, three years from now, it's just like, still doing ASCAT? Uh, or will it feel like, like right now when I imagine it, I imagine like, I'm never going to get tired of this stuff. But then you never know, like... Will there come a point where I'll be like, yeah, I've been doing this long enough? Yeah, I think I've reached my saturation point. For what? I'm saying that's what you would be saying. Yes. Um, so it's sort of like trying to pregame a little bit like, it wouldn't be my preference. I actually, I was expressing this thought to our friend Michael Caine, not the British actor, but Michael Cruz Michael Caine. Caine. That's helpful. I always forget that part. Yeah. Um, and I said something that he then looked at me and was like, I'm trying to process what you said and not think that you're an idiot, uh, in that way that Michael has of saying things that are, it's funny and not mean, even though the content of it sounds like it should be mean. Yeah. And what I said was that if I were to move, cause he was talking about some job or something and he was like, well, I almost booked this. I'm like, so you would move to LA if you had gotten that? He was like, yeah, yeah. And, uh. I said, oh, that'd be hard to have to do all this. And I said, and I said something that, to him in response that was like the opposite of what I've always said, like, well, I hope I don't suddenly book a job and have to move to LA, but I would only move to LA if I suddenly like book something great. And I was, and what I said was, I would want to move to LA because I wanted to move to LA and not because I suddenly booked a TV show. And he was like, what are you talking about? That's the ideal way to move to New York because you suddenly book a TV show or a big movie or something and you right. move there for the job. And I was like, part of me would just be so annoyed because I don't like, I don't like that feeling of, even though I know that's what I'm supposed to be aspiring towards, that you get a phone call and it's the thing that you can't say no to, but it changes your life. And I don't like the lack of, like in some ways that's my nightmare. It's like, congratulations. What? You have to move across the country. I have to. And I can't say no to it because... It would be dumb to say no to it. And there's also people who whose interests are entwined with it now in terms of like me saying no to it is also like saying no to my manager. Like, no, I'm not yeah. going to do this thing. That it becomes a bigger thing, which is just like, not that that's going to happen, but that's the thing I know I'm supposed to be hoping for. And instead there's a part of me that's like, eh, I don't want to be told I have to move across the country. I was faced with that exact situation. Really? Yeah. When was this? Uh, my brother, my brother, and me. The other thing. Oh, the other thing, right. And you were going to have to move for that? It's going to be possibly six years. I knew the thing was six years, but where was that going to be? L.A. L.A. Yeah. And it was going to be 
life-changing money, life-changing yeah. circumstances, next level up. Yeah. It was everything that you always want to hear. But just, until you hear it. Until you hear it. And then you're like, wait, I have to, I have to leave here and go there for that? Yeah. Which I mean, it was a cool thing and a good thing, but it was like... And if you were in different circumstances, like if you were in a situation where it was like things were looking rough and it looks like nothing may ever happen yeah. for you, then maybe that would have been your life preserver. You're like, that would have been like, I won the lottery. Yeah. If you'd been in a position where it was like you'd been struggling and scraping for a few years and no, all doors seemed shut to you and all of a sudden you got this, you'd be like... Thank my lucky stars. I can move to LA and I get a second chance at show business. I do feel like, Connor, part of this, of you saying all of this, is a, a challenge that you are subconsciously positing of. We better get our act together on some of these projects we've talked about. You're saying I'm posing a challenge to you? Like, I'll leave if you don't... Like, listen, <laughs> if I don't have anything cooking here... No, it's not that. Because it, it, we can... Those projects, but if those projects happen, that would change things. <laughs> yeah, JD. It would be a shame if something... It's a beautiful friendship we have here. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. <laughs> All right, Connor. We're going to get uh, moving. We're going to sell this stuff. I would still come back... Uh, Next week, to, I'm making calls. I would still come back to do 12-hour days even if I lived in L.A. No, you wouldn't. I would. There's no way. If I was on a... Because the thing is, if I moved to L.A. You for a successful yeah. thing, I had the money, the coming back was, e was easy... I would be planning vacations around like, I'm going to come out. JD, how's next month? I'll come out. We'll do a couple of 12-hour days. Yeah. Um, it's more about me thinking in terms of like, I'm happy with the pace of things for me. Like, I'm not in any hurry for anything to ramp up. Um, and part of that is... Um, an awareness of the fact that it's very easy to get caught up in the idea of... Um, what? I've been sitting for too long. Yeah, me too. Um, part of it is awareness of the fact that, like, it's easy to get caught up in the fact of um, how much success is enough success. Right. Like... Uh, How much, uh, because like you look at people who are huge, mega successful people, but sure. you think like, well, that's what you aspire to, right? You want to be like big and successful or something. Right. Like, that's what the general message of our society in show business is like, you want to be big enough that you can call your own shot or whatever. Yeah, that exactly. usually means, that usually means massive success. Right. But I think there's like enough examples that you can look at of people who reach that thing and it doesn't really fix the thing that's bugging them. Right. And or every, I mean, that was, um, it's not like a, I've heard that quote before by someone that's like, I wish everyone could be famous and rich and have all the wealth in the world because then they realize it doesn't change anything. Yeah. That like, and like my small successes are fun to me. Like right. I enjoy them. And I don't know that if I got bigger successes that I would enjoy them as much as I'm enjoying these small ones. Right. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, I don't need much. I just need to keep getting by. Yeah. 
but there's a part of me that wonders like, will a few years from now, will I start to feel like I wasted a bunch of time and I should have tried right. more things. Part of it is a little bit the comfort zone thing that you were talking about before, which is that when I think about the possibility of moving to LA, it's in terms of like, am I just, if am, I don't do this now, will I never do this? Yeah. Am I just doing what I'm doing because it's sort of like the path of least resistance that like right. I can get by doing this stuff. So I'll just do this stuff and I won't try to see if it would work out there or whatever. But, um, but these are all just questions. It's not, I definitely don't have a, a thing in me, which is like, I want to move to LA. I have a thing which is like, have I been saying no to it in my head because I've just been shutting it off because that seems like it'll be hard. Right. Um, I don't know. Well, I've t- I mean, I haven't talked on the podcast, but I've talked about the thing where I think at some point I don't want to live in New York or L.A. Yes. I'd like to live somewhere that is an escape from those things. I think that's when I thought I told you some of this. I think we talked about it, but I think it was less immediate. I think there were more just thoughts in your head and not... Yeah. Well, I don't, have, I don't have plans. No, but... I said that as a joke before. Uh, but it I, seems more powerful. I think if we had talked about it, it was more just like, these are thoughts that sometimes cross your mind. And, now yeah. it's, and talking about it now, it feels like, oh, this is something that you're wondering. Yeah. If something were to happen, you, you I think, could potentially act on it. Like, part of what triggered it a little bit was like, when I did Fear Bazaar this year. Right. The day before when we had the planning meeting, I look out at the theater full of people and I realized that I knew less than half of the people there significantly less than half well, yeah I didn't do Fear Bazaar this and year. I compared it to the year before and I realized that all the people that I know have either moved or they're busy doing things professionally right. and, and part of me was like well I'm here Shannon's here but her job is to run the theater so that's like different that's yeah. different than me being here and I started thinking like well gee do I want to be here next year and know even fewer people and be like this weird vice principal uh, that, like, will it start to be a little bit like, wait, why am I still here? Like, why am I not, like, figuring something out? That's how I felt about DCM the past couple of years. Yeah. Is that I felt more and more of my friends yeah. go from on the dance floor to in the VIP room. Right. And the people that I want to spend time with are those people yeah. who are not often there. You know what I mean? I'm just like... This isn't a place that I think is built for me anymore. Yeah, it's like and I, I'm not a I'm not necessarily a DCM VIP, so it's like I don't want to I want to go to a place where I'm told I can't talk to my friends. Yeah, or where I feel uncomfortable going to talk to my. It's like yeah, it feels more and more strange to me. Where it's like oh, walking along the party, I know very few people. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. And it's also like um, I mean I yeah. Like, do you remember, was there ever a point where, like, after, like, when you were in college where you went back to your old high school and you thought it'd be fun to go inside and then you realized immediately that you were like, oh, no, it's not fun. I gotta oh, get out of here. They've forgotten everything. Yeah. Yeah, like, they're just, this is just a building with a bunch of fucking teenagers. What, in you it. mean there's seniors every year? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, also, worth noting this entire time, Connor yeah. has been wearing a dark crystal sweater. Sweatshirt, I, sweatshirt. Sweatshirt. That I gave to him after I bought from the company that Audrey Stanfield, Stanfeld, Stanfield. 
Stanfield. Yeah. She works at. I didn't know that. And she tweeted a photo of like a pin. I think it was like a Jareth pin. And I was like, whoa. And then it linked to this company that she works with. And I ended up buying tons of Henson stuff. One of which was a dark crystal sweatshirt that I was like, I'll probably never wear this. But I'm going to give this to Connor. But I just wanted to buy it. Have you bought that uh, Labyrinth um, visual guide book? No. It's um, by, uh, I think it's by Cassim Gaines, who uh, was my Howard the Duck guest for the Howard the Duck show. He wrote, like, he writes exclusively, ooh, he writes exclusively, he has a fun career, Cassim Gaines, nice guy. He wrote, like, a book, he wrote the book, uh, We Don't Need Roads, which was, like, the making of Back to the Future. He writes exclusively, like, looking back at... Oh, nice labyrinth stuff. Um, he wrote the oral history of Howard the Duck for um, for uh, a website online, like Decider or something like that. Right. But he mostly writes these books that are like deep dives into various... Um, That's cool. Um, and... Uh, I think that would be a cool existence. Yeah, he seems like... Um, he has mapped out like a career that is like what a lot of people would look at and be like, oh, shit, why didn't I do that? Like I could have been the guy who, right. Um, um, let me find it here. We oh no. We have like three Wasn't, and a half hours left of this podcast. We only have what? Three and a half hours left of this podcast. Oh no, he didn't, Cassine didn't write the labyrinth one. He wrote the Dark Crystal one. Ah. But there is a Labyrinth one that just came out not too long ago. And it's just behind the scenes stuff? Um, hold on. I think it's, yeah, I think it's like um, making of. It's a lot of the same photo. Yeah, you like the photo? I get the best when it flashes. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Just like history mixed with sketches and behind the scenes photos. Yeah. I'll just buy it. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm where I've been. Where I I've worn this around my apartment, but I have like a couple of things that I find because uh, I have this. I have a Twin Peaks Christmas. This is like in the style of a Christmas sweater, and I have one that is a Twin Peaks in the style of a Christmas sweater. Right. And then I have one that is um, Friends uh, in the style of Christmas, uh, the sitcom Friends. Here, um, I'm going to uh, break up this file into a new file. Okay. You're scared. I was going on for eight hours. There we go. And, Hopefully but there's, delete all of that. there's not circumstances, um, there's not circumstances where I even with with t-shirts that have like anything graphic on them 
the days when I'm inclined to wear them are few and far between because like right. I'm not going to do a, a show where I'm wearing a shirt that says something. Yeah. And but if I'm it's not a show day, then what am I it, it, you know it almost has to be like the only thing I'm doing today is coaching improv. Right. And then I'll wear something that has like a racer head on it or something. No, I don't own anything. I near I don't think I own anything that has things on a it. A graphic on it. I have patterns, but that's it. Yeah. So I was happy when I was like, "Oh, it's cold today." And, it, and we're going to be, like, in a comfy situation all day. And I was like, oh, great, I'll wear this. I also just thought that was kind of thing that you're the type of person that would be, like, have some box somewhere where you're like, oh, here's my dark crystal sweatshirt. No, I like to wear them. You know, like, it's, it's like I don't, I have some posters that I have never framed. And I'm like, i got to get those up. I've got some, oh, man, I don't think I have those posters here. I have all those old trauma posters. Oh, yeah? And also, I think I have my... quote-unquote meaningful things. Yeah. So I have the Gethard Show. I think this is the first season, season one baby. hoodie. My UCB sweatshirt. Your Gethard Show backpack. Gethard Show backpack that AJ, the fan, made for us. My... Goblin in Disguise shirt mm-hmm. from Troll 2. Uh-huh. Oopsies. Okay, make sure these are folded properly now. Um, oh, yeah. United Children of the River. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the t-shirt from the popular the sold show. Out, from the sold-out show. That was a great show. It was really fun. A Steve Gerrard original shirt. My 12-hour day show. shirt. My Totally Rad Show shirt. I feel like my 12 hour day shirt needs to get more action. I just don't want to lose it. All right. Wait. I mean, one of the, where, one of the circumstances, I mean, unless you're going swimming down by the river. I just don't it, want to get ruined. I know. I feel like if you totally wore that. Totally rad sh- show. I've never imagined that a shirt would be unsafe, that I would lose a shirt if I, I, if I wore it. It'd be safer if I just sealed it up. Yeah, exactly. Dignation. Dignation. This is a shirt that. Is a big deal that I have. I love the monster. I heart the here. monster here. This is an original, one of the original Trauma T-shirts, Traumaville Health Club. These yeah. are these are the original ones yeah. too. Like I don't think you can get these anymore. Well, yeah, are those the kind that you iron on the thing? No, no. But I think these are not easy to come by. Yeah. This was from the, my time working at Trauma. When did you do this David Bowie shirt? This is from his reality tour. That's authentic tour merch. Authentic tour merch. Oh, great. There's a... Which is now crazy, too, because... Man, I have another shirt. I don't know where it NASA. is. So the two concerts that my... My dad took me to Bowie for my 16th birthday, mm-hmm. and then I went with my parents to see Prince like a year later. Wow. What'd you do with them after that? What'd you do the next year? Uh, oh, we went to the Stepfathers. Oh, boy. So you did? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I hope that joke aged as well. Field. I know, right? <laughs> what is this? Oh, this is from the uh, Deutschland. That's a NASA shirt? 
No, that's a shirt from oh, my track before? and field team oh, okay. in high school. And they had a NASA-like logo? Yes. What a cool field bag of stuff. I got a whole, and then I have a whole bin of posters, keepsakes. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of stuff like that uh, at my apartment. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, there's a couple of Bowie things coming out for Record Store Day on vinyl. Do you ever think about getting a record player? No, you're a digital man. You live in the digital no, age. I just always feel I'm like out of the loop on records, so I just I'm just too late to get into it. Yeah. And I never had I never listened to records growing up. Yeah, so it's a foreign thing to you. I listened to a lot of tapes. Yeah. My dad had a big kit collection. Yeah. He had a huge record collection. I actually, my dad had a really good record player. Like a really good one. Yeah. And my best friend growing up, Mike Hart, was really into music. Yeah. So I allowed my dad to give it to Mike, and he gave Mike all of his records, which were good records. So that, that, the moment that happened, it was probably like a done thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. Just because it was like, oh, my best friend is really, really into music. Yeah. Um, yeah, my record collection has grown a lot in the past few years. Um. I, I'm such a sucker for record store day twice yeah. a year. You know, it's, it's the record store day in the spring and then they have record store day black Friday on the day after Thanksgiving. And I'm such a sucker for them because you're a sucker for record store day because there's all these things that come out and they just, it plays toward my, it plays toward my weakness, which is the possibility that something will become unavailable. Like, if you put out something you're like, it's limited edition, my interest peaks because I'm like, wait, that means, like, I can't think about it and just get it later. Right. And, like, I've had, I've had things like the TV show Homicide Life on the Street that came out with, like, a complete box set of it on DVD, and it even included the episodes where they did crossovers with Law & Order. They included the part right. two that's on Law & Order because it's sometimes hard when shows do like that to get the licensing right. to add up. I didn't buy it because I just assumed it would always be there. Right. It's on DVD. I'll be able to get it. Well, it went out of print. So now it's not streaming. There's no way to uh, get it now except secondhand. And it's like $400 to get it now. The people who are selling it are just like, pay what, it, what, will, what the market will bear. Right. And that kind of thing traumatizes me in a weird way. And it's not like if I bought the Homicide box set, right. the odds I would have watched even any of it are it's likely that I might not have even opened it by now. Right. Um, but like that kind of panic leads me to do things like buy the Hill Street Blues DVD box set, even though I bought it months ago. I haven't even watched one. I haven't even tried out a disc from it. Right. Uh, even though I really want to because there's an arc of Jeffrey Tambor being first a lawyer and then he becomes a judge, like a recurring character throughout right. the show. And as a kid, as a teenager when I was watching that, I was like obsessed with the way that they use this comic actor as a recurring right. um, character throughout that. And, but like I bought this box set. It's just sitting in my apartment because I've been too busy to watch Hill Street Blues. It's like seven seasons, six or seven seasons of 22 episodes each. I don't have time to watch all that. Well, that's how I feel about the complete Jacques Tati. 
It's a lot. And the extras? Yeah, and I've seen all the movies. Yeah. But, but the moment they come out with it, I was like, I just have to have it. Because what if it goes away? Exactly. And so when Record Store Day comes, out, comes along, it's things where it's like, here's these things, and you might not be able to get them again because even if you don't get them that day, there's instantly people who are like going straight to eBay with all their stuff. Yeah. And so, and particularly the, the one in November, the Record Store Day Black Friday goes at me double. Because, particularly this year, there's all these Christmas records that come out. And you love your Christmas music. Even just like, I collect Christmas records the way, the way my mom would collect like little Dickens houses and make these little Dickens villages yeah. out of them. That like, I display my Christmas records all around my apartment so I see them all. Whether I listen to them or not, I see them all. And it's fun. And there's almost, to me, no such thing as a bad Christmas record. Like, if someone just gave me... There's ones I wouldn't listen to, but like... Someone could pretty much get me any Christmas record. If I didn't have it, I'd be like, oh, great. I'll put it in my collection. Right. Um, and like this year, they had like a live at Lincoln Center uh, Christmas record that was shaped like a Christmas tree. I was like, this is awesome. Add this to my collection. But I had a rule when I started collecting records, which, which was I just was going to get Costello. I was just get all the Costello records. And then that way I had a limit on it. And I had like my, a couple of my dad's record collections, some things I had. Yeah. And then gradually I keep breaking that rule where I'd be like, well, I'll just get Blood on the Tracks because it's my favorite Dylan record. Right. So I'll just have my favorite. But then I'll be like, well, I also could get Time Out of Mind. I like that one a lot too. And then before you know it, I've got like three or four. I'm like, well, now I'm building towards maybe I just get, a lot, get whichever ones I like. I'm trying to think what my rule is for movies. I have more of the thing where if there's something that I'm like, it's insane that I don't own this. Yeah. Because I, it's a piece of me. Like, I feel like ownership is more about... It's a totem. It's a, yeah, it's more of a totem. Like, even the way you have your movies displayed is great use for what they actually are to you. Yes. Like, is there a chance that... there is there any of those Blu-rays that you might never play again? Is there any chance? Monocomina. <laughs> uh... You'll probably revisit most of those. Monocomena, I probably won't. Yeah. That one purely was totemic because it's a movie that you really only can experience in theaters. Yeah. It'd be nearly impossible to watch it on your own. Uh-huh. But I was like, I can't just have an empty space. I need to have it. Yeah. Yeah. I... Yeah, and then I got to the point where I was like... Um, like, I should have Amy Mann's records on vinyl. Right. But some of those are... Uh, out of print, like master sound, limited edition things, that acquiring them is ludicrously expensive. Right. And then I saw one that was like, well, it's not ludicrously expensive, it's just very expensive. So I got that one, and then I was right. like, I need to get the other one now, the other master sound one. Yeah. And I'm like, ugh. So you start, like, you start getting to a point where... Uh, well, so I started doing that with Bowie. With the... you're, you're in the process. I noticed on your shelf you, you're starting to get the... So basically, I did the thing where I was like, I want to get what is considered the critically best recordings yes. of his. Because he's a guy, too, that there's been so many re-releases and things like that where I'm like, what are the ones that are considered the best? Yeah. The top versions of things. And a lot of those are like the Ryko Disc Golds or things like that. Yeah. Which are limited release CDs. Out of print. Out of print, yeah. And so I started doing that. And then when he died, I think I mentioned this in the last yeah, episode. Yeah, it cut. It, 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 everything went up, right? Everything went up, so I had to just pause. 
I've also been collecting all the Oingo Boingo albums similarly. Yeah. Like, what is the best version? The best version of people are like, oh, the best sound quality is the record. I would get that. But yeah. invariably, it's almost always the best version is usually like a peak CD version. Yeah. Just because I don't think, I don't think there's that many remasters and re-releases these days because there's not a market for music the same way there was in the like late 90s, early 2000s when like right. you could have a display at Borders or Barnes & Noble or Dog Ear Music or whatever the name your place, yeah. Tower Records, and everyone would have it and you'd have your CD collection, your big CD player and, yeah. the, you know. So I think that's when a lot more money was poured into like, let's have the definitive yeah. version of it. And now I feel like if there ever are re-releases or remasters, it's either from the artists themselves or a sort of super fan labor of love yeah. re-release. So my guess is there will be like re-releases of Bowie stuff and things like that, but not the same way that like the Ryko disc stuff was like, we're going to give you the definitive version. It's like yeah. the same thing has happened to movies is that Criterion is helpfully, is luckily changing this for some things, but like, you no longer get the DVDs that are three DVDs, the different versions of the movie, yeah. plus all the deleted scenes, plus some random scraps of just like, yeah. here's some behind-the-scenes footage. Yeah, there was a period where every movie was getting deluxe treatment, and now it's sort of like, it depends. Yeah, and now it depends. And like big movies might not even get a, any sort of deluxe. Even, even just the fact that like, you look at the fact that uh, like Strange Magic, the Lucas movie, Came out on DVD, right? But not on Blu-ray, right? And it's just like this is a you know Lucas-produced movie that is only coming out in like the bare minimum format. And it's not just because of the weird circumstances of that movie. It's like for some movies, it's just like there's not a market. They're not going to risk it. No, exactly. No one wants to be left with thousands of unpurchased Blu-rays of this in some warehouse. Yeah, and it's like who would pour money and time into putting together and getting all the paperwork and licensing for behind-the-scenes yeah. footage of a movie that's not going to be hugely relevant in a year. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I almost wonder... I doubt. Well, there's, there's a thing I just bought, which is... Um, TV is crazy. <laughs> TV you, shows? You can't get TV shows hard copy anymore. Yeah, uh, Shout Factory is pretty much the only place that's putting things out but like new shows new shows yeah think about like new shows like they're close to impossible to get like i just started watching uh mozart in the jungle yeah i bet there's not going to be a way to get that on dvd or if there is it's going to be like amazon would have to put it out and in some cases it's against their interest to put it out exactly um which by the way is a good show i mean i have a file in my phone that recently I wrote down. I'll need to add Mozart in the Jungle to it. I wrote this file. It's and, good escapism. Um, it's like just like a happy, nice show that's shot really well. Um, so I was writing down like things I needed to do, and I started to write down shows that I need to either watch or catch up on. I'm a little behind on Veep. I haven't finished last season of Veep, so I'm like, I need to write down to remember yeah. that I need to catch up with that before the new season starts. Um, and I wrote, I need to finish Gilmore Girls because I, I was working my way through that and I got busy and I, I need to go back and 
still like in the second season of that or something. I haven't watched any of it. Um, Love on Netflix. I haven't, haven't watched, watched either season of it. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I don't even know which season they're in now. I've never watched it. I need to watch it. Yeah. Atlanta. I want to watch that show. I hear great things about it. Yeah. Master of None. I'm curious to see it. It's always been popping up, recommended on Netflix. Yeah. I want to see it. The Crown. I hear people saying, like, The Crown is good. It's on Netflix. i got to watch it. Crashing. I want to watch that. It seems like it might be I'll the kind of show. It's good. That I would like. Divorce. Uh, could be good. I've auditioned for it a couple times. I'm like, I'm curious. Maybe it's good. Insecure. That looks like a good show on Never HBO. Never heard of that. Um, uh, Natasha Rothwell uh, uh, is on that show. Okay. I works on that show. Baskets, the Zach Galifianakis show on FX. Yeah, looks interesting. I see commercials for it all the time. They're intriguing, but I've never watched it. A um, couple of things on like CISO, like that Take My Life show that's on CISO. It looks good. Want to watch that show? Uh, the Path on Hulu with um, uh, Jesse from Breaking Bad. Right. Uh, you see a couple of seasons of that Difficult People on Hulu. Right. I haven't seen that. Portlandia. I'm like multiple seasons behind on that. Sneaky Pete. Uh, the Giovanni Ribisi show that's on Amazon. It's just like, and this goes on and on. I'm like, this is, this is just a, sh- a list of shows that I haven't watched or I have many seasons left to watch of. And I'm like, this is not even taking into account that I already watch a ton of TV shows. Well, I started watching Westworld. Yeah. And then I haven't watched any Game of Thrones ever. And I was like, how can you watch all of these things? It seems literally impossible. You fall behind so quickly. And, um, well, and the thing is, like, Coming up, like right now, um, the Good Fight, which is the the follow up to the West to to uh, uh, the Good Wife, and you have to subscribe to CBS All Access to see the show. Jesus Christ! And it's worth it to me. It's like six dollars a month. People are furious about it, but I'm like, for me, getting four new episodes of the show every month is worth six dollars a month. That's cheaper than going to see one movie, and I don't mind it. I want the show to exist. Right. I also, it's a show that's made in New York, and I'm determined. To eventually get cast in some little part on this show, um, to to loop me into the world of that show, uh, right? Because they they cast good character actors on that show. They're based in New York. Um, but then the second that the good fight is done, I will cancel CBS All Access until whenever the next Star Trek show, because that's the next thing that's new to them is the next Star Trek show is just on CBS All Access. So I'm like, it is like when they have a show that I want to watch. I'll buy that, and then when they don't, I'll pull it away until they eventually probably get to the point where, like Netflix, they always have something. Right. And then I'll just be like, all right, I guess I subscribe to that. But I I have to add Showtime now because Twin Peaks is coming up soon. Right. And there's no question as far as, like, I have to watch that. There's also, there's already part of me, I don't think I'm going to do it, there's already part of me that's like, on the night Twin Twin Peaks premieres, do I say I can't do ASCAT and just stay home so I can see it as it happens? Do I do that? And I'm like, I don't think I can. But I'm, the fact that I'm even considering it, it's like I'm already months in advance thinking about like the me who was like, what is it, like freshman or sophomore in high school who was like, it's Saturday night, that means you know what I do. I watch Twin Peaks right. at 9 o'clock. Um, and I'm so intrigued as to what that show is going to be. Because... If you were just basing it on, like, well, the history of shows... I haven't watched Twin Peaks. I, I almost feel like it's too late to watch it in the sense of, like... I'm always surprised when people watch it now and they're like, oh, I love it. Because to me, almost everything about Twin Peaks got absorbed into the culture. It'd be like watching Real World Season 1. Yeah. Or even, like, watching Citizen Kane or something like that. Like you can have, it's a good movie still. You can appreciate it. But it's more like... 
a lot of the things that were absorbed, a lot of the things that were yeah. truly amazing about Citizen Kane just became what movies would be. Right. Like, or maybe, I'm trying to think of an example that maybe is... Um, like, things that are innovative, a lot of films that are innovative, like Annie Hall's an innovative film, but right. so much about what was innovative about it just got absorbed into the point where it's just like, there's TV shows that do that. You know, like... Spider-Man 1. The... The Toby Toby Maguire. Maybe. Like, like Citizen Kane, you watch it, and one of the big things is like, that they have shots from a low angle on a set where you see the ceiling in the shot. Right. That it's like, that's not something that would impress anybody now, but there's not films before that where you did that. Right. And now it's just part of the language. But you don't watch that and you're like, oh, this feels different. But it would have felt different to every movie you would have watched before that. Or like... Birth of a Nation, like, cross-cutting between two scenes that are happening in two locations at the same time. Right. Uh, it's not innovative now. It's not interesting. So a lot of what's innovative about Twin Peaks, you've already seen in everything. And what's left is the things that are wrong with it. Yeah. And, um, but the thing that I don't know about this new season is if you were just going to look at, like, old things that are brought back by older people, older versions of those people trying to bring them back. Mostly you're going to find things that are like, ah, it's not as good. You can't really go back again. You know, like George Lucas doing the prequels or like Godfather Part 3. Or you, like, you look at things like that and you're like, mostly too much time passes. It's not the same. However, there's almost nothing. I mean, David Lynch has done great work and he's done some of the worst things I've ever seen as well. But... You can't predict any of his... Like, nothing about his career makes sense, including Twin Peaks. So there's a part of me that the fact that he's like, this is an 18-hour... This is a... Think of this new season as a feature film broken into 18 parts. It has a 400-page script, and we filmed it completely in secret, and it has, like, 250 speaking parts or something. Right. And I'm like... And they, they greenlit this, and they're saying it's good... I don't know if I trust the people who are saying that because it's business people who are like have a vested interest in promoting it. But I have no sense of what it could be. I have no anticipation of like what will it feel like to watch this show that was weird at the time coming back 25 years later to a completely different culture. I've never been looking forward to something so much that I have so little expectation or idea of what it even could be. Yeah. Can we go see Inland Empire this Wednesday? I haven't seen it ever. It's long. I know, so I've heard. And it starts late 8.20. It's probably not good for your week. I probably can't see it. Let's go back to the Twitters. Twitter line. Twitter line. That was in response to Jeff Falzon's question about whether we believe in free will. We do. The answer is yes. I'm certainly not going to pay for it. What's that? I'm yeah. certainly not going to pay for it. Emma Phipps says, I just hope you're both doing well and having a good year so far. Also, this tweet was sent by JD. Yes, it was. We should address that. Some people think when we tweet from the 12-hour day Twitter that they can tell which one of us it is. Sometimes people think that we're pretending to be 
one another when we tweet from that yeah. Twitter line. What do we think of the way people... Are people being paranoid? I will say this. People are almost always wrong. And when they're not wrong, they're twice as wrong. Yeah. It's almost like... Like we've... By the time you think you've caught up to us, JD and I have already switched faces, switched cars, and swapped identities four times back and forth. Yeah. Although the thing I have been enjoying is us leaving each other messages. Yeah. On our 12-hour day. Yeah. I think you started it. Mm-hmm. And then I just asked you a series of questions. Yeah. Why was Earth the first letters? That's the most important thing to you? No, that was a coincidence. Um, I figured E is the most important vowel. Followed closely after that by A. I just thought about how R sounds are so useful to me. And then when I looked at it, I thought, well, T's good. And then I, then I was close to H, and I was like, I could use a soft, breathy sound. It's a consonant, but it's not plosive. And then you created Earth. Yeah, in the first day. And then you ended on JFK. Um, yeah, and someone did point out that J and D weren't, did, were not high-ranked in my important letters. Yeah, but I don't, think, I don't think my name is important to your life. Well, it was more than just my life. I was thinking about my whole reality. Exactly, and I don't, th- I don't think my name registers. Although, as far as letters that are personally important to me... I knew you would have a better system of answering that question than I do. Well, the moment I asked it, I was like, what would mine be? Uh-huh. Did you, why don't you print yours? What's that? Why don't you print yours? I can speak it out loud, I speak think. Speak it out loud. And everybody tweeted it at your favorite celebrity. J-D- A- Uh-oh. M- Uh-oh. K- J-D-A-M-K-O. J-D-A-M-K. Um, N. How are you going to keep track of these as you go forward? I'm not. It's going to get hard. I think that's where I start losing. I have to figure out. Those are for sure the first ones. Yeah. J-D-A-M-K. What made you not use uh, T? It probably is T. J-D-A-M-K-N-T. Why did K and N? Because it was spelling your name. But then K and N came in before T. K. My, so all of my family's initials Mm -hmm. are in those first four letters that's great then k is my sister katie yeah because kra that's constantly makes sense something that and then n i think n is a recurring letter in my Uh life nutrier notre dame nyu no 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 knuckleball no knuckleballs no knuckleballs that was the K. Um, I know. T probably is next because that's my name. T Nutrier. T CGS. T. I think I think that's where I'm going. 
I'll think on this. TCGS next in there. TCG, yeah, those are the next ones. Um, Ramona says, can you discuss how they did special effects in old movies? I've seen watching Five Came Back. Oh, that Five Came Back is um, the movie about... I've been watching Five Came Back. That's the movie about the um, uh, movie directors who went to World War II and then came back and kept making movies. Oh, interesting. We'll talk about, I think we just got off a movie thing. So we'll table that. Table it for episode 14. Um, Jess says, if you go back and tell high school you something about the future, what would you tell them? Um, I mean, I, can I change the future in this scenario? I mean, if you're telling high school you something. I mean, I would probably do... If I was doing it to change my own life, and I and I and I kind of had to change my own life, for yeah, it, I probably would tell myself not to go to college, and uh, or at least not to go to college with the idea of pursuing show business things. And I would probably look to try to get into comedy earlier. But I don't know if that'd be such a good idea. I would probably say. Go for the kiss. You got nothing to lose. Kiss more girls, JD. That's what I would say. Um, That's what I would say. I. Jeff Falzone, again. Uh, I brought some Saturday morning cartoons from the 1980s. Which ones? I don't know. I've never watched these. What do you mean? Weird, we should watch those. Jeff Falzone says, tell the story about the time you passed out in psychology class. I may have told this story already. You might have. Ryan Simmons says, talk about your favorite meal in the city and see if you can get it today. Uh, I'm not feeling very foodie. Yeah. Aaron ERB says, just some nice friend talks, nothing special. Done and done. Also, Jeff Falzone also wants to hear each of us share. I like how he refers to them as if our account is sort of a, a different entity speaking. Mm-hmm. Connor and I. Uh oh. My mic day. Oh, my mic. Shoot, my mic's dead. It's been probably been a while, huh? No. I'm going to have to read those tweets again, I think. All right. You Just do. For context. You do. You have to do. Do you want to end the file and check? Oh, man. Both of my sides died, huh? No, I mean, it's 33 minutes in. It just is what it is. Okay. Just talk for a second. Okay, well, it seems like JD realized his mic died. And uh, while you're fixing yours, I'll read those tweets. How's that? Yeah. So that way, if there's any repeat, it'll just be the way it is. Different different styles. different, And you can decide. Maybe you want to go back and edit them together so it sounds like we're speaking in perfect harmony. Like our song. Like our song. Uh, Emma Phipps says, I just hope you're both doing well and having a good year so far. Also, this tweet was sent by JD. That's a reference to the fact that people like to guess which one of us tweets from the 12-hour day Twitter. Ramona says, can you discuss how they did special effects in old movies? I've seen watching Five Came Back. I've been, I've been watching is what she meant, I think. We agreed. Five Came Back is a documentary about a bunch of about five Hollywood film directors 
who I think went over and fought in World War II and then came back and made movies. Jess McGinty says, if you could go back and tell high school you something about how the future, uh, what would you tell them? Um, and I'd probably tell them a, a big thing, maybe like a. Um, I think JD is back in business. Back in biz. Um, what I said before was that I would probably tell myself not to go to college and instead try to learn a bunch of other things and then try to get into comedy earlier. If I was, if my goal was to change my life, if my goal was to change history, I would go back and uh, tell myself to try to prevent 9/11 or. Um, Trump getting elected, one of those two things, maybe both. You'd go to prison if you tried to stop 9-11. No, I wouldn't. Not if I did it great. Not if I did a great job. No, she'd be like, they're going to fly, and they'd be like, how do you know? I'd be like, I know because a time travel me told me. All right. They wouldn't and then i get out of jury duty. Um, <laughs> you'd be like, I'll t- <laughs> I'm going to make a deal with you. I will stop something, but you have to let me skip jury duty. Um, I, I would... Um, no, I'd just do a bunch of anonymous tips that year that would uh, to the press. I'd put some stuff online. I'd make it clear that it was about to happen. I could prevent it. Okay. Um, do you think you could prevent it? 9-11? Yeah. Yes. If you had a time machine? No. I'd get on the plane. Oh, God. It's a bad idea. I'd stop him. There's more than one plane, JD. I'd stop the first one. Oh, you you would go back in time. You would go back in time twice to create multiple yeah. JDs, and then all three JDs would prevent it. Well, yeah, I would create multiple JDs that were that would be f- able to die. Four, it would need four JDs. Right, so I'd create multiple versions of myself that would basically become like suicide protectors. That's like a Rick and Morty uh, move. Yeah. And um, I would go down with them, and they'd get the black box. They'd be like, there seems to be the same voice on each of these planes. Um, All right, so good time, Ramona, special effects, Jess, high school. I said all this. Okay, so what we're talking about is 12-hour TV. Yeah, uh, someone asked about the podcast to TV transition process. They were asking Cause about, because you've already done this once with twice. Podcast. TCGS. That's not a podcast. It was a video podcast. No, fuck that. It, there was a podcast edition. It wasn't produced as a podcast. It was a video podcast. Turned into a TV There's show. There's no... That's like saying that uh, Rachel Maddow's show does a podcast. They just dump the audio online. It's not a podcast. It was a, it was a video podcast turned TV show. It's a public access show. The public access was a byproduct of the of the podcast. Um, so this is your that's your second. You've done two podcasts, but big exciting announcement, speculation. <laughs> big exciting announcement. That is, there's no but announcement. The announcement is that there is no announcement. But <laughs> the announcement is is that we have a big idea. We have a big idea. But when good-hearted people have big ideas, the world can change. It's an announcement in itself yeah. that we are ready to thank. Um, Connor Ratliff and J.D. Amato have decided. Well, J.D. Amato, here's the thing is, I get a lot of harebrained ideas. And sometimes I'll mention them to J.D. And sometimes J.D. 
will say, yeah, that's a good idea, let's try that. And sometimes JD will be like, Connor, he'll just shake his head. And usually I, I know that well, that... Because some of your ideas will be like, I have this idea. We do a podcast where every episode is we take a million dollars from a company and, we inv- and it's just like, Connor, there's no, this isn't going to happen. A lot of things that you think won't happen, when I say them, they end up happening. It's true. There are a lot of things that you say, ideas, the batting average on your ideas is, I cannot predict it. It's okay. It's okay. You do have some ideas that are insane and do not make sense. I want to know which one really, because that million dollar idea was just a a speculative one. What is a real idea that I've had that you've been like, Connor, it can't happen. Uh Uh-huh. They're not memorable ideas. That's part of the problem with them. I don't even remember them. Um, you have a lot of TV show ideas that come from like, well, this was fun, but this isn't going to be a TV show. But the point of this is, uh, when JD has an idea for a show, even though your ideas, I think, are crazier than mine, generally, but you tend to not voice them until the practical part of your brain has done the has run the numbers. Like you've you've done some sort of a formulation of like, I know it's an uphill climb, but according to my calculation, like you run a calculation I'm where like, you're like... I'm sort of more like the machine in uh, Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. the like 1970s version. Yeah. When they're trying to calculate where the next, the odds of getting the next Wonka bar, and it's like yeah. this big room full of scientists, like... Then yeah. finally, like, and here it is. Here it comes. And then it like, spits out the thing. Yeah. That's sort of how it is, that I'll do all my computation, and I won't spit out the idea until, I, even if it's yeah. insane. Until and, I th- and, and it'll be like, well, it's a moonshot, but it's possible. Yes. Whereas I tend to spit out my ideas just based on the fact that I like them. Yes. And I haven't ever read any of the calculations on it. And you also right. have more of a working knowledge of the way people make decisions in the industry. Yes. Um, first-hand knowledge of how things work. Yeah, but it's all just a crapshoot. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but when JD mentioned this idea to me a few months ago, it genuinely intrigued me because it's the kind of thing... And we, Well, here's the thing. Like a couple of years ago, JD and I had a meeting with executives. It's the only time... I rarely meet with executives, but you meet with executives fairly regularly, I feel Wait, like. What, when did we meet with... Oh my god. I'm not going to say anything about it. It's a blind item. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. That was the funniest. I'm not going to say too much we're about like, this. We're going to leave blind items, but I'm going to talk all about the details of that meeting. Yeah. Because Connor and I, okay. God, I forgot about that. That is so funny. Yeah. That was the dumbest thing I've ever experienced. Yeah, and it made me feel like, oh, what's the point of taking meetings? Like, that, that's a meeting? So Connor and I got pulled into a meeting. We got invited to present ideas at a, at a meeting. And with executives. So we get there. And I mean, I don't, I don't remember enough details to really tell this as a story. I do. But, oh, really? I thought you seemed so confident about it that first they were like, well, what are I, you? The things I remember are the things that I'm outraged about, but I need, I don't have the mana for the beginning part of the story. Yeah. Well, first we were told that they were interested in um, cutting edge, satirical, like, socially relevant comedy content. And we're told that these particular executives were looking for something that was 
next evolution? Like, what's the big ideas that are out there? Yeah. And these are two guys that are creating stuff that are big ideas. Yeah. And I think we pitched our idea first. Like, what do you have? And we essentially, you mentioned this podcast. Yeah. And you talked about how everything is so bite-sized and it's so, like, formulaic that there's so much content out there that nothing really stands out because everybody's got, here's a clip, here's a clip. It's just so many things. You're like, we want, we're looking at creating, like, long-form event content that... Basically, we were pitching things like we, you could send us to, like, the Iowa caucuses and we would do a 12-hour-long yeah. video, unbroken, of content from the Iowa caucuses. And... It was almost like the kind of thing that you would write if you were writing a sketch about executives, that they got real excited about well, this idea. Because I was also, I mean, I have a whole pitch about why 12-hour day exists, and mm-hmm. I've, I can get on a soapbox real quick about it, where it's just what it stands for, and it's like so much of this short, bite-sized com- content lacks humanity, and what mm-hmm. the, really the next evolution is is bringing humanity back to the things that are being put out there. And the way to do that is to allow the shades of everyday life to come into it, Mm-hmm. And nothing's black and white, and everything gets tried to present that way. It's actually shades of gray, and the only way you can actually get a full look at it is by dedicating a long enough time. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when you listen to this podcast, you're getting to understand Connor and I more I've... accurately than you would if we made a five minute quick edited bio video about ourselves. Or even if we filmed for six hours and edited it down to one. Right. You're understanding who we are, and I think there's so I've... many topics that you. Quite honestly, I have forgotten that we were recording several times already during this. Right, and it's just, I think we're getting close to filling the bucket on all this short content that is the condensed short version of things. And now we just need to start the phase of our world where we're getting back to the long stuff, where we're, we're admitting that things are complicated and long and can't be summarized in bite-sized, easily marketable chunks. So I gave some sort of facsimile of this speech mm-hmm. that I can get worked up and I think I'm good in a meeting and giving, yeah. getting people excited and riled up about an yeah. idea because it's something that I'm passionate about you're passionate about we're both tag teaming yeah. on this and they were like yeah 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 this sounds so interesting yeah and it, it, as if you were a bad if you were a bad sitcom or comedy sketch writer and you wanted to write a sketch about executives you would write exactly what happened down to the point where you'd maybe look at the script and be like it's a little on the nose, which was they basically were like, they went, yeah, 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 that's yeah, great, yeah, that's yeah. great. Like, imagine, like, I give this speech that Connor's chiming in. We're both, te- like, back and forth thing, like, and this, and cunt needs to be long. It needs to have breath, and it's not about short-form content anymore. It's about giving the true shades of reality, and it's like this whole thing. You can hear the yeah. music swelling. We stop, and it's like yeah. us arms out, like, <sighs> yeah. <sighs> and then they go, that's great. And I wonder... Like, would there be a way to also, like, then cut it down to, like, you know, like, what's the best, like, two minutes? And then you would see, like, like, what would that be like if you did that? And then you, like, cut it down to, like, just, like, clips. And the exact phrase that they said was they went, yeah, 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 yeah. So the question is, what's the short viral version of that? Oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. Do you remember that? It was like, yeah. what's the short viral version of that? Yeah. And we were like, you've missed the whole thing. Yeah. You've missed the whole thing. Yeah. The entirety of what we said. You just yeah. missed it. 
Yeah, it's it, it would be the equivalent of going into a restaurant, uh, being told like ordering their finest meal, and then having them instead like basically give you like one of the free Andes mints from the end of it and be like, we have this. Or it's like you're like at some like restaurant, and you're like some like chef, and they're like, I don't know, we fry everything here, and you're like. No, but there's this whole world of food, and there's you know like there's these yeah. different flavors and palates, and the idea is that you can attach yourself to different things, and there's different tastes that you can experience, and da da da. And we get and, and we get this whole speech, and they're like, we're like, so that's why you need to create this thing that is organic sea bass that is fresh, yeah. and it's still you can smell the yeah. sea on it, and yeah. you only cook it just enough da da da. Great, and then we could fry it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like no, uh, and it was amazing because like I don't the know. Light, did the color of the light change in here? Uh, the screensavers. There we go. That's yeah. what it was. I got so um, confused. And then we pitched that idea, and then we kind of pushed back at it, and we were like, no, the whole point of this would be, like, then it would just blend. It wouldn't go viral, because then it would just blend in with everything else. The whole point of it is that we just released this 12-hour coverage of this, you know, whatever the event would be. Like, the whole thing of it is it's massive. And... Then they started pitching their ideas of what um, cutting-edge, socially aware, satirical comedy content was. You remember? And, yeah, they wanted to have videos where you and I took opposite sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. And it was like, here's JD's, here's JD's take. Here's Connor's take. And it was like, wasn't that just it? Yeah. Or was there something else? No, there was also they had an idea because... This is a couple of years ago, and of course, you know, there's been a, a um, not that this ever seems to go away, but it was at the at, at a point where there's quite a lot of stories in the news about unarmed black men being uh, shot to death by police. Right. And they had an idea for a satirical thing, which would be you'd set up this website and you'd have these cards that you could would go offer them to black citizens. They could register. Uh, as if they were like, uh, don't shoot me, I'm... Uh, it, w- it was like you would register for a program to tell the police not to shoot you. And we were being pitched this as if this was a hilarious idea that we would go around and like propose this website, like, would you like to register to be like, uh, ask the police not to shoot you? Do you remember this? Yeah. And it was this very convoluted concept of... That was being pitched to us as if this was a very hilarious satirical take on what was going on. That we will like, we'll set up this website. It's like where like black people can register to be like, "Don't shoot me," and then they'd carry this card around. And they would like hold up to say like, "Don't shoot me." And I don't know why we were being pitched this as if we were supposed to just go around and be like man on the street pitching this to people, uh, as if that was an idea that couldn't possibly go wrong. And I think they tried to fold in our thing of like, and then the website could be like, maybe like a news feed where it's you guys as reporters commenting on all that. It was like, it was something where I think you and I both knew each other well enough that we had like a microsecond of eye contact. That's when we looked at each other and we both knew immediately like, oh, we both hate this. And then we were like, okay, we'll think about all this. Goodbye. But it was like, it was one of those things where, like, the ideas being presented was like, uh, we know there's this horrible situation, and we 
we want to have a comic take on it, but we don't. We just have this thing where we sort of like balled it up and we're just playing with it overtly. Right. I can't imagine anything that would go more disastrously than us going around trying to execute this like non-concept yeah. as a comedic bit. Just like just like two white assholes going around like, hey, you know this terrible thing that's going on? Well, we're doing a, a comedy video about it. Right. You want to register for this website? The thing is, you get this card and you can hold it up and, and you show it to the police. Well, I'll say this, is that I don't think there's anything wrong about doing comedy about a topic like that. No, but you've got to know what your you got to know what your point of view is. Like they, and even comedy, they knew what their serious point of view is, but they didn't know why they were using comedy to deal with it in that way. Yes, because even comedy where you are using the thing that's already been weaponized in a way that is satirical. Yeah, I think that it is. I think there's a way to do it, but I don't think the way this was being pitched was. I think it was so off the mark and. The comedy was unclear, nor was the point of view unclear. So it was just, it was a lateral move on the actual awful stuff going on. Yeah. And I think it's the kind of thing that would actually weirdly offend all sides of the issue equally, just because... And I'll say this, I'm working on a project right now where we're having to figure out what the same line is. And I will say this, is that we may not nail it. Uh, so I want to put that caveat out there so it doesn't sound like uh, I'm criticizing a thing that then no, but I'm a part of perpetrating later. But it is a difficult thing to do, but it, this thing was being pitched as this done, finished cake of an it idea was also, that was clearly the point of view was coming from a, a... Also, to me, the point of view was not coming from a place of doing good. It was coming from a place of attaching on to something that is traumatic. And it was coming from For a place. No it was coming from a place of producing content. Yeah, uh, we're trying to produce comedy content. Yeah, um, it was also coming from a point of view of. Uh, I know there are creative and useful executives in the world. I don't mean to be painting everyone with the same brush, but it was a situation where two creatives were brought in, and then were told, uh, "Here's our creative thing," which would kind of be a little bit like me going in and saying, "Like, here's how I think you should manage your budgets." Right. It was it was just one of those things where it was like it was a weird meeting in the sense that they were pitching us the comedy. I'm like, I thought you brought us in because we're funny. Right. Well, and we had also pitched something that I thought was some pretty next level stuff. Yeah. Also say the thing you're working on now, while you're definitely playing with fire, it's definitely a dangerous thing. The level of people you have involved in it are all smart and But we uh, may we may miss the mark in a similar way. You may, but I have a feeling that like the reasons why any of it will miss the mark will have to do with the fact that it's the level of ambition is high. Yeah. Not that the intent of it is cloudy. And I think, again, the minds behind this and the reason why this exists, why we're doing this thing that we're doing is comes from a much different place than this other thing we're talking about. Yeah. But anyways, there's a long preamble. Two blind items. Yeah. And there's a long preamble. For the announcement of 12-hour day, the, the television, television series. Experience. <laughs> <laughs> the audio we just had goes straight on to the opening titles yeah. of the show. That's the, so again, ladies and gentlemen, 12-hour day, day, the, the television experience. <laughs>
Wait, so, so the intro would have to be, I'm J.D. Amato. And I'm Connor Ratliff. And you're watching. Oh, no, we'd have to be like, it, we'd have to set up the joke of like, uh, our, uh, we're best friends and we're on the same page for everything. And that's why we created for you. We've well, like set up. Yeah. The, so it's, I'm J.D. Amato. I'm Connor Ratliff. And we are on the same page for everything. That's why you're watching... 12 hour day, the, the television, television experience. <laughs> um, but Connor and I have talked about. JD mentioned it to me, and my honest reaction was I was surprised because the fact that you were thinking of it meant that you had already done some of the ma- mental math on its possibility. I think there's a way of making a visual version of this show. That is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be that different than the audio version of this this show. It would just be almost exactly the same, except we would have a visual element of it. Um, You know, we'd either create a studio. I think the way we'd do is we'd create a studio that had a lot of elements. Not like a TV show set, like late night desk kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, almost think of it as like, a playground onto which there's different areas for us to walk around and talk and interact with different things. Mm-hmm. And then we could have a singular guest or someone else that can join us. And then we just talk for 12 hours straight. And it's edited live. Production-wise, that wouldn't be that crazy. It wouldn't cost that much. And I think it's the kind of show that would truthfully change the landscape of how talk shows are done. Or at least change the middle you know what I mean like yeah. change the spectrum because I think so many shows are the same because they're, they're doing it the same length the same amount they can dive mm-hmm. in yeah and I think that you know people people crave these like interview podcasts that are like oh the hours it's an, it's an hour long a two hour long imagine if we could do a 12 hour long not even an interview just like have someone else spend time with us like yeah. a celebrity someone interesting well that's the thing interviews on television um, are, generally speaking, too formatted. They've gotten so far away from conversation because, like, if you and I are going to have a conversation uh, and first I have you, I have a, someone ask you a bunch of questions, find out what you're going to talk about. Right. Then you come talk to me and I'm like, hey, uh, I hear you have a story about a turtle. And you tell the turtle story and it's like, Okay, well, we've only got like four minutes for this, so we'll get that out. And then not much room for, you know, I remember, which is like the idea of like a conversation being like people listening and reacting to each other. Right. And then seeing where it goes and seeing what happens from it. And there's very few, there's very few venues in which that actually happens. Like I think one of the reasons why um, like I know a lot of people really hate Bill Maher for various reasons, political, and some people just don't think he's funny or whatever. But he does have one of the few shows on television. Like one of the reasons that show is successful is because you don't know what's going to happen in the conversation on on there because it it's a genuine panel discussion where it's not pre-interviewed out, and you can you can have someone actually get mad at someone else in the conversation or surprise someone else or make someone laugh right. in a way that 
And even that show is more formatted than I would like as a show. And that sometimes a conversation yeah. is happening and then he's like, well, we've got a pre-written desk piece, so I've got to do these jokes here. Sometimes like the best part of the conversation will get cut off just because it's like, it's the time of the hour where I have to read these five jokes. And, and I get where there's reasons why shows do that. There's a lot of reasons why a professional show does that. Right. Because we want to, we, especially shows that have to happen regularly is like we should have a format to make sure this goes well. And also to make sure that like if you have a five nights a week talk show and you have to have multiple guests every night and most guests, you know, some guests are, you could have someone come on the show and if Mel Brooks was your guest, you could probably just have him come on with no pre-interview and he could talk for the whole hour and it'd be fine. He's like an interesting guy with lots right. of stories. But like some actors who are coming on promoting their thing maybe aren't that interesting. Or like you'll have... Someone who's just like, I just have a few things I want to say about this thing I'm promoting. And so I get why like, the formatting helps for that. But I feel like there's so many openings for something that's a little bit more uh, unexpected. And it's the most affordable thing in the world in terms of like, when it works, it's just people talking. It's not lasers. It's not uh, uh, huge... And when it doesn't work, it's just as interesting because there's nothing to break. It's, yeah. it's interesting to see people not getting along or not having things to say. I would I, love to see what it looks like when you're talking to Michael Keaton and he suddenly gets bored with the conversation. Yeah. Like, what would be more fascinating than watching someone, Michael Keaton talk to somebody for an hour and they get to a point where it's kind of like, even get to the point of like, what do we talk about now? Right. And see what happens next. We've never seen that. We've never really seen what it's like if you were to have a conversation with like people that you see like interviewed all the time. What happens when they get bored and you're just chit-chatting? And it's like, well, do you want to leave or do you want to stay for another hour and talk some more? Right. And maybe they want to leave and you're like, guys, there's... Not... Like, I would love it if there's an episode of 12-hour day where we had someone on it and they got to a point where they're like, guys, I just feel like this is boring. I just feel like it's not interesting. I'm going to go. And it was just like eight hours of you and I. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing that I think is interesting is like this idea came not from Connor and I being like, oh, how do we... How do we market this? To how do we market this or turn this into... Will, this, like, will this scheme be... Uh... Right, like how do, we, how do we make something out of this podcast? It's like, no, 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 no. I think you and I both have enough stuff going on. I just mm-hmm. think it'd be an interesting fold and an interesting adaptation of this format because I think it's a different thing than this podcast but it's like I just wish more content (coughs) took different shapes yeah I also think that like I mean the reason why I mean this is different than those but like I do I now do two talk shows a month and both of them I'm pretending to be a character it's not me but I'm talking to people that I want to be themselves right and the reason that I do that is because for the Lucas show, it's funny to get people and then sort of filter them into this world of like me being, me pretending to be one of the most successful and notoriously failure prone artists in history. Right. And sort of find the way that everything is part of his world. And oftentimes I'll get stories out of people that like they never would have, this never would have come to their mind if it was a normal show or they never would have had the impulse to. St- talk about this thing or that thing. Right. Sometimes very surprising things will just pop out or, or you're interviewing someone who has no interest in Star Wars but you suddenly realize like that uh, 
Star Wars affected them in some weird way, where they're like, uh, oh, I knew a guy who was once like this, and he did, you know, and just like they would never yeah. come up in another interview show because no one's ever, no one's ever going to ask this person about like, that. Like, what about Star Wars, person who has no interest in Star Wars? Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, but then this show where, way past your bedtime, where I pretend to be a kid, what I, the reason I wanted to develop this show is what I, what I realized is that, like, when you pretend to be a character and you're interviewing people, the act of them buying into your conceit already kind of disarms them in a way that if you were coming at them with, I'm Connor Ralph, I'm the host of the show, I'm right. here to talk to you. They feel a little bit like, oh, wow, this is all about me. Whereas opposed to like, you know, I'm a, I'm a little kid and this is my bedroom and like, I can ask questions that maybe they would be like, I don't know, but it, they, because they bought into like, they're talking to a little kid, yeah. they suddenly are a little bit more like, the act of pretending to be a character, while on one hand it can be seen as like a defense mechanism on my part, right. I go vo- to vulnerable places with the character that then makes the other people feel like they can also like open up. Right. Um, and I think that in obviously we're being ourselves on Twelve Hour Day, but the act of uh, devoting such a long block of time to it serves the same function. I think when we've had people. I don't think I've ever felt like people were uncomfortable being on the show and people right. have, like stepped into it. It just feels like you're coming into this world and there's we're in no rush. We're not trying to get an interview out of anybody. Like you can come in and we'll talk for a while and you don't well, even need to say thing. anything. It's like it could just be you and I talking for twelve hours as so and so sits next to us. Yeah. Or so and so could leave after two minutes and decide they don't like this and that's fine, then we can just talk for twelve hours. Um But we just think it'd be an interesting format. And we thought it would be funny to talk about it here. Because usually you don't talk about projects publicly until no. they're like a thing. And we thought it would be... It's also funny that most of our actual projects we talk about as blind items until they're released. But we're just openly speculating about this show on this show. Right. Because um, also... It's also... This show... What you, the first question I asked you when you mentioned the idea was... Who's going to give us a 12-hour time slot? I was still thinking in terms of the old yeah. format of like... What weird channel have you discovered that has like... They'll give us all night long. Well, because even then, there's no there's no twelve hour slot. Because even all night long is like, well, that's also the whole morning, right? Um, the and then you were like, no, it would, it, this would go on some sort of streaming platform where there is no space limitation, yeah. Which is very much like that thing of like talking to Ira Glass and be like, why did you cut any scenes? You can you have unlimited time on a podcast, yeah. Uh, a streaming format is really the it's like it's the first possible way that a show like this could exist. Yeah, and that's why I think it's like everyone's always like, "What can you do on stream that you can't do on regular TV?" And it's like this a yeah. show that's twelve hours long. Yeah, anything else you can do on regular TV where time matters. Well, we'll just have to get Griffin Newman's The Tick mm-hmm. canceled to free up some of that sweet, sweet Amazon airtime. Just get that bandwidth from Amazon. Tick's eating up all that bandwidth. It sounds like that's gonna be a cool show. I think so too. He's been talking about. I like the pilot for it. Like stunt stuff and things like... It's going to be cool. He's a superhero now. Um, and he'd be a guaranteed booking on our TV show. Exactly. Guaranteed. Remember The Tick? The show that got canceled and made room for this? Well, we've got The Tick's own... He's back, baby. Um, no, The Tick will do very well. And then Griffin would happily be a guest on the TV version of this show. I think The Tick's going to be great. I think people are going to love it. I think so, too. Um, Anyways, that's our TV show idea. Um, if you like it, tell your friends that you care about them. If you like it, 
take out a piece of paper and write on it, I like this idea. Put, put it in an envelope. And put the envelope on the ocean. Make sure it does not go in the ocean. On the ocean. It must be on the ocean. And then, in full clothes, swim underneath it. It must be in deep enough water so you can stand straight up on the sandy floor and have the envelope above your head. Speaking of the ocean, I want us to do that cruise. I don't say what it is. Or a cruise. But I want us to do a 12-hour day on a cruise. Connor is convinced that he wants to do a 12-hour day on a cruise. I have a friend who just did a cruise. I think even the cruise that inspired you. Yeah. I think that's what... We might talk to him later. Yeah. Um, I think that's a possibility. We both know people who did that cruise. I feel like you would hate a cruise. Not that cruise. Here's the thing. But I feel like you would hate being on a boat for that long. You don't get seasick? No. I might get seasick. Yeah, you're projecting. Um, here's the thing. I don't, I'm not crazy about traveling. There's things I'm not crazy about that if I do them for a purpose, like I would not go to South by Southwest just to go to South by Southwest. Yes. I would not go to Bonnaroo just to go to Bonnaroo. Um, but I loved going to South by Southwest as part of a thing where you are, you have the past that you're part of a thing and you're part of the thing. And I love going to Bonnaroo when I have the past that says I'm a part of a thing. That's a part of a thing. Yeah. I, uh, whenever I've traveled to Alaska or Finland or places where I've done like Turco things, I've always been like, I'm so glad to do this because I never would have just booked a trip to Alaska. Whenever I've had to film something where I'm in a certain place or something, I'm like, oh, it's, I'm glad that I'm able to do this thing, but I have a reason to do it. And so the thing I liked about that cruise idea is that it was a, like the idea of being on a cruise where there's like comedy and music things that are part of it. That means it attracts an audience that likes those things. And the fact that there were podcasts that were doing it, when I imagine the idea, we've never done a live, a live 12-hour day, but my notion of it is that when we, if or when we do when we either find one where someone is willing to dedicate a space where people can come in and out and we're still doing this thing. Right. Or I like the idea of we start and finish the podcast in a certain location and then for the 10 hours in between, we wander the boat so that the people on the, on the boat get a normal hour or two of podcast just like any other podcast. Right. But then the actual listeners of the podcast would get ultimately a full 12-hour one that lasts on that boat. So that's a dream idea that Connor has. That's one dream. I want to do an episode that we record in my hometown. And I'd like to do a separate episode that we record in Connor's hometown. And my idea was, and I think this was originally your idea, was that uh, we start an episode in your hometown and we drive to my hometown and have both hometowns in the same episode. The problem is your hometown is like eight hours from mine. Yeah. So, so it wouldn't be that much time in both hometowns. Get two hours yeah. in each hometown and eight hours on the road. We could also just make the podcast longer. Or we could do three episodes of the podcast in the course of three days. Exactly. One in your own hometown. That would be a, a lot. driving day. Well, the drive is just like, it'd really just be like recording two episodes of the podcast, and then we have a drive in between them. That'd be a lot of Connor and JD. Will we release them all at once? I'd be, we release one episode that is 36 hours long. Here's what we do with those three episodes. 
we release we release them back to back. So it's uh, 36 episodes total, but we announced that uh, three episodes total. The three episodes total, 36 hours. So let's say 8 a.m. Let's say like noon on Monday, we release uh, episode one. Uh, and then at midnight, we release episode two. And then we release episode three at noon on Tuesday. Right. And at uh, midnight Tuesday, we delete. <laughs> They're streaming. You can't download them. They're only up for 12 hours. They're only up. For, yeah. At midnight on Tuesday, we delete episode They'll one. They'll be up for 13 hours. We give you an hour of wiggle. Yeah, we give you an hour of wiggle to go to the bathroom, talk to your loved ones. Um, and then those episodes are never released again. <laughs> Yeah, someone would just record them. One, one in. Oh no! Here's what we do: yeah. we record those, and then we rent out a space at Lincoln Center. Right, and we play it once. We play it once, with in the that, New York Philharmonic Orchestra sitting there, never yeah, playing never, a note. No, they play at the end. They play. Dun, 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 dun. No, no, no! <laughs> they, the entire time, they only play the theme to. Uh, uh, mega bear, hundred yeah. bear that just don't care. Yeah, that happens once. So the entire time they're waiting for one cue. Mm. These are some of the exciting things that you have to look forward to. Are you not feeling well, Connor? What? You're not feeling well. Do I seem like that? No, you just took a deep, deep breath and looked at the clock. The wall just now. Of tiredness. Yeah, I just need to stand up for a minute. Let's stand up. I've hit, I hit those walls frequently. We only have... We have like two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. It's like almost going a, by fast. It's like a regular podcast. This is like a regular, just meat and potatoes, old-fashioned podcast. I mean, we could have segments at this point. Yeah. Um, can I look in your fridge for a beverage? Yeah. All right. Just put any, anything in there. You, anything you in here? Literally. 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 Got those Canada Draws. I got that. I might snapper. have another cream soda, but I feel bad because it's your last cream soda. No, take it. You sure? Yeah. I rarely drink soda, but that this is. I think I just need the energy boost. Yeah. Um. Um. There's a little caffeine in this, right? Yeah, yeah. There should be a little bit. Just a little. I am. That's never something that I noticed it having an effect on me. Other people seem very aware of it. I get very affected of it. Um, I, let's go to another some other Twitter. Let's go to another Twitter. Wait. Let's tweet out that we need help. Yeah, we need help. You guys, we need help. What kind of help do we need, though? Um, oh, can I play you like 30 seconds or something? Yeah. Wait, what should I say? Guys, we need help. What kind of help can they give us? Ask them that. What kind of help can you give us? So, a thing that I've been listening to a lot, they just released these. Um, back in 1987, uh, Paul McCartney and Elvis Costello wrote a bunch of songs together. Okay. And it's a weird thing, because at the time... McCartney had had a couple of like visible sort of flops. Sure. And, but Costello wasn't exactly like a huge, he was critically at the top of his game, but he hadn't had like a hit record for a few years. Right. And, but there was, they started this songwriting partnership and they, um, it looked like they were going to maybe make an album of those songs or that they might even make an album together. Right. But the perception was that it went really well. They recorded these demos, but and then Costello started producing 
co-producing the new Paul McCartney album. But very quickly, they like disagreed with the style of it. I think okay. Costello wanted it to be a little bit more raw and old-fashioned, basic. Right. And McCartney wanted it to be like a modern hit record. Sort right. Of. And so Costello sort of backed away from it, and then the eventual album that came out had like four songs they co-wrote, and the rest was just all pure McCartney. Okay. So they just released this big, deluxe, expensive box set where they released the demos that have been bootlegged for decades and then a bunch of like never-before-heard album sessions where it's like Costello trying to make this McCartney album. Right. And the perception at the time was that like Paul was very conscious of not wanting... I think he didn't want it to be perceived as like he needed Costello to... Like if right. he made a great album, people would be like, look, Paul needs a, a John Lennon figure to right. make him good. And But the sad thing is, when I think about it, is that I think if they made an album together, it would have actually benefited Costello more than it benefited McCartney, just because it would have been like, he's never been a big hit record maker, and he would have been like, now he's a partner with Paul McCartney. They're like, like it would have lifted Costello right. in a way that uh, people would have been like, look, uh, McCartney is making Costello into this like right. bigger pop star as a way. But these demos, I just want to play a second of how good they sound singing together. Um, a one, two. She was cutting out the window of an outbound train All the bowls of the telegraph And the rockabye rhythm in the song of the rails Couldn't make the sleeper laugh Um, That's and, there, really good. and there actually is like even the, if you go a little further, there's a reference that just relates to uh, April Fool's Day in that song. That's really cool. And it's I'm it, the bathroom. Yeah, it sounds like now people look back and they're like, why didn't they just release those records right. just as is? Mm. I'm gonna play a little bit more just for the listeners um, while JD gets to the bathroom. Such good stuff. And, but it's just interesting to... Mm, but there's a, there's a message board that called the Steve Hoffman Music Forums. Okay. And it seems to be like sort of the central message board on the internet for people who want to write about like records or music or it's, it's, it's the kind of message board that it's so... Uh, heavily trafficked that um, if you re if you refresh it already, like the the things that are on the front page of it will change from minute to minute because so many people are posting things that 
if it's not right. a popular, if you post it in one thing and other people aren't, it'll just immediately go to the next right. page or the next. And it's great, but it also is like amazingly filled with such unhappy people. Right. Because they're furious about everything. And what I mean everything is like they're furious about that some record that is released and it's not quite the way they want it. Right. Um, and, well, the, um, and in the case of this Paul McCartney record, like people are very excited because they're getting all this like new McCartney right. from the 80s. And what they're, but here's the way they release it. Let me, I'm curious what your take will be on this. Okay. So the first disc is the album remastered. Okay. Second disc is the nine original demos by McCartney and Costello. They've been bootlegged, but they sound better. They've been cleaned right. up. No hiss, etc. The third disc in the deluxe edition is nine tracks. It's all the sessions when they tried to make it an actual album. The fourth disc is a DVD of all the music videos plus a bunch of behind-the-scenes footage and stuff like that. And then the fifth disc is not a disc. It's download only, and it's like all the B-sides and remixes from that time. There are over 600 pages of comments on this message board a large number of which are people who are just furious that that fifth disc is not an actual physical disc, but right. is a download. And the level of unhappiness is, is so intense yeah. that they're furious that they're like, why would I pay this much money for this box set and not get a disc? Why didn't they not just, we have to start a petition saying we won't buy this unless they agree to put a disc in or like you send away for it. Yeah. And on the one hand, I guess it's a sign of like, things must be going all right for right. you if you have the energy to be like this mad about this thing. Right. Mm. I wonder how many things I've ever been that mad about that if I look back, I'd be like, oh, it's one of those things. Probably a lot. Probably a lot. I will say it does bother me when things are different media. Mm-hmm. Like I don't like when it's like down, because part of the reason that you buy something is because you want the thing. The thing. You, it's like, well, what you were saying is you want to look at it and know, like, this is a part of me. This is a part of my past and my future. When you look at something, you go, oh, this, all of this is a part of me. And there's this thing on my computer that I have to make sure I keep that folder somewhere that I can remember it. Yeah. That's stressful. And not, like, real stressful, but, like, it, it, it adds there's a up, loose wire in your it brain. It adds clutter stressful. in your memory of yeah. where you have stuff. So I get that. I'm trying to think of things that I've gotten mad about in ways that are um the other thing is we has streaming affected the way you watch movies yes it has it has in a major way i now watch movies like they're tv shows yeah because i sit down i will mostly watch stuff when i'm eating yeah and so, like, I will take movies, even classic movies, and I will watch them... In parts. In parts. Yeah. Because I don't have time. And, and that would have been unthinkable at a certain point, right? Yeah. Yeah, I watched uh, Deadpool that way. Right. I watched Deadpool on my phone in, like, 25-minute chunks. Right. Because I was traveling, and I didn't think I was going to like it that much, but I was curious. Right. I ended up liking it quite a bit. But I was also, like... That was one that I was like, I watched it up close holding my phone and on my headphones, and I was like, this feels great. Even though, to a certain extent, 
the me of 10 years ago would have looked at me watching a movie like that would have been like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, I've done stuff like that. The thing I wonder about is, I mean, it all comes back to me with like the ephemeral nature of everything. Like on the one hand, I've gotten pretty good about certain things. Like I'm less hung, doing improv all the time, I'm less hung up on the idea of, of creating a body of work that has like a lasting like legacy or yes. something like that. Like it used to be that I used to think, uh, well, I want to eventually like make a bunch of like TV shows or movies because then you have like these things you can always point to and say, look at that, I did that. You could show people what you did. Right. And I still get, I still have that in my head. I still have like the appeal of that. But I also have this very much this thing of like, let's say you were on, like if I make a reference to Family Ties, the TV show, right. in an improv show, almost no one in the theater will have any idea what I'm talking about. Right. Now, if you were an actor on Family Ties in the 80s, you were on one of the most popular things in America. You were on one of the most popular things. And it didn't take long for that success to almost mean nothing. Like, when people think of Michael J. Fox now, part of what you remember is maybe my, he was on Family Ties. But yeah. most people's awareness of him is that, like, oh, Back to the Future, like, his old stuff is, like, the things that have lasted, Back to the Future. Yeah, well, it's also... <laughs> but, like, that fame goes away. So, here's... I mean, this gets into a larger thing for me. Yeah. And I've talked about this before, but I feel like... Part of the reason that art exists and that we make stuff is that there's certain, it's, a, it's its own language. Yeah. It's its own ways to describe the universe around us, right? Yeah. And it's, we have words, we have images, we things like that, but then sometimes we need to combine those things together to make more complex versions of that, mm -hmm. that describe and explain yeah. things in our world that are slightly more complicated than we can get across with just words or just this alone. Right. And so while those things are great to have physically, more so what, it out, what it's about is piercing the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go for it. No, no, I'm just holding it. <laughs> oh. I'm not hungry. You can, uh, is piercing the culture, piercing the zeitgeist. Yes. Having something that has an impact where people go, yes, that is a way to describe things, or that is a thing that I'm feeling, yeah. or that is something that I've needed those things to be combined in this new way, or I've needed those things to be combined in a way that I've seen before, but that feels new, or that it's using images, words, things that feel more familiar to me, Yeah. which is why that's why I think it's okay for things like reboots and stories to be retold and stuff like that. Yeah. So when it comes to the idea of something being concrete or ephemeral, I think it doesn't matter uh -huh. as long as it has that lasting impact. That lasting impact, the effect of the thing that you've created, that you've done, that you've made, yeah. that's more important than whether it exists. Because there are things like family ties. I mean, family ties might not be the best example of this, but like um, fucking you name it TV show from the fucking 1950s that everybody's forgotten about. Yeah. That maybe it was one of the biggest things and they made tons of money and it exists in all these formats if you need it. But like, it's not relevant now. So it had, an, it had something to do with, with the culture at the time. Yeah, like The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, which would be something that the Disney Channel, the last time it would have been viewed by a large audience would have been the Disney Channel in the 80s. Right. They would show it. But it probably never made the jump to home video right. or uh, DVD or anything like that. 
So we'd had a run of a few decades, and then it was just like, boom, you're done. There's not really an audience for watching this. There's not even a nostalgia audience. They're gone. Uh, and I think there's things, too, that, like, this is going to sound weird, but, like, the best you can hope for is that the thing that you make is reduced to this one thing you remember. Like, as I was talking about that, I was thinking of, like, oh, the Mickey Mouse Club, right? Right. It's like, uh, can I remember a single episode of the Mickey Mouse Club? No. But the term Mickey Mouse Club stands to represent something in my mind that yeah. I is now part of my vocabulary. Yeah. And means something that would be much more complicated to describe. Yeah, like, if, like, I, go, if I go, M-I-C... K-E-Y? Yeah. Even beyond that. Yeah, yeah. Even beyond that. Like, let's say someone walks in here. Yeah. And they behave in a way that's particular, that's sort of annoying me. Like, there's all these things that would be described. (laughs) But but if I, after they left and I went to you like, I don't know, that guy's just fucking Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. You would understand what I meant by that. Yeah. (laughs) And like, to me, that's almost enough that something has this lasting impact on what it means. And so, when you're talking about difference between making movies and TV shows versus having these performances that are ephemeral yeah. or whatnot, I think that it's a different scale of things. I think when you're at the UCB doing improv or doing your performance stuff, yeah. you can have that impact on individual people. Yeah. Like, you kind of, rather, when you're standing up there, someone may walk away and remember that character, that thing that you said, and have that be something that returns to their mind. Yeah. And you get tons of swings at doing different versions of that. Yeah. There's a chance that you make a TV show or a movie that has no impact on anybody. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's why I think those things... Uh, yeah. We've entered, think, we've entered a period of time, especially now when we're drowning in culture. Yeah. Where... where the re- it's, it, and it also, you don't but, know. But it's also like... Um, the... Yeah, I guess the reasons... Why, it's also like figuring out the reasons Oops. why uh, we're doing anything. Because like when I think about... Yeah. Like the night that Jump on Three gave the show over to Shucks for Shucks Fest. Right. I don't know if that meant anything to the audience, but it sure meant a lot to the Shucks, and it sure meant a lot to Jump on Three to have that night. Right. And for somebody else, that night might have just been like a pool party. And what we remember is like, oh, I remember how fun that pool party was? Right. And to a certain extent, like, that's already. Um, that's already enough and maybe even like I can imagine lots of maybe like quote unquote very artistically significant or important things that if somebody was like would you like to trade places with the person who made this movie that was like devastatingly uh, you know uh, panned critically we're not panned it can even be like a very successful thing but like that the function of it was that it was kind of like a grim thing. <laughs> like, hey, not that those things don't have value, but like just in terms of when I think about what I want right. to contribute, that I'd be like, ah, I, no, I'll go with the night that the the Shucks took over Jump on Three's show at Shucks Fest. Right. Even though the other thing might be like powerful and lasting impact. Uh, or it's like, do you want to have being the creator of Saw? Yeah. Like, and I would be like, ah, and, or even something where it's like Boys Don't Cry or something where it's right. like a movie that is like very well acclaimed and liked and it's like this powerful work. But it's not really like, uh, I don't know that that's my bag. You know, like I don't know right. that that's, that's not something that f- feels like it's the kind of thing that I uh, should be creating and that it's my, like it, it just is outside of my. Right. It, it, it's almost like if you, if you were to like say to somebody else, like somebody you played like in an oompa band Hey, how would you like to be Jimi Hendrix? They might be like, well, he's awesome, but like, 
I like playing the tuba in this oompa band. Like, that's right. what I do. Like, that's more my thing. Right. That it doesn't even have to do even with being the best, but it's like, ah, I want to do the stuff that feels like it's what I should be doing. What feels right for me. And in some cases, that might not even be that what I should be doing is like, uh, going to be especially successful one way or the other, you know, right. in the, in the conventional, like in the terms of how, I guess it's kind of like what, when you were faced with the LA choice, the, you knew that you could do the thing that you were doing out there, but it wasn't a thing that was like, that's what I should be doing. Right. And I feel like that's the right, that's the right frame of thinking about it. And for me, part of it had to do with a little bit letting go with the idea of whether legacy was a factor, whether that mattered as much as the, the current moment, you know? Yes. I'd be so depressed to work on something that I didn't like. I think it would really depress me. Yes. I, I mean, I don't think I could do it. Uh, you know, I mean, you know me well enough one of the things I'm not good at is hiding how I'm feeling. <laughs> and like, I'm really only propelled by feeling good about stuff and feeling excited by stuff. Yeah. So I do genuinely think that like, I couldn't work on something I didn't like. I would immediately become restless and probably difficult to work with. Not because I'd be a jerk, but because I think that you would like just see in every fiber of how I acted that I was just like not into it. I did a, a commercial for a thing. I don't even know if it aired or if it happened or what. Um, it was a commercial for a thing that put me into a very weird context in the world of um, television. And the people were all very friendly. But let's just say it was within a, sub, a certain subculture of television. Okay. <clears throat> and I was interacting... A genre with, of television? <clears throat> I, don't, I guess you could say genre. It wasn't a kind of television that you would even... Um, this is a commercial you were on? It was a commercial for a thing that was connected to... A television show that I wasn't even aware of particularly, but I was aware of the thing that it sort of spun from. Okay. And uh, genre implies a different kind of thing. I, w- I would say more like it you was like You blind item this to me? Yeah. Just so maybe I can help describe it? Yeah. Here, um, this... Here, I'll just bring it up. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll okay. find it on the browser. This um, way, listeners, I can help translate as well. Because um, if I'm in the dark, then surely you are in the dark. I don't know. Never underestimate our listeners slash viewers. Um, I only estimate. Never under, never over. Um... no idea what that is. I mean, I've heard of it before, but yeah. I could not tell you what it's about. Related show. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see, yeah. I see. Yeah, that's who that is. Yeah. So Weird. How did you, you get mean, like, tied into that? So you know how, what I mean is, it's not genre, but it's like a, a subculture of... Yes. You're genre part, implies a you lot a more... Part, uh, you were a part of a thing that was... So this is a spinoff from a thing that was... Culturally its own very, cultural and its own genre... I didn't television. even know. I didn't even know this thing still existed. 
This, okay, so I, I think I can be clear about it because I don't think anyone will ever get this. Yeah. This was something that was a big deal in TV, and this thing is a spinoff of that. Yeah. And it exists in its own bubble. But it, probably still has certain <laughs> cultural trappings of its source material, which is now long out of date. Yeah. And uh, if I were to mention what it is spun off from, you would inst- everyone would instantly know what you mean. Because like Mickey Mouse Club, it's the kind of thing that you can mention up and be like, oh, what's this? Yeah. And you could reference it. If someone came in here and behaved a certain way, and then they left, and then you were like, that was like blank. Yes. Everyone would know what we meant. Y- yes. Um, anyway, so this, this thing, I found myself doing a, day's, a few hours' work for a thing that was connected to this. Okay. Um, and I don't even know that the thing that, this was like a month or two ago, I don't even know that the thing that it was filming for happened. But while I was there, I was very aware of the fact that I was like, oh, this is like off in its own bubble. Yes. It's cut off from everything else. And it felt oddly almost like, it's going to sound snobbish, but when I was there, I was looking around, people were very nice, but I thought it felt like I was in a land in exile or like that the people here in a way felt like it was, felt like a living death in some ways. Right. It was very much like, oh, I would not be happy here. Well, there is this whole hallway of television. Yeah. That is that. Yeah. It is not joyous, creative, collaborative and interesting, it is this almost... It's interesting. It feels like, the, particularly the place, the studio where we filmed season one of The Gethard Show for Fusion, yeah. felt like we were moving into that kind of land. Yes, like but it is like we... a, factor, a factory for a type of content where everybody punches in and yeah. punches out and there is this awareness that what's just being created what it is. is not helping anyone, good for anyone. It's just like people that sell timeshares. It's timeshare salesmen. It's like we know we're not doing this. What we're doing is not good. Yeah, we're gonna find the best way to do this. We're gonna go home at the end of the day. Hopefully, we're gonna make some money off of this, and we're just gonna keep doing this until the fucking well dries up. Yeah. But while I was there, I was very aware. Well, first of all, there was someone there because I'd been brought in because they wanted someone who can improvise and be funny. Right. And um, the, but there was someone there who had written some parts of it. Right. Like written the the copy. And then there was a guy directing it and the guy directing it, he kept, um, (laughs) he kept coming over and being like, don't do like the the writer person kept. I don't think it was a writer per se, but it was someone whoever the guy was was sort of like fancied himself a writer. Right. And this guy kept coming up with new dialogue on the spot and saying like, oh, what about this? Like, what if there was a joke like? What if there was a joke like where uh, they're fighting? These two they're fighting, and uh, one of them is like, hey, you drank all the coffee, uh, and then the next person, and then maybe he's like, oh yeah, well you. Uh, left your tuna sandwich in the fridge and it stunk up the fridge. Right. And so he was like writing that as, and just like off the top of his head as if these were like great lines. Like, right. that's good. Like, you'd be like, I, what about your tuna sandwich you left in the fridge? Stunk up the fridge. And, uh, or, or how about it was like, um, no, no, not, not, uh, 
maybe tuna sandwiches, maybe like, uh, no, like, remember Taco Tuesday? I love Taco Tuesday. That's like, I did a joke once, it was like, Taco Tuesday, Taco Tuesday. Um, and it was just like, he's like, what's funnier? It's like, Taco Tuesday funnier than like a tuna sandwich? Uh, and the director comes over to me and was just like, don't do any of this stuff, but like, act like you're considering it because the writer will get upset. Right. And so they kept like actively like trying to get, and I was just like, what a horrible process where like people are coming over and actively telling me to ignore this person who right. has like, who's clearly like someone who's in charge, who they're supposed to be listening to. They can't just say no to them. Right. Uh, and I was just like, oh, this is like a really horrible situation to be in. And I'm glad I'm just here for a few hours. Yeah. Uh, and the stuff that I did was not very strong. But at the end of it, they were like, oh, we should bring them back. We should do lots more stuff. And I was like, who? Oh, no, no. thank you. No, no. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what my least favorite thing that I've ever worked on was. That wasn't even my least favorite thing, because it was just like, it was a quick game. Yeah. And it was easy money, and I don't think anyone will ever even see it. I mean, when I worked at VH1, I was a part of a machine like that. Yeah. And I would have to go out to stupid red carpets and shoot things, and I remember just feeling like, Oh man, if I just get through this next three hours. Yeah. All right, then I have to go back and edit it. And then, you know what I mean? Just like, yeah. What's the next thing that I don't want to do? I mean, I don't want to talk to stupid, whatever his name is, Jared Leto. That jerk. Did you win an Oscar? Yeah, but he was a jerk to me. I've told you that story, right? I think so. Oh! No. Almost knocked everything over. Um, but yeah. Let me see if people responded on Twitter. Twice. Let's get those. The helpline. Oh man, the helpline is, is active. Will Hines. Okay. Good recommendations. Zach says. Justin says, I have thoughts about new autistic Sesame Street characters. What do we know about that? I don't know anything about that. I knew there was one, but I don't know anything about it. I give good relationship advice, and I'm great at helping people move, says Phipps. Well, we don't talk about relationship advice on this podcast, because we are both too... Are, I think people seem to respond as if we put up an, an ad for like a new co-host. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, I can do this, I can do that. Yeah. Directions and things to do. Advice on life's challengers. Good listener. Can carry a grandma for two blocks. See, these people have taken it as a, as a, a yeah. help wanted ad. Help on how to serve ice cream or a new reality show to watch? Oh, I have a new reality show that. Oh, uh, so do I. Okay. This is our new segment. Thank you, Naomi. Boop, 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 what is your show? My show. I bet they're not the same, but for a brief moment, there's a part of me that likes to entertain the thought. Okay, let's do this. I'm going to go one, two, three, say the show. Okay. One, two, two three, three Terrace House. Terrace House? You jerk. That's what everyone says. Terrace House. Talk about yours first. No, you talk about yours first. Okay. I've talked about this a lot. A lot of, there's a lot of people that listen to this that have already heard me talk about this because I'm an evangelist for it. This is on Netflix, right? This is on Netflix. I think I heard you talk about this the night that we... Maybe the night that we screened the uh, Santa Claus Switch? Yes, it is. Yeah. This is a show that was a Japanese television show, I believe. And then Netflix 
produced a whole new two seasons of it. It is the real, it's the real world, but for Japan, but it has none of the trappings of the real world. It is a calm, collected, reasonable reality show with still cameras, still shots. Um, there's a panel that discusses what's going on. It's three guys and three girls that live together in a, a, a terrace house in Japan. They all have their own lives. They all go to school, do everything separate. They just happen to live at the same place. Each episode is maybe four scenes, just them sitting down and eating dinner together, maybe a conversation. Mm-hmm. And then the panel... Your, then the panel discusses what's happened. Yeah. It is calm. As my friend Justin McElroy says, it is a spa day for your emotions. It's just perfect escapism television. You get to see them go out and eat in Japan. There's almost no giant freewheeling drama like American reality shows. Whenever I say that, people, people compare it to like the great British, British baking show, where it's just this thing that you can watch and enjoy people being roommates with one another. Um, the first series that you should watch is called um, Terrace House. Boys and Girls in the City. Uh-huh. There's a ton of episodes, and it is captivating, and it's great escapism. Then they've done one called Terrace House Aloha State that's only eight episodes in on Netflix, uh-huh. but that takes place in Hawaii. It's good, different vibe, but you, you really should watch Boys and Girls in the City first. Anyways, that's my reality show that I love. I think it's wonderful. I need Tell to, me about yours. I need to watch that because I meant to watch it after, and then I forgot about it completely. That was months ago. Um, I watch a show, it's available on CBS All Access, and the reason I, I was going to watch it and then I missed it when it aired, Right. and then when I got The Good Fight on CBS All Access, I was like, well, I should see what other things are on here to make it worth my money. Hunted is the name of the show, and it's, it's like seven or eight, maybe nine episodes, and the premise of it is that there are um, nine couples, and they have to go on the run for 28 days, and they have to evade a squad of 30 law enforcement professionals who are tasked with capturing them. Interesting. And it's not a perfect show, um, but it's very interesting, and I feel like I learned a lot. How'd they do? Um, do you want me to spoil it? Uh, don't spoil it, but... I, I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll talk in a, in a general way, yeah, which exactly. is that... So here's the thing. So the way it works is... They're not all released at once, but it would basically like, let's imagine you and I, no. uh, you and I did this show. Yes. Because it's, sometimes it's like a husband and wife, sometimes it's two friends. Um, so it's, it's ver- various kinds of couples. Right. So if you and I were doing the show, we might be, um, you know, out somewhere hanging out and all of a sudden someone would come up to us and be like, you're on the run. At that point, right. like we would know like within a frame of like in the next week or two, you won't know when, but there'll be a point right. where you're both together and you'll be told you're on the run. And at that point, you have one hour until they give law enforcement our names. Right. So whatever pre-planning we've made, we might be like, we'd be at like a movie, we'd be at Angelica or something. And we're coming out of a movie right. and they go, you're on the run. At that point, we're like, shit, okay, let's hop in a taxi. Let's get back to uh, our apartments. We'll meet, uh, you know, we'll get our backpacks and stuff and we go. Right. And then an hour later, there's a squad of 30 people, FBI, NSA, there's computer specialists, there's behavioral analysis. They have like right. just a, a whole crime fighting unit of every kind of expert. Right. 
they're instantly, they're on our phones. They're on, uh, they're looking all our, they're going through all our social media. They are looking for everything to see like where, where should we be looking first? Right. And, uh, some of these couples did really well, but it seemed like what was common was 14 days people could generally do. Right. But the, the day 15 to 28 was where it was hard for people. Okay. Because like, there was this one couple who right away, they got out of there and they went into the woods, basically, and they roughed it until day 14. And then they were like, this is hard. We need to go into town and get some supplies. And the act of going into town to get some supplies... Uh, any trace that you made of people to any contact you made, if you called someone, they would immediately be up on like uh, your parents' phone. They'd be like, "Let's let's get." They would get right. all of the people that you were connected to. They would they would probably be like, "Let's get uh, Chris Gethard. Let's get a th- tap right. on his phone. Let's get this." And if they were, and even if we had burner phones, they would very a lot of people got burner phones, and then you would call like Gethard. Let's say Gethard was like, "Okay, guys, you do it. They'd get that recording, and they'd be like. This is their burner phone. Now we're up on that burner phone. Right. And now they're tri- triangulating which cell tower you're at. Um, if, you, if they figured out what car you were in, uh, once they figured out what car you were in, the license plate readers are nonstop. Right. Uh, those machines on, the, on almost every major road, they have machines that all they do all right. day is capture license plates. Right. So if they are searching for one, they'll get you and they'll be like, they pinged here, then they pinged here. This is where they're going. And they have roving uh, uh, cars of actual bounty hunters who are ready to intercept. Right. And it's terrifying when they get to the point where the bounty hunters intercept. Because it literally is like these big, burly people who are like running after you. Right. And when they catch you, once they t- they'll be like, stop! And those people are running, running, ah, 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 And then they get up close. And once they tag you, they go, your time of the run is done. And uh, some of the people, like, there were these two friends who had the same last name, but they were, they were not sisters. And they did so well for a while. And then there was a point where they got hungry and they decided to drive into town and they got gas in their car and they were smart about, like, they had, uh, they went to an ATM. Anytime you go to an ATM, they instantly have you. Yes. Because the camera, if they're looking for you, they just say, like, bing, their bank account just got access. We have right. video of them. We know what they look like now. Um, but they're at this gas station, and they were smart. They backed out of the... They pulled in, and then they backed out of the gas station. So no camera got their license. Uh, but then they were like, we think they're in this area near the shopping mall. We think... And so the, like, they were like... They dispatched the bounty hunters to that area. They went to a Taco Bell. They got another person to drive through the drive through to get them their food. And then they sat in the parking lot in their car and ate their Taco Bell food. And while they're in the car, the bounty hunters spotted them parked. And they just, it was like the smallest of the chases. They literally just boxed them in with their car, got around, opened their car, and then these girls are in the front seat. And they're just like, they're like, your time of the run is over. And they're like, what? Oh, God. You're kidding me. And it was just like, you did so well for like two weeks. And you couldn't just get out of town to eat your Taco Bell in the woods. Um, some of the people, there was this guy... These two guys who they're, one of them reminded me the most of like how I think you would play it. Because there's this guy who his job was, he designs escape the room right. uh, stuff. So I was like, that guy already reminds me of JD just in terms of like, right. he immediately was like, okay, I've got all these like, 
I've got all these ways of, uh, like their strategy was they had these letters that they were sending to all of their friends. Right. Uh, they, they gave to a stranger to mail all these letters and the letters had instructions for, they set, for a new email, Gmail account they set up where they had the, uh, they set up the Gmail and they sent everyone the, the, how to log into it. And they said, just write in the drafts folders, but don't send it because if you right. don't send it, they can't, they won't see yeah. it because it's not leaving the... Yeah. And so they had all these clues and all these misdirections and they had people do stuff like they have a friend add one of their names to a, uh, as a second driver on a car rental. Right. So that then they followed this friend on like a wild goose chase and then when they finally got to him, he's like, yeah, they had me add that as a name to throw you guys off. Right. And they, they, were, they spent all this time like following out of the way. But even then, they put a trace in the postal service where they were looking at the mail that was going to these various addresses of the friends. And once they saw the same handwriting uh, right. going to multiple of these contexts, they're like, this is letters from them. So they didn't have the letters, but they had this thing. So that they were able to say, they, they like got in touch with them at one point, with one of the family members, and were like, we know about the letters. Right. At which point the sister like contacted them and was like, they know about the letters. And it made them paranoid enough that they were like, our whole plan is blown. Right. All of our stuff that we plan, like we had to shut down the Gmail. We had to like, right. even though they didn't have all that stuff, all they had was they knew that letters were being sent. So they just bluffed their way out of like right. all of their strategic stuff. I'm trying to think what else was. How long is the longest someone? Couple of couples made it all the way to the end. How long is that? 28 days. And there's a frustrating thing about the end of it, which is that when you get to day 28, what happens is on day 28, you're, given in, you're sent instructions or you, like, you go onto this website and it gives you instructions for a bank to go to uh, and an airfield to get an escape plane from. And you don't win the game until you take flight in this plane. But can't they just wait for you there? The law enforcement doesn't know these details. Okay. Only the makers of the game know this. So what would happen is we would get a thing saying, you and I have to go to this bank, right. take and claim the reward, $250,000. You claim this $250,000 cash, but then you have to go on foot to the airfield, which is like, in one case was two miles away, and in another case was like three miles away. Right. But as soon as you take the money out, law enforcement is alerted that you've taken money from this right. bank, and then they're like looking to see like, where's the nearest airfield. Right. So the last part was it kind of pissed me off because I'm like, They've just fought for 28 days, and you're making them run on foot for three miles while law enforcement has their information, like carrying right. 250 grand. I'm like, at least like, let them drive. Like, don't make it so that. I think they just did that to make it extra suspenseful. But I, yeah. I felt like this is a fucking cheat because if they really made it 28 days, then you're adding these things that are make it sloppy when they haven't been sloppy. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't like that, but. It was also like it was interesting watching the way that people would figure out um, how to use social media, and they would also there were times when they made it so difficult. Like there were these two guys who were like two college guys who were like good-looking guys who their whole strategy was we're just going to like charm strangers right and get strangers to let us stay with them. And what law enforcement did was law enforcement put their pictures up on all of the dating apps in the, cause it was, you were confined like Florida and just like the, th like three state area. You had to stay within this area. Okay. So you couldn't go to Alaska or something like that. Okay. So it actually made it trickier cause they, 
had you boxed in. You couldn't. Right. You had to hide within the zone. Um, that does make it trickier. It does because you could just get out. Yeah, exactly. And go hide somewhere. So they put these guys' photos up on every dating app in as being in this area with the information saying like we are being hunted by a TV show that uh, and there's a reward if you right find us, which meant that like. Everywhere they went, people were suddenly like, oh, those are the guys that you can get a $1,000 reward if you just tell the cops about right. them. And it was just like, it was amazing to me how much I rooted. I, there was no part of me that was ever rooting for law enforcement watching the show. Right. Even though a big part of the show was about showing uh, how good they were at their jobs. And sometimes they were like uncannily good in the sense of like, may, like you'd see them. And I don't know how much, I don't know if any of this was like reality TV yeah. massaged. But it seemed like, because they liked showing also when they would mess up and be wrong about it. Right. But more often than not, it felt like the analysts were like, they're probably going to head to a friend's. They're probably going to be doing it like this. Right. Uh, But then sometimes they'd be like, we know they're going to do this, and then it wouldn't be that. So I think, my sense was that it felt fair. Okay. I don't know. But there was a thing when I was watching it where I was like, I can't, it was like the same thing with jury duty where I was like, I look at a big system going after one person or two people. Yeah. And my immediate reaction is like, you're so big and they're so small. I can't root for the big thing. Even though the big, in this case, the big thing, like if these were murderers, I would be like, all right, the squad of 30 people catches these people who did like a robbery and shot a bunch of people. I would be like, they got them. They got their plate. They got this. What's to stop you from just going somewhere and staying? And staying. Just like having gotten enough cash out before the game and then just living cash cash only for 28 days which is not that hard the the weird problem is uh i thought that too like if you just found one good location and stayed there yeah the problem was a couple times people did that and they would figure it out they would be like they would get to all your friends like if it was someone that you knew that there was any record of you knowing like like, who would you hide with if you, if you were doing it? Who would you hide with? Do you have anyone in mind that you would be like, where would I go? Let's say you had to stay in New York City. Yes. You know where you would go? Yes. And you know it would work? Yes. Is it someone that would be traceable through social media? Uh-huh. That they'd be able to say, like, this is JD's friend? Yeah. How would you stay hidden? I'm friends with many magicians, Connor. Uh, see, this is why I think you'd be good at it. <laughs> um, but that wouldn't be my go-to plan. But if I just say this in New York, like, those people I could stay with that are incredible liars. Yeah. And know how to keep a secret. Yeah. The interesting thing is there were people who were pretty helpful in this, like who would lie well and who would do this. And it was amazing how the people who were trying to find information were so determined and so like aggressively pushy right that you would just see them break down or they would like the people would be trying so hard to not give anything away that they would accidentally give away something huge right and they didn't realize it's like like they would say something that would inadvertently tip them off to like well now we know like i saw jd yesterday and it was like no yeah yeah well we know that he didn't he's covering for them that yeah. means they're probably and also like i mean there was one time where they went to uh, they went to the because one guy who was like an ex gang member, mm-hmm. who is now a defense attorney, and had a big like ginger beard, 
and he did really, really well. But one of the problems was his girlfriend had a day planner that they had written out their whole plan on. Interesting. And then ripped the plan off, but the indentations yeah. of it were on the thing below it. And this was something she did that he didn't know about. So they had all their info. And so he couldn't figure out, like, how the fuck are they... Right. He got paranoid so quickly because he's like, how are they ahead of us on this? We're burned. Like, all our stuff's burned. Right. And they got to a place where they went to a friend's house, and he was a dealer, so they were able to... Um, he was able to get them a dealer car that wouldn't have their name on it. Right. And... But these people were able... The law enforcement was able to figure out that the dealer guy could do that. Right. And they're like, this dealer... Um, checked out a car yesterday. Let's put that plate in and see where it's going. Right. And then they got the address where it was going, but it was this big property where there was actually two houses, and one of them didn't show up on the map because right. it was like in a wooded area. They went to the wrong one, and there was no one there. But then they were like, actually, there's another house on this property across the the lake here. Yeah. Let's just head over and check that out. Meanwhile. The gang guy is just like, something feels weird. Right. And he's like, I'm getting a weird... I feel like I hear, like, I heard a car coming through. Let's just get out of here. Right. And they just bolted. And they missed him by, like, minutes. Right. And they found out when he... They called his friend later, and they're like, they came, like, right after you left. Like, they had you. Right. And it was just amazing watching... uh, the way people get when they feel paranoid and when they feel like people are out to get us. Uh, right. Because there are people that if they had stayed in one spot, they would have been fine. And then there are other people that like if they hadn't kept moving, they would have gotten caught. Right. And people who had all the angles figured out, but then someone they knew blew it for them. Right. Because I feel like 28 days... I just wouldn't talk to anyone I knew. Yeah. I feel well, okay. So here's what I would think. Yeah. Travel by bike, public transit, cash only. Yeah. No phones, no computers, no nothing. You're just off the grid. Yeah. Although, facial re- recognition software is also in place. So like, if you show up on some camera footage that they're scouring with that, there's a chance. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Then I feel like I would go to just some. Small town, somewhere that was en route to somewhere else, mm-hmm. and then off the beaten path, find someone and just be like, hey, I'll give you $5,000 if you just let me stay in your garage. Yeah. I'm part of this thing. Let's just do that. Yeah. I guess that that person could tell someone and that turns into a whole thing. Yeah. There's always a weak link. It is tough, man. It's tricky because the... I'll give you $5,000 if this, I don't know. Like you tell, even the act of offering that to someone's like, they uh, may call the I don't police. Know, yeah. I don't know what this is. Even if you explain this for a TV show, uh, seems dodgy. I yeah. don't know. And they might be like, some guy was offering me $5,000. I felt weird about it. Yeah. And then true. it's like, then they got you, you're in that town. And then they're like sniffing around. The number of times they found someone just because they were like, we think they're around here. Let's go look. And yeah. then they would, like, there was one time where these two guys, I felt weirdly, I felt bad for these two guys. They were doing really well, these two Muslim guys. 
And at one point, they had the great move of, like, they started off, they had these big beards. Right. And there was a point where they felt like they were getting made, and they were just like, we got to change it up. So they just shaved their beards, shaved their heads, and they're like, right. now we're not those two guys anymore. Right. And, but then they had to use an ATM, and as soon as the ATM got them, they're like, all right, they shaved their beards. So it's like they had... Right. The, the little moments of advantage just went away so quickly. Right. Um, but those two guys ended up... There was a guy who said they could stay at their, like, this sort of abandoned uh, stables. Right. And the, the bounty hunter teams, and there were, like, three of them, said, like, they, they traced something to the fact that they had interacted with this guy. It was, like, who, like, owned these stables. Like, well, he also owns this... According to these records, he also owns this other property. Right. Let's check that out. So they went to check that out, and then they saw that they found their stuff. Like, they were looking in, and they're like, there. And they saw, like, a bunch of backpacks. And they right. saw, like, they're here. So they just went onto the property. And the two guys realized it, and they're like, what do we do? And so there's this whole sequence where you have, like, a dozen people who are scouring the property looking for them. It's a big, messy property. Right. These two guys are like, we're boxed in. Like, we got nowhere to go. So at one point, they're literally just hiding on the ground behind like some large piles of like gravel. And it's just so obvious that it's just a matter of time. They're covering every inch before someone sees that there's two grown men lying on the ground. And so it's super tense. But then the bounty hunters come across and they're like, I see him! At which point, they like get up. And it's, it is one of those things where it's like, you know, they know they're going to get caught. And it's not... Life or death, because it is just a game. Although they are just about to lose a quarter of a million yeah. dollars of prize money. But the guy like starts to run a little bit, and then he falls. And then he kind of laughs. Because <laughs> he knows it's like, I'm not going to prison. And also, like, I'm not going to run. A, I'm not going to outrun people who are surrounding me. But he kind of ran and fell, and then he was like, ah. he's like, oh, no. And, and it was really charming to see like a grown man realize, like, I know that this is a high-stakes reality show, but, like, it's also silly that I right. just fell while tra- like I just embarrassed myself. Right. Um, I would never want to do Survivor, but I could imagine doing this show with you. Yes. Um, I don't think I would be very good at it, but I think you would be really good at it. I want to do this show now. I don't know if there'll be a second season of it, but uh, I'm in. I really want to do this now. I think I could do it. Uh, I think the idea of like two comedians from New York City is. Um... Now here's the other thing, though. Yeah. If cameras are following you, does that make it very hard? That's never addressed, and I feel like it must be. It must because make it hard. Because if you go to some, like my whole thing is like, yeah, just go to some small town where like no one really gives a fuck, and like you can get an apartment that day yeah. and just pay cash, and as long as you are nice to people. It's one old guy who would know about it, and there's nothing shady. Yeah. But if there's a cameraman with them, suddenly it becomes a weird. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could always do a thing where it's like, cameraman stay in the car while we go talk to this person. Like, where you could actually... They wouldn't include that part in the show. Right. Because they, they do that thing of, like, I wasn't aware when I was thinking about it, of, like, there's a third person. Even though that's an obvious thing to right. think about. But I'd be curious for you to see this just to see... You would immediately have probably knowledge of like, oh, this is how they did that, or right. this is probably what they did for this. Um, that sounds cool, though. Uh, yeah, to me, it does feel like one of the things is that you would have to 
I mean, I got this already. What's that? It's your go bag? My go bag. Um, I feel like my go bag is full of uh, stuff that's expired now. <laughs> um, I, I wonder if, like, part of it is being willing to be in a boring situation. Yeah, that's what I think. That, like, if you just find a place and really just hide... Um, that then you would be okay. You know? Yeah. Um, Will Hines says, I can Venmo funds, offer rationales for bad behavior, assure you that things will work out, or suggest music. Mm. Which of those appeals to you most? Um... Assure you that things will work out. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, hey, Will, if you could just let us know things will work out, that'd be great. Can I open the window? Yeah. Um, um, Aaron says she can explain basic common chord structures. Tanny says I can listen to your problems. Um, do you... Believe in life after love? Yeah. It's tough. We should start a Kickstarter for 12 Hour Day of the Movie and set it so high that it can never be fulfilled. But just to give something to strive for. Uh, it's a 12 hour long movie. Okay, who would, who would play you? Um, I'd like to play me, but... Okay, but I'm not playing me. Who would you like to play you? That'd be interesting. <laughs> uh, who would you get to play you? Keanu Reeves. Who would you get to play me? John Goodman. Not uh, uh, David Costabile or Paul Giamatti? Uh, no, Giamatti would be good. Keanu Reeves and Paul Giamatti in 12 Hour Day of the Movie? Keanu Reeves and Paul Giamatti. Who's a better me? Maybe uh, um, David Duchovny. Let me think. Um, I can't figure out who. There's people that look like me, but I need someone that can play me. That's a different. Um, Michael Sarah and Paul Giamatti. You think I'm Michael Sarah? <laughs> I think he could play you. Really? You don't think? I feel like I command... I feel like... Maybe I don't know myself. I feel like if you gave him the material, he could play you. He knows how to play... Uh, um, I, I mean, he wouldn't play him like a that like George Michael. It would be more like when he plays a slightly more aggressive character mixed with the sweetness of George Michael. Interesting. Hmm... If you dressed Michael Sarah like you and gave him your concerns. Yeah, I could see that. I'm just thinking what that looks like as a pairing with, with Paul Giamatti. So it, it overemphasizes the age difference. For you, I have Giamatti. What I like about that is that it takes our age difference and, and widens it 
severely, where, yeah. it's, where it is... It makes it strange. Yeah, it makes it where that I could be your father. Uh, for you, I also think... Um, man, who am I thinking of? Uh, what's his name? If we had Will Hines and Zach Woods. Guy who played, um... The executive guy in Steve Jobs. Jeff and Daniels? Jeff Daniels. As me? Yeah. He's, I think I think Jeff Daniels could do a really good Connor Ratliff. He's much older than me, though. Yes, but... I don't mind that for I this. I think you'd age him down for the... For me, it's like I, you want someone that can get real worked up about Elvis Costello and talk a lot about movies. And Jeff. then when I'm like, oh, let's talk about relationship stuff. It's like, no, no, no. I, I got nothing there. Hey, have you seen the... Uh, <laughs> It's got to be something that can show high emotion, but also subtext. Lots of subtext. My two pairings are Michael Sarah and Paul Giamatti, or Zach Woods and Will Hines. I don't know. I, I, interesting that you'd think Will Hines would play me. I was just trying to think of step. No, no I'm just trying to think of stepfathers that I think it would be like they're not doing an impression, but they could do the dynamic of it. Right. Um, who else could be good? Who would be, who would be our super young cast? Like the young... The young celeb cast. I don't know if I'm aware enough of who the young hot actors are. Uh-oh. Um, all right, let me see what else people said they can... I just like, let's set up like a $12 million Kickstarter for 12 hour day of the movie. Uh, Fred from Honolulu says you can deflect any accusations of your racism. Um, I don't think we have any accusations of our racism. I think that was one. I think that was an accusation of racism. Yeah. Um, um, No, I'll, I, uh, does Fred listen to this podcast? I doubt it. Or, I don't know. I don't know. This episode's flown by pretty quickly. I know. And I've actually much preferred this to the ones where we're like stressed out. About running what we're going to get, where we're going to charge. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't go to UCB. Yeah. I think we got to ban that from. I think we've gone to that well enough. Well, it's just that we know it's a place we can go and plug in, and no right. one's going to question it. But I think we always run out of energy there, too. Yeah. We're distracted by these like, micro conversations. Yeah. I, would, I don't mind going there if, we're, if it's, we're in Midtown and we're looking for a place to. Um, even if it does sap the energy for a little while, it's good to know that we have places that we can. Right. Not worry. No one's gonna be like, "What are you guys doing?" Like we just say, we're plugging in for our podcast here. Right. 
it's hard in the city. Um, it's hard in the city. To find a place to plug in. It's hard in the city. Um, what did you think of the Oscars? Did you watch them live? This was the first year in a mm-hmm. long time where I've watched the Oscars with someone else. I was in L.A. during the Oscars. Uh-huh. I was staying with Will Hines and Phil Jackson, who are two of the most gracious hosts. Were you in that ap- their apartment? Yeah. I love staying there. Yeah. I, uh, a funny story I'll tell about that before you tell the Oscar yeah. story is... Um, so when I was there in January, uh, I only saw Phil a few times because he's busy and he was working. So he would kind of like float in. I'd say hi. We'll have a scene. And then I wouldn't see him for a couple of days. That's how... That's when I go. That's what it is with Will. Yeah, oh, yeah? Interesting. Yeah. I see Phil all the time, and then I'll see Will once every couple days. Yeah. There are different timetables. Um, I didn't realize they had two showers. Yes. I didn't realize Phil has his own shower in, in the room, and Will his has one that's in the hallway. Yeah. Own bathroom, Which yeah. I always feel weird about, because I feel like I'm more of a guest. I consider Will a friend. Yeah. But I consider myself more a guest of Phil's. Yeah. And I'm sort of uh, inconveniencing Will by being there. Which he never... He doesn't he, feel that he way. Doesn't, I mean, they he a, doesn't portray that, but I feel like I'm, Phil's one of my close friends. I'm there. Will is a friend of mine. But when I'm texting, like, hey, can I stay there? I'm texting Phil. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So then I feel weird because their agreed upon system is that when someone stays with them, they use Will's bathroom. Because you don't have to interrupt. You don't have to bust into Phil's room. Exactly. But I still feel weird because I'm like, I feel like I'm Phil's guest and I'm inconveniencing Will in these like multiple ways. Yeah. I guarantee you he doesn't feel that way, but I also understand why you think yeah. that that would be a thing in your mind. And he's never put forward any vibes or tone that would make me think that, but that's yeah. my own insecurity. Um, sometimes when I'm going places, I've gotten in the habit of like, I'll just buy shampoo when I get to the place. Right. In this case, I, just so you don't have to mess with the whole thing of planes and fluids and stuff. Right. And so uh, I didn't have shampoo when I got there. Right. And... Uh, and it, and then when I went in to take a shower the first morning I was there, or the first night I was there, I couldn't find shampoo in uh, uh, Will's bathroom. I was right. like, where's the shampoo? And I didn't realize that Phil had a separate bathroom. I was like, how do Will and Phil not have shampoo? Right. And then it occurred to me that I'm like, oh, there's not a lot of hair in this apartment. Right. You know, like, because uh, Phil is... Right. Short and shaved mostly, and yeah. uh, and Will just has a little bit. Yeah, and it was like a it was a strange thing to realize. That it was like I need like a big bottle of shampoo. Right. Uh, I mean, Will had a thing that was like I don't know quite how to describe what it was, but it was like um, almost like old time medicine type soap or something. Right. Uh, like Burt's Bees style, like big. Yeah. Artisanal soap, liquid soap type thing or something. Um, but so I was staying there, and there was a night when I, uh, you know, when you're Staying with other people and you don't have a car and stuff like that and you can't go grocery shopping. You get on weird food rhythms in terms of like, yeah. I'm not able to, I don't know where to, like, sometimes you'll find like, oh, I'm hungry and I didn't deal with it. Yeah. And it was like late I was like snackish and I was like, I'm like peckish. I want like a snack. Yeah. And yep. I was, I didn't want to take food from them, but I like looked in the fridge. I, I got like I had bought a seltzer. I had a seltzer. And then I noticed there were these Reese's peanut butter chips. Right. I was like, ah, what are these? I thought, ah, I'll take a couple. Just I'll take like a couple. So I took a couple of these. 
I was like, oh, these are good. These aren't like eating chocolate chips. These like, it's like peanut butter candy. Right. It's like, I'm going to take a few more. Just a few more. It's like late. I'm like, ah, those are good. Like, ah, take a few. Ah, shit. And I looked around and I was, I've made a noticeable difference. And I was like, well, all right. I've already like, it was like the moment in heat when, uh, when Al Pacino points out that it's like, once they, once they upped it to a, once they were on the hook for one homicide, they did not hesitate. Boom, 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 to take out the rest of the crew. And I always remember that logic of like, in the robbery at the beginning, once right. the one, once Wayne Grove goes crazy and kills one person, De Niro's character, and then they instantly know we have right. to kill all of the cops so that there's no witness because it won't make any difference. If we get caught for this, we're down for a murder anyway. So it doesn't right. matter if it's a quadruple homicide. So I had that feel. I had that immediate thought. Was once I realized I'd eaten too many of the peanut butter chips, I was like, "These are mine now. I, it doesn't matter. Like I'll eat as many as I want." Yeah. And I'll just and I was like, "I'll just replace them. I'll go buy another bag at the grocery store tomorrow." So the next day, I'm talking to Will and. I was like, oh, by the way, because this was all happening like a late night yeah. raccoon fever, kind of. Uh, and next day I was like, um, hey, Will, uh, you know those uh, Reese's peanut butter chips that are in the fridge? He's like, yeah. I was like, um, are those yours or Phil's? He goes, they're Phil's. I went, okay. I, I ate them all. And, and uh, I said, I just want to know. I, I'll, I'm going to replace them. So then... I bought. I went to the, I went to the Albertsons. And I bought another bag of these, and I brought them back, and put them in the fridge. And I'm like, "All right, now I've replaced the bag." And I was like, "Oh, I mean, it was only half a bag." <laughs> so, so I was like, "I can eat some of these because I'm only replacing half a bag." Connor, this is such weird behavior. But it was just like I didn't have any snacks, and I didn't buy. But you didn't think to, to just buy another bag for you. One no, because I didn't buy them thinking that I was going to be in the same place. Once I was back in that kitchen, it sort of put me back the in The lack of foresight. It sort of put me back in that same position of like, last time I was standing here, I ate a bunch of those, these peanut butter chips and it was yeah. satisfying. And I was like, you know, I'm really only replacing half the bag. Right. So I can eat some of these. Yeah. Uh, so that was my peanut butter chip. Did Phil ever notice? I told him about it and he was like, oh, you didn't need to do that. Like I, I wasn't going to eat those. Any, like I was done with those. Uh, I was like, I've had, I've had this a while. Like, uh, you didn't need. I was like, no, no, I wanted to replace them. But I said, also, full disclosure, it's back down significantly from what I actually replaced <laughs> them with. Um, but it's more, it's more than you had, but it's less than I brought in. That's so funny. Now, what was your story of being at Phil's? Um, well, Justin McElroy is saying he wants to. Lay down some twelve-hour day with us, real quick. Right now? Yeah. Where at? I don't know. All right. Would we leave here? No. He's in West Virginia. Oh. So oh. via. Yeah. All right. He's a listener, and star of CISO presents My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Which is also on my list of, of TV things that I need to watch. Oh, yeah. Don't worry about that. But I want to. Everything I've read about it sounds great. It's a great show. The best show. It's a wonderful show. It's...
Oh boy. And then I'll tell you about my story about the Oscars. Oh, yeah? The person who you're trying to reach is currently unavailable. That's. Uh, oh, what what platform is that? What I'm doing? Yeah. Uh, Instagram stories. I just started playing with that. I'll it's only, it's. I'll, uh, I'll only post the smallest, tiniest thing because it makes me so nervous. But they go away. I know, but it still makes me nervous. I didn't understand Snapchat, but I understand this. I don't like it. What about it? It does the deleting for you. Is that what you don't like? Well, no, I I do like it. Something about it just feels weirdly permanent, impermanent. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like I could accidentally post something on there, which is right. what I don't like. Yeah. yeah. Oh. That makes perfect sense. Oops, wait, this is... What's happening? It's J-Town. You want to know it's great? How's it going? Justin McElroy. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? Well, I'm able thanks to, for having me. I'm able to record this Skype call because of technology that I downloaded my computer for our show. For what show? Your show. Our my show. show. My show. Your show. Justin's okay. show. Justin, have you, ever met, have you and Connor ever met? No, not properly. Hi, Connor. Hi. Can you see our video? You don't have to show your video. Yeah. Can yeah. Hold on. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. What a great microphone. Thanks. Uh, thank you. I buy a lot of microphones. Uh, is this the show? This is the show. I mean, you're in the last hour and a half. How long do How long do you guys get into the show before you forget the show? Is there and has that never changed over the run of the series? I will say about four hours in is when I fully forget. <coughs> and I don't know. I think I, it varies for me. I'm always surprised when I forget or I, when I have the moment where I realize, oh, we're still, this is still recording. Uh, it's a very strange phenomenon because I never believe that whenever people talk about, even though I know it's true, when people talk about how you forget that like a documentary crew is around or something. It always seems like, no, you'd always, but with this, it's very easy to forget, and then, but I still can't believe that we, I forget, because mm. it's the whole purpose of the day. Um, I, would, I would not be good at this format, because I think I would try to subvert it all the time. I would be trying to, like, come up with other podcasts to do within the podcast, and well, you guys just have buckle down and commit to the bit. Well, there is this sort of, like, meta element especially when we start off where it's like you want to engage with the audience 
and you want to have this sort of meta thing where you're like, all right, tweet this, and this is the part of the podcast where this, and it's like making fun of the fact that it's so long. But you reach a certain amount of time with no response back from the world that you have no choice but to just interact with each other. Yeah, right. And then you forget about it, and then you start talking about something you get pretty worked up about, and then you forget. That's one of my favorite parts. Like the you, you've listened to in episode one. You've listened to is, episode one, right? Y'all trying to set a password for your Twitter account because <laughs> like you have this existential discussion. But like we probably could say it at this point. We were probably fine to just say what the password is out loud. Um, no one's made it this far. Um, yeah, of course. Well, we had a couple of things today where we were talking about stuff, and we're like, uh, let's save that for like six or seven hours in. We can talk about that then. But <laughs> right now, we're st- we've still got some hangers on that are an hour in, and they can muster it, but th- they're not real fans. You have like milestones, like like set events. That you- I would see. I would try to book it like that. That would be my problem. I'd be like, well, at nine o'clock, we got the trapeze people, right? So we gotta leave room for them. Or it's like. All right, six hours in, we're going to give you this juicy story. Seven hours in, we're going to reveal this one new thing. We've done that before where we've, had a, a, we've announced that something's going to happen in an early part of the podcast. <laughs> and then we've had people cancel. Like, it's a, it's a long enough show that you can have people who agree to be on the podcast who then cancel the several of- hours in. <laughs> so you, you ex- the listener experiences the moment that we find out, like, oh, it looks like they're not going to get back to us. Oh yeah, we had we had one episode, or, or you can do the inverse, where you can be in your episode and decide if you want to have a guest, and you have enough time to book them, to book them, and then have it like figure out scheduling and then go to them, which yeah. is a rare a rare treat. Um, this is so surreal for me, JD, because in September we filmed our TV show here in Huntington, and that was me very much sort of wandering into your domain, and yes. now here the tables have turned and you have found yourself here in my realm where are you, i'm the king basically you, the king of podcasting i was gonna say and are you saying you're podcast for, king you've come to me for feedback and um my first note is i think 12 hours is too long for a single episode it's asking a lot well most of, of our episodes go, uh, most of our episodes have run longer so th- <laughs> th- our average is like 12 and a half 13 hours uh, and that's not I think my I design. I remember getting to, to twelve in the first episode and seeing like thirteen more minutes and just out, I, out loud said, "You're fucking kidding me!" <laughs> like you really no countdown. <laughs> like I wanted like the ten, nine, yeah. eight recording ends over. What's our longest episode? I think we went like twelve twenty-five in an episode. We didn't go thirteen. We've gone thirteen. I can pull it up right here and check. Yeah. Um. Well, the problem is, just that you get to the flow of things, as you know. Sure, right. And then it's just like, well, why? Um, this is not going to tell me. Um, I'll have to go to iTunes. Well, at that point, you're in the position of, can, can we find 13 minutes of fat to trim somewhere in this baby? No, <laughs> no. It's, no. It's too no tight. Way. Well, there's also this insane <laughs> thing where it's like Connor and I will be recording, and then... We'll reach 12 hours, and Connor will leave, and then I'm sitting there, and I still have 30 minutes to get back to my apartment on the train. And it seems stupid to be like, 
Welp, it's over. I'll sit silently with all this audio equipment attached to me. It's like, well, might as well just keep it going. Y'all doing two lobs this time? Yeah, I bought a new lob and a new recorder. Because we had, when we... What are you using? Um, I, have, I, always, I use Sony's for my lobs. Sennheiser are more expensive. And I I personally... Oh, yeah, 1316. This is fun. Our, our longest episode is episode six, which was uh, 13 hours and 16 minutes. And our shortest episode is 12 hours and one minute. <laughs> so we've never done an episode that was 12 hours long. Exactly. We Our shortest episode was one minute long. And that was last 13, episode. 16. Guys, that's like your show and five 99% Invisibles after <laughs> it. It's like tacked onto the end. And... <laughs> and the I would say the average that we've run over has been fifteen to fifteen to thirty minutes over. Yeah. Have you ever had a moment of panic while you're recording twelve hour day? This would happen to me, I think, where you're like three or four hours in, and the thought occurs to you like, I really don't want to fucking be doing this today. I really actually have decided I don't want to do this today. Yes, episode three or four, the one we were at the Gethard Show studio where I kept taking business calls, and I went and took naps. <laughs> that wasn't episode three or four. That was like two episodes ago. No, that was like, maybe that was episode seven or something. The one at the new Gethard Show Studios, no, uh, where you lied to me. No, it was at the old Gethard Show Studios. It was underground. There was another one where you lied to me, and, it was, and I had to do, I had to cover for three hours. Three hours? No, that was did. at the edit. That was editing. At the edit. You didn't take a nap? No, because that was the edit. I was not you were so, editing the episode. I had to just call people on the phone for three hours. And... <laughs> but there was one episode where I was not in the mood and was very tired. And we'd shot it at the Gethard Show Season 1 offices. And I kept having to take work calls. And instead, I would go and take like a 10 minute nap. Just Those because great. I, needed to, I needed to figure it out. I saw this thing, JD, that I thought you'd appreciate. I'm reading this book called The Four Hour Buddy. Tim Ferriss, you know, the four hour work week dude? My yeah. dad likes this. And, um, yeah, the diet in it is, uh, is what I've mainly been paying attention to, but he's got a section on polyphasic sleep, which I tried to get into once, but I feel like you have the constitution that could do polyphasic sleep. I feel like you are the sort that could do it. Well, if anybody can, I feel like you could, JD. But have we ever talked about, I feel like I've shared my, when I lost the ability to fall asleep because I got into deep on some sleep stuff. And then I got prescribed Ambien and then went buck wild and almost jumped from the top of a subway tower in the middle of Manhattan. Well, I'm going to retract my previous <laughs> uh, statement. You could probably stick with monophasic sleep. It seems to be working fine for you. I uh, let's see, just go with that. It sounds better. I've done something similar, but it, was, it did not fit well. I had to do a graveyard shift. Have you ever done a graveyard shift at a job? I I did like when I was working at Borders, I'd had like the five AM shift. That's hey. You guys need to talk Barnes and Noble Borders. Uh oh, we got two did enemies you think, in the house. Uh, Connor, did you think we'll get back to your thing in a sec, J D, but Connor, did you, I don't know what like area or thing you worked in, but like did you ever have a moment where you're working at a bookstore where you're like, I have aspirations for things other than this, but I kinda wish I didn't because this is pretty 
like I could get into this if I didn't have to, if I didn't want to do other things I could get into this. Yeah, I mean I worked at Barnes and Noble Union Square for uh, thirteen years. Right on. And most of the time, the reason that I the reason I was able to work there that long was because uh, for most of the time that I worked there, I kind of could I would work hard, but I didn't have people really telling me what to do. Right. Like, I got so much work done that I didn't really deal with managers being like, Connor, you need to do this. Because it was so apparent that I was keep the sections that I ran, I was keeping them so nice and I was so good with customers that there was never a reason for a manager to deal with me. You know, like, I just took care of it. And I would open in the morning, so the first few hours would be before the sh- store opened, I'd be sh- shelving. And I would listen to podcasts while I was doing that. So that kind of felt like I was getting a lot done for myself. Love and, that. And I love listen. that. And that then, early, nobody's there. Mm. And then when the store would open, it would really just be a few more hours. And there'd be one hour where I'd have to work the info desk. But I never had to use a cash register. And uh, that was actually one of my demands when I started working there was uh, I won't ever work a cash register. So I didn't train uh, for it. Oh, I loved working the info desk at Borders because there's like infinity books and there's like, you know, 20,000 or so at Borders. So if you come in looking for a book, statistically speaking, we don't have that. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, just like the odds against us having the book you're looking for are improbable. Like, almost certainly we don't have what you're looking well, for. Well, and I'll order it and you won't want to because you want it now. But bye, I guess. Well, the other, the thing that I found most frustrating was that, okay, there's. Uh, uh, a tremendous, uh, like as you said, infinity books. There's a tremendous amount of books both in print and out of print. And then there's the number of books that you can have even in like the Barnes & Noble Union Square is four stories. It's a huge store. But there's only so many books that you can fit in that store. Even beyond that, the number of customers who come in who are actually looking for books that do not exist. They are just coming in making a wish or often an assumption where they'll be like, uh, yeah, I'm looking for books about, like, do you have a book that's about, like, um, uh, all the time travel movies that were made in the 80s? <laughs> and... I'm reading like, the hell out of that. Like, like you say that? one that's just, like, the making of any, like, movies that have to do with time travel in the 80s. And you'd be like, is this a book that you know of? And they'd be like, no. I just, and you'd be like, oh, so you're just wishing. You're just making a wish. Well, um... There isn't a book like that. There could be some point, but there isn't now. At and, that and point, he's updating his propo- his book proposal, like, competition on market? Zero. Yeah. yeah. None. And the number of times, like, every one time someone got really mad that we didn't have a Canadian history section in the, in the history mm. section. And, uh, and I was like, no, we, we don't. If there's a particular book you're looking for, we can order it. I said, we have this graphic novel by Chester Brown about Louis Riel, but that's really the only thing we've got. And... <laughs> Um, and this person got furious with me and they were like, I can't believe you don't have a Canadian history section. And I was like, okay. I said, why don't you, why, why you have all these history sections and no Canadian history. I said, okay, well you're like, I've been working here at, at this point, like five or six years. I said, you're literally the first person who's ever asked me for one of these books. So I just want you to imagine a section full of books filled with Canadian history books and that for six years it sits untouched. Because no one ever comes in looking for it. And then you come in here after six years, and you're the first person, and you maybe buy one book. I was like, just imagine that, and then ask me again, 
why we don't have a Canadian history section. Um, were you working at Barnes & Noble as I was during the period where the managers running the numbers started to realize that no one was ever going to buy a book in a store again? Because that was a fun that was a fun period where like, what else do people like? Uh, Harry Potter jelly beans? I don't know. Let's try it. Please. They got to buy something. Well, the weird thing about our store is that we're, we're in a location in New York City where people still, even at the worst of it, people were still buying a lot of books. And the, but the key to it was you, we had to be, we had smart people working in the store who knew how to like stock the bookstore with things that would be like surprising. So like if all we had was like the latest Dan Brown books, people can order those and get them cheaper and they, you know, they come in and browse it and then they order on their phone. So in order to do well, you had to be a store that like a customer could come in, look at a table and be like, what's this? And maybe buy it right away because they're so excited by it. But in order to do that, you had to run it like an individual store and you had to run it like a smart New York City bookstore. Right. And none Which of is this... so rare at chains like that. Like it just, it's and basically like filling out planograms and... The system of the chain is designed to be like, you order in a book that they're not supposed to have. It sells a bunch of copies and then when you scan it, the computer says, beep, 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 return it. And then you're like, no, I'm not going to return it because we sold 10 copies of it this month. I'm going to keep all five copies because they'll sell out. And then the managers are like, why aren't you returning the do outs? They're like, well, because they're selling. Do you want us to return books that they're selling? And they'll be like, no, no, don't return them if they're selling. Okay, well, that's what I'm doing. But what about the do outs? I'm like, well, those are books that are selling. Well, then don't sell, don't return them if they're selling. It would just be this, it was like talking to a computer. It was like talking to the computer in war games, you know, where it's just like, uh, it couldn't process the, the cycle of contradiction of like, we have this book because it sells, but we're not supposed to have it. Return it. But it's selling. Oh, well, don't return it if it's, if it's selling. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, but if it's beeping, return it. Well, it's, right. you know, and you just, I, that's the reason I ultimately stopped working there was it got to a point where I was tired of having the same fights with people who were just trying to follow what the computer right. told them to do. And you're literally like, you don't realize that we're actually the ones saving this store. And you're actively yeah. working. Like I, they came up with a system at one point where they didn't want us to bring up the books until uh, the next morning. So we would get a book in, in at like noon and it would show up in our computer that we had it, but it would be in the basement. And <laughs> I got in trouble for bringing those books up and shelving them. They weren't new books. They were just like, we got it back in. But people yeah. were coming in. They're like, it says you have it. They're looking on their phone. It says you have it, but it's in the basement. And I was bringing those books up so they would find them and buy them. Right. And I had Good. manager, I got in trouble I got written up for bringing books up from the basement instead of waiting until the next day. That's ludicrous. So it was like I was getting in trouble for doing things that literally were – I could point to that it was actually just bringing money into the store. My my favorite uh, – <laughs> J.D., when Connor and I have been talking like this, I had the impulse like, man, I should really try to let J.D. get up in here. But then I realized this show is 12 fucking hours long. You've probably talked a little bit today. All right. You've probably got a few words in edgewise. Yeah, you you guys don't need to pass the ball on this at all. Um, uh, one that, of the but, things about the 12-hour podcast is that you revel in the moments where you don't have to speak. The um, My favorite thing about – like there's a lot of bananas things about working in books. But my favorite thing was the process of – and I don't know if yours was different, but for magazines – it's a really hilarious thing where when the new magazines come in, 
the proper procedure is you take the old magazines, you rip the front cover off uh-huh. so nobody can do anything with them. Yeah. And then you get rid of them. And it's this crazy, like, well, if they're not going to buy it, nobody's going to have it. Like, yeah. it only has worth because I didn't tear the cover. Like, it's 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 silly. It's like, so you really want me to destroy this because that's the only way this has this periodical has value is if at the end of this period it is destroyed. And it's, it's like a, it's, it's like the a magazine same with mass market paperbacks that you rip the cover yeah, off yeah, yeah. and they mail the cover back to the publisher to say we didn't sell the book, so give us some of the money back. But then the book itself. <laughs> Is destroyed. Like the, the, the thumb of your book. Yeah. You like cut it off, it's proof. Imagine how much that must hurt if you're an author that like walks into your publisher's office one day and you just see the like decapitated remains of the books that did not sell. Yeah. That would, that would you know stop anyone from writing. You know got a pile of those thrown in their face at one point like, you're going to up my advance for your next book. Oh, really? Yeah. Here's your last book. And the reason is because... Those books and those magazines are worth so little that it would be you would lose money shipping them back. Shipping them back. Right. So yeah. it's like we'll just destroy them. We promise not to sell the magazines with no. Co- That's why I used to say in the it still says in the books if you see someone selling this book without a cover, it's a stolen book that you're not allowed to sell. That's we live in a sick. Would you sick think world. like to donate? I mean, it's like. One of the worst, like worst examples, like oh, sometimes capitalism isn't great. Like you, you could, you can't even donate it. Like you just have to take it at face value that they destroyed it. Now, was Borders membership was free, right? Yeah, there was a hard push towards that club, but uh, what did you have to say? A... To, how sell me on the Borders membership? Why is it so good? Well, I tell you, just so you know, Justin Con- Connor, this... I see you in here a lot. So I know that, uh, uh, you know, just today with these books you're buying, I mean, you're going to save more than it costs and you're going to get a magazine subscription and you're going to get like great deals in our, our cafe. Um, and, uh, how much is it? Is it free? It's free, Connor. And you get this little keychain that you put on your thing. Please. It would also really help me out with my bosses. They, they pay really close attention. Oh, okay. To okay. Hold on. If you don't want, I got a bunch of books back here without covers. <laughs> I can just let <laughs> can you, I, if I'm a member, can I get some of those coverless books or some <laughs> of the, <laughs> those magazines, no covers? Um, um, actually, now I think about it, I think it was like, I think there was like a 10 buck, 10 bucks. Yeah, that sounds about right. Like a 10 buck sort of yearly thing. Wait, hold on. I, if I don't have a lot of money, am I, do I really need to buy this? Do you really need to buy books? I mean, there's a library downtown. There's several around. Would you get here. in trouble You've for mentioning the, the library? Yeah. <laughs> we had to pretend it didn't exist. Actually, it's it's hard for me to keep this straight because I worked at, I had like 40 jobs before I got into journalism. I worked at five places at our mall, like at the mall. Name I worked them. at Borders, the first Borders, Bo- Borders Blockbuster, Babbage's, Best Buy. And Toys R Us. Oh wow! I was and, and I was a sh- I was a line chef at Olive Garden. I was say Olive Garden. Yeah, I worked. At, when, I worked at Sam Goody. So did Goody's got it. Yeah. So did you say Goody's got it? Goody's got it. <laughs> you yeah. said it as if it was like uh, a reflex, like a traumatic reflex. Goody's got it. <laughs> the, the first time that I was in Huntington, which is where Justin is from, you, you drove me to the mall, and I did not realize that as you drove, you were like, work there. Worked there, got fired from there. That's the Olive Garden. Like it was all like right there in your face in a way that 
I feel like normally those jobs aren't within walking distance of one another. Would you yeah, just lose a job and walk next door? Pretty much. I just like the mall, honestly. Like, so I, I ended up working nice up there one. a lot. There's also not a lot in other places uh, around. It's like more scattered. All of like the retail is like a little more spread out. Um, so all the cool places are at the mall, I guess. Cool for a teenager. I at at Barnes and Noble, I never in 13 years I never sold a membership. Um, and that's hard to do because they, it's all they care about. For a year at Best Buy, the thing was Netflix. And what sucks is I worked, it was when Netflix was hard. Now you go to someone and be like, hey, Netflix? And they're like, yeah, absolutely, for yeah. sure, no problem. But back then it was like, you sit disc, just like, purely disc based and it was kind of a harder it's a harder sell my first netflix i got the disc thing and i rented the year of yao the documentary about yao ming's first year in the nba and i had that disc for i kid you not six or seven years i moved and i brought it with me until i finally canceled my netflix disc membership and mailed it back and i think i probably spent $400 $400 total <laughs> on that disc of that, that case. Were you getting disc. other discs at, nope. too? Um, nope. Just one, that one disc. One disc at a time? Wow. Just mine that was disc. Lu- mine was lucky number 11. <laughs> 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 I had it. I just always think like, someday I'm going to want to watch that. I'm going to let it stick around a little bit longer. <laughs> I had the exact same thing. Yeah. I, um, I just canceled my disc subscription. Um, so really? stuff you can't get streaming. Yeah. yeah. But I was, like, but I was, I would have discs for way too long and then I would get to the point where I'd be like, I can't find it. And I just say, I mailed it back. Did you get it? You guys didn't. Because uh, even if they looked at the number, they'd be like, well, he had this DVD for six months. Yeah. He paid for it. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Actually. I never really thought about it that way. I always thought I was getting away with a pretty good con when I would try that. Um, there's a lot of oddball documentaries and stuff you, you, can't get on the streaming and then they'll just pull stuff like they just pulled all of Ally McBeal my wife loves watching Ally McBeal they just pulled all of it and all of Buffy and all of they pulled everything uh, today and it makes me feel like it must be an April Fool's Day prank they pulled the first three seasons of Arrested Development which is crazy because they have an investment in that well made it the rest of it I so there's I think there's a bunch of things going on there's a new WGA negotiation going on right right now that contract goes up at the end of next month, and there's all, they have certain renewal cycles. So I have a feeling those are probably tied together because residuals for right. streaming is a big part of it. Right. So I have a feeling a lot of the big network shows are being pulled in part of that contract. I mean, you're Jason. Uh, Jay, hey, Jason, uh, you've been getting the uh, the front row seat to the wheeling dealing world of uh, content licensing and. Uh, Market availability yeah. of content. Yeah. Um, Imagine having a show like Ally McBeal and trying to figure out how and when it can be available to who. Like, and a lot of pre- music, and a lot of music rights to that. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's all Vonda Shepard though, right? You write her one check, you're good. <laughs> well, it must be pretty sweet to be Peter McNichol and just every once in a while an Ally McBeal check shows up. But yeah. that goes down real smooth if you're Peter McNichol. Yeah. Yeah. It's like us. Oh, oh yeah, nice. I was on that. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, it was fun. I just remembered something tying into the idea of the video uh, video return rentals, and this kind of demonstrates the way that systems evolve. Uh, is that my friend Jeff Falzone, he used to be... He had video fines at every video rental place in town, and he never once ever paid a fine because he... Uh, what he would do is we would go to rent a movie at some place and we'd bring a, the video up to the desk and he'd go to rent it and they'd be like, oh, uh, I see you have a fine for, you know, $20 or whatever. And he'd be like, oh, God, I don't have it. I guess I'll just go rent a movie somewhere else. And they would go, eh, it's fine. And they would wipe away the fine because they, would wanna, they wouldn't want right. to lose the immediate. He's like, I could either rent this now or... And so he never paid a fine because he, they would always not be able... They would not want to lose a customer... Right. So they would just yeah. erase the debt. There, that was standard and operating practice. Then, when he got Netflix, there was a point where he had a disc, and he kept it for years. And I was like, Jeff, mail it back. It's been like two years. And he realized that like the system had adapted to the point where, <laughs> keep, yeah. the, keep the video as long as you want. You're paying every month. We just take the money <laughs> from your bank account. And he's like, yeah, yeah. It felt like the 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 pesticide had finally worked, yeah. or like a new predator had come into town that just feed off of him. Okay, there this wild thing happened in our town. We had Video Adventure was the place where we always went one town over. In our town, we had a blockbuster, and then we had this place like oh man, it was called like Video Escape or something like that. But it was the bigger one. It had more variety of good stuff. One night, I kid you not, like as if. A wizard had spirited away, or like mob bosses were like, "You have three hours to get this out." It disappeared overnight. The next day, my family and all the families in the town went back to put their videos in the slot. And the store was empty, and there was a pot. And this is the funny thing: is there was a pile of videos on the other side of the locked door, where people still returned. Their movies to this empty Somebody store. Somebody come to get these, right? I know. Well, it's not mine. This I... just being like, listen, I'm doing, I'm doing right by God right now. I'm gonna put this <laughs> VHS of Gremlins two back through the slot. Uh, when uh, I worked at Blockbuster the second time, I got pretty cavalier with late fees. The faded second time. You, you know, this is in our TV show, I know, but it's... Uh, not full detail. Uh, I, what I, the scam I started doing was. I would the system they wanted you to get rid of late fees, right? Yeah. So like every but every employee had the ability to just like wipe late fees because they don't care, especially if they're gonna lose a customer. But the way the POS system worked, the basically like re- late fees would register in the system the same way as like purchasing items would. So like if you sell a, a movie to someone, it's just like a debit on their account the same way that like a late fee would appear. So you had the ability to like put down somebody's account and then wipe it off. Right. So I did that with a lot of candy. First. <laughs> a lot of candy. We actually created a fake dude named Ash Heston, who was a fake person. Justin. And and he was the one who was like buying all these movies and like you there, unless you audited, there was no way. And then wait, the, so it, so was the implication that Ash Heston was renting candy? And not returning it, and you would absolve him of his his fine. Exactly. No. Yeah. Basically, the, the idea was that no one was ever going to check because it was blockbuster. Um, so, like, the, an auditor but, would look at it and be like, 
he would look as if candy was returned. I mean, I was in my like late teens. If an auditor looked at it, I would have been instantly fired, which is pretty <laughs> close to what happened. I like to. Uh, I had a um, I had a cop. I got too brazen, and there was a DVD of Fight Club, and I sold it to Ash Heston's account, and but it was the copy that my boss, who owned the place, had special ordered into into the store just for him. So when it went missing, he defo knew. That it was like the 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 it was. I'm gonna kill Ash Heston. That was foul play. I'm gonna get that Ash Heston. Um, and I remember when I got fired. Um, because it's the only time I ever gotten fired. My my manager, who was a cool guy, and I don't begrudge him. I was stealing a lot of stuff. He put his hand on my shoulder in a very patronly way and said, "Justin, the war against Blockbuster is over." <laughs> It sounds about right. I guess I guess we've had a lot of fun here, but I guess it's time to move on. I also like to imagine that like at Blockbuster HQ they're like, All right, so we're gonna determine if Blockbuster's gonna stay open another year or so. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to do a vertical slice analysis. We're going to pick a representative store and determine whether or not this is going to show that the rest of the nation can stay. Uh, let's pick, right. uh, let's see, Blockbuster, Huntington, West Virginia, a nice, wholesome Midwestern town. And, and then hey, look at all the numbers. They're like, listen, there's Ash Hestons all across the nation that are renting candy and not returning it, renting videos and not returning it. Yeah, Take it, commandeering special orders. Yeah, How com- are they even doing this? Ash has a man on the inside. That much we know. And they're like, if there's one Ash Heston, there's millions of Ash Hestons. Black, we have to go down before Ash takes us out. And they're like, there's the Ash Heston protocol. <laughs> um, all right, guys. I have to bounce. This has been a joy. For real. It's very nice to meet you. Yeah, it's very nice to meet you too, Connor. Um... I guess this is where I should do some of my plugs. Uh, yeah, get your plugs in. <laughs> get your plugs in for your much more popular podcasts and projects. Uh, that was that was more reference to how long the show is, and like it seems very odd to like plug something at hour eleven or yeah. where are we now? We're well, here's the eleventh hour. Here's but, what here's what we. But can people offer. probably listen as much to the end of it as they do the rest of it. I'm sure. Like, why would they listen to? And here's what we can offer, and it's something that you get with your fans, anyways. But our fans are special. Is that you can make requests, and our fans will fulfill them, even if it's something as simple as sending a, a tweet or finding something. We have a small, dedicated group, but they are good at what they do. Is there a question you want answered? Or just even um, just something you want tweeted at yourself, at your leisure? I think I would like everybody to just tweet at CISO, at CISO TV that they want to see season two of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, so Justin and JD get to hang out more. That's a fair as a fair request. Wow. Yeah, I think that's that would be the least they, the least they could do, at the yeah. very least. Yeah, I and I want Connor it. on season two, and I want you guys to do a twelve-hour day in Huntington, completely new town, exploring it. What's over here? I don't know. What's over there? I don't know either. I'm new. I'm new here. Twelve-hour day. We're new here. Twelve-hour day. Special season two. We're new here. JD and Connor. <laughs> Justin, thank you for being on the podcast. It's it's my my pleasure. Say hi to Sydney. Yeah, we'll do. Bye. 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 That was a nice little nice. Uh, booster of uh Yeah. I'm gonna export that.
How often do you ride your bike, JD? Not often. Not in a while. Uh, because it's a bike that I care about, that uh -huh. one. And I get worried that if I take it out, it will be stolen. Ah. Because it's nice. It is. It's flashy. 12-hour day. Episode 13. Mm, boom, 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 boom. Um, for the longest time. What else do we need to get in here? In these final moments. In these final moments. Training for acupuncture. I think it would help. <coughs> Emma Phipps asks how to bow can be more edgy. <clears throat> Man, this has been... This has been what? This has been what? This has been nice. I um, like this episode. You know how usually I don't like the episodes? Yeah. Oh. I like this episode. How do you spell Justin's name? M-C-E-L-R-O-Y. McElroy. M-C-C-E-L-R-O-Y? Nope, just one C. Okay. One C, big E. Why are you... Just going to tag him in the tiny background of this photo on Instagram. Oh, great. We don't have an Instagram, do we? No, we should, shouldn't we? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, maybe. For the longest time. Um... Well, maybe it's a bad sign that you like the episode so much. Maybe this is the worst episode of all time. And, and your barometer is a perfect reverse uh, indicator. Yeah. You want to put in one of these Saturday morning cartoon shows? Yeah, sure. Which one? I don't even know what's on them. They're, they're literally from a set of random shows. Like a, 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 a thing that I opened up and I was like, what is this? I, I've, I bought it. Knowing that it's like a lineup from, this will be from before you were born and when I was actively watching shows. Okay, Connor. What do you mean? Don't try to rub in your age. I'm, what I'm saying is I've been around the block, JD. This is typical Connor BS. Trying to make me feel bad. Trying to make just you... Just pop it in. Really? Yeah, I don't know. I was... It does it... Is it a feeder? Yeah. All right. It just takes it in. I hope I chose wisely of the two discs. You don't know what the shows are. I don't know. I know Mr. T was on the cover of it. I know that Ed Grimley was one of the options on here. From when, from when um, there was an animated show, The Totally Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley. It was Martin Short and a bunch of SCTV people doing the voices. We need big laughs in this final hour. Yeah, I mean, big laughs, but also, who knows? Big laughs and high-flying action. Big laughs? High flying action. BL plus 
HFA. HFA. You know what? Five years in federal prison if you copy this DVD. Do not copy, do distribute, not copy. or publicly exhibit do not. movies. Oh my God, and other we program. are going <laughs> to. We're uploading down. I mean, we're. We're already violating We're violating by, this. Just by having the audio in the background. I think this is a good test case for. Well, we'll mute it so we don't intend for the audio to leak onto this. That's not our intent. All right, Warner Brothers is promoting stuff on the front of this. Okay, how do I get past this? Just go past these menus. There's some sort of Peanuts promo. What is this? Portions of the original film on certain... From certain programs contained herein no longer survive in pristine condition. Ooh, I like that. Archival as elements. As a result, archival elements of varying quality have been carefully assembled to provide you with as close an approximation. Wait, what? So what it's saying is that certain elements of the cartoons we're watching are no longer available. So they just pulled random shit that they thought was close. Well, no, what they're saying is that certain parts of it are trying to do their best. And it's not random shit. They've carefully assembled it. All right, let's see. Can we just play and see what happens? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Connor. Connor. What did you spend money on? <laughs> just hit play. We don't even need to see what the episodes are. <laughs> Goldie Gold, the world's richest girl. Her spraying a dinosaur. <laughs> Her winking to a handsome man. Please direct a live-action reboot of this. <laughs> it was just like some sort of Aztec statue that pounded its fists in anger. So Goldie Gold is a hot girl with money. The, and the cartoon journalist, show. And the journalist who works for her newspaper, the Gold Street Journal. The Knight of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Will you like this more than the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? We're seeing the Top of the buildings. We pass by the Gold Street Journal. Already, they've brought it, brought in the theme music. Goldie flies around in a helicopter with her big dog. Nugget is the name of her dog. She is the world's richest girl. Seems like a grown woman. Yeah. And she flies around with Action Jack, a grown man journalist. Their relationship is not sexual. I say it is, but then again, I'm a shipper. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. There's some Aztecs. troubling-looking villains. It's, some, like, old... It's, like, a, it's a mix and match of... of like, um, Mayan, Aztec... Uh, Native American... They just hid from the helicopter. They're sneaking over the wall of her property. It's white men dressed in yeah. a mix and match of non-American... There's some sort of big elite event happening. There's uh, people from all over the world. Travis, 
Uh, Goldie's late to her ball. She flew the helicopter into the uh, ballroom. And everyone's waving. Seems dangerous. She operated the helicopter herself. Nugget just tripped Action Jack. All right. Now the... She's flirting pretty heavily. He's mansplaining what she's supposed to do. And... Oh, no. So that person took out a skull pipe and started smoking purple gas into the... And now the generic eth- religious ethnicity, quote-unquote, natives are running away. Goldie's jumped into her helicopter. Action Jack warned her that she couldn't chase after them indoors with a helicopter. Action Jack jumped onto the helicopter. Oh, they're getting away. Action Jack is backseat driving. There's a man driving. driving. (laughs) There's a man with a mustache driving a A golf cart with a giant cake. He's now being apprehended by. Oh, he was thrown into his own cake. I can't believe that they're evading this helicopter on foot. These are also the biggest doors. It's maybe implying that they're like 100 foot doors everywhere in the building. Yeah. Now it's a chasing between these tribal captors in a golf cart. Action Jack was thrown from the their cart. Into what seems like the Washington Mall. Oh. Uh, they just tried to murder Goldie Gold. They threw a skull, of course. A tiny skull. Rotors of her helicopter. Oh, man. Now, their plan is to get away on foot, which means they had to climb over the 100 foot wall outside. Ugh, typical journalist. Looking for a lead. His answer to this was to go back to the newspaper's office and look for a lead. Because everyone knows that's where you find, as an investigative reporter, the best leads can be found back at the... Oh, no. (laughs) The tribal gentlemen are bowing to their leader. Who seems to have a crystal skull for a head, right? Yeah. Okay. The warriors have taken their pipes out again. All right, do you want to stick with Goldie or see what's next? Um, let's go until we feel there's a commercial break. Okay. 
I mean, Goldie Gold has a lot of pluck. She just jumped out the window chasing after the Aztec man. Um, Connor keeps saying Aztec, but they're not, they're not traditionally Aztec. What do you think they're supposed to be? I think they are honestly just like a collage of tribal reappropriations. I will say that so far... You're going to say so far it's pretty good that she's the hero and he Yeah, so far Action Jack from the opening credits of this my assumption was that Action Jack would be the hero. But so far she's been more capable and he's been kind of like a uh, like Shaggy from Scooby Doo as a journalist. Right? Yeah. Inca. Inca. I was close. We're talking to a hobo now, who I believe his name was Hobo Joe. Can't tell if Hobo Joe is good or bad. Um, yeah, we can skip ahead. I don't think I can make it to a commercial break. Let's see what's next. The, the the car ended up under the sea. And she's passed out. Uh uh-uh. uh. Okay. Hmm. Does the credits of this I take it? Yeah. Alright, let's see what's next. Cartoon starring Chuck Norris as a karate commando. Starts with live, live action, action bumpers. I've checked Norris in a gym. Pretty shabby little gym. I think that was his home. What? I think they shot that in his home. Yeah, it looked like a home gym. I like when something like this kind of feels like it was pitched to him and it would be like very little involvement. Yeah. Like, we're going to have you fighting. You'll be a karate master and we'll have you fighting. We'll just film like all the bumpers in one day. A sumo guy, a karate guy, yeah. you have a little Asian right. boy. Yeah. 
Do you want to watch this? Or no, I feel like we know exactly what this will be, right? Exactly. I feel like this will just be a more offensive version of Goldie Gold. A less progressive Goldie Gold. It's the same people who made this. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. There's a house style. This is Ed Grimley. Oh, yeah. This is a cool opening. Yeah. Definitely some Pee Wee vibes here. Yeah. Um, you know, it was like Catherine O'Hara. Various other SCTV people were voices on this. This is weird. It's very weird. This is very strange. The animation is not good. No. Like the lip sync yeah. and the characterization is totally off from the voices. Yeah. Well, and the mood of it is very frantic. Everything's too fast and too cluttered. But the voices. Yeah. The voice is like very naturalistic and the animation is trying to make it seem like like these fun goofy things are happening. Yeah. This is bizarre. 
Stick with it or skip? Skip in a second. The interesting thing about animation from this era is that a few years later, like this is this animation is not good, but it's trying to be. It's more ambitious than the previous two shows that are kind of like right. yeah. stock. Um, oh, um, actually, uh, this is trying to be what like a few years later would become like Simpsons animation. Yes, it's trying to be a little bit more underground, a little bit more. Weird. Yes. But it's caught in a Yeah. It's they haven't it's not yet easy enough to do this on this kind of budget, you know? Um and probably it's producers and directors and staff that are just trying to knock out the next Yeah. Saturday morning cartoon. Like th- what this reminds me of a little bit is on the on the season one Simpsons DVD, they have a alternate take of what was going to be the first episode where the animation came back and it was so off model and it was so crazy that the show almost didn't get made like they had such they had, right like because the, they send off the animation and it came back from like Korea and it was just berserk right here's what I'd like to try doing try visually fast forwarding to see if I believe there's a live action um, Joe Flaherty segment in each episode of the show where he plays Count Floyd Oh, and I'm see. curious if that is any good or not. Oh, this is like a sub segment that they have. It's a lot of weird dead air in this show. Yeah. See if there's a live action segment. See if it is as awkward as the other segments. Um, like you know what makes me wonder about seeing this because I remember watching this and wanting to like it, but never being able to get on board with yeah. it. Kind of like as I okay here we have. Oh, that's cool. They have a live action set that looks animated.
One of the best jokes in SCTV was that there was it was all the set at this low budget TV right. station, and was that they never articulated it. But there was Count Floyd doing these like really cheap low budget midnight right. movies. But then there was the SCTV News in which one of the the newscasters was Floyd something I can't remember what the last yeah. name was. But it was clearly the implication was that this news reporter had to double as being the monster movie person at night. Right. And they never addressed it overtly, I don't think. It was just like a, like a subtle thing that people would just like, oh, it's funny that this guy has one persona as the news and clearly also has to do this thing. Well, that, I believe, is based on, in Chicago, we had Sven Gulli, yes, who's been around for years. And both Sven Gulli and his son yeah. would do other shows on WGN. Yeah. So, like... Rich Kaz is Sven Gulli. Yeah. But he also hosts the Three Stooges. Yeah. So you'd be like, welcome to the three. And it's like, you look at me like, isn't that Sven Gulli? It looks yeah. like Sven Gulli. Well, it was like my dad was the weatherman and also hosted the kids' show. Right. So it was like, just like, that's the way you staff yeah. the station. All right. I think I'm good with moving on to the next. Yeah. My curiosity is sated. I'm curious to see what's next. And that was the Hanna Barbera show. Yeah. And I believe one of the names of, I just saw in there was Scott Shaw, who was... Oh, hold on. What is this? This is a Flintstones spinoff. I think it's Flintstones Babies, maybe. Flintstone the Flintstone kids. kids. This is probably post-Muppet Babies, I'm guessing. Yes. Whoa, wait. It's Captain Caveman. Wait, who's Captain Caveman? Captain Caveman was a Hanna-Barbera character. He was not directly part of the Flintstones universe, but they've obviously looped him in for this. Right. I don't know Captain Caveman. Isn't that... There's the brothers from Wacky Races that are cavemen. Captain Caveman might have been on Wacky Races. Okay. We gotta figure out the timeline of Captain Caveman. The what? The timing? The timeline. Timeline, yeah. Was Wacky Races first? Because I, mean, I love Captain Wacky Caveman. Races. I loved Captain Caveman, but I think he was he existed before Wacky Races. I think. You might be right. But he's clearly. The... I mean, the interesting thing about the Flintstones. Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels. Yeah. When was that? Okay. September 77 to June. Duh. Broadcast history. It's broadcast in the following format. Scooby-Doo's All-Star Laugh Olympics. Scooby-Doo All-Stars. Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels. Later appearances. Flintstones Comedy Show, other appearances. A very similar pair of characters, the Slag Brothers, made an appearance in the earlier Haney Barbera series, Wacky Races. Oh. So I have a feeling they were in Wacky Races and they were like, Yeah. They could be a, they could be Captain they could be a thing. Did they mention Flintstone Kids? Yes. 
Captain Caveman appeared in backups in a backup segment of the Flintstones Kids called Captain Caveman and Son. In this case, he appeared on the show within a show that the younger versions of Fred Barney, the Captain Cave, the captains mumbled "Ongo Bonga." <laughs> it became a catchphrase the kids would shout before watching each episode of the show. The show would involve a lesson the Flintstone kids were trying to learn in the prologue. The whole secret identity idea was also ignored or forgotten. I mean, this is unwatchable. Yeah, it's unwatchable. Let's move past it. Right, right, share. Okay. Yeah, we can't watch it. Dino's dilemmas. Jesus. So many segments in this. Still. Okay. Yeah. This is Mr. T, which I'm familiar with. In recent years, Adult Swim has done like spoof versions of this. Yes. Oops. It just looks like like Saturday TV Funhouse type. Some real uncanny valley stuff with both the model design and the movement. Yeah. A big trend of, of 70s and 80s Saturday morning cartoon shows was to have an animal that was like resembled the, you know, like. Yeah. The thing that would make it an animated show is that you'd have an animal that would have a lot of personality. Exactly. Ugh, is it exhausting? Oh my God. Can we skip ahead? Yeah. I mean, just, we're not going to make it. I can't even watch this show. Okay, good. Ugh. It's already bothering me. I mean, everything about these shows is kind of exhausting. And just. Hold on. I like to put this on my Instagram story. Yeah. We film the, this part for your Instagram yeah. story. I'll do it too. Hold on. Turn up that volume. Um. How do you do an Instagram story? Swipe. Swipe from the left to the right. Friends you already got might not be all the friends you ever need. 
And when you keep new people out, just because they're new to you, you're only cheating yourself. That's what Robin, Jeff, and Kim found out. So don't you ever write nobody off just because he's the new kid on the block. You'll never know what you might be missing until you get to know them. So take it from me. Um, that's good. That's good stuff. That's the best part of the show. That's the best part so of any of these shows. Ruby and Spears again. Yeah, it's the same people doing all these. I don't like Ruby and Spears. I don't like Ruby and Spears either. Please tweet that sentence, everyone. I don't like Ruby and Spears. And that was the whole disc. I mean, I can't imagine that the second disc is worth sampling at all. Special featurettes, Lords of Light, Thunder of the Barbarian, and Peanuts 1960s collection cha- trailer. I mean, we're going to watch that. Yeah. You. Hey, Linus, guess who's back? Hold on tight. For the decade that started it all, it's Peanuts 1960s collection on DVD. Listen, everybody, I've got great news. For the first time ever, all six remastered specials from the 1960s are together in one incredible collection. I own this. The funniest, the warmest, the most classic specials of all time. Featuring two We need to watch this. No. We don't need to. We're making the call. We don't need to watch this. You made the call? Alright, how do I get How do we get it out of there? Well, the one public service that this episode has offered is that no one needs to buy the DVD set of. Uh, Saturday morning cartoons from the 1980s. I know. I feel like we've done bad by the uh, by the listeners copyright laws. Oh, not only did we've we done buy- precisely what they don't want. Yeah, we we let people sample the audio and we actively sabotage potential. What's the other disc? Future sales. The other disc is just more spears and whatever. Do you want to dive in? I mean, you don't. I thought you wouldn't want to. No, I want to. I'm enjoying this. All right, but we're going to burn through these a lot faster than we did the first one because we've learned, we've learned what ultimately we're dealing with. <laughs> I mean, I think like, I don't think any episode is going to get this fair shake that Goldie Gold and no. uh, Action Jack is. Goldie Gold also, and Action Jack. especially because looking back, Goldie Gold and Action Jack was probably the best show on there. Yeah. Uh, and I don't say that lightly, folks. I think they did a good job. Yeah, I, I think that Chuck Norris and Mr. T, oh, five years in federal prison. Is this another five years? For this disc? Well, if we're already going for five years, let's just get our money's worth right now. Yeah, like uh, like in Heat. Once they knew they were in for five years, they did not hesitate to watch that second disc. Oh, yeah, what? Um, what do you think these are? It means that, like, the, the live-action shots, maybe they didn't have the perfect version, but they had, like, a lesser version or something. What live-action shots? Like Mr. T or Chuck Norris. Wait, what? The live action, like him. Right, the... but there's no archival. They didn't. There they don't have archival the footage print. of Chuck Norris randomly summing up the episode. No, no, but like maybe they didn't have a full original print of the full thing, but they had the animation parts. No, they're saying that it's like maybe the, the version they had got damaged. So they replaced I think it's it with maybe a like Duke. music and shit like that. Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah, like this is not the original music. Maybe. 
I've never heard of this in my life. This is already better than the first disc. I remember this show. I don't. It's basically just a new version of Smurfs. He's Gargamel. That dog is basically Azrael. I'm sorry, I just gotta get this opening one more time. Hold on. Hold on, hold on. Let me, I wanna get it through. <laughs> this is also the dumbest use of our time on our podcast. <laughs> right? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love it. Um. <laughs> also, just like seeing all these back to back, you just see what a template of garbage it is. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, this is the era of limited animation. And it ends at a certain point when, like, shows like Ren and Stimpy and the Rugrats, and they start to have shows that figured out how to do stuff without cutting so many corners, where they were actually trying to do the best they could. But it's like, all right, you get four painted backgrounds. Yeah. You get a couple lead characters. One of them better be cute. And also, like, you got a bad guy, you got a goofy sidekick, and some animal. Look at their voices. I'm sure glad you know where we're going, Legs. All right, I'm burning through this. Yeah. Burn. Oh, burn. Trouble in the tunnel. I feel like we're never going to do better than we do with the opening sequences. Yes. Monchi Monchi cheese. cheese. Chichis. The Grumblins? This is racist. Connor, this is racist. Against who? Someone. <laughs> I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's someone. You can feel it, but you can't quite pinpoint what it is. Well, when the woman's voice came in, went, Oh, the man cheese. You know something's. Grinchy, grumpy, grumpy. <laughs> the bad the guy just sang a song. Terrible. <laughs> terrible animation. The bad guy just sang a song that was crunchy, grumpy, grumpy, gree. We hate the munchy cheese. Yeah. I'm going to make you watch. No. <laughs> no, let's go. Move to the next one. No, I want to see what happens. <laughs> I want to see what the manchu cheese are up to. 
Do you think the grumplings are good? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so sensitive. Sunky, Sunky, where are you? This sucks so much. <laughs> It's terrible. But what's interesting is that the first disc, the first disc was one kind of show, and it got old very quickly. The second show escalated to being so much weirder, but it's all the same kind of weird. Like the biscuits, the world's tiniest dogs, and they, they for years they polished the, the richest men's treasures. But there's a greedy king across town who's wasteful, and he hates the biscuits. Then there's like the munchie cheese, but the grumblins hate the munchie cheese. <laughs> and the grumblins are like, the munchie cheese, the monkey chunky. They're just saying garbage. And none of this means anything. There's some poor. Give us out of here. Take us out of here, JD. I want to see what's next. This is so bad. Keep going. I want to see what other shows are on this. I want to see the Grumplins. Hannah Barbera should be sent to prison. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is Hannah Barbera start off directing these like Tom and Jerry cartoons for MGM. And then they come up with the Flintstones and the Jetsons and they're like, hey, you guys make good TV shows. And they're just like, oh yeah? Look <laughs> what else we can do. Huh. It's just like, oh, yeah. They just become like, every show is just the same. Well, it's, it's like a curse where it's like, oh, these are good cookies. Well, then you shall only hate cookies forever. Yeah. Well, it's like they made chocolate chip cookies and oatmeal cookies. And then they're like, hey, Hannah Barbera, you guys are pretty good making cookies. Like, yeah, here's a thousand more kinds. They're like, Hannah Barbera, these are, cookies yeah, are all terrible. This is just sugar with butter stuck to Eat it. Eat them. We keep making them. You said you liked our cookies. All right. Play. This is not the group goose. Galtar. Galtar. Uh, this is pretty boring, but it's all fantasy stuff. Get us out of Galtar quick. It just seems... It, it just looks like bad Tolkien. Hanna-Barbera. Bob Dranko. Dragon's Lair. This is the bad cartoon based on the video game. Right. But the animation is nowhere near as good as the video, the game. video game, which was Don Bluth. This is terrible animation. Get me out of here. That is horrible. I remember being so disappointed at being like, Ruby Spears. Ruby Spears. They, hey. Thundar. <laughs> the world is being destroyed in 1994 by a giant wave. Actually, back up just to the beginning of this. I want to get that 1994 thing. Turn the volume up just a little bit. Destruction. Man's civilization is cast. 
Let's get out of here. Quickie Koala. This is Quickie Koala. Yeah. Do you remember this? Yeah. It was like Mr. Magoo. Yeah. I was at a fondness for when they would say it's the blank blank show. Yeah. I'm betting the jokes aren't strong in this show, but it already has a lot more going for it. Yes. An abundance of characters. Those two dogs that are stand-ins for homeless people who are just waiting for that pot of stew at the end of the rainbow. And it's a style that's a little bit more... It's easier to take, but... It's also like wall-to-wall music behind these things, as if they're like desperate that if they yeah. pause for a second, they'll lose your attention. There's almost no... I'm going to go on a limb and say that there's almost no kids' cartoon show that's as bad as these shows now. No. They're bad in different ways. They're bad in different ways, but there's so many ways in which they are better. You stupid. You dummy. Get us out. Take us that out of here, Jay. Tex Avery. Oh, yeah. Tex Avery created this. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. That's it. That's it? That's all it. No, there's more. No. Yeah, we got to the end. Oh, that's the end? Yeah, so I was just going back because I wanted to just... Well, folks... Let me just say this. If you buy a certain volume, I don't know what it's even called, of uh, Saturday Morning Cartoons from the 80s, skip that first disc. Maybe sample Goldie Gold and Action Jack. Hey, yeah? um, do you, you want to watch the Monchi Cheese and Tickle Pickle? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> this isn't going to my Instagram stories. This is going directly onto the... 12-hour um, day. 12-hour day social Twitter. media feed. Tickle Pickle. Connor, my favorite episode of the Munchichis is when they tickle pickle. <laughs> Connor, my favorite episode of the Munchichis is when they tickle pickle. My favorite Munchichis episode is Tickle Pickle. I love Tickle Pickle. The Munchichis episode? It's my favorite Munchichis episode. God, I love Tickle Pickle. The Munchichis really know how to tickle pickle.
God. <laughs> Please make that your ringtone. Hold on, back outside. Oh, whoops. Oh, sorry. I sat on the thing. That's right. Tickle pickle. There we go. Here we go. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Fuck, I missed it. Now I have to live on forever in yours. Um. The fucking Manchi cheese. Trying to get to the tickle crystal. Oh. Um. Well, we're nearing the end here. Yeah, you want to walk me to the train station? Yeah, sure. Um. We had some last-minute requests. Yeah. Grinchy, grumpy, grumpy, <laughs> we hate Monty cheese. Jesus Christ. Mark Ledgerwood says, hope you all had a great 12-hour day. AJ McKean says, have a great night, please. Robbie says, each of you say something revealing about the other person. I feel like we have, haven't we? Let's do one quick hit. Quick hit? Oh, I don't know. I'm bad at these kind of quizzy things. Well, the problem is we know revealing things about each other, but we would not deign to say them on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like what's good about this podcast... Also, you have to stop that loop. Oh. <laughs> I feel like, isn't that good just for the rest of the podcast? That's just like quietly in the, back, quiet in the background. <laughs> I'm inclined to leave it no. as we're walking down the street, and it's just like grinchy, grinchy, grumpy, gree. Honestly, that's my true impulse. Is while we're walking to the station, I'll just keep my phone on in my pocket with it muffled. Grinchy, grinchy, grumpy. <laughs> I hate it. You love it. Someone. This was a a team of people. Spent time in a recording studio recording that. I bet they got that song on the first take. I bet they didn't. <laughs> it's got to stop. You know what we never... It has to stop. It's making me sick. 
<laughs> Stop. Um. <laughs> um. <laughs> did we ever? Did we see uh, Billy no. Stop. long halftime walk? Stop. What? Don't try to change this conversation. What do you mean? Into all this. This needs to stop. It's giving me a headache. All right. Um, did we talk about Billy Lynn's long halftime walk on an episode of this? I can't talk about anything else. It's gone. No, it's not. It's gone. It's very soft. It's gone. I can hear it. I turned it off, Jay. I can hear the gun conference. I hear the conference. <laughs> you have. You have. JD is on the floor. You have to stop. <laughs> I can't. Good cheek. It hurts. It hurts so much. Ow! Talk about Billy Lynn's, in my head. Did we? Did we? Uh, did we talk about Billy Lynn's long halftime walk? I can't walk? laugh anymore. My stomach hurts. Did we ever talk about Billy Lynn's long halftime walk on an episode? of this? No, I don't. Because that. So. When did that come out? <coughs> oh, I just need a second. I'm sorry. All right. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I just was laughing so hard that I hurt myself. That was a really <laughs> unexpected turn. <laughs> because the, it annoyed me, but then the image of it and how stupid it was just kept me laugh. But then every time I was over it, it would perfectly loop around. Yeah. Go boom, boom, <laughs> boom, boom. Grinchy, grinchy, grinchy. And it's also just the worst lyrics and the words are so bad and so yeah. dumb. This is like my kryptonite. It's destroying me. Um, I don't think we have time to talk about Billy Lynn's song after I'm walking. No, because it takes... I have like... I actually got sick of talking about it because I talked about it... So much. Everyone that I could talk to. Yeah. So it's your observations about it are the things that I tell people about it because they wouldn't have occurred to me. And I always credit you, but I just would have perceived it as a very big, like too expensive to be shot on video. Right. But your way of describing what it was, what was weird about it as a movie and what made it unique 
I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had the know how to perceive just exactly all the ways in which like the whole thing about how when you're watching it when it cuts it feels unnatural. Right. Or, so all right, let's give the quick recap then. Yeah, the recap. Just while we're here. Do we need so, to take our things? Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, so Billy Lynn's big halftime walk was Ang Lee, his newest film. Yeah. Now Ang Lee to start with is an interesting figure, because because Ang Lee has this insane batting average where like. Every third film he creates is like a blockbuster, Oscar-winning, out-of-nowhere success. Yeah. But every second film he makes is like a giant, huge risk that sometimes and often does not come through. Yeah. It like falls apart. Um, And this was a big technological... And one of the things he's famous for is trying to be technologically ahead of the game. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was a big, big attempt at that. And something that I think is really cool that he tried and something that was really bold. Mm-hmm. Now, what it is, it's a film that was shot in uh, stereoscopic 3D, which is like, you know, glasses, that kind of thing, in 4K, in 100, shot in and projected in 120 frames per second. Yeah. And now, to put some perspective... Yes, if you... To give some perspective, you remember The Hobbit was the big thing everyone was talking about because it was shot in 48 frames per second. Instead of 24. Instead of 24. And everyone was like, it looks insane. It's uh, unwatchable. It's, yeah. It's, it, it changes cinema. It ruins it. This is 120 frames per second. Yeah. That is more than twice as many frames as The Hobbit had. Yeah. So we're like, we're not at The Hobbit. We've like... Surpass that to yeah, start. Yeah, like quadruple, quintuple Hobbit. It's crazy. <laughs> so, this technology originally he wanted to use it for a film that was about uh, like the Rumble in the Jungle, the boxing match. Yeah. And uh, apparently that couldn't get funded. But what could get funded was this film, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, based on a novel. Based on a novel. The story of this film is it's about a. a Iraq War veteran or Afghanistan veteran yeah. who gets asked to be a guest at a Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. It's a very think PC character kind of. Uh, uh, let me just see what I'm doing here. Um, think PC, you know, it's like a character movie. It is yeah. not one that's about action, suspense, draw. Like, it's nothing that visually. Yeah. There's a few battle sequences. And there's a Super Bowl. And there's a Super Bowl. But otherwise, in some ways, it almost feels like it could be a play. Yes, exactly. The way the action is used, you could easily stage that as a play. Yes, in a big way. Um, how do I do this? Let's do this. I'm just going to dump it all on my backpack unceremoniously. Um, so, uh, it is shot this way. As they are shooting it... Um, they are unable to watch it in 120 frames per second because that technology is not easy to have happen. So they only get to watch it, I think, in 48 frames per second, which already is weird. Yeah. Uh, wait, I need to do this. <clears throat> so, um, where's my these headphones? So as they're shooting it, they have no idea how the final product's going to look. But yeah. as they're doing it, Ang Lee is like, oh, no, we've ventured in some uncharted territory here. Right. Because the technology is so advanced and so cumbersome that... I'm sorry, I'm just plugging in all my stuff here yeah. as I talk. It's so cumbersome and so advanced 
that the amount of time that they have to sh- to shoot this yeah. is minimal because they get like one t- one shot at every scene, like one take, just basically because the cameras are so unwieldy, the lighting is so unwieldy, everything about it is unwieldy. Yeah. So already they're in uncharted territory, and they don't have time to do multiple takes of stuff. And Ang Lee is sort of learning film language over from mm-hmm. the get-go. Yeah. So the final product of all of those things – I'm sorry. Actually, I'm going to do one quick thing also. Okay. Sorry. I'm like trying to talk and prepare all this gear. Okay. There we go. Okay. So the final result of all this when you watch the film – Uh, Or actually, I have to tell it more like this. So that's all the context to it. Sony then um, invests in this and immediately, I believe it was like, um, can you talk for a second? Yeah. Oh, great. Sony invests in this. Sony invests in this. They immediately regret it. Well, they don't regret it, but it's not until I think it's like the day before the premiere or like two days before that they're able to watch it in 120 frames per second. Yeah. Because, like, the rendering, the technology, it's just not there to do that yet. Which is insane the day before. That's insane. Yes. And so apparently they watch it, and they're like, oh, boy. Yeah. And they're, like, doing, like, re-edits, like, <clears throat> like, the days leading up. It's, like, apparently crazy. So when Sony releases it, they actually only release it, and I believe it's four theaters worldwide. Mm-hmm. Los Angeles, New York, Shanghai, and... Uh, Japan? Where? Shanghai. Is it Tokyo? In Tokyo, I think. No, I think think it was Shanghai and Hong Kong. Okay. Um, And after the first, like, two weeks, they drop... uh, They drop Hong Kong, I believe? Yeah. And then Los Angeles drops. So then the only places where you can watch it are New York and Shanghai. And in New York, it was only at the... Uh, Lincoln Center. Lincoln Center Theater, one screen. Mm-hmm. And the technology is so advanced, and the lenses are so weird, that it actually had to be a relatively small screen, even mm-hmm. though it is IMAX 4K 3D. Yeah. And um, there's like three showings a day of it. Yeah. So... Griffin Newman go, is like, we have to go see this. So I go see it with him. The screening is mostly empty, which means that, like, the amount of people who are able to see this... Oh, and they also, they release it in, in regular 2D yeah. in a bunch of places. But that's insane for reasons I'm about to explain. So we sit down and watch the movie, and there's a lot of stories about what Ang Lee had to do. So first... There's like this whole article you can find online with his production designer. His production designer is like, usually when you're painting a location, you have to do like four or five coats of paint to make it life and give it texture and make it look like there's age to what's going on. Yeah. Production designer is like, (coughs) when we did this, we had to do like 20 coats of paint because it it looks real on camera. Right. And it was obvious. Angley had to teach his actors how to act without moving because movement felt weird. Yeah. So... There's all these stories going into it. We sit down and watch it. The first shot comes on. The entire audience is like laughs out loud. Yeah. Because the camera, like the projector turns on 
and instead of looking like you're staring at a movie screen, it looks like there's just a giant hole in the theater and you are staring at a giant set in yeah. front of you. And it is absolutely, completely bizarre. And then throughout the movie, what happens is that it just looks like there's giant actors standing on a <laughs> stage behind this window performing this movie. And so normal things that the, 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 the qualities of cinema mask are not masked. Like usually like you'll be on set shooting something and you'll be like, man, this looks fake. It just looks like weird. And then you look at a model and you're like, oh no, it looks like a movie. This is not that. Yeah. This is just the fake like you see all of reality yeah so like when you're seeing an actor in this movie it because of the technology it looks like you're watching an actor try to say lines and you see the anxiety and the levels of artifice you see their clothes and because it's 120 frames like it, it looks so real it looks like you can grab them you're like oh those clothes don't look like they've been worn that much or like right. or even weirder stuff, you start looking around the set and you're like, why is that Coke can so clean in the background? Yeah. Like, why? How come uh, How come that thing's not plugged in? Like, you start yeah. noticing stuff like you would notice it if you were in the room with it. Yeah. It's very bizarre. I'm oh, sorry, the trans of our bus. Um, then some weird stuff starts happening. Number one, editing is strange. Anytime there is coverage within a scene that cuts, it gets bizarre because, again, it feels like you're looking into a window. So anytime it cuts and the camera moves, you feel like you've just been, like, transported somewhere. Right. Then there's this other stuff that happens where some actors are really good and playing naturalistic, and then some actors feel fake. Yeah. Like, Steve Martin's in it, and I love Steve Martin. But in this movie, it feels like you're watching Steve Martin try to act. Then, there is some really bizarre stuff that happens. Um, one of the things is because of the way the lenses and the technology works, if you are looking at, um, oh wait, my metro card might be out, but I have to refill it anyways. Um, if you're looking at a scene, uh -huh. normally because of the way lensing works, things in the background are out of focus. Yeah. And this, they're not out of focus, or if they are, they're completely clean and completely visible. So like. There is this like one, let's see. Huh. Like there is this one shot where they're all in this limousine. Yeah. And there's like a tiny sliver of the window you can see. And through the window, they're supposed to be driving by a tailgating party. And yeah. normally in a movie, it would just be, you just see shapes in the background. Uh -huh. In this, suddenly you start noticing all of the background actors vividly miming doing tailgate stuff. And you're not watching the scene. Now you're watching like, how come that guy in the background is like fake yeah. throwing a football or like fake sipping that cup? Yeah. Likewise, there's like scenes where they're sitting among the crowd. Yeah. And normally you would focus it so that you're focused just on the main characters. Instead, this background actor who's like 10 rows away. Yeah. You can see them just as clearly as the main characters, and you're like, what's that person doing? So it brings up all these bizarre questions about cinema, the language of film, how it works, 
it changed the definitions of so many things. Yeah. Like there was a scene where, um, also it's a bizarre cast. There's a scene where, uh, what's his name, um, Chris Tucker gives a speech and he looks, it's a close up of him and he's looking into the lens yeah. and it looks like there's a giant Godzilla-sized Chris Tucker yeah. peering into the window of the theater, like talking to, it's so bizarre. Yeah. So anyways, Billy Lynn's Big Half Time Walk. It is a... But I remember when I went to see it primarily because you, I think a fair amount of people who went to see it in, in New York and therefore in the total of its run were because you and Griffin were talking about it on Facebook. Yeah. As like, this is your only chance in cinema history maybe to see a movie like this, like this. Yes. I don't think this technology will ever be used again for a narrative film like this. Because it was so bizarre. Yeah. And again, there was only two theaters in the world where you could see it. One of them was in New York. One was in like Shanghai by the end yeah. of it. So like the number of people who saw it was not high. Yeah. And then beyond that, like, I wonder if this technology will ever be used again because it seems so expensive and this was such a financial loss. Yeah. But movies like Baraka Samsara, um, Planet Earth documentaries. Yeah. Imagine Planet Earth with this cut technology. Yeah. It would be insane. Yeah. But I have a feeling it just might never happen. So this might be one of those things where it's like, it could this was the this. only time that this technology was used. It was used for this bizarre drama. And for a movie that, even without all the technological things, there were just things in the movie that were bizarre. Yes. It, without the technology, it would still be a bizarre movie. But with the Because it's a movie about a bunch of soldiers who are supposed to perform with Destiny's Child uh, at a Super Bowl show. But part of the conceit is that there was no rehearsal where they yes. even walked through it. They were just, ex- it was explained to them behind the scrim before the scrim was lifted. Afterwards, they lingered too long on the stage and a bunch of Teamsters got mad at them. And they got into an argument that then leads to the Teamsters deciding to ambush these soldiers as they're heading to their limousine that's going to take them back to be shipped back to, directly back to Iraq. Yeah. Uh, and it's just so like. There's also a fake Destiny's Child like, yeah. lookalikes like it's so weird yeah and it's also like uh, the way that like there's no group of like teamsters or stage technicians anywhere that would treat a bunch of active duty soldiers so disrespectfully it just wouldn't happen not a whole even if you found one guy who did it this way all the other people would be like it's just a halftime show like leave him alone and what's even bizarre is like these plot things stick out even more because you couldn't get into the movie because the entire time you just felt like you were standing in a room watching people play act these bizarre scenes for a reason that seemed unclear. Yeah. Like it, what it felt like would be like if you walked into your apartment one day yeah. and like a bunch of people were standing around there and you're like, whoa, why are you in my apartment? And they're like, I'm a police officer and I'm here trying to get all of... Uh, you motherfucker. <laughs> the amazing thing about it was I was realizing that like you can't hear it because you're in the headphones so I, I, so I held it up my phone up to my microphone. Um, it was amazing. I just think it's so interesting. And there were so many things like camera coverage. Anytime the camera moved, it was disorienting. Clearly, they tried to shoot coverage like a normal movie, but then 
realized in Washington that they couldn't do it. Yeah. So they were stuck with these long takes that clearly weren't not intended to be long takes. It was so interesting. And there were yeah. certain actors that it worked for and certain that didn't. So it was weird watching a movie where, like... They don't match. They don't match at all. Because... And the thing is, the way that they didn't match was different than any other movie. Because presumably that happens in a lot of movies where, like, yeah. one actor's... But instead of it being like you have the acting styles naturally find their balance that you kind of can make sense of it you couldn't you no. couldn't make sense of one actor being slightly better than another in a scene and that's the other thing is they couldn't use any makeup either because you would see it yeah the lighting was insane <clears throat> because it, when you're shooting 120 frames per second uh, uh, your, sh- your shutter is going by like that much faster yeah. like whatever, eight times faster. Yeah. So it means you need eight times as much light, but because of how real everything looks, any tiny falsehood rings Super clearly fun. through it. So if you're lighting eight times as much, you have to be like a million times less obvious about it. So it led to these like bizarre lighting scenarios. Like there's this one scene where they're supposed to be in Afghanistan in this house, and they clearly shot it in a studio, and you immediately can tell that it's on a studio, and you can't tell why, yeah. but it's just the details of the world and the way the light's bouncing off things because it looks so real and nothing is blended yeah. because of the 120 frames, 4K, all that stuff. You're just like, this is fake and I know it and it feels weird. Yeah. You notice when their jackets are slightly too new. <clears throat> it's so bizarre. I wonder what it looks like on home video. I'm sure it's insane. As in like, just like, seems like a bad movie. Yeah. <sighs> what what did it look like for people who were watching it in 2D? Just a regular movie. Yeah. A regular movie with like probably edits that you're like, why didn't they cut this scene more? Yeah. It probably looked like a rough rough cut. Yeah. <sighs> Tom, this has been a good 12-hour day. I think it has been a good 12-hour day. It's nice hanging out with you. Yeah. And I normally don't feel good after the 12-hour days, but this one felt very... Uh, Carefree and painless. It was back to basics. We didn't. Back to we basics. Didn't, uh, there's no bells and whistles to this. No stress. No mess. And because we haven't seen each other in a while, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think. I'm trying to think of movies that are uh, screenings that are showing up soon. Right. I'm going to see Barry Lyndon next weekend with one of those like or live orchestra things. Oh, cool. But then I noticed beforehand that Nashville is showing in the Metrograph, and so I'm trying to figure out if I have time to see Nashville and then make it to King's Theater Damn. after it. And then I also saw, finally, at long last, uh, Anna Maria posted a response to my long-ago tweet that if Midnight Run ever shows at a theater in Manhattan, I think it's showing at like Lincoln Center uh, a couple of weeks from now. I would go to those. I've been tired with this new job and haven't seen that many things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to catch up on a lot of stuff. Um, and I'm trying to think what else is uh, happening. Uh, if there's anything else going on anytime soon. Um,
what is going on? Did you listen to the last episode of 12 Hour Day? Parts of it. I, did you hear the end part? No. When I picked up the Korean radio station? No, yeah, I'll, I'll go listen to it. It was so weird. I like started scratching my head, and suddenly I started hearing this music, and then I moved around, and I picked up a signal of like a Korean radio station playing pop music. You can hear it all in the blast. It was so bizarre. So I was like, all right, well, that's... What is that noise? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, it got louder. Whoa, it's getting louder. I touched my head. And then I was like, let me move. Oh, my God. And then I just got the full signal. Were you the antenna? I think I was. Someone on the subreddit was trying to explain it. Oh, yeah, go to the subreddit. I like when people post on the subreddit. Yeah, I do, too. I haven't been to it in a while, you, you, Gethard reads every post on the subreddit. Really? Yeah. He's never listened to an episode of the show. I don't think so, but I think he reads and often responds on the subreddit. <laughs> I think he likes that there's a community of people that listen to the show. Yeah. So let's start some subreddit conversations. Let's uh, prime the pump for the conversation about this episode. I'm going to try to get this episode out quickly. Um, Maybe by tomorrow. Like, what? not by tomorrow, but tomorrow I'll do it. What do you mean? Like, tomorrow I'll edit it together, so yeah. it'll be out on Monday morning. Woo! Woo! Why wait? Grab a Snickers. Why wait? Grab a Snickers. 12 heads, if you can find the audio of the Manchichi's Grumplin's chant, please, let's archive that forever. Uh, I think they have a few options just lifting it directly from this. I don't know if we have any clean ones, though. Because I, I don't think we do. Uh-oh. Here comes the train. Here comes the train. Here comes the train. Doodle doo doo. Here um, comes the train, and I said... It's, it's all been a good, good 12, 12 hour day. day. Um, do you want me to take the mic or leave the mic? Take the mic. That's how we end it. All right. Um, why change it now? Why change now? Here we are. The end train is arriving. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on the train. And JD's going to remain on the platform. And then we'll say goodbye to each other as the train pulls away. Yeah. You know the drill. You know the drill. All right. Seems like a nice car. Good night, JD. It's a it's nice, been a good 12-hour nice day. day. Give me a hug. Great to see you. You're a good friend, Connor. You're a good friend, JD. And uh, let's see. Let's see. I'm looking at JD through the window. Of and the everyone in the train is looking at Connor. But I can't hear Curiously him. wondering what he's he doing. Hear me. So long, Connor. So we'll just record. He's going to walk alongside the side of the train as I slowly... Icon. Not hurt again. JD will keep talking. About Well, that was 12-hour day, episode 13. Oh, that was a good episode. I'm, uh, I'm glad we did that. Something felt pretty easy. It's also been a while. And I'm in a pretty good spirits right now, so I think that helps. Just life stuff in general is going well. Um, 
someone on Twitter, I forget who, was asking if we could talk about how to deal with stuff when it feels like everything's piling up. I think that was the exact phraseology. Here, I'll look to see what it exactly was. And then I'll respond to that. It was exactly... I'm going to get pizza, too, because I haven't eaten dinner. Get Connor home safely. Um, how do you both manage things, your time when things start to feel overwhelming? Um, when things start to feel overwhelming, I cut out the things that I don't want to do. So if there's things that I feel duty-bound to do that I don't want to do, I just choose, I decide I'm not going to do them. And the other thing I do is lists um, which sounds like one of those dumb like solutions to a problem but really what it is is things start feeling overwhelming because you only have so many slots to remember stuff and so you start expending all this extra energy trying to remember all the stuff that you need to stay on top of and um, that's what causes for I'll say for me that's what causes me to have trouble sleeping to lose focus when I'm doing other stuff because of stress. Um, so what has been helpful is I basically just um, write down everything I have to do, even if it's like small stuff. Even if like uh, <laughs> set out clothes for tomorrow, brush teeth, any of that stuff, I will write all of that down on a list. And I will keep that list on my desk or in my pocket. And as I do the things, I cross them off, both because crossing those things off starts feeling good and you create momentum but also then uh, you allow it allows your brain to remove them from its mental cue um, so you're not spending all this mental energy trying to manage and balance all the stuff that you have to have to, have to do because you know it's on a list um, and legitimately like when I work on shows I have like a reporter's pad and every day I just write down anything that I have to even if it's like respond to Dan's email I will write that down so then I just don't have to remember that. Um, I feel like when things are overwhelming, um, you should spend all of your brain space solving problems and doing things and spend no brain space remembering the things that you have to do. Um, that's my biggest advice. And the sort of other practical human side of it is you should always make sure that you are sleeping as much as you need. You are eating uh, enough full meals a day, you are talking to other humans, and you are exercising. Um, and that sounds like stuff where it's like, it's overwhelming, I don't have time. Like, make time for those things um, because those are the things that will ground you and keep you feeling human. Um, and for me, the times that I've spun out of control have been because I have not done those things. Um, and I've let those things slide. So don't let those things slide. Those are important things. So that's the other thing is that if things are overwhelming, you're only going to get out of it by being sharp and solving the things that are in front of you. And so you have to be mentally able to do that and spending your energy doing that and physically. And the mental aspect is not having to worry about other stuff, like remembering all the things you have to do. And the physical side is not letting uh, that stuff make you weaker physically because basically once you start 
once you start not sleeping or not eating, you get worse at solving problems. And so you just, the hole gets deeper. So fix those things first. Um, and uh, it, it gets it gets easy to solve big things. And, um, you know, a lot of the self-help stuff and the problem-solving methods and there's all these classes you can take, it all boils down to similar versions of the same thing of write down the things you have to do, the goals, anything, just like write everything down, make it concrete, and then start achieving them. Um, there's a military thing that I learned, which is, and I think I've talked about it on the show, um, where every morning... Um, no matter what, even if things went horribly or things went great or you're in a bad spot or something, um, you're always taught to make your bed, the military, like, four-corner bed, um, and do it the right way. And um, one of the re- things that's been explained to me is that one of the reasons that they have you do that is because sometimes you're going to go into situations where the things you're supposed to achieve are impossible or uncertain or terrifying or overwhelming, and so it feels good mentally and psychologically and helps you achieve those bigger things or helps you prepare for those bigger things if the first thing you do in the morning is succeed at something, if you achieve something and get something done, even if that thing that you get done is as simple as making your bed. That's the first thing off your list, and you've done something. Um, and it sounds goofy and maybe, um, you know, a little dramatic um, but I find that to be the case that when I'm at my lowest lows are overwhelmed like do the simple things um, make the bed take the shower do the laundry do whatever the small things are because um, those things start building up to the bigger things and if you're having trouble tackling a bigger problem or a bigger thing or getting something big done um, start with some small stuff build momentum because it does build that's like one of the reasons why, and I know I'm not alone like this, oh, when I have something big to do, I start cleaning my apartment. And sure, there might be a procrastination element, but I think a lot of it also is like charging up efficacy, charging up the ability to get things done. And so once I get in that cleaning mode, suddenly I my brain is targeted towards solving problems and cleaning stuff and doing stuff, and then the bigger problems seem easier. You know, it's like running if you just go from laying down your bed to a full sprint you're probably going to hurt yourself but if you warm up and stretch and jog and do all that stuff it'll be much easier so anyways that's my recommendation all right i've rambled on for maybe a little bit too long but uh stress and anxiety oh yeah and ramona ramona you asked about anxiety attacks i want to talk about that real quick um Anxiety attacks are something that I started having a couple years ago, and they were pretty bad and uh, really overwhelming. I think the first one that I had, I it, it lasted for like three days, and I was on the floor of my apartment, couldn't get dressed, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't talk. I thought that I was like dying. I thought that this is I'd broken myself, and this is who I was now. Um, and one of the things that helped me is that, number one, I started seeking professional help, and that was uh, a big change for me. But the other thing was that um, I learned that it will get better and that, that you will not always have to deal with that, and that there's ways to 
um, help yourself and deal with those things and uh, and I got your back and yeah you just have to um, similar to what I was saying before is the, one of the things that I learned is that um, the small stuff builds up to the big stuff um, the small anxieties even though they seem goofy and small they can combine together to become big anxieties um, it's like clouds you know <laughs> like they combine become bigger and bigger and bigger and so while it feels overwhelming and huge sometimes it might just be an amalgamation of a lot of small things and so while it feels like the solution needs to be something as big and powerful as the negative feelings that you're feeling sometimes it's really about a series of small adjustments you make in your life small adjustments on your perspective that can make you feel better and uh, another thing to keep in mind and that I think is important is don't try to face those things alone. Um, talk to the people in your life that love you and care for you, and sometimes you just need someone else to help ground you. Um, so yeah, that's my anxiety attack stuff. I have a lot more I could say about that, but it happens, it's real. It's funny because I never had them for a while, and so whenever I heard people talk about anxiety attacks or panic attacks or any of that, I was sort of like, okay, like, yeah, just getting stressed out or overwhelmed. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's an attack. And I honestly felt people were maybe being a little dramatic when they talk, talked about attacks and this and that. And then it wasn't until I started having them that I realized how real and different it was than the stuff that I had been feeling and dealing with um, in the past. So that's something to keep in mind, too, if you hear me talking about this and you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, trust me that it's a thing that's very real it's you know there's psychological aspects there's chemical aspects to it um, and you know if you're not dealing with it just know that it's something that people do deal with and even if they are extremely together people who are on top of things and good you know um, efficient proactive reasonable logical people like you know I'm someone who my whole career is solving problems and calm under pressure, but I suffer from anxiety attacks and anxiety and all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, it's not a, it's not, it's not a reflection of my ability to solve problems or do good work or be proactive or be reasonable or logical or calm. It's really, it's separate from that, which is also something that, uh, I have to remind myself a lot just because when you do feel anxiety it's often from things that you don't realize or I mean the thing that I've learned about myself is that when I'm feeling anxiety it's usually from something that's causing me anxiety that I'm not consciously um, addressing and that's why it's causing me anxiety is it's this thing that I know is in the back of my head but that I'm just not addressing because I don't know it's complicated or it's part of some aspect of myself that I'm trying to figure out and I don't have the answer quite yet or the answer is tough but when I feel anxiety I will sort of ask myself okay there's been a shift in my perspective right now like what is it what's happening and usually it's it's pretty simple and it's the answer is buried pretty closely nearby um, and once I realize that I think even my brain is able to go like okay we know what this is um, 
but yeah, and like I was saying, I think I've already said this, but sleep, food, exercise, people, those are important things, and I think they help anxiety too. Don't let yourself get caught in this sort of empty Grand Canyon of your own thoughts, because that can get uh, that can get scary. Not scary in a bad way. It can be scary in a way that your own thoughts amplify back at you and you you lose context. So those are my advice things for those two. Anyways, this is now, I've turned this into my own like personal podcast, which I don't need to do. All right, I'm going to get some pizza. How are you? Oh, good. How are you? Yeah, can I eat two slices of pepperoni? Good memory. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you okay? Everything all right? Formally. Formally was good. Good, yeah, thank you so much. Thank Have you. A good day. You too. Have a good night. All right. I... Nothing really uh, noteworthy happened as I was uh, getting pizza. Sent some text messages. But that's about it. Anyways. I've been feeling good lately. Um, I hope you guys are doing good. I know it's weird that we do the podcast much less than we used to. Um, But I feel like it's something we have to let be natural. You sort of can't force a 12-hour day. Um, If you force it, it ends up feeling really bad. And I think in... I think we'd not cheapen it, not say that this is not this is some this is some fancy high flutant whatever, but it it complicates it if it's forced. It um, it's a project that has to feel natural and has to come naturally. So even though that means sometimes it's whatever six months between episodes. I appreciate that you guys still stick with it and still listen when it comes out and still engage with us online and um, hopefully it doesn't bum you guys out. But I don't think this will be a thing that we necessarily stop ever. It's just maybe the amount of time between episodes will change. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll do an episode in a week. I doubt that somehow. But I think it's just something we got to let... happen naturally anyways i'm just rambling thank you guys for listening and being part of this i hope you had a good 12 hour day i know i did ow my eye um good night it may not be night for you but i don't i just don't want to say goodbye <laughs>